settlers, the myth of the white proletariat, by J.C. Read by Desley. Introduction. One day, a friend introduced me to a young African brother who was selling things on the sidewalk outside a large office building. When our talk turned to this book, the young brother looked up proudly and said, I already know everything about a white man, and he knows nothing about me. As we were talking away, I couldn't help thinking how many people had the same thought. Because they know that the white man is completely racist and treacherous, they wrongly assume that they know all about his society. This is really the point that this book begins from. In fact, the 1960 breakthrough of ethnic studies programs in universities has been turned around and used against us. We are getting imperial sponsored and imperialist finance, Asian studies, black studies, Puerto Rican studies, Indian studies, ethnic studies, which back down our throats. Some of the most prominent third world intellectuals in the U.S. empire are getting paid with salaries by imperialists to teach us our histories. Why? U.S. imperialism would rather that all third world people in their empire remain totally blank and ignorant about themselves, their nations, their cultures, their pasts, about each other, about everything except going to work in the morning. But that day is over. So instead, they oppose enlightenment by getting into a form, but not in essence. Like jujitsu, our original demand that our separate and unique histories be uncovered and recognized is now being used to throw us off our ideological balance. The imperialists promote wide down and distorted versions of our past as oppressed third world nations and peoples. The imperialists even see that our standard U.S. history is a white history and is supposedly incomplete unless a long suppressed third world history is added to it. Why? The key to the puzzle is that their story, imperialist Euro American mystery, is not incomplete. It isn't true at all. Their story also includes the standard class analysis of America as put forward in our hands by the Euro American left. Their story keeps saying over and over, you folks just think about your own history, don't bother analyzing white society, just accept what we tell you about it. In other words, it is the British liberals and quote socialists that told African anti colonial revolutionaries in Ghana or Kenya to just study their own quote traditions, but not study the British Empire. Their story is not incomplete at all. It's a series of complete lies and ideological worldview cleverly designed to further imperialist domination of the oppressed. This work throws a light of sort of materialism on Babylon itself. For so long, the oppressed have been the objects of investigation by your imperialist sociology, anthropology, psychology, etc. All to further pass time and control us. Anthropology, for example, has origins as intelligence service for European globalization of the world. Now it is time to scientifically examine the oppressed society. The final point we must make is that this document, while it deals with aspects of our history within the U.S. Empire, is nothing like the history of Asians here, nor is it the history of Indian nations, the African nation, Azadlam, or other world nations or peoples. While we discuss their world struggles and movements, this is not a critical examination of these political developments. This is a reconnaissance in time carefully. End of introduction. Settlers by Jay Sakai. Chapter 1. A Heart of Whiteness. Section. The Land is the Basis of Nationhood. The key to understanding America is to see that there was a chain of European settled colonies that expanded into a separate empire. To go back and understand the lives and consciousness of the early English settlers is to see the embryo of today's American empire. This is a larger picture that allows us to finally relate the class conflicts of settler Euro-Americans to the world's struggle. The mythology of white masses holds that those early settlers were the poor England, convicts, and workers who came to America in search of freedom or a better way of life. Actually, that's all nonsense. The celebrated pilgrims of Plymouth Rock, for example, didn't even come from England, although they were English. They had, years before, emigrated as a religious colony of Holland, where they had lived in peace for over a decade. But in Holland, these predominantly middle class people had to work inside labor for others. This was too hard for them, so they came to North America in search of less work and more money. At first, according to the rules of their faith, they farmed the land in common and shared equally. Soon, their greed led them to fight with each other, slide knowledge, assign tasks, etc. Until the colony leaders had given to separate desires and divide up the land, giving, quote, to every family a parcel of land. This is typical of the English invasion forces. A study of roughly 10,000 settlers who left Bristol from 1654 to 85 shows that less than 15% were proletarian. Most were youth from the lower middle classes, gentlemen and professionals, 1%, yeomen and husbandmen, 48%, artisans and tradesmen, 29%. The typical age was 22 to 24 years. In other words, the sons and daughters of the middle class, with experience in agriculture and craft skills, were the ones who thought they had a chance in America. What made North America so desirable for these people? Land. Your American liberals and radicals have rarely dealt with the land question. We could say that they don't have to deal with it, since their people already have land. What lured Europeans to leave their homes and cross the Atlantic was the chance to share in conquering Indian land. At that time, there was a crisis in England over land ownership and tenancy due to the rise of capitalism. One scholar, your invasion, comments on this. Began a long quote. Land hunger was rife on all classes. Wealthy clothiers, traders, and merchants who had done well and wished to set themselves up in land were avidly watching market, ready to pay almost any price for what was offered. Even prosperous young often could not get the land they desired their younger sons. It is commonplace to say that land was a great inducement to the new world had to offer, but it is difficult to overestimate its psychological importance to people in whose minds land had always been identified with security, success, and the good things of life. End quote. It was these younger sons, despairing of owning land in their own country, who were willing to gamble on the colonies. The brutal enclosure acts and the ending of many hereditary tendencies acted as a further push in the same direction. These were principal reasons given on emigration lists of 1773 to 76 for settling America. So that participating in the settler invasion of America was a relatively easy way out of the desperate class struggle in England for those seeking a privileged life. Note. This hard for us to imagine how chaotic and difficult English life was in the transitional period. The common capitalism has all the traditional theories and values of feudal England, and finance is the most satisfactory of the general standard. During the course of the 16th century, wages and building trades went down by over half, while the price of firewood, wheat, and other necessities soared by five times. By encouraging this outflow, the British ruling class will further their empire and ease opposition at home to their increasing concentration of wealth and power. And the new settlers, lusting for individual land and property, were willing to endure hardships and uncertainties for this prize goal. They were even more willing to kill for it. End of Then, too, many English farmers and artisans couldn't face the prospect of being forced down into the position of wage labor. Traditionally, higher labor was considered so low in English society that they went far below in their failures and were considered degraded outcasts. Many English, including the Lillers, the anti-capitalist revolutionary outbreak of the 17th century, 
fought many labors to lose their civil rights and English citizenship. Public opinion was so strong on this that the early English textile factories were filled with Irish and Welsh immigrants, children from poor houses, and single women. So changing the ocean's land was not some mundane career decision, but comparing knowledge to the sense of these It was a desperate measure for continued status and self-respect. The various colonies competed with each other in offering inducements to new settlers. In the South, the head right system gave each new settler 50 acres for transporting themselves from England. Eventually, Pennsylvania and Carolina offered even more land per settler as a lure. And land was, quote, dirt cheap for Europeans. In Virginia, 10 shillings bought track of 100 acres. In Pennsylvania, the best land sold per acre at what carpenter earned in a day. When new communities of invaders were started on the edges of conquered areas, the settlers simply divided up land. For example, when Wellington, Connecticut, was founded in 1670, each settler family got acres. This amount was not unusual, since colonial America was an orgy of land grabbing. In fact, much of the land at first wasn't even purchased or rented. It was simply taken over and settled. As much as two-thirds of the land in Pennsylvania during the 1700s was occupied by white squatters protected by settler solidarity. So central was the possession of land in the personal plans of the English settlers, but throughout the colonial period, there was a shortage of skilled labor. Richard Morse's study of labor in colonial America included, quote, in Maine, the ultimate economic objective of colonial workmen was security through agriculture rather than industry. As soon as the workmen accumulated a small amount of money, he could, and in many cases did, take out the tract of land and settle on it as a farmer. End quote. Where land was not available, settlers refused to come, period. This is why the British West Indies, with their favorable climate, were less attractive to these new settlers than in New England. As early as 1665, a member of Barbados Assembly complained, noting that the limited space of that island had already been bought up. Quote, now we can get few English servants, having no lands to give them at the end of their time, which formerly was their main allurement. End quote. And British servants, their terms up, would lead the Indies by the thousands for America. It was this alone that drew so many Europeans to colonial North America. The dream in a settled of each man becoming a petty lord of his own land. Thus, the tradition of individualism and egalitarianism in America was rooted in the poison concept of equal privileges for a new nation of European conquerors. End of section. Settlers by J.C. Guy. Chapter 1, Section 2. The Foundations of Settler Life. The life of European settlers and the class structure of their society was abnormal because it was dependent upon foundational conquest, genocide, and enslavement. The myth of the self-sufficient white settler family, clearing the wilderness, and supporting themselves through their own initiative and hard labor, is a problem of fabrication. It is the absolute characteristic of settler society to be parasitic, dependent upon the exploitation of oppressed peoples for its side of life. Never has the European society completely supported itself. This is the decisive factor in the consciousness of all classes and strata of white society from 1600 to now. Settler society was raised up above the level of backward old Europe by foundational conquest. This conquest was a miracle drug for European peoples with the reaction of became feudalism and deadly capitalism. Shot in the veins of the Spanish Revolution, for instance, the miracle drug of New World Conquest gave Spain the momentary power to overrun North Africa, Holland, and Italy before first historical instant land. For the English settlers, this conquest made real the bourgeois vision of building a whole new European society. Like many such quote fixes, for Euro Americans, this conquest was a victim. It was handed and rapidly indispensable, not only culturally, but in the mechanism of a society whose lifeblood was new conquest. We will examine this later in the relationship of settlers to imperialism. For now, it is not to see that this conquest is a material fact of great magnitude, an economic and social event as important as the emergence of a factory system or the exploitation of trolling in the Middle East. We stress the obvious here because the Euro American settlers have always made light of their invasion and occupation, although conquered territory is a precondition by whole society. Traditionally, European settler societies throw off the propaganda smokescreen that they didn't really conquer and dispossess nations. They claim with false modesty that they merely moved into vacant territory. So the early English settlers depicted America as empty, quote, a howling wilderness, unsettled, sparsely populated, just waiting with a vacant sign on the door for the first lucky civilization to walk in and claim it. The Euro Roosevelt wrote defensively in 1900, quote, The settler and pioneer had not been bombed and justice on their side. This great continent could not have been kept as nothing but a game preserve for swallowed savages. End quote. Picture a map of tribal and cultural areas of North America. It is telling that this line is precisely the same line forward by white Africaner settlers, who claim that South Africa was literally totally uninhabited by any Africans when they arrived in Europe. The universal division, these European settlers claim to be the only rightful historic inhabitants of South Africa. Or we can hear similar advances forward by European settlers of Israel, who claim that much of Palestinian land and buildings they occupy are rightfully theirs, since the Arabs allegedly decided to voluntarily abandon it all during the 1948 to 49 war. Are these kind of tales any less for when put forward by Euro American settlers? America was, quote, spacious and, quote, sparsely populated, only because the European invaders destroyed whole civilizations and killed off millions of Native Americans to take the land and profits they want. We all know that when the English arrived in Virginia, for example, they encountered an urban, village dwelling society far more skilled today than the arts of medicine, agriculture, fishing, and government. Footnote. The first government of the new USA, that the Articles of Confederation, was totally unlike any in all Europe, and had an influence by the government of the Six Nation Europe Confederation. End of footnote. This civilization was reflected in a chain of 300 Indian nations and peoples stretched from the Arctic Circle to the tip of South America. Many of them had highly developed societies. There was, in fact, a greater population in these Indian nations in 1492 than in all of Western Europe. Recent solid estimates indicate that at the time of Columbus, there were 100 million Indians in the hemisphere, 10 million in North America, 25 million in Central Mexico, with an additional 65 million elsewhere in Central and South America. These numbers have long been concealed, since they derived the logical question of what happened to this great mass of people. The European invaders, Spanish, Dutch, English, Portuguese, and French, simply killed off millions and millions to safeguard their conquest of the land and provide the disposable slave labor they needed to launch their new world. Conservative Western historical estimates show that the Spanish, quote, reduced the Indian population of their colonies from some 50 million to only 4 million by the end of the 17th century. 
And from the 10 million Indians that once inhabited North America, after four centuries of southern invasion and rule, there were in 1900 perhaps 200 to 300,000 surviving descendants in the USA. That was a very substantial down payment toward the continuing, continuing blood price that the world nations have to pay to sustain the Euro-American way of life. So when we hear that the settlers push out the Indians or force the Indians to leave their traditional hunting grounds, we know these are just cool phrases that were politely to most barbaric genocide imaginable. It could well be the greatest crime in all human history. Only here, the Yale Hyphens and Hunter Himmlers have names like Benjamin Franklin and Andrew Jackson. The point is, the genocide was not an accident, not an excess, not the unintended side effect of other European growth. Genocide was a necessary and deliberate act of capitalists and their settler shock troops. The quote, final solution to the quote, India problem was so widely expected by whites that it was openly spoken of as a commonplace thing. At the turn of the century, a newspaper as quote, respectable as the New York Times could adequately threaten that those people who oppose the New World Capitalist order would quote, be extinguished like the North American Indian. Only a relatively handful of Indians survived the time of great extermination campaigns. You see, the land wasn't empty after all, and for America to exist, the settlers had to literally make the land empty. The second aspect of colonial America's foundation was, of course, slavery. It is hardly necessary to repeat here the well known history of that exploitation. What is necessary is to underline how universal European capitalist life was dependent on slavery, and how this exploitation dictated the very structure of Euro American society. A picture of Dutch English settlers uniting the slaughter of the Qua, 1637. The mythology of the white masses pretends that while the eagle planter and the merchant grew fat on the profits of this light labor, the quote, poor white of the South, the northern small farmer, and white worker were all involved in slavery and benefited not all from it. The mythology suggests that slavery even lowered the civilian standard of the white masses by supposedly pulling down wages and monopolizing vast tracts of farmland. Thus, it is alleged slavery was not in the interest of the white masses. Footnote. Similar arguments relative to today are advanced by the don't divide working class revisionists who want to convince us that the Euro American masses are victims of imperialism, just like us. End quote. Yet Karl Marx observed, quote, cause slavery to disappear and you have white America off the map of nations. End quote. Marx was writing during the zenith of the economy of the mid 1800s, but this most basic fact is true from the very beginnings of European settlement in America. Without slave labor, there would have been no America. It is as simple as that. Long before the economy of the South flourished, for example, African slaves literally built the city of New York. They were alone and they were the original Dutch settlers to be fed and sheltered while pursuing their drinking, gambling, fur trading, and other non labor activities. Africans were not only much earlier New York's farmers, carpenters, and blacksmiths, but also across much of the city's the Dutch settlers were so dependent on African labor for the basis of life that their government finally had to grant some African slaves both freedom and land in return for their continued food production. The African-owned land on Manhattan included what is now known as Grand Village, Astor Place, and Herald Square. Later, the English settlers would pass laws against African land ownership and take these tracts from the free Africans. Manhattan was thus twice stolen from oppressed peoples. Indian slavery was also important in supporting the settler invasion of on the world. From New England, where pious pilgrims sold them, quote, servants, to South Carolina, the forced labor of Indian slaves was essential to the very survival of the young colonies. In fact, the profits from the Indian slave trade were the economic mainstay of the settler invasion of the Carolinas. In 1708, the English settlers in Carolinas had a population of 1,400 Indian slaves to 2,900 slaves to 5,300 Europeans. Indian slaves were common throughout the colonies. In 1730, the settlers of Kingston, Rhode Island, had 223 Indian slaves, as well as 333 African slaves. As late as 1740, we know that some 14,000 Indian slaves labored in the plantations of South Carolina. The reported number of Indian slaves in colonial English settlements was only a small indication of the larger picture, since most Indian slaves were sold to Jamaica, Barbados, and other West Indian colonies. One reason for the depopulation of the most numerous Indian peoples of the southern colonies was the unrestrained ravages of the slave trade. In the first five decades of the English settlement of the Carolinas, it appears that the main cash export item was Indian slaves. Armed expeditions made a large of Indian public soldiers already addicted to rum and other capitalist consumer goods, scoured the countryside for Indians to capture and sell. The total sold away is unknown, but large. We do know that in just six years after 1704, some 12,000 Indian slaves were sold out of Charleston to the West Indies. Additional uncounted thousands of Indian slaves were exported from the other settlements of the Middle and New England colonies. Indian slaves in large numbers were very difficult to deal with, since the settlers were trying to hold them on terrain that was more theirs than the raiders. Usually, the minimum precaution would be to, in fact, swap Indian slaves around, with New England using slaves in the colonies, and vice versa. In most cases, the slave catchers killed almost all the old Indian men as too dangerous to keep around, only saving women and children for sale. But by 1715, the divers conspiracies, insurrections of rebellious Indian slaves had reached a point where all the New England colonies are any further imports of Indian slaves. The Pilgrims of New England had seen that the most profitable and safe use of Indian slaves was to sell them abroad. Indeed, the wife and annual son of King Philip, the great leader of the 1675 Indian uprising, were sold in the West Indian as was even then customary with many African Indians. Thus, the early settlers were not just the passive beneficiaries of far-off African slave trade. They bankrolled their settlements in part with the profits of their own eager explorations in the day of slavery. The point is that white America has never been self-sufficient, has never completely supported itself. Indian slavery died out and was gradually lost in the Great River of African slavery, only because the settlers finally decided to exterminate the heavily depopulated Indian nations altogether. The essence is not the individual ownership of slaves, but rather the fact that world capitalism in general and Euro-American capitalism in specific had forged a slave-based economy in which all settlers gained and took part. Historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, in his study of the European discovery of America, notes that after repeated failures, the Europeans learned that North American settler colonies were not self-sufficient to survive the need of large capital infusions and the benefits of sustained trade for Europe. 
But why should British aristocracy and capitalists invest in small family farms? And how British trade is possible when the settlers themselves produced was largely the very raw materials and foodstuffs they themselves needed. Slavery throughout the New World answered these questions. It was the unpaid, expropriated labor of millions of Indian and African captive slaves that created the surpluses on which the settler economy floated and Atlantic trade flourished. So all the sections of white settler society, even artisan, worker, and farmer, were totally dependent upon African slave labor. The fisherman, whose low-grade refuse fish was dried and sold as slave meal in the Indies. The New York farmer, who found his market for surpluses in the southern plantations. The forester, whose timber was used by shipyard workers, rapidly turning out slave ships. The clerk in the New York City warehouse, checking bales of tobacco, waiting ship to London. The master cooper in the Boston Rumbus The young Virginia overseer building up his stake to try to start his own plantation. The immigrant German farmer, renting a team of five slaves, he his farm started, and on and on. While the cream of profits went to the planter and merchant capitalists, the entire settler economy was raised up on a foundation of slave labor, slave products, and the slave trade. Nor was it just slavery within 13 colonies alone that was essential. The commerce and industry of the Euro-American settlers was interdependent with their fellow slave capitalists of the West Indies, Central, and Southern America. Massachusetts alone, in 1774, distilled 2.7 million gallons of rum, distilled from the molasses on West Indies slave plantations. Two of the largest industries in America were shipping and shipping, both creatures of the slave trade. Commerce with the slave colonies of not only England, but also Holland, Spain, and France was vital to the young American economy. Eric Williams, Walter Rodney, and others have shown how European capitalism as a whole literally capitalized the industrialization and world empire of African slavery. It is important to see that all classes of Euro-American settlers were equally involved in building a new bourgeois nation on the map of the African colonial proletariat. By the time of the settler war of independence, the African nation made up over 20% of the non-Indian population, one African colonial subject for every four settlers. African slaves, although heavily concentrated in plantation colonies, were still represented throughout the settler territories. Their proportion in the non-Indian population ranged from 2 to 3% in Upper England, to 8% in Rhode Island, to 14% in New York, and 41 and 60% respectively in Virginia and South Carolina. While they mainly labored as the agricultural proletariat, African labor played a crucial role in all the major trades and industries of times. The colonized African nation, much more than the New Euro-American separate nation, was a complete nation, that is, possessing among its people a complete range of applied scientists, practical crafts, and productive labor. Both that colonized nation and the Indian nations were self-sufficient and economic whole, while the Euro-American innovation society was parasitic. While the class structure of the new African nation was still in a formative stage, the same classes were visible within it well before the U.S. war of independence. In Virginia, it appears that an overwhelming majority of the civil workers, carpenters, ship pilots, coopers, blacksmiths, etc., were Africans. Nor was it just non production for direct use on plantation. African artisans produced the commercial market, and were often hired out by masters. For example, we know that George Washington was not only a planter, but also what we would call today a contractor, building structures for other planters with his gang of African slave carpenters. The profits were split between the father of our country and his slave overseer. The African presence in commerce and industry was widespread and all pervasive, as one labor historian has summarized. Being a long quote. Some of the Africans who were brought to America in chains were skilled in woodcarving, weaving, construction, and other crafts. In the South, black slaves were not only healed hands, many developed a variety of skills that were needed on a nearly self sufficient plantation. Because skilled labor of whatever color was in great demand, slaves were often hired off to masters who owned shops by day, month, or year for a stipulated amount. Some were hired off to shipmasters, serving as pilots and managers of ferries. Others were used in maritime trades as shipbuilders, longshoremen, and sailors. A large number of slaves were employed in northern cities as house servants, sailors, sailmakers, and carpenters. New York had a higher proportion of skilled slaves than any other colony coopers. Colony, coopers, sailors, bakers, canners, goldsmiths, cabinet makers, shoemakers, and blazers. Both in Charleston and in northern cities, many artists utilized slave labor extensively. And the long quote. Africans were the landless, populous, permanent workers of the U.S. Empire. They were not just slaves. The African nation as a whole served as a proletariat for the Euro-American preservation. This African colony supported on its shoulders the building of a Euro-American society more, quote, prosperous, more, quote, egalitarian, and yes, more, quote, democratic than any in semi-fuel Europe. The Jeffersonian vision of America as a pastoral European democracy was rooted in the national life of small, independent white landowners. Such a society had no place for proletariat in its ranks. Yet, in the age of capitalism, could not do without labor of such a class. America imported a proletariat from Africa, a proletariat permanently chained in an internal colony, laboring for the benefit of all settlers. African workers might be individually owned by tools and draft animals, by some settlers and not by others. But in their colonial subjugation, they were, as a whole, owned by the entire Euro-American nation. End of section. Settlers, Chapter 1, Section 3, Euro-American Social Structure. When we point out that America was the most completely bourgeois nation in world history, we mean a fourfold reality. One, America had no feudal or communal past, but was constructed from the ground up according to nightmare vision of the bourgeoisie. Two, America began its national life as an oppressor nation, as a colonizer of vast peoples. Three, America not only has a ruling capitalist class, but all classes in strata of Euro-Americans are bourgeoisie-ified, with preoccupation for petty privileges and property ownership, the normal guiding star of the white masses. Four, America is so decadent that it has no proletariat of its own, but must exist parasitically on the colonial proletariat of oppressed nations and national minorities. Truly, a Babylon, quote, whose life was death. The second masses of colonial America had a situation totally unlike their cousins back in old Europe, where the privileges of conquest produced a non-proletarian society of settlers. The large majority of settlers were property-owning middle classes, insofar as classes have yet become visible in a society. Tradesmen, self-employed artisans, and self-owning, self-employed owning farmers. Every European who wanted to could own land. Every white settler could be a property owner. 
No longer British duty, new world, newly conquered, newly enslaved. It was so popular in old Europe. No longer life in America was so almost out of fable, but a massive old Europe. Young America was capitalism's real life Disneyland. The Euro-American class structure at the time of the 1775 war of independence was real. 80% bourgeois and petite bourgeois. Of this, 10% capitalists, great planters, large merchants, etc. 20% large farmers, professionals, tradesmen, and other upper middle farmers. 40% small landowning farmers. 10% artisans, blacksmiths, hoopers, carpenters, shipwrights, etc. From the 80%, another 15% temporary workers, usually soon moving upward into ranks of small farmers. And the last 5% laborers. Not only was the bourgeois class itself quite large, but some 70% of the total population of settlers were in the various property middle classes. The overwhelming majority were landowners, including many of the artisans and tradesmen, and an even larger portion of the Euro-Americans were self-employed or parenting. The small, poor elements of London and permanent laborers was only 5% of the settler population, and without influence or cohesion in such a property society. We can see why Virginia's governor Falkweer complained in 1759 while the moment his inability to attract settler recruits from militia. Quote, every man in this colony has land, and none but Negroes are laborers, end quote. U.S. imperialism still has the same problem of white military recruitment today. The plantation areas, which were probably the most dominated by small elite owning disproportionate share of wealth, show no lesser degree of general settler privilege in education. South Carolina was a state of the highest degree of large plantation centralization, yet there too, no settler working class development was evident. The South Carolina settler class structure shows only an intensification of the same bourgeois features at a national level. 86% bourgeois and petit bourgeois. Of this, 3% great planter elite, above 1,000 acres of land holding, 15% planters, 500 to 999 acres, 8% merchants and shop owners, 5% professionals, 42% mill and small farmers, under 500 acres, 10% artisans, progressively 86%, 14% laborers, majority only temporary. When we seek a small landowning farmer as the largest single element in such society, it is important to see what this means. An example is Rebecca Royston of Albertown, Maryland, who died in 1740 with an estate worth 81 pounds, replaces around the middle with small meat farmers. That sum represents a value of 200 acres of farmland, 31 head of cattle, 15 sheep, 29 pigs, 1,463 pounds of tobacco stored market, 5 feather beds, 2 old guns, sort of furniture, tools and kitchen utensils, and a contract of an 8-year-old indentured child servant. No wealth, no luxury, but a life with some small property, food, shelter, and a cash crop for market. Certainly, a far reach upwards from the bare existence of the colonial African proletariat, or for that matter, the British or French proletariat of period. Although there were Euro-American craftsmen and workers, they never coalesced into the proletariat because they were too privileged and transitory in addition. It is important to grasp firmly that the mere presence of settler craftsmen and workers does automatically mean that they were conscious class. We are extra proletarian living standard and their future in the property middle classes. Most settler women had no reason to develop proletarian consciousness. Further, the rapid turnover of settlers in the strata left no material basis for the formation of class. We can see this more clearly when we examine the details of work and wages. Rather than the mass production factory, the colonial era workshop was a setting the highly skilled piece by piece and production of a few craftsmen. Even a shipyard primarily only employed five to ten artisans and workers of all types total. The workshop was a business owned and managed by a master artisan. We might employ in his workshop one or two journeyman artisans and several apprentices, servants or slaves. It is easy to grasp how, in small settler communities, social and class lines were blurred and still unformed. For example, most of the settler artisans were also small farmers who grew some or all their own food. While some artisans never advanced, others were already become small capitalists, since the historic extension of the craft workshop was capitalist manufacture. The most famous colonial era settler artisan, Paul Revere, was not only a silversmith and an artist engraver, but also a dentist and a small capitalist operator of a copper factory. In the colonial era, the majority of Euro American artisans and wage laborers eventually bought farmland and/or business property and rose into the middle the special and non-proletarian character of settler artisans and workers, which has been so being forgotten about by today's Euro American rivals, was well known a century ago by Europeans such as Marx Nichols. In 1859, Marx wrote of, quote, the United States of North America, where though classes already exist, they have not yet become fixed, but continually change and interchange their elements in constant flux. End quote. What Marx saw in this class of liberty was the only privilege of such society, the privilege of having no proletariat at all. He later pointed out, quote, hence the relatively high standard of wages in the United States, capital may there try its utmost. It cannot prevent the labor market from being continuously emptied by the continuous conversion of wage laborers into independent, self-sustaining peasants. The position of wage labor, wages, laborers, is for a very large part of the American people, but a provisional state, which they are sure to leave with a shorter or longer term. End quote. And Marx was writing not about a momentary or temporary phase, but about basic conditions that were true for well over two centuries in America. Those settlers never had so good, and those Europeans who chose or were forced to work for wages got the highest wages in the capitalist world, the very highest. Tom Dane, the revolutionary propagandist, boasted that in America, a quote, common waiver, made as much money as the English shopkeeper. We know that George Washington had paid his white German carpenter 40 pounds per year, plus 400 pounds of meat, 20 bushels of corn, and the use of house and vegetable garden. German tailors in Virginia earned 26 to 32 pounds per year, plus meals, lodging, laundry service, and drink. In general, it's commonly agreed that Euro American workers earned at least twice what their British people made. Some reports say earnings gap was five or six times that which Swedish or Danish workers earned. Even a whole century later, the difference was still so large that Marx commented, quote, Now all you know that the average wages of the American agricultural labor, not more than double that of the English agricultural labor, although the prices of agricultural produce are lower in the United States than in the United Kingdom. End quote. It was only possible for such society to afford this best aid, most bourgeoisified white workforce, because they had also obtained the least aid, most proletarian, after the following to support it. Many of those settler laborers were indentured servants, who had signed on to some years of unpaid labor, usually poor, for a master in return for passage across the Atlantic. 
It is thought that as many as half of all pre-1770 Europeans in America went through this temporarily unfree status. Some separate historians as well on this phenomenon, comparing it to African slavery, in an attempt to see the rock of national oppression the base of America. Harsh as the time of indenture might be, these settlers would be free, and African slaves would not. More than national difference between oppressor and oppressed, white indentured servants could look hopefully for the possibility of not only being free, but of themselves becoming landowners and slave masters. For this initiation, this dues, the joining of the nation, was a right of passage into settler citizenship. For example, as early as 1629, almost one member out of six of Virginia's house of Burgesses was a former indentured servant. Much of Pennsylvania prospered in the Barney community, originally under that way. Christopher Hill, the British Marxist historian, directly relates the European willingness to enter servitude to the desire for landlordship, describing it as, quote, a temporary phase through which one worked one's way of freedom and landlordship, end quote. This is important because it was only this bottom layer of settler society that had the potential of overlooking class consciousness. In the early decades of Virginia's tobacco industry, gangs of white indentured servants were to feel side by side with African and Indian slaves, whom in the 1600s they greatly honored. This was an unstable situation, and one of the results was a number of joint servant slave states, strikes, and conspiracies. A danger to the white elite was evident, particularly since white servants constitute a respectable proportion of the settler population in the two tobacco colonies, accounting for 16% in Virginia in 1681 and 10% in Maryland in 1707. The political crisis waned as the period of bound white plantation labor ended. First, the greater and more profitable river of African labor was snatched to the fullest, and then the full British indentured servants slapped off. The number of New Yorkian servants in Virginia fell from 1500 to 2000 annually in the 1670s to about 91 in 1715. However, the important change was not in numbers, but in social role. This only envisioned once, in his study of colonial era labor, says of European indentured servants on plantations, quote, but with the advent of Negro slavery, they were gradually supplanted as field workers and were principally retained as overseers, foremen, or herdsmen, end quote. In other words, even the very lowest layer of white society was lifted out of proletariat by privileges belonging to the Western nation. Once these poor whites were raised off the fields and given the chance to help the boss and police captive Africans, the rebellious days were over. The importance of this experience is that it shows the material basis for lack of class consciousness by earlier American workers, and by political consciousness was directly related to how much they shared in the privileges of the larger set of society. Further, the capitalists proved to their satisfaction that dissent and rebelliousness within the settled ranks could be quelled by increasing the colonial exploitation of other nations and peoples. End of section and chapter. Settlers by J.C. Chapter 2 Struggles and Alliances. The popular political struggles of settler America, the most important being the 1775 to war of independence, gave us the first experience of alliances between American dissenters and oppressed peoples. What was most basic in these alliances was their purely tactical nature, not unity, but among very convergence of the fundamentally different interests of some oppressors and some of the oppressed. After all, the national division between settler citizens of emerging America and the colonial African subjects was enormous, while the distance between the interests of Indian nations and that of the settler nation, though under destruction, was hardly any less. While tactical alliances would bridge this chasm, it is important to recognize how calculated and temporary these joint efforts were. We emphasize this because it is necessary to refuse the propaganda that colonial America was built out of a history of struggles, quote, for representative government, democratic struggles, or class struggles, in which common whites and Africans joined together. No one, we note, has yet some the audacity to maintain that the Indians too wish to fight and die for settler democracy. Yet that same claim is advanced for African prisoners, slaves, as though they either had more common interests with their slave masters or were more brainwashed. To examine the actual complex and conditions under which alliances were reached totally rips apart these lies. A clear case is Bain's Rebellion, one of the two major settler uprisings prior to the War of Independence. In this rebellion, an insurgent army literally seized state power in the Virginia colony in 1676. They defeated the loyalist forces of Crown, set the city on fire, and forced the governor to flee. Euro Americans of all classes, as well as African slaves, took part in the fighting, the latter making up much of the hardcore of the rebellion's forces at the war's end. Herbert Hafter, the Communist Party USA's expert on Africans, has no hesitation in pointing to this rebellion as a wonderful, heroic example for all of us. He clearly loved this case of early anti-capitalist uprising, where, quote, whites and blacks joined hands. The end of the quote. But the outstanding example of popular uprising, prior to the American Revolution itself, is Bacon's Rebellion of 1676, a harbinger of the Great Rebellion that was abolished by exactly a century. The Virginia uprising is directed against the economic subordination and exploitation of the colony by the English rulers, and against the tyrannical and corrupt administrative practices in the colony, which were instituted for the purpose of enforcing that subordination. Hence, the effort, led by the young planter Nathaniel Bacon, was multi-class, encompassing in its ranks slaves, indentured servants, free farmers, and many planters. It was one in which one were, as an anti-Bacon contemporary noted, great encouragers and assisters. And it was one in which demands for political reform along guidelines formed a central feature of the movement. End of long quote. A picture of Bacon for the Virginia Council. It makes you wonder how authentic it seems to be in such an example of movement. Aftersacker is not only your own American radicals, but an important example in the subversion. To use one other case, in 1974, a paper dealing with this was presented at a new meeting of the quote, New Left Union of Radical Political Economists, URPE. It was considered important enough to be published in the Cambridge Journal of Radical America, and then to be as a pamphlet by the New England Press. In this paper, Theodore W. Allen says of early Virginia politics, the end of long quote. The decisive encounter of the people against the bourgeoisie occurred during the rebellion, which began in April 1676, as a difference between the elite and subtly planters over Indian policy, but which in September became a civil war against the Anglo-American ruling class. The transcendent importance of this record is that there, in colonial Virginia, 129 years before William Garrison was born, the armed working class, black and white, fought side by side for the abolition of slavery. End quote. Aftaker and Allen, as two brothers settler, settler radicals, clearly agree with each other that Bain's rebellion was an important revolutionary event. But in Allen's account, we suddenly find, without explanation, that it is the over quote Indian policy, even some planters transformed itself into an armed struggle by united white and African workers and slavery. That is a hard story to follow. 
particularly since they dropped the church event in Sodomite history, and again, a self-unnotable figure. There is, in fact, an imposing moral tablet of marble and bronze in the Virginia State Capitol, in the House of Delegates, which symbolizes Bacon as, quote, a great patriot leader of the Virginia people. So even Virginia's segregationist white politicians agree with Hathaway and Allen about this, quote, democratic rebellion. This truly is a unity we should not forget. Behind the rhetoric, the real events of Bacon's rebellion have a sordid and shabby character we are so familiar with in the American politics. It is, however, highly instructive for us. The story begins in the summer of 1675. The settlers of Virginia colony were angry and tense, for the alarms of King Philip's rebellion, the famed Indian struggle, had spread south from Massachusetts. Further, the colony was in economic depression due to both low tobacco prices and severe drought, which had cut crop down by as much as three quarters. One of the leading planters on the colony's frontier was Nathaniel Bain Jr., the newest member of the colony's elite. Bain had emigrated just the year before, so they purchased two plantations on the James River. He and his partner, William Bird, founded the West Virginia planter family, had also obtained missions from Governor Berkeley to engage in a lucrative Indian fur trade. All this was not difficult for Bain, for he came from a wealthy English family, and was cousin to both Governor Berkeley's wife and to Nathaniel Bain Sr., a leading planter who was a member of Virginia's council state. In the spring of that year, 1675, Governor Berkeley honored Bain by as events were proof, Bacon's elite lifestyle and rapid political rise did but throw more fuel on the fires of his arrogance and unlimited ambition. In July of 1675, war broke out between the settlers and the Susquehannock Indians. As usual, the war started by settler harassment of Indians, climaxing in a militia raid which was taken across the border to Maryland, and the state attacked the Susquehannock, who were allied to the settlers. The Susquehannock resisted and repelled Virginia's attack. Angry that the Indians had dared to resist their intrusion, the Virginia militia returned in August with reinforcements from the Maryland militia. This new settler army of 1,100 men surrounded the Susquehannock fort. Five Susquehannock leaders were lured out under pretense of parley and then executed. Late one night, all the besieged Susquehannock men, women, and children silently emptied out of town and slid away. On their way out, they corrected, they corrected five separate centuries. From then on, the Susquehannock took to guerrilla warfare, driving in small hands and ambushing isolated settlers. Nathaniel Bacon Jr. was an avid hawk, whose lust for persecuting Indians grew even greater when Indian guerrillas killed one of his slave overseers. To Bacon, that was one injury too many. At that time, the Virginia settlers had become polarized over Indian policy, with Bacon being a pro war faction against Governor Berkeley. Establishing the policy, which Governor Berkeley followed, called for temporary alliances with Indian nations and temporary restraints on settler expansionism. This was not due to any humanitarianism, but was an overall recognition of strategic realities by the English rulers. The Indian nations held, if only for a historical moment, the balance of power in North America between the rival British, French, and Spanish empires. Too much aggression against Indian territories by English settlers could drive the Indians into allying with the French. It is also true that temporary peace with the Indians accomplished three additional ends. The very probable fur trade was uninterrupted. Indians would be played off against each other, with some sign and fighting with the settlers. Indian pledges could be gotten to return away African slaves, although few were ever returned. So, under the peace treaty of 1646, after Indian defeats in the 1644-1644, 19 Indian tribes in Virginia accepted the authority of the British Crown. These subject Indians had to abide by settler law and were either passive or active allies in settler wars with Indians further west. By the time Bacon's overseer was elected by the no longer friendly Susquehanna, the political dispute between Bacon and Governor Berkeley had boiled over into the public view. Earlier, Bacon and Bird secretly suggested to Governor Berkeley that they began a monopoly on the Indian fur trade. For as the planters were, this move was so crudely self-serving that it was doomed to rejection. Berkeley dismissed their greedy proposal. Then Bacon was quite out of fur trade altogether. In March 1676, the Virginia Assembly, reacting to rumors that some traders were illegally selling guns to the Indians, permanently suspended all the existing traders and authorized the mission of wholesale replacement by new traders. Bacon was outraged, his pride and pocketbook stung, his anger and ambition unleashed. The dispute between Bacon and Governor Berkeley was very clear cut. Both favored war against the formerly allies of Susquehanna. Both favored warning on the Indians opposing the Southern but Berkeley believed in the usefulness of keeping some Indians such as, as he said, quote, I would preserve those Indians that I knew were hourly at our mercy to have been our size and intelligence to find out the more bloody enemies. They didn't disagree, scoring all this as too meek, too soft, almost treasonous. He believed in wiping out all Indians, including allied and subject Indians, as he put in his, quote, manifesto. Quote, our design was, quote, to ruin and extirpate all Indians in general. Thus, the Bacon's rebellion defined his main program. This was a classic settler liberal conservative debate, which still echoes in modern times, left back between Robert Kennedy versus George Wallace, OEO versus AKK, CIA versus FBI, and so on. Beginning a long quote. In short, what we did in a short time, in court condition, we were in, was to destroy the king of the Susquehannocks and the king of Obanoji. And the king, with hundred men, besides what was unknown to us. The king's daughter, we took prisoner, with some others, and could have brought more, but in the heat of the fight, we regarded not the advantage of prisoners, nor any plunder, but burnt and destroyed all. And what we regret most material is that we have left all the nations of Indians where we have been, engaged in a civil war amongst themselves, so that with great ease we hope to manage this advantage to their utter ruin and destruction. End quote from the Thanglebacon Report on 1676 Expedition against the Indians. Bacon had denied the officer's mission by Governor Berkeley on grounds that he refused to follow British policy. But in May 1676, Bacon refused to be blocked by Governor Berkeley any longer. He had become a charismatic leader among the frontier settlers, and he and his neighbors were determined to reach a final solution to their Indian problem. This was an increasingly popular program among the settler masses, since it also promised to end their economic depression by a new round of looting Indian lands and goods. Nothing raised more enthusiasm among the Euro-American settlers than attacking people of color. They embraced it as something between a team sort and a national religion. Thus did the rebellion win over the settler masses. In May 1676, word came to the settlers on the frontier from their Okanichi Indian allies that a band of Susanna had camped near the Okanichi fort on the Roanoke River. They and his friends formed a vigilante group against Southern orders and promptly rode off to begin their war against all Indians. This marks the beginning of Bacon's rebellion. When Bacon and his men arrived at Okanichi fort, they were exhausted, out of food, and clearly in no shape to fight. 
the following Polynesian treated them to a dinner. They even proposed that they enforce should rest while the Polynesian would defeat the Susana for them. Naturally, they made agreed. Using treachery, the Polynesian overran the Susana, killing some 30 of them. The surviving prisoners were either publicly executed or given to Bacon as slaves. But this did not end the battle, for Bacon and his Zealand band had really come to kill and slay all the Indians. The Polynesian were rumored to have a sword of beaver furs worth at least some 1,000 pounds. At least some of the things that confessed, quote, that the great design was to get a beaver. In any case, Bacon demanded that the Polynesian give them all the loot from the Susana camp, plus additional from Indians as slaves. Even at that, the survival Polynesian leader tried to temporize, offering to give them hostages. Suddenly, Bacon's force assaulted the unfair Polynesian. Most of the Indians inside the fort were killed, although they did stand off as an assault. The surprise of Nietzsche outside the fort were helpless, however. As Bacon proudly reported, his heroic sour quote, fell on the men, women, and children without, disarmed and destroyed them all. Bacon's rebellion had won its first important victory, and he and his men marched homeward, loaded with loot and new slaves, as heroes. Bacon was now the most popular figure in the Virginia colony, famed and respected as an Indian killer. Hercules refused to grant him a military commission, meant nothing, for Bacon was claimed as, quote, the people's general. He, much more than any governor or counselor, commanded the loyalty of the masses. Nor did he find any trouble attracting armed volunteers to do his bidding. Wiping out and looting all the Indians around settlers was a program many whites could relate to, particularly since Governor Berkeley, under popular pressure, that forced the subject Indians to turn their muskets and disarm. Killing disarmed oppressed people is much more satisfying to the Euro Americans than having to face armed foes. In fact, as one historian pointed out, quote, Bacon and his men did not kill a single Indian, but contented themselves with frightening away, killing, or enslaving most of the friendly neighboring Indians, and taking their beaver and land as spoils. End quote. Now Bacon was on the offensive against Governor Berkeley and his slave as well. Over and over, he publicly damned Berkeley as a traitor to settlers. Bacon was swung from seals, gaining nonetheless a safe hour. His big gun against the governor was the charge that Berkeley was a secret, quote, friend to the Indians. No charge could have been more damaging. As we all know, when Euro Americans really serious about fighting each other, the most vicious accusation they can hurl at one another is that of nigger lover or Indian lover or some such. They can charge that the governor was literally a traitor who secretly sold Indians' guns so that they could attack the settlers. We can see parallels in the 1960s when white liberals were widely charged with giving federal militants money, legal aid, and even weapons so that they could kill whites. Berkeley charged Bacon that so intimidated the settlers quote, that no man dared to destroy Indians until I eventually cut not, who made the people in general look on me as the country's friend. Bacon's wife, whose hearts support for rebellion led some of the Euro American radicals to see them as stern as cried, "Thanks be God that her husband quote, did destroy a rich man of the Indians." Killing and saving and robbing was the exact central concern of this movement, which Euro Americans tell us is an example of how we should unite them. There's a message for those there who wish to go. Bacon had been prescribed as a lawgiver and rebel, but he still used a one election to the assembly, which was to be on June 5th, 1676. He typically chose to ensure his control of the Anglo-Canadian elections by capturing the site with his Belongshi Tees. Even though Bacon was for the decision, denying properly screening voting rights, these votes and assemblies were just window-dressing to his dictatorial ambitions. On June 7th, 1676, the rebellion suffered its first reverse. Bacon was captured as he, 50s armed band, tried to slip into Jamestown, the capital of the Virginia colony. Then began a dizzy series of maneuvers, coups, and counter-coups. Preferring shame to execution, Bacon begged Governor Berkeley's pardon on bending in front of the crowded assembly. He was quickly pardoned, and he restored to his position on the hostile state. Young Bacon just as quickly fled Jamestown, returning on June 23, 1676, with over 500 armed supporters. He easily captured Cattle, Governor, and all. But now he in turn had to release Governor Berkeley and his wife's supporters, for they invoked their settlers' right to return home to defend their plantations and women against the Indians. It was at that point that we find white measured servants entering the scene. Without an army, with almost all the planters turned against him, and as Governor Berkeley found his Bacon for support, Berkeley promised freedom for white measured servants of the Bacons if they would desert their masters and take arms with the loyal forces of Brown. He also authorized looting, with every white servant sharing in the confiscated estates of Bacons. Aided by the lucky recapture of three armed ships, Governor Berkeley soon rebuilt his military forces. On September 7, 1676, the loyalists arrived Governor Berkeley shrewdly offered a general pardon to all rebel settlers except Bacon and his two chief defendants. Although they still made the fortified capital, Bacon's men abandoned their positions in immediate flight without any pretense of battle. Most eagerly took up Berkeley, Berkeley's offer of pardon. Now it was Bacon's turn to find himself virtually armless, deserted by many of his followers. It appears as though a good number of settlers rallied to and deserted from various sides, depending on how the tide of fortune was run. They had an opportunity to regard their immediate gain as main contour in their minds. Just one month before, Bacon had been confidently sketching out how sister rebellions would easily ignite in Maryland and South Carolina, and how if London refused their demands, then an independent nation could be formed. This, incidentally, is why Jefferson and the other patriots considered Bacon one of the first architects of the United States. But now his situation was careless. In his extreme need, refusing to swallow the bitter dose of either or defeat, Bacon followed Governor Berkeley's example, but did him one better. Bacon recruited not only the white servants of his opponents, but also their African slaves. Hundreds of new recruits flocked to his army. On September 19, 1676, Bacon's night forces recaptured Jamestown. Once again, there was no battle. Berkeley's forces deserted as quickly as Bacon's had, and the fortified capital was abandoned. Bacon, after the master psychologist, had skillfully barricaded his besieging ramparts with the bodies of both his new Indian slaves and the captured wives of the locusts. That night, he triumphed over Jamestown, which to the torch, and the fires they assumed the capital were dramatic events, and he was once again master of Virginia. But then Bacon died suddenly from an unexpected illness. This successor as general of the rebellion lost heart, and made a secret deal crown to disarm the rebel forces. The last nine arms were some 80 African slaves and 20 white servants who refused to surrender to a fate they knew all too well. They were tricked and come aboard a ship, taken up into the middle of the river, and forced to disarm the cannon point. As quickly as that had begun, Bacon's rebellion was over. Out of the degree of this chaotic dispute, we can pick out the central facts. 
First, that there is no democratic political program or movement whatsoever. Because the Republican movement represented a fair majority of the settlers to resolve serious economic and social problems by setting up the exploitation of oppressed peoples. Far from being democratic, it was more nearly fascistic. Bacon was a disease line of the most reactionary faction of the planters. And in his ambitious schemes, the fact that fewer or more free men were slaves had favored voting rights than little. Far from fighting to abolish slavery, the rebellion actually hoped to add the number of slaves by Indian conquest. And finally, there was no quote, black and white unity at all. Needing fighting bodies, Bacon at the very end offered a deal with his opponent's slaves. He paid in the only one that was meaningful, a promise of freedom for them if he won. Those Africans who signed up in his army didn't love him, trust him, even as their leader, or any other time. They were tactically exploited, contradiction in their ranks, maneuvering their freedom. It is interesting to note that those Indians who themselves up to unity with the oppressors, become the settlers' lackeys and allies, were not protected by it, but were destroyed. We also see here the contradiction of, quote, democratic reforms within the context of settler capitalism. Much is made of reforms of, quote, Bacon's assembly, the June 1667 Liberty Assembly, which was named because of its newly elected majority of Bacon's senators and senators. All basing loud praise on Euro-American historians was at the of the assembly, which restored voting rights to popular freemen. The most eminent Euro-American radical labor historian, Bill S. Homer, has written how, beginning with a long quote, the rebellion gained a number of democratic rights for people. The statute preventing populist freemen from electing members of the House of Burgesses was repealed. Freeholders and freemen of every parish gained the right to elect the vestries of the church. None of these democratic reforms remained after the was crushed, yet their memories lived on. Bacon was truly the portrayal of the revolution, and for generations after, any leader of common people was called a Baconist. End quote. It is easy to see how contemptible these pseudo-Marxist, white supremacist lies are. When we examine the entire work of the legislature of reforms, we find that the first few acts passed all involved furthering the genocidal war against the Indians. Act 3 legalized the separate siege of the Indian lands, previously guaranteed by treaty, quote, deserted by Indians fleeing from Bacon's acts. How meaningful is a, quote, democratic extension of voting rights amidst the savage expansion of capitalist society based on genocide and enslavement? Would voting rights for white ranchers have been the, quote, democratic answer that wounded me, or, quote, free speech for prison guards the answer to the truth is, the Euro-Americans view these bourgeois democratic measures as historic gains, and to them they are, but not to us. The end content, the essence of these reforms, was the consolidation of a new separate nation. Part of this process was granting full citizenship in the society to all strata and classes of Euro-Americans. As such, these struggles were widespread in colonial America, and far more important to settlers than your wages use. The early English settlers of Virginia Colony, for example, were forced to import German, Polish, and Armenian craftsmen to their invasion of each other, in order to produce glass beads used in a trade, as well as pitch used in shipping, etc. Since these, quote, foreign craftsmen were not English, they were considered subjects and not members of the colony. So, in 1619, those European artisans went on strike, completely winning full citizenship rights, quote, as free as any inhabitant there whatsoever. Similar struggles took place throughout the colonial era, era in both North and South. In 1689, Lysler's Rebellion, led by a German immigrant merchant in New York, found the settler Democrats housed in the British Garrison in Albany and holding the state capital for several years. The New York State Assembly has origins in the settler legislature granted by Brown as a concession after the revolt had ended. The Roosevelt family first added to separate politics as supporters of Lysler. We need to see the dialectical unity of democracy and oppression in developing settler America. The winning of citizenship rights by four settlers or non Anglo Saxon Europeans is democratic in form. The enrollment of the white masses into new mass instruments of oppression, such as the formation of the English slave in Virginia in 1727, is obviously anti democratic and reactionary. Yet these opposites in form are, in their essence, united as aspects of the new citizenry of Babylon. This is why our relationship to, quote, democratic struggles among settlers has not developed simple unity. This was fully proven in practice once again by the 1776 War of Independence, a war in which most of the Indian and African peoples opposed settler nationhood and the consolidation of America. In fact, the majority of the people gladly allied themselves with British forces in hopes of crushing the settlers. This clash between the old European Empire and the emerging Euro-American Empire was inevitable in decades before actual fighting came. The decisive point came when British capitalism decided to flip the wings of the new American bourgeoisie, as they restricted immigration, immigration, immigrant industry and trade, and pursued a long-range plan to combine the settler population to a controlled strip of territory along the Atlantic Sea coast. They proposed, for their own imperial needs, that the infant of America be permanently stopped. After all, the European conquest of just the eastern shores of North America had already produced, by the time of independence, a population almost one-third as large as that of England and Ireland. They feared that, unchecked, the colonial tail might someday wag the imperial dog, as indeed it has. While some patriots, such as Samuel Adams, had for many years uncertain of the need for settler independence from the the settler bourgeoisie was, in the main, conservative and uncertain about actual war. It was a land question that in the end proved decisive in swinging the devil among the settler elite. By first the Proclamation Act of 1763, and then the Act of 1773, the British capitalists kept trying to preserve for themselves alone the great stretches of Indian land west of the Alleghenies. This was ruinous to the settler bourgeoisie, who were suffering from the first major depression in American history. Then, as now, real estate speculation was a mania, a probable obsession to the Euro-American patriots. Ben Franklin, the Wardens, and other Philadelphia nobles tried to obtain vast acreages for speculation. George Washington, the other Willies, and Fitzhughs formed the Mississippi Company, which tried to take 2.5 million acres for sale to new settlers. Heavily in debt to British merchant bankers, the settler bourgeoisie had hopes to reap great rewards from seizing new Indian lands as far west of the Mississippi River. The British should act in 1773, however, attached all the American Midwest to British Canada. The 13 colonies were defrozen by the continental land grab, with their British cousins doing all the looting. And as for the settler bourgeoisie, they were faced with little bankruptcy as a class without profits of new conquests and the expansion of the slave system. It was this one issue that drove them at the end into the camp of rebellion. 
Historian Richard G. Wade, analyzing the relation of frontier issues with war independence, says of British restrictions on settler land grabbing, quote, settlers hungered to get across the mountains and resented any efforts to stop them. The revolution was fought in part to free frontier from this climate. End quote. Like Pegasus Dalton, the quote liberty that the American revolutionists of 1770 sought for was in large part the freedom to conquer new Indian lands and profit from the commerce of the slave trade without any restrictions or limitations. In other words, the bourgeois freedom to oppress and exploit others. The successful future of the separate capitalists demanded the scope of independent nationhood. But as the first flush of separate enthusiasm faded and the unhappy realization of how grim and bloody this war would be, the settler, quote, sunshine soldiers, faded from the ranks to go home and stay home. Almost one third of the army deserted the Valley Forge. Some Muslim bribes were widely offered to get recruits. New York State offered new enlistments, 400 acres each of Indian land. Virginia offered an enlistment bonus of an African slave, guaranteed to be not younger than HM, and other acres of Indian land. In South Carolina, General Sumter used a share loop scheme, whereby each settler volunteer would get an African capture from 40 states. Even these extraordinarily generous offers failed to spark any sacrificial enthusiasm among the settler masses. It was Africans who greeted the war with great enthusiasm. But while the settler slave masters sought quote, democracy through Western nation away from England, their slaves saw liberation by overthrowing America or escaping from it. Far from being either patriotic American subjects or passively enslaved neutrals, the African masses threw themselves daringly and passionately into the jaws of war on an unprecedented scale, in their own war against slave America and for freedom. The British, short troops and neighbors, decided to use both the Indian nations and the African slaves to help bring down the settler rebels. This was nothing unique. The French have sensibly used Indian military alliances, and the British have sensibly used African slave in their 1756-63 war over North America, called the French India War in South Wales. But the American settlers, sitting on the dynamite, oppressive, nationally oppressed African population, were terrified and outraged. This was a fine proof to many settlers of King George's III's yield tyranny. An English gentleman traveling in colonies wrote that the popular settler indignation was so great that it stood to unite rebels and forties again. Tom Kane, in his revolutionary pamphlet Common Sense, raged against, quote, that barbarous and hellish power which has served Indians and Negroes to destroy us, end quote. But the people saw this war as a wonderful contradiction to be exploited in the ranks of the capitalists. Lord Dunmore was royal governor of Virginia in name, but ruler or so well that he had resigned aboard a British warship anchored offshore. Urgently needing reinforcements for his outnumbered command, on November 5th, 1775, he issued a proclamation that any slaves in the United forces would be freed. Sir Henry Clinton, commander of British forces in North America, later issued a broader order. Quote, I do most surely forbid any person to sell or claim right over any Negro, the property or rebel, who may claim refuge in any part of this army. And I do promise every Negro, Negro, who shall deserve the rebel standard, full security to follow within these lines any occupation which he shall think proper. End quote. Could any more have called more clearly? By the thousands upon thousands, Africans struggled to reach British lines. One historian of the ISIS has said, quote, The British movement was caught by the Americans, who exercised close vigilance over their slaves, removed the able body to interior places far from the scene of war, and threatened with dire punishment all who sought to join the enemy. Negroes attempting to flee the British, the alternatives liberty or death took on an almost literal meaning. Nevertheless, by land and sea, they made their way to British forces. End quote. The war was a disruption to slave America, a chaotic gap in the European capital's ranks he hit hard. Africans seized the time, not by the tens or hundreds, but by the many thousands. America shook with the tremors of their movement. Designers of the Declaration of Independence were bitter about their personal losses. Thomas Jefferson lost many of his slaves. Virginia's governor Ben Harrison lost 30 of, quote, my finest slaves. William Lee lost 69 slaves, and said two of his neighbors lost every slave they had in the world. South Carolina's large middle lost 50 slaves. Africans were ready their own Declaration of Independence by saving. Many South Africans tried to appeal to British forces to exercise European solidarity and expel the slaves. George Washington had denounced his own brother for bringing food to British troops, and a vain first to coax them into returning to Washington family slaves. Yes, and Saudi were definitely upset to see some real freedom getting loose on the land. To this day, no one knows how many slaves freed themselves during the war. Georgia settlers were said to over 10,000 slaves, while the number of African escape prisoners in South Carolina and Virginia was lost to well over 50,000. Many, in the destruction of war, passed themselves off as freemen and relocated in other territories, fled to British Florida and Canada, or took refuge in marine communities or the Indian nations. It is an estimated that 100,000 African prisoners, some 20% of the slave population, freed themselves during the war. The thousands of rebellious Africans sustained the British war machinery. After all, if the price of refuge from slave master was helping the British rebellious settlers, it was not such a distasteful task. Lord Dunmore had an quote, Ethiopian regiment of slaves who went to battle with a motto, liberty to slaves, some on their jackets, who helped the British capture and burn Norfolk, Virginia, on New Year's Day, 1776. That must have been sweet indeed. Everywhere, Africans appeared with the British as soldiers, porters, road builders, guides, and intelligence agents. Washington declared that unless the slave escapes could be halted, the British army would inexorably grow, quote, like a snowball in rolling. It was only under this threat, not only defeat, but defeat in part from the masses of armed slaves, that the settlers hurriedly reversed their years and started recruiting Africans into the continental U.S. Army. The whole contradiction of armed slaves asking to defend their slave masters was apparent to many. Fearing this destruction of the concentration and cultural plantations, and fearing even more the dangers of arming masses of Africans, many settlers preferred to lose their British kids and kin rather than tangled slavery. But that choice was no longer fully fair to make, as the genie was far away out of the bottle. On December 31st, 1775, General George Washington ordered the enlisted Africans into the continental army with a promise of freedom at the end of the war. Many settlers sent their slaves into the army to take their place. One passing mercenary officer of the British said, quote, The Negro can take a field with the master, and therefore, there is no measurement to be seen in which there are no Negroes in abundance. 
Over 5,000 African served in the Patriot military, making up a large proportion of the most experienced troops. Settlers usually only serve for short lessons, 90 days duty, being most term, while slaves served until the war's end or death. For oppressed people, the price of the war was paid in blood. African casualties were heavy. One half of the Africans who served with the British in Virginia died in an attack. And Indian nations, allied to the crown, suffered greatly as the tide of battle turned against their side. The same is true of the Africans captured in British cities. Some were sold to the West Indies, and others were rescued. A similar heavy fate fell on those recaptured while making way to British lines. The seven mass media organizations, such as the Indianist Committees of Correspondence in New York and Massachusetts, played the same role on the North that the slave patrols played in the South, checking and arresting rebellious Africans. Even those who allied with the victorious settlers did not necessarily find themselves winning anything. Many Africans were disarmed and put back in chains at war's end, despite some settler promises. John Hancock, president of the Congress, may have presented African U.S. troops with a banner which praised them as, quote, the Bucks of America, but that didn't help Africans, such as Captain Mark Starlin. He was the first African captain in the American naval forces, and had won many honors for his near suicide night raids on the British fleet, which is why the settlers like him and his all African crew sail alone. But as soon as the war ended, his master simply reclaimed him. Starlin spent the rest of his life as a slave. He, ironically enough, is known to historians as an exceptionally dedicated, quote, patriot, super loyal to the new nation. What was primary to the African masses was a strategic relationship with the British Empire against Southern America. To use an old European power against the Euro American settlers, who nearest and most of the enemy, which is common sense to many. 65,000 Africans joined the British forces, over 10 for everyone enlisted in the continental US ranks. As Lenin said in discussing the national question, the masses vote with their feet. And in this case, they voted against America. Secondarily, on an individual level, Africans served with various forces in return for release from slavery. There was no real quote, political unity for larger regions involved, such as the On the European side as well, obviously. If the British and Patriot sides could pursue their conflict without freeing any slaves or destroying the slave system, they each gladly would have done so. Just as slave and Indians rebellion demonstrate only temporary and tactical nature of alliances between oppressed and oppressed forces. So the alignment of forces in the settled war independence only proved that the national patriotic struggle of Euro-Americans was opposite to base interests and political desires of the oppressed. Even in the ruins of British defeat, the soundness of this viewpoint was borne out in practice. While the jubilant patriots watched the defeated British army evacuate New York City in 1783, some 4,000 Africans swarmed aboard the guard ships to escape America. Another 4,000 Africans escaped with the British from Santa, 6,000 from Charleston, and 5,000 escaped aboard British ships prior to the surrender. Did these brothers and sisters hope to lose the war compared to those still in chains on plantations? Others chose to leave the North Senate. All during the war, Indian and African guerrillas struck at the settlers. In one case, 300 African ex-slaves fought an extended guerrilla campaign against the Lenders in both Georgia and South Carolina. Originally allied to the British forces, they continued their independent campaign long after the British defeat. They were not overwhelmed until 1786, when a secret fort at Bear Creek was discovered and overwhelmed. This was but one front in the true democratic struggle against America. End of chapter. Settlers by J.C. Chapter 3. Contradictions of Nation and Class. Section. Crisis within the slave system. The slave system had served America well, but as the nation matured, what once was foundation's own, increasingly became a direct on the growth of the new American empire. The slave system, once essential to the life of white society, now became worse than anarchism. It became a grown threat to the well-being of settler life. While the mass masses and their bourgeois leaders still intended to exploit the oppressive to the full extent, increasingly they came to believe that one specific form of exploitation, African slavery, had to be shattered. Nothing is gained without a price, as, quote, natural and, quote, heaven sent, as the great production of African slave labor seems to the planters. This wealth was bought at the cost of nothing danger to settlers as a whole. For the slave system imported and concentrated the vast enemy army of oppressed right in the sinews of white society. This was the real contradiction in the, quote, slave power, so clearly seen by early settler critics of slavery. Benjamin Franklin, for example, not only gave up slaves only himself, but in 1755 Twenty years later, as the Articles of Confederation were being debated, South Carolina's lynch stated that since Africans were property, they should be taxed any more than sheep were. Franklin asked replied, quote, sheep will never make insurrection. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia probably personified this situation more visibly than any other settler. He is well known in Southern history books as a liberal planter who constantly told his friends how he agonized over the immorality of slavery. He is usually depicted as an exceptional human being, great in passion and much intellect. What was pushing and pressuring his capitalist mind was the contradiction between his greed for the easy life of a slave master and his fear of the safety of his settler nation. He knew that the revolution against settler was a possibility, and that in a land governed by slaves, the fate of former slave masters would be hard. As he put it, quote, a revolution of a real fortune and a change of situation is among possible events. That is why, as U.S. President in 1791, he viewed the Great Asian Revolution, led by Toussaint Louverture, as a monstrous danger. His administration quickly appropriated relief funds to subsidize the fresh planters fleeing Rhode Island. Jefferson tied line came up with a theoretical solution to their, quote, Negro problem, gradual genocide. He estimated that returning all slaves to Africa would cost America $900 million in lost capital and transportation expenses, a sum 45 times the annual tax earnings of the settler at the time. This was an impossible cost, one that would bankrupt not only planters, but the entire settler society as well. President Jefferson's solution to this dilemma was to take all African children away from their parents for compact shipments to West Indies and Africa, while keeping the adults enslaved to support the American economy for the rest of their lives. This would theoretically generate necessary profits to prop up the capitalist economy, while still moving towards an all-white America. Jefferson used, quote, the old stock would die off in the ordinary course of nature, until its final disappearance, end quote. The president thought this Hitlerian fantasy, both, quote, practical and, quote, blessed. It is easy to understand why this fantastic claim never became reality. The oppressor will never willingly remove his cause from the oppressed, so long as there are still more profits to be won from them. Jefferson himself actively bought more and more slaves to maintain his pseudo-Bridian lifestyle. 
As president, he signed the 1808 bill allegedly banning importation of slaves, in part, we suspect, because this only raised the price he obtained from his slave-breeding business. Jefferson would increase his wealth from the birth of new slaves. Quote, I consider the labor of a breeding woman as an object, and that a child raised every two years is of more profit than the profit of the best laboring man. End quote. It's some matters to note that President Jefferson, who believed that the planters should restrict and then wipe out entirely the African colony, ended his days only more slaves than he started with. The Northern states had slowly abolished slavery as early as Vermont in 1777, and the hopes that the numbers of Africans could be touched down. It was also widely believed by settlers that in small numbers, the quote, childlike ex slaves could be touched down and easily ruled. The explosive growth of the number of Africans held prisoner in the slave system, and the resultant Russians were having struggles in all spheres of life, blew this settler religion away. The Haitian Revolution of 1791 marked a decisive point in the politics of both and slave. The news was settled in Mingo that African prisoners had risen and successfully set up a new nation, electrified the entire Western Hemisphere. When it became undeniably true that African people's armies, under the leadership of a 50 year old former field hand, had, in protracted war, outmaneuvered and outfought the professional armies of the old European powers, the relevancy of the lesson of America was intense. Intense. The effect of Haiti's great victory was felt immediately. Haitian slaves, forced to be evacuated from that island, with their French masters, helped spread the word that revolution and independence were possible. The new Haitian Republic proudly offered citizenship to any Indians and Africans who wanted it, and thousands of free Africans emigrated. This great breakthrough stimulated rebellion, and the vision of national liberation only oppressed, while pardoning resolve was set for society to defend their hegemony with the most violent and naked terror. The Virginia Insurrection, led by Gabriel, some nine years later, in which thousands of Africans were involved, as well as that Nat Turner in 1831, caused discussions within the Virginia legislature on ending slavery. The 1831 uprising, in which 60 settlers died, so terrified them that public rallies were held in West Virginia to demand an all by Virginia. Virginia's governor Floyd publicly endorsed the total removal of all Africans out of state. If such proposals could be unchanged by hardening the slave system, we can imagine how popular that must have been among settlers in the northern states. The problem facing settlers was not limited to potential uprisings on plantations. Everywhere, African prisoners were pressing beyond the colonial boundaries settled. The situation became more acute as the developing capitalist economy created trends of urbanization and industrialization. In the early 1800s, the African population of many cities was rising faster than that of Euro Americans. In 1820, Africans comprised at least 25% of the total population of Washington, Louisville, Baltimore, and St. Louis, at least 50% of the total population in New Orleans, Richmond, Mobile, and Savannah. The percentage of whites owning slaves was higher in cities than it was in the countryside. In cities such as Louisville, Charleston, and Richmond, some 65 to 75% of all Euro American families owned African slaves. And the commerce industry of these cities brought together and educated masses of African colonial proletarians in the textile mills, mines, ironworks, docks, railroads, tobacco factories, and so on. In such concentrations, African bent and often broke the bars around them. Increasingly, more and more slaves were no longer under tight control. Illegal grog shops, white owned, of course, and informal clubs flourished on the back streets. Restrictions on even daily movements of many slaves faltered in the urban grounds. Contemporary white travelers often wrote how long they were when visiting some cities at the large numbers of Africans on the streets. One historian writes in New Orleans, quote, It was not unusual for slaves to gather on the street at night, for example, where they challenged voice to enough to pass, nor was it safe to accost them, as many men armed with knives and pistols in flagrant defiance of all precautions of the black code. End quote. A Louisville newspaper editorial blamed in 1835 that Negroes scarcely realized that they were slaves, insolent, intractable. End quote. It was natural in these early concentrations that slave escapes, prison breaks, became increasingly common. The African communities in the cities were also keen forests, partially opaque to eye of a settler, in which escapees from plantations quietly sought refuge. During the 16-month period, in the 1850s, the New Orleans Center Police arrested 982 runaway slaves, a number equal to approximately 7% of the city's slave population. In 1837, the Baltimore Center Police arrested almost 300 Africans as proven with suspected escapees, a number equal to over 9% of that city's slave population. And, of course, these are just those who were caught. Many others evaded the settler law enforcement apparatus. Frederick Douglass, we remember, had been a carpenter and a shipyarder in Baltimore before escaping northward to pursue his habitation. At least 100,000 slaves did escape to the North and Canada during these years. Nor should it be forgotten that some of the largest armed insurrections and conspiracies of the period involved the Euro-Urban Proletariat. The Gabriel Uprising of 1800 was based on the Russian Proletariat. Gabriel himself was a blacksmith, and most of his dependents were other skilled workers. So many Africans were involved in that plane of uprising that one Southern newspaper declared prosecutions had to be halted lest it bankrupt the Russian capitalists, causing, quote, the annihilation of blacks in this part of the country. The Charleston series of 1842, led by Democracy, a free carpenter, was an organization of urban proletarians, stevedores, millers, lumberyard workers, blacksmiths, etc. Similarly, the Britain series of 1856 was organized among coal mine, mill, and factory workers across Kentucky and Tennessee. In its failure, some 65 Africans were killed and Senator Ellis alone. It was particularly alarming to the settlers that those Africans who had been given the advantages of living and who had skilled positions just used their relative mobility to strike the colonial system all the more effectively. From among the ranks of free Africans outside the South came courageous organizers who moved through the South like guerrillas, leading their revenge to freedom. And not just a few exceptional leaders, such as Harry Tubman. In 1860, we know that 500 underground organizers went into the South from Canada alone. On the plantations, the African masses resisted in a conscious political culture. A letter from a Charleston, South Carolina plantation in 1844 tells how all the slaves in the area secretly celebrated every August 1st, the anniversary of the end of slavery in the British West Indies. Abolishing slavery was a common proposed answer to this increasing instability in the colonial system. The settler bourgeoisie, however, which had a mental tie to other slaves, could hardly be expected to take such a step willingly. One MBA response in the 1830s was to break up the African communities in the cities. In the wake of the Bessie conspiracy, for instance, the Charleston City Council urged that the number of male Africans in the city, quote, be greatly diminished, and they were. 
Throughout the South, much of the African population was gradually shifting back to plantations, declining year after year until it was at war. In New Orleans, the drop was from 50% to 15% of the city population. In St. Louis, from 25% to only 2% of the city population. The needs of the new industrial economy were far less important to the bourgeoisie than breaking up the dangerous concentrations of the press and regaining a safe, Euro American physical domination over key urban centers. One northern writer traveling to the South noted in 1859 that the Africans had been learning too much of the cities. Quote, this had alarmed their masters, and they were sending them off as fast as possible to the plantations where, as in a tomb, no sight or sound of knowledge can reach them. End quote. In addition to physical restrictions, the mass error, etc., that we all know were imposed, it is important to see that Southern America reacted to the more consciousness of Africans by attempting to isolate and physically break up the oppressed communities. It is a measure of how strongly the threat of revolution was rising in the African nation, but the settlers had to restructure their society in response. The relative backwardness of the Southern economy was an expression of the living contradictions of the slave system. End of section. Settlers, Chapter 3, Section 2 Slavery versus Settlerism. Slavery had become an obstacle to both the new growth of society and the interests of the Euro-American bourgeoisie. It was not that slavery was unprofitable itself. It was, order for order, much more profitable than white wage labor. African slaves in industry cost the capitalists less than one third of the wages of white working men. Even when slaves were rented from other capitalists, the savings in the factory online were still considerable. For example, in the 1830s, almost one third of the workers of the U.S. Navy shipyard in Norfolk were Africans, rented at only two thirds the cost of white wage labor. But the American capitalists needed to greatly expand their labor force. While the planters believed that importing new millions of slaves would most probably meet this need, it was clear that this would only add fuel to fires of the white insurrectionary African colony. Profit had to be seen not in the squeezing of a few more dollars on a short term individual basis, but in terms of the needs of an entire empire in its future. And it was not just the demand for labor alone that outweighed the slave system. Capitalism needed giant armies of settlers, waves and waves of new European shock troops, to help conquer and hold new territory, to develop it to the bourgeoisie, and garrison it against the oppressed. In the city valley, the plains, the northern territories of Mexico, the Pacific West, a whole continent of land and resources awaited that could only be held by millions of loyal settlers. After Haiti, it was increasingly obvious that a quote, thin white line of a few soldiers, administrators, and planters could not safely hold down whole oppressed nations. Only the weight of masses of oppressors could provide the Euro-American bourgeoisie with the empire they desired. This was a fundamental element in the antagonistic but symbiotic relationship of the white masses to their rulers. The slave system had committed to fatal sin of restricting the white population while amassing great numbers of Africans. In the 1860 census, we can see this area of settled from north and south. Excluding the border states of Delaware and Maryland, the slave states have a median population density of a bare 18 whites per square mile. The most unpopulated of slave states, Kentucky, have a population of only 31 whites per square mile. In sharp contrast, northern states such as Ohio, New Jersey, and Massachusetts have populations of 59, 81, and 158 whites per square mile, respectively. This disparity was not only large, but was qualitatively significant for the future of the Euro-American Empire. It is no surprise that the planter bourgeoisie viewed society far differently than did the New York banker or Massachusetts mill owner. The thought of an America crowded with millions and millions of poverty stricken European laborers, all sharing citizenship with their mainstream brothers, horrified the planter elite. They viewed themselves as the founders of a future America that would become the great civilization akin to Greece and Rome, a slave empire led by a necessarily small elite of aristocratic slave owners. These retrogressive dreams had definitely shaped and plans for expansion of the quote, slave power far beyond the South. After all, if the Spanish Empire had used armies of Indian slaves to mine the gold, silver, and copper of Peru and Mexico, why did not the southern planter bourgeoisie colonize the great minefields of New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and California, with millions of African palaces sending the great mineral wealth of the West back to Richmond and New Orleans? These two profits might finance a new world empire, just as they once did for Sanat Yosin. Why could not the plantation system be extended, not just to Texas, but to all of the West, Mexico, Cuba, and Central America? If masses of Africans already sweated so properly in the factories, mills, and mines of Birmingham and Richmond, why couldn't the industrial process be an integral part of a new slave empire that would destroy the world, as Rome lost Europe and North Africa? The planter capitalists who handled themselves with these bloody dreams had little use for great numbers of penniless European immigrants dying off their doorstep. While the northerners saw the increasing dangers of the slave economy, with mounting captive armies of Africans, the planters saw the same dangers in importing a white proletariat. The creation of such an underclass would inevitably, they thought, divide white society, since the privilege of settlers could only stretch so far. Or, in other words, too many whites meant an inevitable swallow over dividing up loot. In 1836, Thomas Ardu, of William College, warned his northern cousins that importing Europeans, who were meant to stay poor, could only lead to class war. Beginning a long quote. Between the rich and the poor, the capitalist and the laborer, when these things shall come, when the millions, who are always under pressure of poverty, and sometimes on the verge of starvation, shall form an American majority, as is the case now in the old countries of the world, and universal suffrage shall throw the political power into their lands, can you accept that they will regard as sacred the tenure by which you hold your property? End quote. These were perfect words, but in any case, the deadlock between these two factions of the settled bourgeoisie meant that both sides carried out their separate policies during the first half of the 1800s. While the merchant and industrial capitalists of the North recruited the dispossessed of Europe, the southern planters fought to expand the slave power. Had been brought into the famous Virginia planter, smugly boasted that, quote, one of the greatest benefits of the institution of back slavery to some states is the fact in keeping away our territory and direction to the north and northwest of hordes of immigrants now found from Europe, end quote. Such is the blindness of doomed classes. End of chapter 3. Settlers by J.C. Chapter 4. Settler Trade Unionism. Section. The Rise of White Labor. Settler America got the reinforcements they needed to advance into empire from the great European immigration of the 19th century. 
between 1830 to 1860, some 4.5 million Europeans, two thirds of Irish and German, arrived to help the settler beachhead on the eastern shore push outward. The impact of these reinforcements on the tide of can be guessed from the fact that they numbered more than the total population of 1800. At a time when the young settler nation was dangerously dependent on the rebellious African colony in the south, and on continental battleground greatly outnumbered by the various Indian, Mexican, and African nations, these new legions of Europeans played a decisive role. The fact that this flood of Europeans also helped create competitions within the settler ranks has led to honest confusions. Some comrades mistakenly believe that a white proletarian was born, whose trade union and socialist activities placed it in a historic position of primary force for revolution, and thus our eventual ally. The key is to see what was dominant in the material life and political consciousness of this new labor then and now. The earlier settler society of the English colonies was relatively fluid and still unformed in terms of class structure. After all, the original ruling class of America was that of England, and even the larger New England capitalists were seen by English aristocracy as near middlemen between them and the African proletarians who actually created wealth. To them, George Washington was just an overpaid foreign. And while there were great differences in wealth and power, there was a shared privilege among the settlers. Few were exploited in the scientific social sense of being a wage slave of capital. In fact, wage labor for another man was looked down upon by white settler of failure, and it still is by many. Up until the mid 1800s, settler society then was characterized by the unequal, the general opportunities for land ownership, and the extraordinary fluidity of personal fortunes by all European standards. This era of early settlers rapidly drew to close as American capitalism matured. Good Indian land and cheap African slaves became more and more difficult for ordinary settlers to obtain. In the South, the ranks of planters began tightening, concentrating as capitalist settlers. One historian writes, began quote unquote. During the early decades, when the lower South was being settled, farmers stood every chance of becoming planters. Until the late in the 50s, 1850s, most planters were their father's equivalent, started life as with few slaves, but generally without any hands to their own. The heyday of these poor people lasted as long as land and slaves were cheap, enabling them to realize their ambition to be planters and slave owners, as so many succeeded in doing. But the day of the farmer began to wane rapidly after 1850. If he had not already obtained good land, it became doubtful he would ever improve his fortunes. All the fertile soil that was not under cultivation was generally held by speculators at mount prices. End of quote. While in the cities of the North, the small local business of independent master craftsmen, shoemaker, blacksmith, cooper, etc., was giving way step by step to the large merchant with his regional business and his capitalist workshops or factory. This was the inevitable casualty list of industrialism. At the beginning of the 1800s, it was still true that every ambitious young hero under the disorder could expect to eventually become a master, owning his own little business, out of his own slaves. There is no exaggeration in saying this. We know, for example, that in the Philadelphia of the 1820s, craftmasters actually outnumbered their journeyman employees by three to two, and the various tradesmen, masters, and professionals were an absolute majority of the Euro-American male population. Left by 1860, the number of journeyman workers compared to masters had tripled, and a majority of Euro-American men were now wage Working for a master or merchant was no longer just a second something to be an independent owner or shopkeeper. This new white workforce, for the first time, had little prospect of advancing beyond wage slavery. Unemployment and wage slashing were common phenomena, and an increasing class strife and discontent under the world of settlers. In this scene, the new millions of immigrant European workers, many with old European experiences of class struggle, furnished the final moment in the hardening of a settler class structure. The political development was very rapid once the middle point was reached, from artisan guilds to private associations to local unions. National unions and labor journals soon appeared, and in the workers' movements, the champion, championing of various socialist and Marxist ideas was widespread and popular, particularly since these immigrant masses were salted with radical political exiles. Marx, in the inaugural address of First National in 1864, says, quote, Crushed by the iron hand of force, the most advanced sons of labor fled in his air to transcend the republic. End quote. All this was not the outward form of proletarian class consciousness, made all the more convincing because those white workers subjectively believed they were proletarians, quote, to be exploited, the creators of all wealth, the sons of total, etc., etc. In actuality, this was clearly untrue. While there were many exploited and copy-stricken proletarians, these new Euro-American workers, as a whole, were a privileged labor stratum. As a labor aristocracy, it had, instead of proletarian revolutionary consciousness, a paid bourgeois consciousness that was unable to rise above reformism. This period is important for us to analyze, because here, for the first time, we start to see modern political form of the Euro-American masses emerge. Here, at the very start of industrial capitalism, are trade unions, labor electoral campaigns, quote, Marxist organizations, nationwide struggles by white workers against the capitalists, major proposals for, quote, white and negro labor lines. What we find is that this new class of white workers was indeed angry and militant, but so completely dominated by petty bourgeois consciousness that they always ended up as pawns of various bourgeois political factions. Because they clung to and hungered after the petty privileges derived from the loot of empire, they, as a stratum, became rabid and reactionary supporters of conquest and the organization of oppressed nations. The, quote, trade union unity, being so important to Euro American radicals then and now, kept falling apart and was doomed to failure. Not because white workers were racist, although they were, but because this alleged, quote, trade union unity was just a ruse to divide, confuse, and stall the oppressed until new genocidal attacks could be launched against us and completely drive us out of their way. This new stratum, far from assessing a revolutionary potential, one that was unable to even take part in the, quote, democratic struggles of the 19th century. When we go back and trace the Euro-American workers' movements from the early stages in the pre-industrial period of through the end of the 19th century, this point is very striking. In the 1820s and 30s, before white workers had developed into a class, they still played a major role in the political struggles of, quote, Jacksonian democracy. At that time, the, quote, United States was a classic bourgeois democracy, that is, a democracy for a handful of capitalists. Even among settlers, high property qualifications, residency laws, and sex discrimination limited the vote to a very small minority. So popular movements, based on the angry small farmers and urban workmen, arose in state after state to strike down these limitations, and thus forced settler government to better share the spoils of empire. 
In New York State, for example, one rule landmark was the quote reform convention of 1821, where supporters of Martin Van Buren swept away the high property qualifications that had previously barred white working men from voting. This was a significant history for them. Historian Leon Lipak has pointed out that the 1821 convention quote, has helped symbolize the expansion of democracy, which made possible the triumph of Andrew Jackson seven years later. End quote. Van Buren became a hero of the white workers and was later to follow Jackson into the White House. Did this national trend quote, for the extension and restriction of popular rights to quote, voting rights in the convention involve the unity of Euro American and African workers? No. In fact, the free African communities in the North opposed these reform movements of the Southern The reason is easy to grasp. Everywhere in the North, the pre Civil War popular struggles to enlarge the political powers of the Southern masses also had the program of taking away civil rights from the Africans. These movements had the public aim of driving all Africans out of the North. The 1821 New York quote, Reform Convention gave all white women the vote while simultaneously raising property qualifications for African men so high that it effectively disenfranchised the entire community. By 1835, it was estimated that only 75 out of 15,000 Africans in that state had voting rights. This unconcealed attack on Africans was, in point of fact, a compromise, with Van Buren restraining the white majority, which aided even few remaining strands of civil rights left for wealthy Africans. Van Buren paid for this in his later years, when opposing politicians, such as Abraham Lincoln, attacked it for letting any Africans vote at all. For that matter, this new, expanded, sex federal electorate in New York turned down bills to let Africans vote for many years thereafter. In the 1860 elections, while Lincoln and the GOP were winning New York by a 32,000 vote majority, only 1,600 votes supported a bill for African suffrage. Frederick Douglass pointed out that civil rights for Africans were supported by neither Republicans nor abolitionists. These earlier popular movements of settler workingmen found significant expression in the presidency of Andrew Jackson, the central figure of quote, Jacksonian democracy. This phrase is used by historians to designate the rabble-rousing anti-elite reformism he helped introduce into settler politics. His role in early political stirrings of white workers was so large that even today some Euro American quote, communist labor historians proudly refer to quote, the national struggle for economic and political democracy by Andrew Jackson. Jackson did indeed lead a quote, national struggle, though originally his own class, the planter bourgeoisie, but his entire separation of oppressors. He stood at a critical point in the expansion into empire. During his two administrations, he personally led the campaigns to abolish the national bank, which was seen by many settlers as protecting the monopolistic power of the very few top capitalists and the British manufacturers, and to ensure settler prosperity by annexing new territory into the empire. In both, he was successful. The boom in slave cotton and the parallel rise in immigrant European labor was tied to the removal of the Indian nations from the land. After all, the extensive growth of railroads, canals, mills, and workshops was only possible with economic expansion, an expansion that could only come the literal expansion of America through new conquests. And the fruits of new conquests were very popular with settlers of Austria, North and South. The much needed expansion of cash export crops, primarily cotton, and trade was being blocked as the subland areas ran up against the Indian U.S. Empire borders. In particular, the so called five civilized nations, Creeks, Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Sentinels, Indian nations that had already been recognized as sovereign territorial entities in the U.S. trees, held much of the South, northern Georgia, western North Carolina, southern Tennessee, much of Alabama, and two thirds of Mississippi. The Southerners were particularly upset that the Indian nations of the Old Southwest showed no signs of collapsing, dying out, or trading away their land. All had developed stable and effective agricultural economies with considerable trade. Euro Americans, many, thought they were too successful. The Cherokee, who had chosen a path of adopting many Western societal forms, had a national life more stable and prosperous than that of the Euro-American settlers, who eventually occupied those Appalachian regions after their forced out. A Presbyterian Church report in 1826 records that Cherokee Nation had 76 hot houses, 762 looms, 1,488 spinning wheels, 10 sawmills, 31 grain mills, 62 glass and shops, 18 schools, 70,000 head livestock, a weekly newspaper in their own language, and numerous libraries with thousands of good books. The Cherokee National Government had two houses in the Supreme Court. Picture of the Cherokee Nation on the Trail of Tears, 1838. Under the leadership of President Jackson, the U.S. government ended even its limited recognition of Indian sovereignty, and openly encouraged land and local settlers to start seizing Indian lands at gunpoint. The U.S. Supreme Court ruling upholding Cherokee sovereignty versus the state of Georgia was publicly ridiculed by Jackson, who refused to enforce it. In 1830, Jackson finally got Congress to pass the Removal Act, which authorized him to use the army to totally relocate or exterminate all Indians east of the Mississippi River. The whole eastern half of this continent was now to be completely clear of Indians, and every square inch he had over the needs of European settlers. In magnitude, this was as sweeping as Hitler's main design to render continental Europe free of Jews. Under Jackson's direction, the U.S. Army committed genocide on an impressive scale. The Cherokee Nation, for instance, was dismantled, with one third of the Cherokee population dying in the winter of 1838 from disease, famine, exposure, and gunfire, as the U.S. marched away at Bayonne Point on the Trail of Tears. So the man who led the settlers' quote, national struggle for economic and political democracy was not only a bourgeois politician, but in fact an apostle of annexation and genocide. The president of the Trail of Tears was a stereotype frontiersman, a fact which made him popular with poor whites. After throwing away his inheritance on drinking and gambling, the young Jackson moved to the frontier, at that time, Nashville, Tennessee, to quote, find his fortune. That's a common phrase in the history books, which only conceals the reality that the only fortune on the frontier was from genocide. Jackson eventually became quite wealthy through speculating in Indian land, like Washington, Franklin, and other settlers before him, and owned a cotton plantation with over 100 African slaves. The leader of Jacksonian democracy had a clear, practical appreciation of how probable genocide could be for settlers. First as a land speculator, then as a slave master, and finally as general and then president, Jackson literally spent the whole of his old life personally involved in genocide. During the pre-war of 1813-14, Jackson and his fellow frontiersmen slaughtered hundreds of unarmed women and children, afterwards seeing the bodies to make souvenirs. Footnote. 
While some of the apostles are still in the shades of the sins of murder Jews, the practicalities of the frontier life, like Jackson and his men, take royal reigns of their victims' sins. And footnote. Naturally, Jackson had a vicious hatred of Indians and Africans. He spent the majority of his years in public office, pressing military campaigns against the Seminole in Florida, who had earned special enmity by sheltering the state Africans. He was military campaigns in Florida against first the Spanish and then the Seminole, were in large part motivated by the need to eliminate the Spanish base for independent African recruitment. The Seminole Wars had gone on for over three years, began when Jackson was an army officer, and ended after he had retired from the White House. But he still sent Washington angry letters on the Seminole Wars for his retirement. They were as much African wars as Indian wars, but the state Africans had formed liberated African communities as a semi autonomous part of the sheltering Seminole nation. The first attacks on these Africans Seminole took place in 1814, when Georgia vigilantes invaded to enslave the valuable Africans. African forces wiped out almost all the invaders, including commanding Georgia Major and the U.S. General. Two years later, in 1816, U.S. naval successfully attacked the African fort at on the Atlantic coast. Two hundred defenders were killed when a lucky shot touched off the African ammunition stores. The next year, in 1817, army troops under Jackson's command invaded Florida in the first Seminole War. The Africans and Seminoles evaded Jackson's troops and permanently withdrew deeper into Central Florida. A picture of the popular and electoral blood in Washington of 1828. Jackson has a majority. The decisive Second Seminole War began in 1835, when the Seminole nation, under the leadership of the great refused to submit to U.S. rule of Oklahoma. A key disagreement was that the settlers insisted on their right to separate the Seminole from their African coast systems, who then be re-enslaved and put on the Oshawak. When the Seminole refused, Jackson angered the army to go in and, quote, eat Osceola and his people. Fighting the classic guerrilla war, 2,000 Seminole and 1,000 African fighters inflicted terrible casualties on the invading U.S. Army. Even capturing Osceola and false troops couldn't get the settlers' victory. Finally, U.S. Commanding General Thomas Jackson conceded that none of the Africans would be re-enslaved, but all relocated to Oklahoma as part of the Seminole nation. With this, most of the Seminole and African forces surrendered and left Florida. Footnote, even in the Oklahoma territory, repeated outbreaks of the campaigns by African Seminole forces were reported as late as 1842. Those who refused to submit simply retreated deeper into the Appalachians and kept ambushing any settlers who dared to follow. In 1843, the U.S. gave up trying to reduce the remaining Seminole roads out of swamps. The settlers lost some 1,600 soldiers, killed, and an additional thousands wounded or disabled through disease. The war, which General Jessup labeled, quote, a Negro, not an Indian war, cost the U.S. some 30 million. That was 80 times what President Jackson had promised Congress to send in getting rid of all Indians east of the city. At the time he left office, Jackson was infuriated that the Seminole and Africans were resisting the armed might of the empire year after year. He urged that the army to on fighting and killing all the enemy women in order to put final biological end to the sovereign nation. He boasted that he had used the strategy quite successfully in his own campaigns against Indians. Time and time again, Jackson made clear that he favored a final solution of total genocide for all Indians. In his second State of the Union address, Jackson reassured his fellow settlers that they should not feel guilty when they, quote, tread on the graves of extinct nations, since the wiping out of all Indian life was just as natural as the passing of generations. Could anyone miss the For years and decades, soaking aggression and killing, could any Euro American not know what Jackson stood for? Yet, he was the chosen hero of the Euro American workers in that day. While Hitler never won an election in his life and had to use the armed power of the state to violently crush their orders and organizations, Jackson was swept into power by the votes of Euro American workmen and small farmers. His jingoistic sanctions were popular with all sectors of settler society, in particular with those who planned to use Indian land to help solve separate troubles. Northern workers raised him for his opposition to the old colonial elite of the Federalist Party, his stand on the National Bank, and his famous equal protection doctrine. The leader, Thomas Lee, claimed that government's duty was not to take the rich, but through taxation and other measures, to get aid, quote, of life on the high and low, the rich and the poor, and quote, of Saturday society. Jackson was a historic founder of the Democratic Party, not only in organization, but in first welding together the electoral coalition of some planters and northern, quote, ethnic workers. He was the first president to lay claim that he was born in a log cabin of lowly circumstances. This, quote, redneck posture, enhanced by his bloody military adventures, was very popular with the mass of small slave owners in his native south, and with northern workers as well. In detailed vote studies confirm that in both the 1828 and 32 elections, Jackson received White workmen joined the Democratic Party as a crusade for equality among settlers. In the New York mayoral election of 1834, organized white labor marched in groups to the polls, singing, the end quote, Mechanics, Spartan, laborers must form a close connection and show the rich aristocrats their powers at this election. The Yankee Doodle swung out the proud of the Yankee faction. None but such a sort of events opposed the war and Jackson. And so on. Underneath the surface appearance of the most popular reform, a worker taking on the wealthy, these movements were only attempts to more equally distribute the loot and privileges of the empire among its citizens. That's why the oppressed colonial subjects of the empire had no place in these movements. The line between oppressors and oppressed was unmistakably drawn. African and Indian alike opposed this, quote, Jacksonian democracy. The English visitor Edward Hadley remarked that he, quote, never knew a man of color that was not an anti-Jackson man. On their side, the white working men of the 1830s, no man raised the oppressive genocide as their heroes and leaders. Far from joining the democratic struggles around the rights of the oppressed, the white workers were firmly committed to crushing them. Even as they were gradually being pressed by the emerging juggernaut of industrial capitalism, faced with wage cuts, increasing sea of machine power production, individual craft production disappearing and regimented workshop, etc., those Euro-American workers saw their hope for salvation in non-proletarian social privileges and a desperate claim to petty bourgeois status. At a time when the brutal labor of the empire primarily rested on backs of the undead, captured African proletariat, the white workers of the 1830s were only concerned with winning the 10-hour day for themselves. 
1840s as the empire connects the northern four percent of Mexico, and by the invasion, reduced truncated Mexico to a semi-colony. The only issue the white workmen's movement is how large their share of the It is one thing to be bribed by bourgeoisie, and still another to demand, organize, argue, and beg to be bribed. The dominant political slogan of the white workers' movement of the 1840s was, quote, vote yourself a farm. This expressed a widespread view that it was each settler's right to have cheap land farm, and the ideal lifestyle was the old colonial era model of the self-employed craftsmen who also possessed the security of the part-time farmers. The white labor movement was particularly the influential newspaper working man in New York. Called for legislation legislation under the empire to guarantee cheap tracts of Indian and Mexican land to all working settlers and about working men in particular. Footnote, Homestead Act of 1851 was one result of the campaign. The white workers literally demanded their traditional settler right to be petty bourgeois, little bourgeois, petty innovators who would annex their small individual plots, each under real bourgeoisie and annex another oppressed nation. It should be clear that the backwardness of white labor is not a matter of racism, of mistaken ideas, of being tricked by capitalists, all idealistic and materialist formulations. Rather, it is a class question and a national question. This trend came into being with a feet on top of the and its head straight up into petty bourgeoisie. It's startling how narrow and petty its concerns were in an age when the destiny of people and nations was being decided, when the settled empire was trying to take into its hands the power to decree death to all nations. We keep coming back to genocide, the inescapable center of settled politics in the 19th century. So to fully grasp the politics of emerging white labor, we must penetrate to the connection between their class viewpoint and genocide. End of session. Settlers. Chapter 4, Section 2. The Popular Appeal of Genocide. By 1840, most of the Indian nations of the East had been swept away, slaughtered, or relocated. By 1850, the empire consolidated its grip on the Pacific coast, overrunning and occupying northern Mexico. The empire had succeeded in bringing the continent under its control. These victories produced a famous, quote, opportunity for the new ways of European immigrants were not But these changes also brought to a notable point the contradictions within the fragmented settler bourgeoisie between planter and mercantile industrial capital, contradictions which were reflected in all facets of settler society. The tremendous economic expansion of the conquest was a catalyst. The ruling open of the quote, new south to extend the plantation system meant a great rise of slaves on the western frontier. These new cotton areas became primarily African population. And the ambitious labor bourgeoisie started seeding slave labor enterprises far outward as tentacles of the slave power. So, at a salt mine in Illinois, a gold mine in California, a plantation in Missouri, aggressive planters appeared with their, quote, movable factories of African slaves. Southern adventures even briefly seized the Broadway in 1856 in a premature attempt to annex all of Central America to the slave power. If the clearing away of the Indian nations had unlocked the door to the spread of the slave system, so too it had been an opportunity to settle opponents of the planters. And their vision was not a reborn reach slaveocracy, but a brand new European empire, relentlessly modern, constructed to the most advanced bourgeois principles with the resources of the entire continent united under its command. This new empire would not only dwarf any power in old Europe in size, but would be secured through the power of a vast occupying army of millions of loyal settlers. This bourgeois vision could hardly be considered crackpot, since 20th century America is in large part the realization of it. But the vision was of all European America and all white continent. We can only understand the deep passions of the slavery dispute, the flaring gunfights in Missouri and quote bloody Kansas between pro slavery and anti slavery settlers, and lastly the grinding monumental civil war of 1861 65 as a final play of this great contradiction in the settler ranks. It was not freedom for Africans that motivated them. No, it was the reverse. It was their own futures, their own fortunes. Governor Martin of Ohio called on his fellows to realize their true interests. Quote, we are all personally interested in this question, not indirectly and remotely as in mere political abstraction, but directly, peculiarly, and selfishly. If we do not exclude slavery from the territories, it will exclude us. End quote. The millions of Euro Americans in the North, the slave system had to be halted because it filled the land with masses of Africans instead of masses of settlers. To be precise, in the 19th century, consensus emerged on the majority of Euro Americans that just as the Indian nations before them, the dangerous African colony had to be first contained and then totally eliminated, so that the land could be filled by the largest citizens of the empire. This was a strategic view endorsed by the majority of Euro Americans. It was an explicit vision that required genocide. How natural for new empire hunters, believing they had, like gods, totally removed from the earth one family of oppressed nations, to think nothing of wiping out another. The start was to bind Africans to the South to drive them out of the quote, free states in the North. Indeed, in the political language of 19th century settler politics, the word quote, free also served as a code phrase that meant non African. The movement confined Africans to the slave south to both governmental and popular forms. Four frontier states, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, and Oregon, passed quote, immigration clauses in their constitutions, which bar Africans as quote, aliens from entering the state. It's interesting that the concept of Africans as foreign quote, immigrants, a concept which tacitly admits separate African nationality, keeps coming to the surface over and over. Legal measures forced Africans out by denying them the vote. The rights of land, use public facilities, practice many questions and crafts, etc., were passed in many areas of the North at the urging of the white laws. White labor not only refused to defend the democratic rights of Africans, but played a major role in these new assaults. A picture of the draft riots in New York. Periodic waves of mass terror also were used everywhere against African communities in the North. The abolitionist press records records 209 violent mob acts in the North between 1830 and 1849. These violent assaults were not the controlled outpouring of blind racism, as often suggested. Rather, they were carefully organized offenses to achieve definite goals. These mobs were usually led by members of the liberal ruling class, merchants, judges, military officers, bankers, etc., and made up of settlers from all strata of society. The three most common goals were: one, to reverse some local advance in African organization, education, or employment; two, to destroy the local abolitionist movement; and three, to reduce the African population. In almost every case, the mobs, representing both the local ruling class and popular settler opinion, were successful. In almost no cases did any significant number of Americans interfere with the mobs, save to quote, restore order or to no protect the lives after the violence had gained its ends. But to most settlers in the North, these attacks were just temporary measures. 
to them all hard matter with the slave system. They thought that without the powerful self-interest of the landers to quote, protect Africans, that Africans as a whole was with the advantage from this continent. Today, it may sound fantastic that those 19th century Euro Americans expected to totally wipe out the African population. Back then, it was seen as gospel truth to find most settlers that in a quote, free society, where Africans would be faced with quote, competition, these are phrases from whites, they as imperialists must perish. The comparison was usually made to the Indians, who quote, died out as white farmers took their land, as old villages were wiped out in unprovoked massacres, as hunger and disease overtook them, as they deemed debilitated with addiction to alcohol, as survivors were off concentration camps at gunpoint. Weren't free Africans losing their jobs already? And weren't there literally millions of New European farmers eager to take a farm into Africans that lived on and developed? Nor was it just the right wingers that looked forward to getting rid of the Negro problem, as all white farmers do it. All tendencies of the abolitionists contains not only those who defended the human rights of Africans, but also those who publicly or privately agreed that Africans must go. Gamaliel Bailey, editor of the major abolitionist journal, National Era, promises white readers that after slavery ended, all Africans will leave the United States. The North's most prominent theologian, Reverend Horace Herschel, wrote in 1839 that emancipation would be, quote, one bright spot to console Africans, who were, quote, doomed to send their British existence downward into extinction. That extinction, he told scholars, was only divine will and all the good. Reverend Theodore Parker, who was one of the leading spokesmen of radical abolitionism, one who finance John Brown's uprising, Parker's Ferry, and who afterwards defended from the pulpit. Yet, even Parker believed in an all white America. He firmly believed that, quote, the stronger faces the weak, thus the white man kills out the red man and the black man. When slavery is abolished, the African population will be flung in the United States and die out of the South, as out of Northampton and Lexington. End quote. One thing settlers tried to hide their genocidal longings behind the fictions of, quote, natural law or divine will. Others were more honest in saying that it would happen because your own Americans were determined to make it happen. Thus, even during the Civil War, the House of Representatives issued a report on emancipation that strongly declared, quote, the highest interests of the white race, whether Anglo-Saxon, Celt, or Scandinavian, required that the whole country should be held and occupied by these races alone. End quote. In other words, this long contradiction between emancipation and genocide. The leading economist, George M. Weston, wrote in 1857 that, quote, when the white artisans and farmers want the room which the African occupies, they will not take it by brute force, but by gentle and gradual and peaceful processes. The Negro will disappear. Perhaps the region is more congenial to him. Perhaps the region where his labor can be useful. Perhaps by some process of colonization we may yet devise. But at all events, he will disappear. End quote. National political movements were formed by settlers to bring this day about. The colonization movement, embodied in the American Colonization Society, organized hundreds of local chapters to press for national legislation whereby Africans would be removed to new colonies in Africa, the West Indies, or Central America. The U.S. residents in Monroe in 1817 to Lincoln in 1860 endorsed the society, and the semi of Liberia was started as a trial. Much larger was the Free Soil Party, which fought to reserve the territories and states of the West for Europeans only. This was the main forerunner of the Republican Party of 1854, the first settler political party whose platform was the feat of the, quote, slave power. The Republican Party itself strongly reflected this ideology of an all-white America. Although most of its leaders supported limited civil rights for it did so only in the context of a temporary need for empire to treat subjects humanely. Senator William Seward of New York was the leading Republican spokesman before the Civil War, during which he served as Secretary of State. In his famous Detroit speech during the 1860 campaign, he said, quote, The great fact is now fully realized that the African race here is a foreign and feeble element, like the Indian incapable of assimilation. End quote. Both would, he promised his fellow settlers, all together disappear. Lincoln himself said over and over again during his entire political career that all Africans would eventually have to disappear from North America. The theme of African genocide runs like a dark thread, now hidden and now visible, in the violent weaving of the future, throughout the political thought of that day. It should be remembered that while most Northern settlers opposed African slavery for these reasons by the 1860s, even after the Civil War, settlers promoted Indian, Mexican, Mexicano, and Chinese enslavement when it was useful to colonize the Southwest and West. One separate round of the Apache U.S. wars in the Southwest reveals the use of slavery as a genocide. More than anything else, it was probably the incessant kidnapping and slavery of their women and children that gave Apache their mad dog identity toward the whites. It was officially estimated that 2,000 Indian slaves were held by the white people in Mexico and Arizona in 1866, after 20 years of American rule. Unofficial estimates placed the figure several times higher. Hidden back to us, Apache died in the Army referring to 29 children just sold by citizens of Arizona. Quote, our little boys will grow up as slaves, and our little girls, as they are large enough, will be diseased prostitutes to get money for whoever owns them. End quote. Prostitution of captured Apache girls, of which much mention is made in the 1860s and 70s, seems to trouble the Apaches exceedingly. So that, at the same time, the U.S. was supposedly ending slavery and, quote, emancipating Africans. The U.S. Empire was using slavery of the most kind in order to genocide destroy the Apache. It was colonial rule and genocide that were primary. End of section 2. Settlers, Chapter 4, Section 3. White labor against the oppressed. The great democratic issues that time only grow out of this intense, sealing nexus of empire and colony, of oppressed nation and oppressed nations. Nothing took place that was not a factor on the battleground of empire and oppressed. Nothing. Everyone was caught up in the war, however dimly they understood their own position. The new millions of immigrant European workers were desperately needed by the empire. By 1860, half of the populations of New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, and St. Louis were new immigrant Europeans. These reinforcements were immediately useful in new offenses against the Indian, African, and Mexican people. While this separate colony was still absolutely dependent on the horse labor of the African area, cotton alone accounted for almost 60% of the U.S. export earnings in 1860. The new reinforcements provided means to reverse dangerous concentrations of Africans in metropolitan centers. Frederick Douglass said in 1855, quote, Every hour sees us elbow out of some employment to make room, perhaps, for some newly arrived immigrants, whose hunger and power are taught to give them the title to special favors. White men are becoming house servants, cooks, and stewards, common laborers, and flunkies to our gentry. 
the Philadelphia newspaper, Color Miriam, said as early as 1838, the three Africans, quote, have ceased to be hacking coachmen and draymen, and are now almost displaced as sea rovers. Footnote, draymen. Carriers, i.e. those who hold goods around the state for a fee. And footnote. Quote, continued. They were rapidly losing their places as barbers and servants. End quote. In New York City, Africans were the majority of the house servants in 1830, but by 1850, Irish house servants outnumbered the entire urban population there. The empire was swiftly moving to replace the rebellious and dangerous African proletariat by more submissive and loyal Europeans. Even in the deep south, urban African proletarians were increasingly replaced by loyal European immigrants. In New Orleans, the Germans were all African in 1830, but by 1840, were all Irish. One historian Occupational exclusion of blacks actually began before the Civil War. In an unpublished study, Blind Mountain has demonstrated conclusively such exclusion and decline of civil African workers for Rochester, New York, blacks between 1840 and 1860. My own work shows a similar decline in Charleston, South Carolina between 1850 and 1860. And these trends continued until the 60s during Reconstruction. A crucial story has yet to be told. The 1870 New Orleans City Reverie, Woodward pointed out, listed 3.4,000 black carpenters, cigar makers, painters, shoemakers, hoopers, tailors, blacksmiths, and boundary hands. In 1904, less than 10% of that number appeared even though the New Orleans population had increased by more than 50%. End quote. Beneath the great events of Civil War and Reconstruction, the genocide restructuring the oppressed African nation continued year after year. This was clearly the word but where did the new shroud of the American workers stand on this issue? The defeat of the slaveocracy, the political upheavals of the conflict, and the enormous expansion of European immigration have served and hardened white labor. In both North and South, local unions arrived and new unions began. New attempts emerged to form effective national federations of all white workers. Between 1863 and 1830, some 130 white workers received an application. The ARD movement, quote, ran to express speed from coast to coast in the way of the war. During the long and during the depression of 1873 and 78, militant struggles broke out, ending in the famous general strike of 1877. In this last trick, the white workers won Truly, white labor had become a giant in size. Even in a deep south state such as Louisiana, by the 1860 census, white laborers made up one third of the total settled population. <coughs> in St. Louis, then the third largest manufacturing center in the empire, the 1864 census showed that slightly over one third of that city's 76,000 white men were workers, rivermen, factory laborers, seedlers, etc. In the Boston of the 1870s, only one half of the total white population were workers, and their families mostly Irish. In some northern factory towns, the proportion was even higher. The ideological head on this giant body, however, still bore cramped little features of the old artisan farmer mentality of previous generations. When this giant was aroused by capitalist cuts and kicks, its angry flailings not over troops and shockwaves of fear and uncertainty spread through separate society. But its heavy bourgeois confusions, the capitalists easily outmaneuvered it, each time bringing it back to resentful acquiescence with civil applications of the Eratonistic. What is the essence of the ideology of white labor? Petty bourgeois annexationism. Lenin pointed out in great debates on the national question that the heart of national oppression is annexation of the territory of the oppressed nations by the oppressed nation. There is nothing abstract or mystical about this. To this new layer of European labor was denied the gross privileges of the bourgeoisie who annexed whole nations. Even the privileges that so comforted the earlier Euro-American farmers and artisans, most particularly that of annexing individual plots of land every time their empire advanced, were denied to these European wage slaves. But typically, their petty bourgeois vision saw themselves special, better kind of wage slavery. The ideology of white labor held as low citizens of the empire, even wage slaves had a right to special privileges, such as for white man's wages, beginning with a right to monopolize the labor market. We must touch sharply through the liberal camouflage and see on this question. It is insufficient, and therefore misleading, to say that European workers wish to, quote, discriminate against, or exclude, or were, quote, prejudiced against, colored workers. It was the labor of African and Indian workers that created the economy of the original America. Likewise, the economy of the Southwest was distilled from oil, the Indian, and the Mexican workers, and that of Northern California and the Pacific Northwest was built by the economy of Chinese labor. Immigrant European workers proposed to enter an economy that had built and annexed, so to speak, the jobs that the national press had created. Naturally, the religionists always want to talk about it as a matter of what workers not sharing equally enough, as though a robber enters your home and takes everything you earned, the probability is that the thief should quote, share your property better. Since the ideology of white labor was annexationist and predatory, it was a necessity also for the pro empire, and despite angry helpers, fundamentally survived for the bourgeoisie. It was not a proletarian outlook, but the degraded outlook of a would be labor aristocracy. We can grasp this very concretely, actually investigating the political rising of European labor in that period in relation to the national oppressed. Even today, few comrades not completely establishing the empire in the Pacific West depended upon Chinese labor, footnote, as well as the labor of Japanese, Filipino, and Korean workers, and footnote. In fact, the Chinese predate the American settlement on the West Coast by many years. When the famous Lewis and Clark expedition sent out by President Jefferson reached the Pacific in 1804, they arrived some 16 years after the British established a major shipyard on Vancouver Bay, a shipyard named by Chinese shipwrights and sailors. For that matter, the Spanish shores south of California had even earlier imported steel Chinese workers. We know that Chinese Southern Crescent found in Los Angeles in 1781. This is easy to understand when we see California was closer to Asia than New York in practical terms. In travel time, San Francisco was about 60 days sail from Canton, but six months by white train from Kansas City. A picture of Chinese fishermen in Monterey, California in 1875. The separate capitalists used Chinese labor to found virtually every aspect of the New American economy in this region. The Mexicano people, who were now quite majority in the area, couldn't be used because the settlers were engaging in reducing their numbers, so consolidated U.S. colonial conquest. During the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, the all too familiar settler campaign of mass terror, assassination, and land grabbing was used against the Mexicanos. Rodolfo Acuna summarizes, quote, During this time, the Chinese were used as an alternative to the Chicanos as a labor force. 
Trump were pushed to the southern half of the state and were literally forced out of California in order to escape lynching, abuses, and colonized status, to which they had been condemned. Thus, the Chinese were not only victims of America, but their very presence was a part of the genocide campaign to dismember and colonize the Mexican nation. In the same way, decades later, a decolonized labor, now driven from land and reduced to colonial status, would be, used, would be used to replace Chinese labor by settlers. The full extent of Chinese labor's role is revealing. The California textiles were originally 70-80% Chinese, as were well the garment factories. As late as 1880, Chinese made up 52% of all shoemakers and 44% of all groupmakers makers in the state, as well as one out of all factory workers in the city of San Francisco. The fish cans were so heavily made by the Chinese, over 80%, that when the Campbell Fisher fish was introduced, it was popularly called the Iron Chink. The fish itself, salmon, squid, shrimp, etc., was often caught and brought in by Chinese fishermen who pioneered the fishing industry in the area. Chinese junks were then a common sight in California harbors, and literally thousands of Chinese seamen lived in numerous all Chinese fishing villages the coast from San Diego up to Oregon. As late as 1888, there were over 20 Chinese fishing villages just in San Francisco and San Paolo Bays, while 50% of the California fishing industry was still Chinese. In the 1870s, when California became the largest wheat-growing state in the U.S., over 85% of the farm labor was Chinese. Chinese workers played a large part as well in bringing out the vast mineral wealth that so accelerated the growth of the U.S. and the West. In 1870, Chinese made up 25% of all miners in California, 41% in Washington, 58% in Idaho, and 61% in Oregon. In California, the special monthly tax paid by each Chinese miner virtually supported the government for many years, accounting for 29 to 50% of all settled government revenues for the 1851 to 1870 era. Throughout the area, Chinese also made up a service population, like Athens and Economos and other regions of the empire, for the Chinese folks, laundrymen, and domestic servants were such a common part of the pleasant set of life in the mines, cattle ranches, and cities that no Hollywood Western movie is complete without its stereotyped Chinese folk. A picture of some white and Chinese miners holding striker Richard California Goldrush at Auburn Meridian in 1852. But their greatest single feat in building the economy of the West was also their undoing. Between 1865 and 1869, some 15,000 Chinese borders carved the far western stretch of the Transcontinental Rail Line out of the hostile Sierra and Rocky Mountain Ranges. Through severe weather, they cut red beds out of Rocky Mountain sides, blasted tunnels, and laid tracks to the Central Pacific Railroad some 1,800 miles east to Ogden, Utah. It was and is a historic engineering achievement, every mile paid for in blood of the Chinese who got from soldier and avalanches. The reputation earned by Chinese workers led them to be hired to build rail lines, not only in the West, but in the Midwest and South as well. This Transcontinental Rail Link enabled minerals and farm produce of the West to be swiftly shipped back east, while getting eastern industry ready access to Pacific markets, not only on the West Coast, but all Asia via Port San Francisco. The time distance across the continent was now cut to two weeks, and cheap railroad tickets brought a flood of European workers to the West. There was, of course, an established separate tradition of terrorism towards Chinese. The Shasta Republican complained in his December 12, 1886 issue that, quote, hundreds of Chinamen have been slaughtered in cold blood the last five years. The murder of China was almost daily occurrence, end quote. Now the new legions of American workers demanded quality of increase in the terrorist assaults, and the 1870s and 1880s were decades of mass bloodshed. A picture, quote, the first load of the Chinese question. From the Wasp, version 2, August 1877, July 1878. The white man punching Chinese man. The issue was very clear cut. Jobs. By 1870, some 42% of the whites in California were European immigrants, with their dreams of finding gold boulders lying in streams having faded for reality. These new proud Europeans demanded jobs that Chinese labor created. More than demanded, they were determined to annex, to seize by force of conquest, all that Chinese workers had in the West. In imitation of the bourgeoisie, they went about plundering with bolts and fire. In mine camps and towns, from Colorado to Washington, Chinese communities came under attack. Many Chinese were shot down, beaten, their homes and stores set fire and gutted. In Los Angeles, Chinese were burned alive by the European vigilantes, who also shot and tortured many others. In perverse fashion, the traditional weapons of trade unionism were turned against the Chinese workers in the struggle. Many manufacturers who employed Chinese were warned that henceforth all desirable jobs must be filled by European immigrants. Boycotts were threatened, and in some industries, such as wineries and cigar factories, the new white unions invented the now famous quote, union label, printed tags which guaranteed that the Pacific product was produced solely by European unions. In 1884, when one San Francisco cigar manufacturer began replacing Chinese workers, who then made up 85% of the industry there, with European immigrants, the Chinese cigar makers went on strike. Swiftly, the San Francisco white labor movement united to help the capitalists break the strike. Seattle was praised, and the Knights of Labor and other European workers organizations led a successful boycott of all cigar companies that Chinese workers. Boycotts were widely used in industry after industry to seize Chinese jobs. Picture, 1877 engraving by Chinese cartoon by Frank Leslie Silverstreet. It's a man dreaming about Chinese sword workers. In the political arena, a multitude of quote anti coolie laws were passed on all levels of settlement. Special taxes and quote license fees on Chinese workers and treatment were used both to discourage them and to support settlement at their expense. Chinese who carried laundry labels on their backs in San Francisco had to pay the city a $60 quote license fee each year. Many municipalities passed laws ordering all Chinese to leave, enforced by the trade union laws. The decisive point of the entire wide campaign to plunder what the Chinese had done in the West was the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Both the Democratic and Republican parties supported this bill, which barred all Chinese immigration into the U.S. and made Chinese ineligible for citizenship. The encouragement offered by the capital state, the anti-Chinese offensive, shows the forces at work. In their frenzy of petty plundering, European labor was being permitted to do the dirty work of the bourgeoisie. The empire needed to promote and support this flood of European reinforcements to help take hold of the newly conquered territories. As California Governor Henry Haight, whose name lives on in a certain San Francisco neighborhood, said in 1868, quote, 
No name is worthy of name, of hatred, or statesman, who countenances a policy which is opposed to the interests of free white laboring and industrial classes. What we desire for the permanent benefit of California is a population of white men. We ought not to desire an elite population of Asiatics. End quote. The national bourgeoisie used the quote anti-equality movement and the resulting legislation to force individual capitalists to follow empire policy and discharge Chinese and favor Europeans. Now the Chinese had built the economy of the Pacific West. It was time to be stripped and driven out. The passage of the 1882 Act was taken as a quote green light, a go-ahead signal of approval to enter European labor from Congress, the White House, and the majority of Euro Americans. It was taken as a license to a declaration of open legal on Chinese. Karen Powdery, head of Knights of Labor, which hosted that it had recruited African workers to help European labor, praised the victory of the Exclusion Act by saying that now the task trade unionists was a special job by eliminating all Chinese left in the U.S. within the year. Picture of some settlers lynching a Chinese person in San Francisco. The settler propaganda kept emphasizing how pure, honest Europeans have no choice but to quote defend themselves against the dark plots of Chinese. When he sees or anti Chinese jobs and small businesses, European immigrants have shouted they were only quote defending themselves against the vicious Chinese who were trying to steal white jobs. And in case any European worker has thoughts about bombing Lynchmont, a constant ideological bombardment surrounded him by trading and quote socialist leaders, bourgeois journalists, university professors, and religious leaders, politicians, all parties, and so on. Having decided to, quote, annex the fruits of the Chinese development of the Northwest, the usual set of propaganda about defending themselves was put forth. Nor was the Euro-American racial sexual hate propaganda neglected, just as bizarre and perverted as it is by Africans. In 1876, for example, the New York Times published an alleged true interview with the Chinese operator of local opium den. The story has a reporter asking a, quote, Chinaman about the, quote, handsome but swallowly dressed young white girl he sees in the opium den. The Chinaman allegedly answers, quote, oh, hard time in New York, young girl hungry, plenty come here, Chinaman always has something to eat, and he likes a white girl, ha <laughs> ha. End quote. Footnote. Similar news stories are very popular today, reminding the white masses of all the white teenagers who become, quote, captives of African, quote, pimps and opioids. When we see such themes in social media, we should know what's behind it. End of footnote. A woman's magazine warned their readers to never leave the white girls alone with Chinese service. The Senate Republic was solemnily alerted that Chinese bloggers to steal white workers' jobs and thus force starving lives to common confines. The most telling sign of the decision to destroy the Chinese community was the self-realization that these Chinese looked just like Africans in, quote, women's garments. The ten years after the passage of the Exclusion Act saw the successful annexation of the Chinese economy on the West Coast. Tacoma and Seattle forced out their entire Chinese populations at gunpoint. In 1885, the infamous Spock Spring and Spiring Massacre took place, where 20 Chinese miners were killed by a storm of rifle fire as European miners enforced their takeover of all mining. Similar events happened all over the West. In 1886, some 35 California towns reported they had totally eliminated their Chinese populations. On the coast, the Italian government burned Chinese ships and villages to take over most of the fishing industry by 1890. By that same year, most of the Chinese workers and leaders had been replaced by Europeans. By 1894, the bulk of Chinese labor on wheat and vegetable arms had been forced out. Step by step, as fast as they could be replaced, the Chinese who once built the foundation of the region's economy were being driven out. Who took part in this infamous campaign? Virtually the whole of the Euro American labor movement in the U.S., including, quote, socialists and, quote, Marxists. Both of the two great nationwide union federations of the 19th century, the National Labor Union and the later Knights of Labor, played an active role. The Socialist Labor Party was involved. The leading independent white labor newspaper, The Workman's Advocate of Chicago, was edited by E.C. Cameron. He was the leader of the National Labor Union, a recited printing trade unionist, and the delegate from the NLU to the 1869 Social Conference of Communist International. His paper regularly printed speeches and theoretical articles by Karl Marx and other European communists. Yet he loudly called in his newspaper for attacks on the immigrant, quote, China, Japanese, Malays, and monkeys from Asia. Even most, quote, Marxists, who deplored the crude violence of labor laws, such as Adolf Hubal, Dubai, one of the leading German communist immigrants, agreed that the Chinese had to be removed from the U.S. It is easy to predict that even European, quote, Marxists were so strongly pulled along by the the bourgeois trade leaders had to be run like dogs at the Andrew Forsyth, the founder of the Seafarers International Union, AFL-CIO, Pat McCarthy, leader of the San Francisco Building Trade Council, Sam Bowers, leader of the Cigar Union, and later founder of the American Federation of Labor, AFL, were just a few of the many who openly let and incited this sabotage. When we say that the bourgeois consciousness of European immigrant labor showed that it was a degraded trap seeing actual Italian privileges, we aren't talking about the values. The issue was genocide, carrying out the dirty work of capitalists in order to reap some blood fruits of national oppression. It is significant that the organizational focus of the early anti-Chinese campaign was the so-called Working Men's Party of California, which was organized by an Irish immigrant, communist man named Dennis Kearney. Kearney was the usual corrupt phrase-making demagogue that the white masses love so well. Quote, I am the voice of the people, I am the dictator, I owe little nothing, but they owe me a great deal. End quote. Footnote. Unfortunately, we have trained our own. End footnote. This sleazy party, built on the platform of waiting out Chinese labor and federal reforms to aid white workers. This sleazy party, built on the platform of waiting out Chinese labor and federal reforms to aid white workers and farmers, attracted thousands of European workers, including most of the European quote, socialists in California. Before falling apart from corruption, thuggism, and fascism, Chinese party captured seats in the state assembly, the mayoral seat, the mayoralty in Sacramento, and controlled the constitutional dimension which reformed the California Constitution. Even today, separate historians, while deploring Chinese racism, speak respectfully of the party's role in liberal reforms. Even original CPU USA historians apparently feel no shame in praising this gang of degenerates for, quote, arousing public support for a number of important labor demands, forcing old established parties to listen more attentively to the demands of common people, end quote. 
What they showed was that the quote respectable Euro-American Trinidadians and quote Marxists were struggling on their knees before bourgeoisie, along with known criminals such as Turney. Then they must have had much in common. Is it so different today? The monopoly on desirable jobs that European labor had won in the West was continually quote defended by new white supremacist assaults. The campaign against Chinese was continued long into the 20th century, particularly so that momentum could be used against Japanese, Filipino, and other Asian American labor. The AFL played a major role in this. Galpers himself, a Jewish American who became the most powerful bourgeois labor in the U.S. co-authored in 1902 a mass racist tract entitled "Some Reasons for Chinese Exclusion: Me First Rice, American Manhood versus Asiatic Coolism, Which Self Survive." In this crudely racist propaganda, the respected AFL president, comforted by workers, by pointing out their cowardly violence towards Asians, was justified by the victims' immoral and dangerous character. Quote, the yellow man found it natural to lie, cheat, and murder. End quote. Further, he suggested, in attacking Asian workers, whites were just nobly protecting their own white children. Quote, thousands of whom were supposed to be opium addicted quote, prisoners kept in the unseen backs of rooms of neighborhood Chinese laundries. Quote, what other crimes were committed in those dark, bad places when those little innocent victims of China's wilds were under the influence of the drug? That was too horrible to mention. End quote. What's really hard to imagine is how anyone would believe this fantastical portal propaganda. In truth, settlers will eerily swallow any falsehoods that seem to justify their continuing crimes against the rest. The empire wide campaign against the Chinese national minority played a major role in the history of Euro American labor. It was a central rallying issue for many, a point around which immigrant European workers and other settlers around the United. It was a campaign in which all the major Euro American labor federations, trade unions, and quote, socialist organizations joined together. The annexation of the Chinese economy in the West during the later half of the 19th century was but another expression of the same intrusion that Africans had met in the South and North. All over the empire, immigrant European labor was being sent against the oppressed to take what little we had. At times, even their bourgeois masters wished that their dogs were on a shorter leash. Many capitalists saw, even as we were being cut down, that it would be useful to preserve us as a colonial labor force to be exploited whenever needed. But the immigrant white worker had no use for us whatsoever. Therefore, in the altered geometry of forces within the empire, the new Euro American working masses became willing pawns of the most vicious elements in the society, seeing only advantages in every possibility of our genocidal disappearance. And in this scramble upwards, those wretched immigrants shed, like an old Sioux flows, the proletarian identity and honor of their old European past. Now they were true Americans, real settlers, who had done their share of killing, annexing, and looting. End of section 3. Settlers. Chapter 4. Section 4. The test of black reconstruction. If Euro American labor's attitude towards Chinese labor was straightforward and brutal, for the African colony it was more complex, more tactical. Indeed, the same Euro American labor leaders who sponsored the murderous assaults on Chinese workers kept telling African workers how, quote, the unity of labor was reversing their hearts. Terence Powerly, the grandmaster working of the Knights of Labor, who had first called for wiping out all Chinese in North America within one year, suddenly became the apostle brother when it came to persuading Africans to support his organization. Quote, the color of a candidate shall not be barred in the mission, rather let the coloring of his mind and heart be the best. End quote. This apparent contradiction arose from the unique position of the African colony, where the Chinese workers in a national minority, whose numbers at one time probably never exceeded 100,000, roughly two thirds of the Chinese returned to Asia. Africans were an entire colonized nation. On their national territory in the South, they numbered some four millions. This was the moment Euro American labor had to engage more carefully. The relationship between Euro American labor and African labor cannot be understood just in the world of the mind and mill. The relationship was not separate from, but a part of, the general relation of oppressed nation to colonized oppressed nations. And at that time, the struggle of the African colony was the storm center of all politics in the U.S. empire. The end of the Civil War and the end of child African slavery were not a resolution of the struggle in the colonial south, but merely the opening of a whole new stage. We have to see that there were two wars going on, and that both were mixed in the framework of the Civil War. The first conflict was the fractious title intra war between Northern industrial capitalists and Southern planter capitalists. We use the phrase, quote, Civil War, because, because it is the common name for war. It is more accurate to point out that the war was between two settled nations for ownership of the African colony, and ultimately for ownership of the continental empire. The second was the protracted struggle of liberation by the colonized African nation in the south. Neither struggle ended with the Confederate Confederacy in 1865. For ten years, a long heartbeat in history, both wars were focused around the reconstruction governments. The U.S. empire faced a problem that its own split into two war and nations had provided a long range of key moment for the anti-colonial rising of the oppressed African nation. <clears throat> Just in the 1776 war both capitalist factions in the Civil War hoped that Africans would remain docilely on sidelines while Confederate America and Union America fought out. But the rising of millions of Africans, shrugging off their chains, became the decisive factor in the Civil War. As the boys so scathingly points out, being a long quote, freedom for the slave was a lot of result of crazy attempts to wage war in the midst of four million black slaves and trying the wild sublimely to ignore the interests of those slaves in the outcome of fighting. Yes, these slaves had enormous power in their hands. Simply by stopping work, they could threaten the Confederacy of starvation. By walking into federal camps, they showed to doubting the easy possibilities of using them as workers and as servants, as farmers, and as spies, and finally as fighting soldiers. And not only using them thus, but by the same gesture, depriving their enemies of their use in just these fields. It was the fugitive slave who made the slave holders face the alternative of surrender to the North or to the Negroes. End quote. <clears throat> Judge John C. Underwood of Richmond, Virginia, testified later before Congress that, quote, I had a conversation with one of the leading men in that city, and he said to me that the enlistment of Negro troops by the United States was the turning point of the rebellion, that it was the heaviest blow they ever received. That he remarked that when Negroes deserted their masters, and showed the general disposition to do so and join forces of the United States, intelligent men everywhere saw that the matter was ended. End quote. Beginning of long quotation from Leon F. Woodcock. While marching through a region, the black troops would sometimes fall at a plantation, ascertain from the slaves the name of the meanest overseer in the neighborhood, and then, if he had not fled, tie him backward on horse and force him to accompany them. 
Although few masters and overseers were with or strung up by rope, no fence like slaves. This appears to have been a rare occurrence. More commonly, blacks were referred to a portion of contents of the plantation and the big house among those whose labor had made them possible. Singling out the more, quote, notorious slave holders, and systematically ransacking and demolishing their dwellings. They dug a designation of some of the finest furniture in the world, wrote Chaplain Henry M. Turner, in describing a regiment of fashion in North Carolina. Having been informed of the brutal record of the slaveholder, the soldiers had resolved to pay him a visit. While the owner was forced to gone, they went over on his splendid mansion and utterly destroyed everything in the place. Wheeling their axes in this way, they shattered his piano and most of the furniture and ripped his expensive carpet to pieces. What they did not destroy, they distributed among his slaves. End of quote by Leon F. Lithwack, then in the storm so long. The U.S. Empire was rising against the slave power to conquer the Confederacy. But now, its occupying the armies had to not only watch over the still sullen and dangerous Confederates, but had to run the African masses from bringing out. Four millions strong, the African masses were on the move And last of it, this rapid march quickly lead to mass armed insurrection against the Union and the formation of a new African government in the South. Events had suddenly moved to that point. The most perceptive settlers understood this well. The Boston capitalist Elizabeth Wright said in 1865, The blacks must be enfranchised or they will be ready and willing to fight for a government of their own. Note a government of their own. For having broken the Confederacy, by armed and trained themselves contrary to settler expectations, the African masses were in no mood to pass a recent history And they desired dominion land. The national foundations that they themselves had created out of the toil of 300 years. It always tells us, quote, There was continual fear of insurrection in the Black Belt. This vague fear increased towards Christmas 1866. The Negroes were disappointed because of the delayed division of lands. There was a natural desire to possession of firearms, and all through the summer and fall, they were firing shotguns, muskets, and pistols in great quantities. End quote. All over their nation, Africans had seized the land that they had sweated on. Literally millions of Africans were on strike in the wake of Confederacy defeat. The Southern economy, now owned by Northern Capital, was struck dead in its tracks, unable to operate at all against the massive, stony resistance of the African masses. This was the greatest single leader strike in the entire history of the U.S. Empire. It was not done by any AFL type official union for higher wages. But it was an monumental act on the rest of the people, striking out for land and liberation. Africans refused to leave the lands that are now theirs, refused to work for their former slave masters. U.S. General Rufus Saxon, former head of Freedmen's Zero in South Carolina, reported to a congressional committee in 1866 that African field workers in that state were arming themselves and refusing to, quote, submit quietly to the return of settler rule. Even the pro U.S. African petty bourgeois there, according to Saxon, was afraid they were losing control of the masses. Being quote, I will tell you what the leader of the Cloak League said to me. They said that they feared they could not much longer control the freedmen if I left Charlestown. They feared freedmen would attempt to take their cause in their own hands. End quote. The U.S. Empire strategy for reinstating their African colony involves two parts. One, the military repression of the most organized and militant African communities. And two, pacifying the African nation by neocolonialism, using elements of the African petty bourgeoisie to lead their people into embracing U.S. citizenship as the answer to all problems. Instead of nationhood and liberation, the neocolonial agents told the masses that their democratic demands could be met by following the orders of capitalists, i.e., the Republican Party, and looking to the federal government as the ultimate protector of African interests. So, all across the African nation, the occupying Union army, supposedly the saviors and emancipators of Africans, invaded the most organized, most politically conscious African communities. In particular, all those communities where the African masses had seized land in a revolutionary way came under Union army attack. In those areas, the liberation of the land was a collective act, with workers from many nations holding meetings and electing leaders to guide the struggle. Armed resistance was the order of the day, and planned attempts to retake the land were rebuffed at every point. The U.S. Empire had to both crush and undermine this interest development that had come from the grassroots in their colony. In August 1865, around Hampton, Virginia, for example, the Union cavalry were sent to dislodge 5,000 Africans from the liberated land. 21 African leaders were captured, who had been, quote, armed with revolvers, cusses, guardians, and shotguns. In the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina, some 40,000 Africans were forced off the foreign plantations at any point by Union soldiers. While the Africans had coolly told returning planters to go and pulled out weapons to emphasize their orders, they were not able to overcome the U.S. Army. In 1865 and 66, the Union occupation disarmed and broke up such dangerous outbreaks. The special danger to the U.S. Empire was that the grassroots liberal drive to have armed power over the land to build economically sufficient regions under African control would inevitably raise the question of African sovereignty. African soldiers who had learned too much of the U.S. Empire peace of mind were a special target of both Union and Confederate alike. Even before the war's end, a worried President Lincoln had written to one of his generals, quote, I can hardly believe the South and North can live in peace unless we get rid of the Negroes. Certainly they cannot. If we don't get rid of the Negroes whom we have armed and disciplined and who have fought with us, I believe they amount to 130,000 men. I believe it would be better to export them all. End quote. African U.S. Army units were hurriedly disarmed and disbanded, or sent out of the South, out west to serve as colonial troops against Indians, for example. The U.S. Freedmen's Bureau said in 1866 that the new secret white terrorist organizations in the city placed a special priority on murdering returning African veterans of the Union Army. In New Orleans, some members of the U.S. 74th Colored Infantry were arrested as vagrants the day after they were out of the army. Everywhere in the occupied African nation, an emphasis was placed on defusing or wiping out the local guerrillas and militia of the African masses. The U.S. Empire's second blow was more subtle. The Northern Settler bourgeoisie sought to convince that they could and should want to become citizens of the U.S. Empire. To this end, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution involuntarily made all Africans here paper U.S. citizens. This neo-colonial strategy offered African colonial subjects the false democracy of paper citizenship in the empire to oppress them and held their nation under armed occupation. While the U.S. Empire had regained its most valuable calling, it had major problems. The Union Army is militarily held the territory of the African nation. But the settlers who formerly garrisoned the colony and overseeing its economy could no longer be trusted. Even after their attempted rival empire had ended, the southern settlers remained embittered and dangerous enemies of the U.S. bourgeoisie. 
the African masses, whose labor and land provided the wealth that the empire extracted from their colony, were rebellious and unwilling to peacefully submit to the old ways. The empire needed a loyalist force to hold and pacify the colony. The U.S. empire's solution was to turn their African colony into a neo-colony. This phrase was called Black Reconstruction. Africans were promised democracy, human rights, self-government, and popular ownership of land, but only as loyal quote, citizens of the U.S. empire. Under the neo-colonial leadership of some petty bourgeois elements, Africans became the loyalist social base. <clears throat> Not only were they franchised en masse, but Africans were participants and leaders in government. African jurors, judges, state officials, militia captains, governors, congressmen, and even several African U.S. senators were conspicuous. This regional political role of Africans produced results that we saw in the empire today, and by the settlers' standards a century ago, were totally astonishing. The West Memphis propagandist James Pike reports angrily of state government in South Carolina, the state of the largest African presence in government, beginning a long quote. The members of the assembly issued four from the state house. About three quarters of the crowd belonged to the African race. They were such a living body of men as might pour out a market house or a courthouse at any random any sunny state. Every Negro type and physiognomy was here to be seen, from the genteel serving man to the rocking customer from the rice or cotton field. Their dress was as varied as their countenances. There was the second-hand black frock of an infirm gentility, glossy and red hair. There was the so-called pack of many irons and parted styles. There was also to be seen a total disregard of the proprieties of costume and the coarse and dirty garments of the field. The seat is black, the clerk is black, the doorkeeper is black, the little agent is black, the chairman of the ways and means is black, and the chaplain is all black. At some of the desks, sit colored men whose types would be hard to find outside the Congo. It was not all sham or all burlesque. They had genuine interest and a genuine earnestness in the business of the assembly, which we are bound to recognize and respect. They had an earnest purpose, born of conviction, that their conditions are not fully assured, which lends a sort of dignity to their proceedings. End quote. This dramatic reversal outraged the better masses, who saw their former, quote, property now resent over them. The liberal reconstruction governments swept away the social carpet of centuries, releasing modern reforms throughout southern life public school systems, integrated juries, state highway and railroad systems, protective labor reforms, divorce and property rights for women, and so on. What was most apparent to the about black reconstruction was its impossible contradictions. Now we can say that while it was a bold the empire from upon, it so went against the structure of society that it could only have been temporary. Africans were organized politically into the loyalist union leagues, which often armed, organized militarily into state militia companies, and all the purpose of holding down some of American settlers, both for themselves and for the U.S. empire. Yet at the same time, the empire warned Africans disarmed and disorganized. This neo-colonial bourgeois government of black reconstruction was doomed from its first day, since it promised that Africans would share the land and power with settlers. The African bourgeois leadership in government made every effort to stabilize relations with the former planter ruling class, and in fact, this cement relations with all classes of settlers. They only offered themselves as allies of planters in return for settler acceptance of the new colony. But in vain. The reconstruction politicians hoped for a bourgeois democratic reconciliation, where the northern industrialists, they and even the former slave masters, could all harmoniously unite to prosper off the labor of the African proletariat. Beverly Nash, one of the African leaders in the South Carolina legislature, told his people, quote, We recognize the sun white man as the true friend of the black man. It is not our desire to meet a sort of in the community, or to unite the poor against the rich. The white man has a land, the black man has a labor, and labor is worth nothing without capital. End quote. Nash Ramish promised Nash promised the band of Confederates that he would fight to not only get a voting rights restored, but to get quote, our first men, the former Confederate leaders, back in their customary places in Congress and the judges' bench. This desire to be accepted by planter elites was far too common. Henry Turner, the quote, most prominent African politician in Georgia, opposed to seeing cast the link with planter and campaigned to free Jackson Davis from prison. But Reconstruction fell, its foundations eroded away by the ever growing mass error against the African population by self-reaction. It was militarily overthrown by secret planter paramilitary groups of Ku Klux Klan, White Caps, White Cross, White Legion, and so on. In town after town, county and parish, one after another, then in state after state, Reconstruction was broken in bloody killings. During the 1860 elections in Louisiana, for example, some 2,000 Africans were caught killed or wounded, with many forced to flee. In Shreveport, a gang of Italian fishermen and market vendors, called quote, the Innocents, roamed the streets for 10 days before the elections, literally killing every African they could find. Some 297 Africans were murdered in New Orleans. In Bossier Parish, quote, 120 corpses were found in the woods or were taken out of the Red River after a Negro hunt. End quote. Although it took 10 years for reconstruction to be finally defeated, and about 20 years before the advances were all raced, the guerrilla war between planter and African forces was disastrously one sided. The war could only have had one end, since Africans were disarmed militarily and politically. By 1874, only four states, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, still remained in the hands of reconstruction. The end was in sight. Secret conferences of the planter leadership mapped out the final drive to tear out the heart of black reconstruction and to begin the long, hundred-year night of absolute terroristic rule. The white was organized as the Armed United Front of KKK and all the other planter organizations. Within months, it had 40,000 members. The white violence intensified. Even at its late date, the African bourgeois leaders of reconstruction remained true to their loyalty to the empire. In 1876, there was a military strike among the African plantation laborers in South Carolina. Stabs were beaten and taken prisoner, and even the local police were overpowered by the armed strikers. Thus, the African U.S. congressman Robert Smalls led his state militia in and pacified the angry workers, ending a strike. In this city, when the armed planter takeover drowned the 1876 elections in a sea of blood. African U.S. Congressman John Lynch, who had just lost his seat through vote fraud at gunpoint, remind, reminded everyone to remain loyal to the empire. Quote, you certainly cannot accept to resort to mob law and brute force, or to use what may be my language in our great revolution. My opinion is that revolution is not permitted to be applied in such cases. Our system of government is supposed to be one of law and order. There is patriotism enough in this country, and sufficient love of justice and fair play in the hearts of the American people. End quote. 
1976-77, the final accommodation between Morgan Capital and the Southern Planters was reached in the Hayes-Tilden deal. The South promised to accept the dominance of the Northern Bourgeoisie over the entire empire and to permit the Republican candidate Rupert B. Hayes to see Grant in the U.S. presidency. In return, the Northern Bourgeoisie agreed to let the Planters have regional hegemony over the South and to withdraw the last of the occupying troops so they claimed to take care of Africans as they wished. While the guard remnants of reconstruction held out here and there for some years, African Congressmen were elected from the South until 1895. The critical year 1877 marked a conclusive defeat. During these fateful years, when the central political issue in the empire was the war in the African colony, the white labor movement lined up alongside the KKK terror and against the African masses. Even the neocolonial society of African construction was hated by white labor, since it involved the Africans at least an outward form of democratic rights and government power. Even neocolonialism was too good for Africans in the opinion of white labor. Some may consider it unusual that white workers opposed black reconstruction, particularly since black reconstruction not only bent backwards to the entire white community from planters to poor whites with great respect, but issued social reforms which gave a real boost upwards to poor whites. Poor whites were able to send their children to many public schools, and for the first time in much of the South, they were able to vote and hold minor public offices during the equal slave power, ranks their property qualifications far anywhere from high political rights. These gifts failed to win the gratitude of poor whites. Karl Marx and Peter Engels saw the quote, mean whites, as they called them, of the South were hopeless politically. They felt that nothing could be done to them but to render powerless until they died of old age. This was not a unique observation. When Philips, the great radical abolitionist, bluntly pleaded in 1870, quote, now is the time to guarantee the South against the hostile domination or the anger of the white race. We hear to our opinion that nothing, or not much, except hostility, can be expected of two-thirds of the adult white men. They will go to their grave this unchanged. No one of them should ever again be able to be trusted with political rights. And all elements of power of civilization should be combined and brought into play to counterwork the anger and plots of such foes. End quote. A picture of army officers posed in KKK uniforms captured in Huntsville, Alabama, from Harper's Weekly, February 19, 1868. Another picture of black freedmen registering to vote in following the Civil War. No sooner had the Planters Confederacy been shut down than poor whites began responding to the appeals of KKK and the other planter organizations. This was a mass phenomenon. Their motivation was obvious. They desired to keep Africans as colonial subjects below even wage labor. The boys relates. Quote, when then he faced the possibility of being himself compelled to compete with a Negro wage labor, while those were tyrants of a white planter, his whole soul revolted. He turned, therefore, from war service to warfare, particularly against Negroes. He joined secret organizations by Ku Klux Klan, which fed his vanity by making him co-worker with a white planter, and gave him a chance to maintain his race superiority by killing and intimidating quote niggers. And even in secret forays of his own, he could drive away the planter's black help, leaving the land open to white labor, or he murdered two successful freedmen. End quote. North or South, East or West, the American working were intent on driving out or pushing further down all subject labor, whether African, Mexicano, or Chinese. In fact, despite the division of the Civil War, there were few qualitative differences between Northern and Southern white labor. In part, this is because there was considerable merging through migration within the empire. So, Imperial American labor, greatly relied by the massive forces immigrating from Europe, reorganized itself during the Civil War. It was not any strengthening of democratic forces, rather, it added new nations of oppressors, new blows being directed against the oppressed. Just as the petty bourgeois movements of the 1840s and 50s, these were, quote, white unions, for settlers only. So, that when the representatives from eight craft trades met in Louisville in 1864 to form the short lived, quote, International Industrial Assembly of North America, there was no mention of the annexation of African labor. Similarly, when the National Labor Union was formed in 1866, most of the members and leaders clearly intended to simply push aside African labor. The NLU was the first major labor federation of white workers, the forerunner of today's AFL-CIO. Delegates from 59 trade unions and craft organizations took part in the first Baltimore meeting, with observers from other rest of the South craft unions joining in the happy-talking plan. The most, quote, advanced South unionists strongly argued for, quote, unity with African workers. It was repeatedly pointed out that the capitalists had used African workers to get on strikes and advance for higher wages by white workmen. Rather than the Africans compete in the job market against settlers, it was urged to restrain them by taking them into the NLU. As the boys pointed out, quote, here was the first halting note. Negroes were welcomed to the labor movement, not because they were laborers, but because they might be competitors in the market, and the logical conclusion was either organize them or guard against their actual competition by other methods. It was this latter alternative that white American labor almost unanimously turned. End quote. In other words, settler trade unionists preferred to limit job competition between whites and Africans by driving the latter out of the labor market. All motions to admit Africans to the NLU were defeated, as the settler trade unionists continued following a capitalist long-range plan to use them to replace African labor. It should be remembered that in all these deeds, the American labor, no matter how much it puffed up and puffed itself up, was just a rally following the genocide strategies of the industrial bourgeoisie, for which service capitalists imported them in the first place, rewarding their pawns with a customary mixture of table straps and kicks. Footnote, the radical slash conservative difference of opinion within the ranks of settler unionism was just like that between Governor Burley and Bacon, a difference between following co-opted strategies of genocide or seeking immediate, quote, final solution through overwhelming force. These two opposites in the internal settler debate are obviously inseparable and interwoven. By the National Labor Union's 1869 convention, the advocates of tackling embracing African workers had gained the upper hand, where there was serious trouble. African labor had gotten, quote, power control. Throughout the empire, but especially in their nation, African workers were organizing their own unions, following their own leaders, launching their own strikes. In Richmond, Virginia, there were strikes by African seaboards and railroad workers and tobacco factory workers. On the heels of the 1867 strike wave throughout the South, African unions formed in city after city. In Savannah, Georgia, the 1867 strike back in Longshore forced the city government to lift a ten-dollar poll tax. 
in Charleston, South Carolina, they formed the powerful Color Law Insurance Protective Union Association, the strongest and most respected labor organization in that state. After winning a strike for better wages, the CLDUA started telling other unions about campaign unions to be organized. By 1869, state conventions of African unions were being held, following a call to December 1869, first convention of national colored union. This federation was intensely political and embraced African workers in all spheres of production, north and south. Longshoremen, carpenters, tenant farmers, printers, waiters, barbers, construction laborers, etc., were all united within it. Eventually, it locals in 23 states. Clearly, Euro American labor was in the heat. Their colonial competitors were, quote, out of control, building their own organizations for their own interests. This had to be fought. The immediate decision was to warmly invite these African unions to join the white NLU so that the Southern unions could mislead and undermine them. So, in the 1869 NLU convention, for the first time, nine African union delegates were seated. As we might expect, the speeches and pledges of the Indians, the convention became imbued with severe unity. So much that an amazing New York, New York Times reporter wrote, beginning a long quote. When a native Mississippian and an excellent federal officer in addressing the convention refers to a colored delegate who succeeded him as the gentleman from Georgia, when a native Alabamian who has the first time crossed Mason-Dixon line and who was from boyhood taught to regard the Negro simply as chattel, sits in the liberty station with another delegate whose happy face listens to African sheen and signs a report of his colored code delegate. When ardent Democrat Parzan from New York that declares with a rich Irish brogue that he asks for himself no privilege as a mechanic or citizen if he is not willing to accept every other man white or black, when I say these things can be heard or seen at a national convention called for any purpose, then one may indeed be warranted in asserting that the time was curious changes. Footnote. The reporter marks on this, on this New York thing, because the Democratic Party was a pro-slavery party, and New York seems to have a sense of some of those vicious and violent anti-African mass sentiment. End of note, and a long quote. But the celebration of unity was short-lived. The white trade unionists were, of course, only attempting to deceive African workers. Their invitation to join the NLU simply meant that Africans would promise to honor all white strikes and organize enterprise. In return, they would have the privilege of being sold as white labor, sadly and relentlessly, and their jobs. The second aspect of this, quote, unity, was that Africans would be expected to follow European labor in opposing Democratic demands in the South, and helping to restore the chains around their legs. The, quote, integration of the NLU meant not only submission to European hegemony, but it was virtually suicidal. Small wonder that Africans quickly parted base with the NLU. While the NLU prevented African organizations from affiliating with it as a federation, Africans themselves were barred out of the individual white trade unions. Every advance, therefore, of European trade unionism meant the, quote, clearing of African workers out of another mill, factory, railroad, warehouse, or dock. The capitalist attack on African labor, begun in the early 1830s, continued undoubted momentum. In the most celebrated single case, Louis Douglas, the son of Frederick Douglas, was repeatedly denied admission to the Typographers Union. A printer at the government printing office, Douglas was not only denied by the local, but his appeals were turned down by two successive conventions of the Typographers Union, and even by the entire NLU convention. It is important to realize how strongly and overwhelmingly the European workers in the Civil War period supported the concept of a separate empire. Particularly as applied to guaranteeing white workers the right to annex the jobs that African, Chinese, Mexicano, and other oppressed labor had created. Of the 130 labor newspapers started in 1863 and the great cluster of white labor, exactly one supported even bourgeois democratic equality for Africans. These insurgent journals represented the quote, best that was advanced trade unionists in the Inland Empire. Yet only one out of 130 supported democratic rights for Africans. That one journal, the Boston Daily Evening Voice of the Boston Printing Trades, opposed President Johnson, supported African admission to the unions, backed the demand for free land for Africans, and so on. Such principled views blossomed so many subscribers that, in the last main effort to stay afloat, the editors promised their readers the newspaper would stop writing about reconstruction and the problems of Africans, saying that anyway the issue, quote, is practically solved. Much more typical was the St. Louis Daily Press, again, an alternative newspaper started by local printers during a strike. The press was quite, quote, progressive, that is, it navigated the Day, the Irish Revolution, equal rights for white women, the unity of European workers around the world, even from the Walmart's assignments sent by First International in Europe. It also owes the democratic right for Africans and called on white labor to drive, quote, the niggers out of all desirable jobs. No one is above the reality of history. Even masses themselves are tested in the crucible, forged, tempered, or broken in the class struggle. And not a size of will debates here, but in great battles upon the future weights. The attempted rising of the African colonial masses, retracted there involving millions of African combatants, was such a pivotal event. As the war raged on, carrying with it the host of whatever democratic forces existed within the empire, thousands upon thousands of Africans gave their lives. In their own defeats, eventually the entire African nation paid the blood price of reenslavement. How should we be impressed then when we learn then how northern white labor was trying to tell everyone that the real main issue was a shorter workday? If it were not so cowardly and treacherous, they would pass this on relief. End of section four. Settlers, chapter four, section five. The contradictions of white labor. The issue of a shorter workday spread enthusiastically among white workers between 1866 and 1873. During these years, the eight-hour day struggle held first place in the activities of white labor. With considerable foresight, the leaders of the National Labor Union had seen the need for such a single issue to unite and discipline their mature followers. At the founding convention of the NLU in Baltimore on August 20th, 1866, the call was sent forth for all white workmen in every region, trade, and industry to combine on this and one front. Quote, the first and great necessity of the present to free labor of this country from capitalistic slavery is the passing of a law which by eight hours shall be the normal working day in all states of the American Union. End quote. Throughout the 60s and early 70s, the eight-hour day movement grew, with immigrant German socialists playing a leading role in organizing eight-hour leagues in all major cities of the empire. 
Literally named Target Strikes, Parades, and Rallies. By 1868, six states, led by California, a number of cities, and the federal government that passed eight-hour day laws, the last only applying to federal employees. In 1872, when the New York City building trades won a three-month strike for the eight day, a festive parade of 150,000 white workmen took over the main streets of the city. With this campaign folded like white cardboard during the Depression of 1873 when it turned out that the capitalists had no intention of honoring any promises or agreements or laws. The white trade unions found their hours of oil increase, while their pay was steadily slashed. Not until the CIO and New Deal in the 1930s would white workers attain their goal of the eight-hour day. Defeat, however, is not the same thing as failure. The eight-hour campaign was a success for white labor. It was a new stage of unity, the first and by wide coast-to-coast political campaign. As such, it marked a historic point where the swelling set of masses emerged upwards from their earlier pre-industrial small craft consciousness and entered the industrial age. That campaign was the first time a white labor actually achieved a broad national unity in action. This was evident at the time. Alexander Kennedy, head of the San Francisco Trade Assembly and leader of both the eight-hour campaign and the National Labor Union, said, quote, by far, the most important result of this eight-hour agitation to those who look forward to day when labor, organized, and effectively drilled, shall seem with legitimate fear in the body politic, is visible in the marked improvement in the character of an engagement movement. A few years ago, the working population of California were in a chaotic state, disorganized, and at the mercy of capitalists, with very rare exceptions. Today, nearly every branch of civil industry has its own union, fixing its own weight of wages and regulating its domestic differences. A spirit of independence and a feeling of mutual confidence inspires its members. End quote. Of course, when Kennedy talks about, quote, the working population, he is referring to Mexicanos, Chinese, Indians, or Africans. He is only discussing white settlers. When he proudly points out how, quote, every branch of civil industry has its own union, he means unions white workers. While he refers to these unions taking care of, quote, domestic differences, it is interesting that he doesn't mention the trade union role in the primary labor conflict of time, the drive by white unions, and the jobs of oppressed workers. This is a curiously right-wing result from such a supposedly class-conscious labor campaign. This contradiction sums up the air struggle and the great strike wave of 1873 The air was not only righteous, but it was a demand that hit home to working people across a wide variety of industries, trades, and nationalities. It became the first truly international campaign of European workers, as the first international spread to England, France, and all Europe. The largest single air demonstration was not in Europe or the U.S., however, but was in Manila. Filipino workers defied the national authorities and struck in a massive rally of one million. Many African, Mexican, and Chinese workers responded militantly to the call of the air struggle. And in some areas, African workers took an early lead in certain action. But the campaign, instead of uniting working people, further disunity. It was no coincidence that no sooner had the early victories of the air campaign unified and strengthened the white labor in California than they began setting up the attack against the Chinese workers. Nor is it true that the air campaign was the work of noble class conscious trade unions, while the anti Chinese and anti African campaigns were the work of some totally separate hands of the class hoodlums and bigots. Both were the of the same hands. All the individual craft unions, the large federations such as the National Labor Union and the Knights of Labor, the local trade assemblies, the labor press, the left organizations such as the Social Labor Party and the communist led General German Workers Association were involved in these white supremacist offenses. Picture an anti Chinese cartoon by Thomas Nast, famous quote, reform cartoonist. A bunch of settlers looking at telescopes every year right with a Chinese face. Unlike the experience of other nations, the eight hour campaign in the US Empire had an anti democratic character, consolidating the settler masses around pro capitalist politics. In regard to the pivotal struggle of black reconstruction, it is clear that the overwhelming majority of the eight hour day activists were in the camp of the enemy, while only a minority of a few hundreds of thousands were personally active in killing and enslaving Africans. They committed their crimes with sort of a rest of their white kids and Those, quote, advanced workers, particularly the German socialist and radical exiles, who loudly sympathized with the fight of the slaves, didn't stop for one hour in their headlong rush to unite with the white supremacist mobs. It was as if to witness a criminal attack were to loudly bemoan injuries done to the victim while trying to convince the criminals that they should the AR campaign, the quote, anti-Cooley, and the anti-African campaigns were not separate and unconnected events, but linked chapters in the development of the same movement of white labor. This young movement, for all its anti-capitalism noises, was unable to resist being drawn deeper and deeper into bourgeois politics. As the National Labor Union was signing its first convention and first issuing a call of the AR campaign, five representatives of the organization were meeting with President Andrew Johnson to solicit his support. And when he drew a gesture towards white labor by ordering the workday for government printers such eight hours, he was hailed as a true friend of white masses. The leading union newspaper, National Workers of New York City, praises quote, practical sympathy with labor. The Philadelphia Trades Council describes his administration as quote, the benefit of the working classes. When the NLU attacked black reconstruction. It was clearly carrying out a part of an unbelievable alliance with President Johnson, who was a newfound champion of the defeated labor class. If the National Union had begun life with an uncertain attitude towards class struggle and a desire for a quick, quote, fix of bourgeois political deals, by 1872, it was wholly given over to these illnesses. It completely abandoned mass struggle. Instead, the NLU promoted a, quote, National Labor Reform Party to compete with the Democrats and Republicans. This awarded party was so opportunistic and malformed that it nominated Charles O'Connor, a well known advocate of slavery, as its presidential candidate in the 1872 elections. The NLU itself perished in a fiasco. But the class outlook it represented continued and flourished. In this period, white labor, although still young, took down shape. Euro American labor increasingly found itself pressed to organize, to fight employers, to demand from the bourgeois state some relief from exploitation and some democratic rights. At the same time, these white workers were also part of settler society and felt their welfare tied up with the supremacy of the empire. Further, pressed down by battle, they sought to establish a stranglehold on jobs by ruthlessly degrading or eliminating colonial labor. This consciousness was very striking manifest in the 1870s, when these white workmen became the eager tools of various actions in the bourgeoisie in the mass drives to re enslave Africans and drive out the Chinese. At the same time, engaging in the most vigorous and militant strike against the bourgeoisie. This was a middle position between the colonial proletariat and the settler bourgeoisie. 
and it has roots in the position of these whites in class structure. It is important to see why white labor could only unite on a petty bourgeois and opportunistic basis. While white labor had acted together a precarious political unity based on commonalities of wage status and salaries, it was as yet so divided that it did not even constitute a class. In brief, we can point to four main aspects of this. One, white working men were sharply divided by nationality. Two, the harsh stratum of which contained most of the quote, native born Americans, had a petty bourgeois character. Three, even the bottom, mostly slave labor, who were largely New European immigrants, were politically retarded by the fact that their wages were considerably higher than old Europe. Four, immigrant labor did not constitute a single united proletarian class itself, because they were part of separate national communities, German, Swedish, etc., each headed by their own bourgeois leaders. The quote, native born settlers, as the citizen descendants of the original English invasion force, still kept for themselves high in general level of privileges. They still thought themselves as the only true quote, Americans, while considering the non Anglo Saxon new immigrants as foreigners, only a step better than African or Mexicans. Among these quote, native born settlers, petty bourgeois, property owning, and small trading status was the norm, and even wage laborers confidently expected to move upwards once they mastered the natural exploit others. Engels noted in 1886, the end quote. There were two factors which for a long time prevented the inevitable consequences of the capitalist system in America from being revealed in true These were the access ownership she claimed and the love of immigrants. They enabled the great mass indigenous Americans for years on end to quote, retire from wage labor at an early age and become farmers, dealers, or even entrepreneurs, whereas the hard lot of wage labor with his status of life fell mostly on the immigrant. End quote. Thus, the Irish, Polish, Italian, etc. immigrants had the honor of replacing Africans, Mexicanos, Indians, and Asians as the primary labor force of the U.S. Empire in the North. But the position of quote, native born Anglo Saxon settlers changed little, if at all. The native born settler masses were still above nationally differentiated proletarians, still small property owners and small businessmen, still foremen, overseers, and skilled craftsmen. The European immigrant workers, who were promoted to be the new, more loyal proletariat of the U.S. Empire, were themselves very divided and confused. America, as entered the Industrial Age, was a little tower of Babylon. In the hellish brutality of mines, mills, and factories, the bourgeoisie had assembled gangs of workers from many different nations, torn away from their native lands, desperate, and usually not even speaking a common language with each other. Engels, the importance of these national barriers. The end quote. Immigration divides the workers into groups, native and foreign born, and the latter into one Irish, two German, and three Mexican workers, members of each which can only understand one another, namely Czechs, Poles, Italians, Scandinavians, etc. And then we must have the Negroes. Sometimes there is a powerful plan. However, the bourgeoisie merely pulled out passively the heterogeneous elements of the working masses to fall apart again. End quote. And as wretched and bitter as life in America was for white workers on the bottom of settler society, it was still far, far better than old and left back old Europe. The Irish, for example, who became the bulk of the unsealed white labor, were used out under virtually inhuman conditions. Contemporary accounts of the 19th century, usually emphasized on Irish laborers on the New York Canals, the gold pits of Pennsylvania, the railroad cross plains, etc., were kept drunk on cheap whiskey by the labor contractors and overseers, so they could endure miserable lives. Along Mississippi, gangs of Irish laborers drank malaria swamps and built levees for one dollar per day and whiskey. An overseer exclaimed, quote, It was much better to have the Irish who cost nothing but land if they died than to use up good feelings in such severe employment. While it is hard for us today to imagine this would be better than life in colonial Ireland, it was. In 1846 alone, some one million Irish died from famine. Those who emigrated did so under sure sense of death as the alternative. Even though the bottom strata of white wage labor, the actual wages were significantly higher than all Europe. Rural farm laborers, usually the worst paid workers, earned a much higher wage in the U.S. Empire. Marx, as you remember, pointed out in his theory that, quote, now all, all you know of the average wages of the American natural cultural labor amounts more than double that of English agricultural labor, end quote. Further, as European immigrants or poor Euro Americans, they were still eligible for privileges of settlers, and if not for them, then for their children. While this was markedly true for poor whites in the South, it applied with a few modifications throughout the empire. The voice points out, the end quote. It must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received a lower wage, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best schools. The police were drawn in their ranks, and of course, dependent upon their votes, treated them with such leniency as to encourage lawlessness. Their votes, like public officials, and while this had small effect on the economic situation, it had great effect on their personal treatment and the deference shown them. End quote. The other powerful moderating force on the bottom, immigrant players of white wage labor, is that they were part of immigrant national minority communities here in the quote, new world. And these communities have their own culture, class structure, and leadership. The German and Scandinavian immigrant communities were on the whole fairly prosperous, with a very high degree of business and property ownership. The vast farming lands of the Arctic West and Plain States were in large measure settled by these two nationalities. The 1900 census revealed that there were 700,000 German and Scandinavian farms in the empire then, more than three times the number owned by quote, native-born Anglo-Saxon-Americans. The question of the bourgeois leadership of immigrant workers is very clearly shown by the Irish here. Nor was this disconnected with settlerism. The community leaders of the Irish national minority here were not revolutionary proletarians, but were politicians, police chiefs, mayors, the Roman Catholic Church, etc. It is hardly a secret that during the 1800s, the Irish workers of the North, under the leadership of the Church and other bourgeois violence, were surpassed by none in the vicious nature of Africans. The Archdiocese of New York City, for example, publicly opposed emancipation and undoubtedly helped create the anti African rights that took thousands of lives during the Civil War. It is interesting that Irish patriots, themselves engaged in the bloody armed struggle to throw off racial colonialism, saw from across the Atlantic that their country and here were being led into taking the reactionary road. In 1841, some 70,000 Irish patriots signed a revolutionary petition for Irish Americans. Quote, 
Irishmen and Irishwomen treat the colored people as their equals, as brethren. By all your memories of Ireland, continue to love liberty, hate slavery, claimed by abolitionists. And in America, you will do honor to the name of Ireland. End quote. Despite mass meetings organized to generate support for this message of international solidarity, the full weight of the Catholic Church and Irish war politicians and trading leaders kept the Irish immigrant masses firmly loyal to reaction. There was, of course, then as now, a powerful national tie here towards their Catholic homeland. Twice the Fenian Brotherhood tried military invasions in Canada in 1866 and 70, trying to force loose the British effort on Ireland. Even after many defeats, Irish patriots and funds continued to pour into quote, the cause. The modern submarine, for example, was developed by the secret Irish pioneer and only later turned over to the U.S. Navy. Irish POWs exiled to Australia were liberated in a spectacular raid across the Pacific. So I spread with the enthusiasm for this daring attempt in the Irish American community here, then an Irish American U.S. Senator offered to get a U.S. hostage of the raid if no private vessel would be named. This only underlines the process at work. The genuine national feeling for colonial Ireland was taken over by bourgeois elements who shaped it in bourgeois national insurrections and who used the appeal of quote, the cause to promote their own political careers and pocketbooks. This is still true today. What international solidarity means can be seen by the actions of the Treaty of War, the hundreds of Irish soldiers in the U.S. Army who broke the empire during the Mexican-American War. Revolted at the Barbarian invasion of 1848, they defected to the Mexican forces and took up arms against the U.S. Empire. In contrast, the struggle of the Irish American community here for equality with other settlers was nothing more or less than a push to quote, join the oppressed nation to quote, enlist in the ranks of the empire. The difference is the difference between revolution and reaction. The victorious U.S. Army inflicted barrier punishment on any of these Syrian soldiers who were affected that they later fought. Some of the Irish and other Europeans were among the Mexican prisoners after the Battle of Cherosco in 1847. Of these 80, the victorious settlers branded 15 with the letter D. 15 were lashed to her tons, equipped and then forced to degrade to the rest who were shot. The U.S. Empire then, at the dawn of industrialization, had two broad strata of white wage labor. One, a true Euro American labor aristocracy, totally petty bourgeois and white and outlook. The second, and quote, ethnic, national differentiated stratum of immigrant Europeans and poor whites of the defeating Confederacy, who were both heavily exploited, yet given their privileges of settlerism to keep them loyal to the U.S. Empire. Once the national class labor was under the bourgeoisie's brutal thumb, then white labor be put into its quote, proper place. In the wake of the Great Strike Wave of 1873 to 77, the white unions were severely repressed and broken up. The mass organizations of white labor, once so sure of their strength when they were dining at the White House and attacking African, Mexican, and Chinese labor being the capitalists, now found themselves powerless when faced with the blacklist, the lockout, and the deadly gunfire of company police and national guard. In taking over the tasks of the colonial proletariat, the new white labor masses found themselves increasingly subject to the violent repression and exploitation that capitalism inexorably subjects the proletariat to. Thus, the industrial age developed here with this crucial foundation. The U.S. Empire was founded as a European settler society of privileged conquerors, and the new white masses did not be both sadly exploited proletarians and also loyal privileged settlers. As the tremendous pressures of industrial capitalism started rolling into a new rural area, which we will examine in the next session, a fundamental crisis was posed for American capitalism. The experience of early trade unionism in the U.S. is extremely valuable to us. It showed that, one, trade unionism cannot bridge the gap between oppressor and oppressed nations. Two, moreover, that even among Euro-Americans, unionism, political movements, etc., inescapably have a national character. Three, the organization of nationally oppressed workers into, into or allied with the trade unions of the settler masses was only an effort to control and divide us. Four, that the unity of the settler masses is counter-revolutionary, and that the various privileged of the white masses can only find common ground in petty self-interest and lawyer, loyalty to settler hegemony. Five, that whatever advanced or democratic minded Euro Americans do exist need to be disunited from their fellow settlers, rather than bubbled back into the whole lockstepping reactionary white mass by the usual reform movements. Six, that trade unionism became a perverted mockery of the original self and the settler society, where even wage labor became corrupted. The class antagonism linked within the settler masses had, in times of crisis, then submerged in the increased oppression of the colonial peoples. Catalyst settlers drastically reworked the very face of the land. The continent that was at the dawn of the 19th century, primarily dominated by the various oppressed nations, was at the end of the 19th century the sanitarized home of a quote, new Europe. And in this cruel, bloody transformation, history forced everyone to choose, and thus complete the realization of their class identity. Class is not like a brass badge or a diploma, which can be carried from old Europe and hung on a wall, dusty but still intact. Class consciousness lives in revolutionary struggles to be oppressed, or dies in the poison, poisonous the privileges so eagerly sought by the settler servants of the bourgeoisie. The end of one quote by Lenin. On the other hand, there is a tendency of the bourgeois and the opportunists to convert a handful of very rich and privileged nations into quote, eternal parasites on the body of mankind, to rest on the laurels of the exploitation of Negroes, Indians, etc., giving them in suggestion with the aid of the excellent weapons extermination provided by modern militarism. There is, on the other hand, the tendency of masses who are more oppressed than before and who bear old from imperialist wars to cast off this yoke and overthrow the bourgeoisie. It is in a struggle between these two tendencies that the history of labor movement will now inevitably develop. End of section, end of chapter 4. Settlers by J.C. Kai. Chapter 5. Colonialism, Imperialism, and Labor Aristocracy. Section 1. The Bourgeois Proletariat. Communism has always had to fight against not only the bourgeoisie, but also the very real opposition of some strata and masses of workers who have become corrupted and reactionary. Thus, the hostility revolutionary trends face here is neither new nor a puzzle for communist theory. In England, South Africa, etc., the communist forces have had to recognize this opposition. Marx, Engels, Lenin all emphasize how important this question was. It is an essential part of the world fight against imperialism. To begin with, our criticism of the sort of negative role of the settler masses here is no more pointed than the freedom of the century ago about the English working class. Communists have never believed that the working class was some holy religious object that must be enshrined away from scientific investigation. 
Lenin on his own several times purposely reminded the European comrades that the original proletariat of Imperial Rome did not work, but was supported by the surpluses of slave labor. As the lowest free class among the citizens, their only duty was to father new soldiers for the Roman legions, which is why they were called proletariat in Latin, while they lived off government subsidies. The political consciousness and material class role of the masses of any good nation cannot be assumed from historic generalizations, but must be discovered by social investigation and scientific analysis. The phenomenon of the various established ruling classes buying off and politically corrupting some portion of their own wage labor populations begins with the European colonial systems. The first workers of the 1830s and 1840s were becoming increasingly class conscious, and early pre Marxian psychosocialism, Owenism, had caused much interest, and massive charters movement rallied millions of workers to demand democratic rights. Alarmed at this, and warned by the armed democratic insurrections of 1848 in both France and Germany, the British capitalists grudgingly decided that the immense profits of their colonial empire allowed them to ease out slightly on the exploitation at home. This tossing of a few crumbs of British workers resulted in a growing ideological stagnation, conservatism, and national chauvinism. Engels was outraged and disgusted, particularly at the corrupt cycle of the British workers slavery tackling their bourgeoisie as their alleged right to exploit the colonial world. Quote, there is no workers' party here, and the workers daily share feasts of England's monopoly over world market and colonies. End quote. In 1858, Engels sarcastically described the pain to British workers in the bluntest terms. Quote, the English proletariat is actually becoming more and more bourgeois, so that this most bourgeois of all nations is apparently ultimately a possession of bourgeois aristocracy and a bourgeois proletariat alongside the bourgeoisie. For a nation which exploits the whole world, this is to a certain extent justifiable. End quote. Britain was the Imperial Rome, the American Empire that day, a nation which feasted on the exploitation of colonies around the world. Engels, as a communist, didn't make lame excuses for corrupting English workers, but exposed them. He held the English workers accountable to the world of for their sorry local choices. This was not a matter of English factory hands suddenly wearing gold jewelry and designer jeans. The change was historic. It raised the English masses past the air force survival. As we discussed earlier, in the early stages of capitalist development, the bourgeoisie exploited the English workers to point early death. Workers, women, and children in particular, were overworked and starved as disposable and easily replaced objects. The change didn't mean that English workers as a whole weren't exploited, just that their exploitation was lightened in the golden flow of colonial profits. In 1840, the wages of ordinary labor in England were 8 shillings per week, while it cost them 14 shillings per week to live on a normal but stable basis. By 1875, both the common wages and the cost of living were up to 15 shillings per week, an event that historian Arnold Hornby points to as the first time in British capitalist history that unskilled labor earned enough to survive. At the same time, reform legislation, sponsored by the factory owners, placed restrictions on the use of child labor. The length of the working day declined. At both Jaren Shadows and the Newcastle Castle Temple Works, for example, workers succeeded in lowering the work week from 61 to 54 hours. In 1892, Engels explained that the prolonged conservatism of the English workers was due to this generalized bribery. Quote, the truth is this during the period of the industrial monopoly, the English working classes have, to a certain extent, shared the benefits of monopoly. These benefits were very unequally parceled out amongst them. The privileged minority pocket most, but even the great mass had, at least, a temporary share now and then. And that is the reason why, since the dying out of Owenism, there has been no socialism in England. End quote. Engels divides the workers into two groups, the, quote, privileged minority of the labor aristocrats and the, quote, great mass of common wage labor. While the labor aristocracy engages in wage labor and grows out of the class, it is no longer exploited. Rather, the bourgeoisie shares with its privileged layer a part of the super profits from colonial exploitation. Typically, these labor aristocrats are trade union officials, certain white-collar employees, foremen, the well-paid members of restricted craft unions, etc. They often supervise or depend upon the labor ordinary workers, while they themselves do little or no toil. This stratum also includes the workers who are employed by the state, who work in the colonial system, in war industries, etc., and who, therefore, have special loyalty to the bourgeoisie. The aristocracy of labor have comfortable lives, and in general, associate with petty bourgeoisie. The, quote, great mass of English workers were, in contrast, certainly exploited. They lived lives of hardship. Yet, they have in their own lifetimes seen an uneven but upward trend in their wages and conditions, a rise dependent upon the increasing profits of the overseas empire. Under the leadership of the aristocracy of labor, who were looked up to as the most, quote, successful, best organized, and most unionized layer of the class, these ordinary laborers increasingly identified their own progress with the progress of their British Empire. Engels felt in the late 1890s that this might be only a temporary phenomenon, and unlimited to England by and large. He thought that with the growth of rival industrial empires and the sharpening of European capitalist competition, the super profits that supported this rivalry might dwindle. Exactly the reverse happened, however. With the coming of imperialism and the tremendous rise of the most modern colonial empires, the trend of social rivalry over classes spread from England to France, Germany, Belgium, etc. Between the fall of the Paris Union in 1871 and the eve of World War I in 1913, real per capita income both England and Germany doubled. In 1907, Lenin wrote, The class of those who own nothing but do not labor either is incapable of overrunning exploiters. Only the proletarian class, which maintains the whole of society, has the power to bring about a successful revolution. And now we see that, as a result of our reaching colonial policy, the European proletariat has partly reached a situation where it is not its work that maintains the whole of society, but that of people of the colonies who are practically enslaved. The British bourgeoisie, for example, derives more profit from the many millions of population of India and other colonies than from the British workers. In certain countries, these circumstances create a material and economic basis for affecting the proletariat of one country or another with colonial chauvinism. End quote. Imperialism allowed the European workers, once much more exploited and revolutionary than their American cousins, to catch up in privileges and degeneracy. Lenin said that imperialism gives the bourgeoisie enough super profits to, quote, devote a part, and not a small one at that, to bribe their own workers, to create something like an alliance between the workers of the nation and their capitalists. Picture from 1492 to 1977 on the map of the United States showing Indian territories dwindling. 
fashion. In 1492, 541 Indian nations, approximately 10 million people, lived in what is now the United States. The U.S. government ratified three trees with these Indian nations between 1776 and 1871. Chief Red Cloud of said, quote, they made many promises to us, but they kept only one. They promised to our land, and they took it. The modern American Indian movement thus, movement then thus sought to restore the Indian land base by demanding that the United States honor its treaty obligations with the Indian nations. End of action. The pro-imperialist labor aristocracy, which in 1914 land estimated at roughly 20% of the German working class, were leaders of the German trade unions, the quote, socialist party, etc. Using their state-sanctioned positions, they led millions of workers in the proletarian strata. This labor aristocracy succeeded in sabotaging revolutionary movements in Western Europe and disrupting unity between the anti-colonial revolutions and the workers of the oppressed nations. We can sum up key lessons in this theoretical development of analyzing social class right. We can sum up key lessons in this theoretical development of analyzing social right and imperialist oppressed nations. One, Lenin's insistence on a total break with those quote, socialists who were unwilling to support the anti-colonial revolutions in deeds was proven correct. The shallow argument that quote, racist European workers would be brought to revolutionary enlightenment by union activity and reformist economic movements, the same argument we hear in America, was proven to be totally untrue. While in every mass there are those who have backwards or domestic prejudices and yet to be clean corners of their minds, Lenin insisted that this was not the primary problem. Under imperialism, quote, racist politics were an outward manifestation of a class quote, alliance with the imperialists. Two, this labor aristocracy of bribe workers is not neutral, but is fighting for its capitalist masters. Therefore, they must be combated, just like the army of police, who are military base of the imperialists, while the labor aristocracy is its social base. Lenin told his comrades, quote, no preparation of the proletariat for the overthrow of the bourgeoisie is possible, even in a preliminary sense, unless immediate, systematic, extensive, and open struggle is waged against the shrum. End quote. Three, when the new communist movement was formed, it was greatly outnumbered and outorganized everywhere in Europe outside Russia. Lenin's answer was concise. Since the blind pro imperialist masses were primarily the other privileged layers of workers, the communists, in order to combat them, had to, quote, go down lower and deeper to the real masses. And again, he noted, quote, the sufferings, miseries, and revolutionary sentiments of the ruined and impoverished masses. He pointed to, quote, particularly those who are least organized and agitated, who are most oppressed, and least amenable for organization. End quote. We might say that he shared the same perception of where to find a base for revolution. On a global scale, Lenin's strategy of going down lower and deeper to the real masses meant that the communist movement became truly internationalist, organizing the masses of Asia, Latin America, and Africa, the, quote, real masses of imperialism. Near the end of his life, noting the unexpected setbacks in revolutionizing Western Europe, Lenin remarked that in any case, the future of the world would be decided by the fact that the oppressed nations constitute the overwhelming majority of the world's population. Four, the analysis of labor aristocracy under imperialism helps deepen the understanding of our own very struggles and the evolution of the U.S. empire in general. End of points. As the U.S. empire jumped into the imperialist scramble for world domination at the end of the 20th century, its hero American workers were most privileged in the entire capitalist world. In 1900, labor America was sharply divided into three very separate and nationally distinct strata, literally of different nations, Euro-American, European, and oppressed nations. On top was the labor aristocracy of the Euro-American workers, who dominated the better-paid craft trades and their restricted unions. This quote, privileged strata of quote, near-born citizens comprised roughly 25% of the industrial workforce and edged into the ranks of their bourgeois neighbors, foremen, small tradesmen, and so on. Below them was a new proletarian strata, just imported from East and Southern Europe, who comprised 50 to 75% of the northern industrial workforce. They were poorly paid and heavily exploited, the main factory of Russia force of the north. Largely unorganized, they were systematically barred from the craft trade unions and the better factory jobs. This strata was composed of non citizens, who was only a generation old here and had no previous existence. The very bottom, upholding everything else, were the colonial proletariats of African, Mexicano, Indian, and Asian workers. Even as modern industrialization and the northern factory boom were in full swing, it was still true that the quote, super profits, wrong from the oppressed nations, plus those wrong from imported labor from Asia, were the foundations of the empire. Everything, quote, American, was built up on top of their continuing oppression. In the African South, cotton was still king. The African laborers, whether hired, renter, or sharecropper, who produced the all imported cotton, still supported the entire salary economy. Between 1870 and 1910, cotton production had gone up by three times, while domestic cotton usage had gone up by 600%, and the king cotton still was the leading U.S. export product, 25% of all exports. The number of African men in agriculture had increased, and in 1914, some 50% of all African workers labored in the fields. African women not only worked in fields, as did their children, but they involuntarily continued cleaning, cooking, washing clothes, and child raising for the other half of Euro-American families. Over 40% of the entire African workforce was still bound into domestic labor, maintaining for the settlers their conquest lifestyle. The growing Euro-American masses in the South had from the fact that Africans had gradually forced out industry and the silk trades. While roughly 80% of all skilled workers in the South had been African in 1868, by 1900 those proportions had been reversed. In the more globalized instruction trades, Africans still held on, comprising 15% carpenters and 36% ancient masons. But in the desirable mechanical trades, associated now with rising industry, they were excluded. Only 2% of machinists in the South, for example, were African. On the Southern Railroads, where Africans once dominated, and as late as 1920, still accounted for 20-25% of all firemen, the Atlantic agreement between Southern Railroads and the AFL, Railroad Roads, called for the gradual replacement of all Africans by settlers. Even the jobs in the textile mills were reserved for, quote, poor whites, for solid land. So the settler labor in the South, however exploited, was grateful to the bourgeoisie for every little privilege they got. The settler masses of the South, in the tradition of the slave patrols, the Confederate Army, and the KKK, were still in Maine, the lower garrison, who occupied New Africa. Even though the Empire tried to use industry to build up settler population, 
African labor was necessary as a super base of our industry. In lumber, they made up the bottom half of the workforce. In the coal mines of Alabama, they were 54% of the miners at the turn of the century. In some iron and steel mills, we find that in 1907, Africans still made up 40% of the workers. In the Mexicano Southwest, the same basic foundation of oppressed nation labor was present, together with Asian labor. Native American workers were present throughout the region, on cattle and sheep ranches, in the fields and mines. Navajo miners, for example, played an active role in building the Western Federation of Miners, local at the Great Telluride, Colorado Mines. Asian labor played a deeply important role. Although much of the Chinese national minority had been driven by repression out of the U.S., or were treated into Corpiato, economy of laundries, food service, etc., new ways of Asian workers were being recruited from Japan, the Philippines, and Korea. By the many thousands, they toiled on the railroads, the urban, quote, service economy, in canneries, and above all, in the fields. Much less industrialized and economically developed than the North, or even the South, the Southwestern economy rested on agriculture and mining. The migrant farm laborers of the, quote, factories and fields were not marginal, but the economic mainstay of the Southwest. In the key agricultural area of Southern California, the majority of farm labor was China and Fano. Because the Southwest was much more recently conquered than other regions of the continental empire, the labor situation was far less developed in modern industrial sense. Armed China and Fano resistance organizations against Southern rule continued well into the 1920s. The Euro American settlers were in general wary of concentrating masses on Mexicanos, and long into the 20th century, the main interest of many Anglo settlers was the continuing terroristic seizure of the mainlands and water rights of the China, Mexicano, and Indian nations. Thus, the settler economy in the Southwest, even in the imperialist era, was still concentrated in the conquest and looting stage. Here, the conquered China, Mexicanos were necessary settlers as ranch labor and domestic labor, just as the rural South Africans. By the turn of the century, the development of railroad systems, of large scale commercial agriculture, and of extensive mining were also creating the imperialist need for increased masses of cheap laborers. Thousands and tens of thousands of Mexicano workers were brought to the to fill this need. By 1909, under the Santa Fe and Sun Pacific Railroads, some 98% of the crews were from the West of Alberta, China, while various mixtures of Mexicano, Indian, and American nationalities were also used in mines, Mexicano labor played the largest role. In mines closest to the artificial border, Mexicano workers were often a large majority, such as a major copper center of Clifton, Arizona. Once driven out of much of the West by settler terrorism, Mexicanos were now brought back to their own national land as quote, immigrant or quote, contract labor. Mexicanos gained 60% of the miners, 80% of the agricultural workers, and 90% of the railroad laborers in the West. Thus, in the West, the importance of colonial labor was rapidly growing. In terms of income lifestyle, it is easy to see a between the labor of the cross-nation settlers, imported European national minorities, and the colonial labor of the oppressed nations and minorities. The African tenant family usually lived in debt slavery, laboring as a family for a little more than some food, a few clothes, and use of shack. Those Chicago Mexican families trapped in the Texas Union system earned just a little. One Texas rancher passed by in 1914, quote, I was paying Pancho and his whole family 60 cents a day. There were no hours. He worked from sun to sun, end quote. As late as the 1920s, African farm laborers in the South earned 75 cents per day when employed. For both Africans and Mexicanos at the turn of the century, even in industry and mining, it was common to earn one half of, quote, white man's day. One step up from this was the Northern Industrial Proletariat from Eastern and Southern Europe, newly created, heavily exploited, but whose ultimate relationship to imperialists was still uncertain. The, quote, hunky and, quote, dago commonly earned $10 per week in the early 1900s for six cents a day work weeks. One giant level from there was a privileged child of Euro-American labor aristocrats, skilled workers, foreign, office staff. They usually earned 15 dollars per week, with the majority being homeowners and voting citizens of the empire. This top strong dominated trade unions and social organizations, consistently supporting the U.S. empire. Bribe and helps to be the imperialist leadership of all white workers as a whole. They sabotage any military operations in the industrial ranks. Always, they prevented any international unity between white workers and the colonial proletariats. It is with this background, and being a trade continuing role of social bribery, that we begin to examine settler mass politics in the imperialist era. A picture of prisoners working under guard, a chain gang in Fulton County, Georgia, in the 1890s. And the second one. Settlers, Chapter 5. Section 2. Settler Opposition to Imperialism. There have always been significant contradictions among the settlers, and even in the early stages of imperialism, we have seen conflicts between the monopoly capitalists and their settler base. While the U.S. was an empire just as soon as it started to breathe, the quote, Spanish War of 1898 marked this early settler empire transition into imperialism. The pivotal nature of this imperialist war was well understood by the settler citizenry of that earlier day, and it caused not only a great public debate, but an angry split in the settler ranks. The well organized mass movement of settlers opposed to imperialism, then forced out of the anti Vietnam war movement of our times. These are important contradictions. In the pre-1898 war, the U.S. easily removed Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Cuba from the feeble hands of the aging Spanish empire. This armed robbery was so effortless, yet the Spanish bourgeoisie had already lost most of their former power over these colonies. Due to both their own weakness and the rise of national liberation movements. On September 23, 1868, at Laris, Puerto Rican patriots proclaimed the first public Puerto Rico amid an armed uprising against the Spanish occupiers. Although crushed, the quote, cry of Laris marks the start of an unbroken history of patriotic warfare by Puerto Rican people. Increasingly, the Puerto Rican forces controlled not only the mountains, but also the rural areas right up to the towns of the isolated Spanish garrisons. Finally, in 1897, the desperate Spanish Empire agreed to negotiations with Puerto Rican representatives to a charter of autonomy. This recognized the power of Puerto Rican nations to set up currency, fix tariffs on imports, negotiate trade agreements with other nations, and veto if they wish any Spanish diplomatic treaties applying to Puerto Rico. The end of Spanish rule was at end. Similar concessions were won by Cuban and Filipino rebels. The U.S. bourgeoisie had to move quickly if they were saying these colonies. In addition to the possibility that Britain or some other great power would make a grab for them, there was a certainty that the oppressed nations of the Spanish Empire were raising the beacon of national independence and anti-colonialism, as Haiti had done a century before. 
So then on April 25th, 1898, the U.S. declared war on Spain, while Louis did invade Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. It was just in the nick of time, as far as U.S. imperialism was concerned. In the Philippines, the liberation struggle had already reached the formation of a new Filipino government. Served on by the Kapitan, the secret armed organization of workers and peasants, the revolutionaries had created a large people's army. By the time the first U.S. troops landed on June 30th, 1898, the Filipino revolutionaries had already swept the Spanish colonial army and administration out of virtually the whole of the Philippines, besieging the last isolated old house in the old walled city of Manila. Under the pretext of being, quote, allies of the Filipinos, U.S. troops landed and joined the siege of the Spanish armies. It is a fact that in the siege, the Filipino patriots held 15 miles of the lines facing the Spanish troops, while the U.S. troops held only a few 600 yards of the front line. More and more U.S. troops arrived, even after the Filipino Spanish surrendered on September 1898. Finally, on February 4, 1899, the reinforced U.S. quote allies moved to wipe out the Filipino forces, even ordering that no truces or ceasefires be accepted. The Filipino people defended their nation with the most heroic and stubborn resistance. It took over three years of the most bitter combat before the guerrilla patriots were overcome. And defeated them only because, one, the bourgeois national Filipino leaders had treacherously encouraged the armed movement of the most advanced proletarian elements, while they themselves vacillated in trying to reach confrontation with the U.S. invaders. Two, over half the total U.S. army, 1.2 million troops, were eventually boarded in the Philippines, with weapons and organization far advanced over the former Spanish foes. Three, the Filipino people were unaware of the brutal effectiveness of the genocidal strategy used by the U.S. invaders. A portrait of a U.S. Navy recruiting station poster saying, The Navy needs you. Don't read American history. Make it. From 1917. The last became an international scandal when the full details became known, shaking even some sellers. Unable to cope with the tactics of Filipino revolutionaries, the U.S. Army decided to start them into disintegration by destroying their social base, the Filipino population. The same genocidal quote, population group strategy, as the CIA calls it, that settlers first used against the Indian nations, was revived in the Philippines, and would be used again in Vietnam in our times. The general outlines of the U.S. strategy called destroying all organized social and economic life in neighborhood areas. Villages would be burned down, crops and livestock destroyed, diseases spread, the people killed or forced to evacuate as refugees. Large areas were declared as free fire zones, in which all Filipinos were to be killed on sight. Of course, even Euro-American settlers needed some indoctrination in order to daily carry out such crimes. Indiscriminate killing, looting, and torture were publicly encouraged by the U.S. Army command. American reporters were invited to witness the daily torture sessions, in which Filipinos would be subjected to the quote, water cure, having salt water pumped into their stomachs under pressure. The Boston Herald said, quote, Our troops in the Philippines would call all Filipinos as one race and condition, and being government, they are therefore niggers, and entitled to all contempt and harsh treatment administered by white overlords to the most inferior races. End quote. U.S. imperialism took the Philippines by literally turning whole regions into smoldering graveyards. U.S. Brigadier General James Bell, upon returning to the U.S. in 1901, said that these men had killed one of every six Filipinos on the mainland island of Luzon. That would be just some one million deaths just there. It is certain that at least 200,000 Filipinos died in the genocide conquest. In some province, where the patriotic resistance of the U.S. invaders was extremely persistent, U.S. General Jacob Smith ordered his troops to shoot every Filipino, man, woman, or child, they find, quote, over 10 years of age. A picture of massacre. Quote, the bodies of moral insurgents and civilians killed by U.S. troops during the Battle of Badajo in the Philippines, March 7, 1906. The Sabre and Pine movement that rose in opposition to these conquests focused on the Philippines. It was not a fringe protest by a few rebels. Many of the leaders were men of wealth and standing, many of them old veterans of the abolitionist cause. The author Mark Twain, Governor Pingree of Michigan, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture J. Sterling Morton, and steel magnate Andrew Carnegie were but a few of the quote, notable settlers involved. From its center in New England, the movement spread coast to coast, and then organized itself into the American Anti-Imperialist League. The League had over 40,000 members in some 40 chapters, with hundreds of thousands of settler supporters. It was also closely tied to the reform wing of the Democratic Party, and to the presidential election campaign of William James Ryan. Just as Senator George McGovern would run against President Nixon on the platform in 1972, Ryan was running against the entrenched Republicans with platform calling for an end to Asian conquests. The politics of the League were well developed with an explicit class orientation. The League opposed imperialism in the first place because they correctly saw they represented the increased power of monopoly capital. When they raised their slogan, Republic or Empire, they identified that America should be a republic of free European settlers rather than a world empire, whose mixed populations would be subjects of monopoly capitalists. They feared that the economic power gained from exploiting these new colonies, plus the permanent armed force needed to hold them, would be used as a home to smother the quote, democracy of the settler masses. The atrocities committed by U.S. troops in the Philippines were denounced on moral and humanitarian grounds. The League was very careful to point out that their support for Philippine independence did not mean that they believed in any equality of colonial peoples with Europeans. Congressman Paul Schwartz, the German inter-liberal who played such a prominent role in supporting reconstruction during the 1860s and 70s, was a leading spokesman for the League. In his speech, quote, The Policy of Imperialism, Schwartz began by finding the Filipinos as, quote, the strongest and foremost tribe of the region. He then said, quote, We need not praise the Filipinos as every way the equals of the battle farmers of Lexington Conqueror, but there is an abundance of testimony, some of it unwilling, that the Filipinos are fully equals and even the superiors of the Cubans and Mexicans. And, quote. The patronizing areas of even these settlers showed that it was possible for them to be against the imperialism and also the white supremacists and support capitalism. That this was an impossible contradiction didn't occur them. The class content of the League becomes very clear as Schwartz continued, quote, Now it may be well that the annexation of the Philippines would pay a slightly significant blow to capitalists, without at the same time paying the American people at large. As the people of our race, tribal countries like the Philippines may be fields of profit for rich men who can hire others for them, but not for those who have to work for themselves. End quote. In other words, the League was articulating the interests of the liberal type bourgeoisie. Settler labor was appealed to on an explicitly white supremacist basis. Congressman George S. Powell, the president of the League, reminded the white workers that they had just finished robbing and driving out Chinese workers by campaign that he had supported. 
now people like workers, a new menace had arisen of, quote, past civilized persons from the Philippines. Their land were annexed to the U.S. Empire, and in the near future, these Asians will be brought to America by capitalists. He said, quote, does anyone believe that with safety we can receive into this union the millions of Asia who have no bonds of relationship with us? The question before this country shall be this. Should the laboring and producing classes of America be subjected to a direct and never competition with the underpaid and half laborers of Asia? End quote. The politics of the League did not support national liberation. They were not anti-capitalist or even anti-racist. The heart of their was the appeal of a false past, of a picture of America as an insular European society, of an economy based on settler corruption, in small arms and workshops. They feared the new imperialist world of giant industrial trusts and banks, of international corruption, where the labor of oppressed workers in far-flung colonies would give a monopoly capital a financial whip over the common settler class and farmer. They believed, incorrectly, that the settler economy could be sustained without continuing America's history of conquest and annexation. Footnote. Lenin commented, quote, In the United States, the imperialist war waged against Spain in 1898 served up the opposition of the, quote, anti the last of the Mohicans of bourgeois democracy, who declared his war to be, quote, criminal. But while all these criticisms shrank from recognizing the inseparable bond between imperialism and trust, and therefore between imperialism and foundations of capitalism, while it shrank from joining forces engendered by the Marxist capitalism and its development, it remained a, quote, pious wish from Lenin's imperialism to high stage capitalism. End footnote. We can see the very sharply defined case we made for counterposing the interests of settlers versus their bourgeoisie. In his competition address at the University of Chicago in 1899, Carl Schurz takes up the issue of explaining why the old conquests of the U.S. Empire were so good, while the new conquests were bad. Quote, Has not the career of the Republic almost from its very beginning been one of territorial expansion? Has it not acquired California, Florida, Texas, the vast countries that came to us through the Mexican War, and Alaska, and has it not ingested them well? If the Republic could digest the old, why not the new? End quote. Schurz then gives five reasons why the old annexations worked out so well for the settlers. One, they were all in this continent. Two, they were not in the tropics, but in temperate climates, quote, where democratic institutions thrive, and where our people could migrate in mass. Three, they were virtually, quote, without any population. Four, since only Euro-Americans would populate them, they could become territories and then states and become fully integrated into white America. Five, no permanent increase in the military was needed to defend them from, quote, probable foreign attack. End quote. His political thought was that whereas the old annexations of settlers provided limited resources for the invading Europeans to occupy and become the dominant population, would be a genocide course. These new annexations of Asia and Caribbean brought only new millions of colonial subjects into the U.S. Empire, but in distant colonies that the Euro-American masses would never populate. Schurz continues, beginning quote, The scheme of Americanizing our, quote, new possessions, in that sense, is therefore absolutely hopeless. The enviable forces of nature are against it. Whatever we may do for their improvement, the people of the Spanish Antilles will remain. Spanish Creoles, Negroes, and the people of the Philippines, Filipinos, Malays, Tagalogs, and so on. A hopelessly heterogeneous element, in some respects, more hopeless even than the colored people now living among us. End quote. These settlers were opposing imperialism from the ideological standpoint of petty bourgeois settlerism. They significant that the League refused to take a stand on the border war going on in South Africa, or on the dispatch of U.S. Marines to join other Western powers in crushing the Boxer Rebellion in China. And obviously, the League had no objection to colonialism at all in the annexed and settled territories of Mexico, the Indian nations, and New Africa. By 1901, the American anti imperialist League was a sense force. Brian and the Democrats had lost the 1900 elections by a large margin. More decisively, the Filipino, Puerto Rican, and Cuban patriots had been defeated. And the issue of the U.S. expanding from continental American empire into a world empire had been decided. There were other ways of petty bourgeois reaction against the domination of Malik capital. The most significant was the populist party, which wrote the, quote, color line in the South, uniting poor whites and Africans in voting for new government programs of reform. With heavy strength in the rural counties, the populist party got almost one-third of the vote in the United States, west of the city in 1892. In the South, its strength was less, but still important. Led by Democratic Tom Watson of Georgia, the populists proposed that African shareholders should unite with small white farmers, enforcing big business to give them both a better economic deal. It was the, quote, bread and butter coalition of two exploited forces from different nations. But frustrated their inability to reach their goals through this electoral coalition, the populist leadership sharply shifted course after 1902. Watson and his cronies discovered that the tactical position of the poor whites in the bourgeois elections might improve if they drove out African voters. By conclusion, imperialists were glad for courage. See Van Woodward comments, quote, With the Negro vote eliminated, Watson and the populists stood in much the same relation towards the two factions of the Democratic Party as the Negro had occupied for the populists and Democrats. They held the balance of power. End quote. Watson himself, still the captivating spokesman of the, quote, cracker and, quote, redneck, therefore moved rapidly to the right. He encouraged new waves of terrorists against Africans. Quote, Link law is a good sign. It shows that sense of justice lives among the people. End quote. In 1904, Watson started campaigning for disenfranchisement of the one million African voters in Georgia. With Flame Boy Rhetoric, Watson supported the 1905 Russian Revolution at the same time he swore that the key to the movement of poor whites in America was Africans. Quote, the white people dare not so long as they be intimidated by the fear of the Negro vote. End quote. Not surprisingly, these stands only increased Watson's popularity as a leader of the poor whites. In 1920, shortly before his death, he was finally elected to the U.S. Senate. At his death, Eugene Debs, leading figure of the Euro-American Socialist Party, hailed Watson as a true hero of the white workers. Quote, he was a great man, a heroic soul who fought power of evil his whole life long in the interest of the common people, and they loved him and honored him. End quote. By that time, naturally, Watson had become a wealthy plantation owner and publisher. The populists had faded away as a party to become just another pressure group lobby within the Democratic Party. Just as in the anti-imperialism of the League, the Southern African coalition of populists had nothing to do with any real unity of settlers with the oppressed. Rather, these four, but still privileged settlers, were actively maneuvering to improve their position relative to monopoly capitalists. 
In recruiting Africans, he gave their salary a boost. Historian Michael Rogan points out, quote, Populism, however, was a movement of the farmland proprietors, not property-less workers. They attempted to reassert local community control against the economic and political centralization of corporate capital. End quote. These two movements did not cross the line of battle between empire and the oppressed nations. Their limitation, and their special importance, is that they represented the eruption of class contradictions within the camp of the enemy. The Vietnam War controversy of the 60s, the strange Watergate scandal that forced President Nixon out of power, are both evidence that the effects of these contradictions are considerable, and will be in the future. If we become confused about their basic nature, we damage our strategic self-reliance. If, like the Vietnamese comments, we can make these contradictions serve us, we will have seized an essential element of revolution. And section 2. Settlers. Chapter 5, Section 3. The U.S. and South African Settlerism. The same contradiction between imperialism and its settlers and troops appeared elsewhere, most strongly in Africa. At the same time as the American anti imperialist League was denouncing the annexation of former Spanish colonies, the Boer settlers in South Africa were being invaded by the forces of the British Empire. The 1899 Anglo Boer War became a political issue among settlers in America. There is a historic relationship between Euro American settlers and the colonization of South Africa. American mercenaries, engineers, and technologies played a major role in the European exploitation of South Africa, and obviously still do. The diamond and gold mines, the great center of British South African colonization, were virtually run by the experienced Euro Americans from California and Colorado. Gordon Williams, the U.S. consular agent in Kimberley, was the manager of the Beers Diamond Mines. John Hayes Sand was the chief engineer of British South Africa Corporation. By 1896, one half of all mines were run by Euro American mine experts. Much of the equipment as well came from the U.S. Empire. One U.S. company alone, Fraser and Chalmers, supplied 40% of the machinery at the Rand Coal Fields. When the second and decisive war broke out between the Boer South African Republic and the British Empire, Euro Americans became heavily involved. The difference in America over the Anglo Boer War definitely reflected the existing strains between monopoly capitalists and their own separate The U.S. bourgeoisie and its political agents were strongly pro British. Allied to British mining interests, they supported British imperialism as a power that would open out South Africa for imperialist exploitation in general. And, like the British, they saw the backward South African Republic of the original Boer settlers in Holland as an obstacle to profits. The Boer society stressed Southern family agriculture and opposed any militarization of the African peoples. While it was only with mass enforced integration of African labor in the border economy that the Western imperialists could fully exploit South Africa. The British imperialists had to take state power out of the hands of those narrow theocratic powers and bring all South Africa into their colonial empire. Euro Americans were heavily involved in the 1895 Jameson raid, the quote, private British military exhibition of imperialist Cecil Rhodes. In the aftermath of the raid's well publicized failure at overjoying the Boer government, the facts of Euro American involvement came out. The weapons used had been smuggled into South Africa by Euro American mining executives. Seven of them were arrested by Boers. The defense of the seven became big news after the United States. Mark Twain visited them in jail, afterwards supporting them as men who were innocently trying to bring about quote, reform. Eventually, due to diplomatic pressure, the seven were freed. Gardner Williams simply gave his fine and resumed his post as a U.S. consular agent. John Hayes was ousted from the colony, however, and returned to a hero's in the U.S. He later became national chairman of the Republican Party. When the war broke out in 1899, the U.S. government openly sided with the British. The Republican McKinley administration approved the sale of much provisions and missions of British forces. Permission was even given to the British to recruit mercenaries here. Just as overtly, the white, quote, Rhodesians obtained military reinforcements here in the 1970s. But many Euro American settlers identified with Boers, who were, after all, just fellow European settlers ruling occupied lands, like themselves, and some Boers had losing their, quote, rights to redeem the capital. The parallel of the U.S. was very close in many lines. And the Republican administration in Washington was publicly championing the British side. Still, there were others who identified with the Boer Davids against the British Goliath. There were some popular sympathy of the Boer settlers on the U.S. settlers, but the 1900 Democratic Party platform saluted, quote, the heroic workers in their unequal struggle to maintain their liberty and independence. Much of the most impassioned support in the U.S. for the Boers came to Nelsonize from the Irish community. They saw the Boers not only as fellow European settlers, but as fellow rebels fighting for nation against British colonialism. And the Irish Brigade was actually assembled and set to Transvaal to join the Boer army. As the eventual defeat of the Boers grew closer, public settlers and people only increased. The states of Texas, New Mexico, and Colorado formally offered their welcome and free land, stolen from the Indian Mexicanos, to any Boers who wished to emigrate, just as Governor South Carolina in 1979 officially invited losing Rhodesian settlers fleeing the Bobby to South African state. So the present U.S. Imperial involvement in South once these two trends were counterposed, now they are joined. South Africa played out in a form of much intense, the same pattern of relations between settler workers and African labor as in the U.S. African laborers not only conducted strikes, but starting with the July 1913 mine strike, Africans tried honoring the strikes of the white workers. Indeed, in the mines, strike by white workers alone were part of South Caucasian. But in every case, the white workers themselves refused, in return, to support African strikes, thus merely serving as staffs and, quote, such consuls, volunteer weeks, put down African struggles. The December 1919 Cape Town strike by African Longshore and the February 1920 African mining strike were both broken by the authorities with the help of white labor. One African radical comments, being a long quote. But the white workers believed they had nothing in common with the blacks. The white miners earned ten times as much as the blacks, that many of them employed black servants in their homes. The victory of the black miners would increase the desire of the miners to reduce the status of the white miners, so they increased black wages, which have to be met by a reduction in white wages or a reduction in profit. Such was the reality of the situation which the white workers, consciously not, understood very well. End quote. Imperialism knows no gratitude, not even for the servants. From 1907 on, the mining companies have pushed at the white miners, trying to gradually replace non-white miners with low-paid Africans to reduce white wages and to reduce the total numbers of expensive white miners. In response, from 1907 to 1922, there was a series of militant white strikes. Finally, in 1922, the Chamber of Mines announced that the companies had repudiated the existing labor agreements and had decided to lay off 2,000 white miners. 
This touch shall be great revolt in 1922, and which eight weeks tried to slay the general strike all white workers, and then into a week of armed revolt to fighting between the Red Guards of white miners and the imperialist troops. The main demand was obvious. The white miners, who were both British, Scottish, and Welsh, gained the support not only of the other white workers, but of the whole lower people as well. As the strike grew, the armed red guards of the miners started attacking African workers. Between the production halts and the attacks, thousands of Africans had to evacuate the ramp. In recognition of the reactionary character of the revolt, all the African political organizations, churches, and unions denounced it. The violent upheaval of separatist intent corrupted the armed forces of imperialism in South Africa. In 1944, the rigidly pro-company smuts government was voted out by the Southern Electorate. The new Africaner government granted the white workers all they wanted, except for driving up the African population wholesale. The Color Bar Act was passed, which legally enforced the set of monopoly on high paid wage labor. Toil was now to be reserved for the African proletariat. Wage labor, a stabilized position as a subsidized, non exploited aristocracy of labor. The main function of the African masses was no longer produced as a whole society, but only served as a social base for the occupation garrison that imperialism needed to hold down the colonial peoples. Indeed, today it is evident that South African mining, industry, and agriculture are all the products of colonial African labor alone. African workers, far from supporting society, are themselves supported by the super exploitation of the oppressed nation of Africans. There is no longer, in any meaningful terms, any working class struggle within settler society there. End of chapter 5. Settlers by J. Sakai. Chapter 6. The U.S. Industrial Proletariat. Section 1. The Communistic and Revolutionary Races. The industrial system in the U.S. came to full stride at the turn of the century. In 1870, the U.S. steel industry was far behind out of England in both technology and size. From its small, still relatively backward mills came less than one-sixth of the big iron produced in England. But by 1900, U.S. steel mills were the most highly recognized, efficient, and profitable in the world. Not only did they produce twice the hundred that England did, but in that year, even England, the pioneering center of the iron and steel industry, began to import cheaper anti-steel. That year, the U.S. Empire became the world's leading industrial producer, starting to shoulder side factories of old Europe. Such a wave of production needed markets on steel never seen before. The expansion of the U.S. Empire into worldwide power tried to find those. Yet the new industrial empire also needed something just as essential, an industrial proletariat. The key to the even greater army of wage slaves was another flood of emigration from old Europe. This time, from southern and eastern Europe, Poles, Italians, Slovaks, Serbs, Hungarians, Finns, Jews, Russians, etc. From the 1880s to the beginning of the First World War, some 15 million of these new immigrants arrived looking for work. And they came in numbers which dwarfed the tempo of the old Irish, German, and Scandinavian immigration of the 1800s. And that was three and a half times as large as the Anglo-Saxon, German, and Scandinavian immigration of the 1898 to 1914 period. They had a central role in the mass wage labor of the new industrial empire. The capitalists put together the raw materials and capital base extracted from the earlier colonial conquests, the labor of the Euro American craftsmen, and the new millions of industrial production workers from southern and eastern Europe. In 1910, the U.S. Emigration Commission said, a, long quote, a large portion of the southern and eastern immigrants of the past 25 years have entered the manufacturing and mining industries of the eastern and midwestern states, mostly in the capacity of unskilled laborers. There is no base industry in which they are not largely represented, and in many cases they compose more than 50% of the total numbers of persons employed in such industries. Coincident with the advent of these millions of unskilled laborers, there is an unprecedented expansion of the industries in which they have been employed. End quote. In the bottom layers of the northern factory, the role of the new non-citizen immigrants from eastern and southern Europe was dominant. A labor historian writes, quote, more than 30,000 steel workers by 1900. The newcomers soon filled the unskilled jobs in the northern mills, forcing natives and the earlier immigrants upward or out of the industry. In the Carnegie Plains of Allegheny County in March 1907, this new industrial proletariat, the bottom, most exploited foundation of white wage labor, was nationally distinct. That is, it was composed primarily of the immigrant national minorities from southern and eastern Europe. Robert Hunter's famous exposé, poverty, which in 1904 caused a public sensation in South society, pointed this national distinction out in very stark terms. In the poorest orders of many great American cities and industrial communities, one struck by the most peculiar fact the poor are almost entirely foreign born. Great colonies, foreign in language, customs, habits, and institutions, are separated from each other and from simply American groups on national and racial lines. These colonies often make up the main portion of our so called slums. In Baltimore, 77% of the population of the slums was, in the year 1894, a foreign birth or parentage. In Chicago, the foreign element was 90%. In New York, 95%. And Philadelphia, 91%. End quote. The next special report of the Federal Bureau of Labor revealed that immigrant Italian workers in Chicago had average earnings of less than $6 per week. 57% were unemployed part of the year, averaging seven months out of work. But the new mass production system found it more profitable to run at top speed for long hours when orders were high, and then shut down the factory completely until orders had been built up again. In 1910, a year of high production of the steel industry, 22% of the labor force was unemployed for three months or longer, and over 60% were laid off for at least one month. 
even in an industry such as steel, where work week at that time was seven days on and on. The new workers could not earn up to four family. In 1910, the Pittsburgh Associated Charities proved that if immigrant steel labor worked for 365 days, he still could, quote, not provide a family of five with the bare necessities. And these were men who earned 10 to $12 per week. In the textile mills of Lawrence, Massachusetts, the 15,000 immigrant youth from age 14 who worked there earned only 12 cents per hour. A physician, Dr. Elizabeth Chalet, wrote, quote, a considerable number of boys and girls died for the first two or three years after starting work. 36 out of every 100 of all men and women who in the mills died before reaching the age of 25. End quote. The proletarian immigrants did not see America as a, quote, land of freedom, as the propaganda says, but as a hell of satanic cruelty. One historian reminds us, the end quote. The newcomers are no illusions about America. There in Pittsburgh, people say, the dear sun never shines brightly. The air is saturated with stench and gas. Parents in Galicia wrote their children. A workman in the Southworks warned a prospective immigrant. If he wants to come, he is not complaining about me, for in America, there are neither Sundays nor holidays. He must go to work. Foot, Southworks, a USC plant in Chicago. Letters emphasize that here in America, one must work for three horses. There are different kinds of work, heavy and light, explain another, but a man from our country cannot be light. A Hungarian church in second Pittsburgh steel mills explained bitterly, wherever the heat is most insupportable, the flames most scorching, the smoke and soot most choking. There be a certain kind of patriots bent and wasted with toil. Returned men, they were said, were worn out by their years in America. End of quote. In Southworks, nearly one quarter of the new immigrant steel workers were injured or killed on the job each year. In the steel mill communities, company towns, these laborers in the free world war one years were usually single, with even married men having been forced to leave their families in the old country until they could either return or become more successful. They lived crowded into squalid boarding houses, owned by boarding bosses, who were fellow countrymen and often as well the foreman admired them. Different nationalities often worked in separate gangs, so they had common language. Sleeping three or four to a room, they spent much of every time in the saloons that were their sauce. As in all the communities on capitalism, cheap drink was encouraged as a pacifier. Immigrant communities would fester with saloons. Gary Indiana had more than one saloon. Gary Indiana had more than one saloon for every one hundred inhabitants. Of course, the local police and boards preyed on these foreigners with both abuse and shakedowns. They had few democratic rights in the major urban centers. And in a steel or mining or rubber or textile towns, they had none. In the U.S. Empire, nationality differences have always been disguised as racial differences. So the Euro-Iron Southern maintain efficient that there's the only real nation. The Eastern and Southern European national minorities were widely defined as non-white, as members of genetically different and backward races from the quote, white race of Anglo-Saxons. This pseudo-scientific racist categorizing only continued as an ideological characteristic of European capitalist civilization. The Euro-Americans have always justified their conquest and exploitation of their nationalities by depicting them as racially different. This old tactic was here applied even to other Europeans. So Francis K. Walker, president of MIT, and the Dr. Strangelow figure, who, as a commissioner in the affairs, developed the Indian reservation system, popularized the social Darwinist theory that the new immigrants were, quote, beaten men from beaten races, representing the worst failures in the struggle for existence, end quote. Thus, as double failures in the, quote, survival of the fist, these new European immigrants were only capable of being industrial slaves. The wildest assertions of racial identity were common. Some Euro Americans claimed that these, quote, swarthy Europeans were really, quote, Arabs or Syrians. U.S. Senator Simmons of North Carolina claimed that the Southern Italians were the, quote, degenerate progeny of the Asiatic hordes, which long centuries ago overran the shores of the Mediterranean, end quote. The St. Paul, Minnesota District Attorney argued in federal court that Finns should receive citizenship papers since, quote, a Finn is a Mongolian and not a white person, end quote. Scientists were prominent in their campaign. Professor Yehudin of Harvard University claimed that there are actually nine different races in Europe, each with different mental abilities and habits. As late as 1946, in the widely used textbook, New Horizons in Chronology, Professor Yehudin's pseudoscience was quoted by police to, quote, prove how Southern Italians tended to, quote, crimes of violence, how slavs, quote, showed preference for sex offenses, and so on. A widely read Saturday evening post series of 1920 on the new immigrants warned that unless they were restricted and kept segregated, the result would be, quote, a hybrid race of people as on street level, newspapers and common talk sharply distinguished between, quote, white Americans and the, quote, Dago and, quote, Hunky, who were not considered, quote, white at all. The bourgeoisie had a dual attitude of fearing these neutralitarians during moments of unrest and equally encouraging their influence when the economy was moving. It was often stated that these races were prone to extreme and violent political behavior and the calm, businesslike Anglo-Saxon had long since outgrown. One writer in a business journal said, quote, I am no race worker, but if the mass race of this time is subordinated to or overrun with the communistic and revolutionary races, it will be in grave danger of social disaster, end quote. One answer, and one that became extremely important, was to, quote, Americanize the new labor masses to tame them by absorbing them into Southern America to remake them into citizens of empire. The big bourgeoisie, which very much needed this labor, was interested in the solution. In November 1918, a private intermediate of some 50 of the large employers of immigrant labor discussed Americanization. This was the right to use at the time. Previous social work and employer indoctrination campaigns directed the immigrants had not had much success. It was agreed by those capitalists that the spread of, quote, bolshevism among the industrial immigrants was a real danger, and that big business should break up this trend and, quote, break up the nationalistic racial groups by combining their members for America. It was thus well understood by the bourgeoisie that these European workers consciousness themselves as oppressed national minorities, made them open revolutionary ideas, and, on the other hand, their possible corruption and coherent citizens would make them more loyal to U.S. imperialism. 
The meeting formed the Interracial Council with corporate representatives and the tactical window dressing of conservative bourgeois quote leaders from the other communities. T. Coleman Dupont became the chairman. Francis Keller, the well known social worker and reformer, became the paid coordinator of the council's programs. It sounded just like so many of the establishment as side committees of the 1960s, only the quote racist being quote uplifted or European. The council's main efforts were directed at propaganda. The American Association of Foreign Language Newspapers, in actuality, a private company that placed American big business advertising in the many foreign language media newspapers, was purchased. With total control over the all important major advertising, the council began to dictate the political line of many of those newspapers. Anti communist and anti union articles were pushed. The council also, in concert with government agencies and private capitalist charities, promoted Americanization quote, education programs, i.e., political indoctrination, quote, adult education, night schools for immigrants, state laws requiring them to attend Americanization classes, laws prohibiting the use of any language except English in schools, etc., etc. The Americanization movement had a lasting effect on the empire. The interracial council was dropped by capitalists in 1921. Since by then, Americanization had its own momentum. At the same time, national chauvinism and the specific class interests of the American bourgeoisie and labor aristocracy led to campaigns against immigrants. State licensing acts in New York, Connecticut, Michigan, Wyoming, Arizona, and New Mexico barred non-citizen immigrants from competing with settled professionals in medicine, pharmacy, architecture, engineering, and so on. Under the banner of anti-Catholicism, various right-wing organizations attempted to mobilize the settled masses against immigrants. One such group, the Guardians of Liberty, was headed by retired U.S. Army Chief of Staff General Nelson Miles, who had made the military repressions at both Wounded Knee and later in the invasion of Puerto Rico. The Loyal Legion, the Ku Klux Klan, and other secret paramilitary groups were also heavily involved in attacks on immigrants, particularly when they became active in social organizations or went out on strikes. Most significantly, the Soviet trade unions themselves started picturing these neo-Polarians as the enemy. The unions of the American Federation of Labor, AFL, were heavily in view of the labor aristocracy viewpoints of the quote, native-born settlers. This was true even though earlier when German and Irish immigrants had played such a large role in founding those unions. Now they fought to body quote Dago and quote Hunky from a better paid work, from union membership, and even from entering the US. In New York, the Brickler's Union got Italian fire from other works projects. AFL President Samuel Gompers united with right-wing US Senator Henry Lodge and campaigned to extend the anti-Asian immigration bars to the quote non-white, Eastern and Southern Europeans as well. This process was very visible in the steel mills. It became socially unacceptable for quote, white settlers to work with the Slavs and the Italians on the labor gangs. Increasingly, they left hard work to the European national minorities and either moved up to foreign sealed positions or out of the mills. The companies pushed for separation. Euro Americans applying for ordinary labor jobs were told, quote, only hunkies work on those jobs. They're too dirty and too damn for a quote, white man. No white American works in a steel labor gang unless he's nuts or a booze fighter. End quote. A steel labor history tells us. Begin long quote. The English steam workman was, in general, content to ignore the immigrants. Outside the mill, he really encountered them or entered their crowded streets. But indifference often edged into animosity. The same could be read also in the stereotype Dago and Hunky in the short stories that appeared in later papers, and frankly hostile remarks on the workers. He could dissociate himself from Hunky, the steel man identified with the middle group of small shopkeepers and artisans, and with them came to regard the merchants and managers as his models. Whatever his interests may have been, the English steam steel worker had a psychological commitment in favor of his employer. End quote. So the imperialist era had begun with Euro American wage labor, still a privileged upper stratum dominated by a bourgeois viewpoint. And although the new industrial proletariat was overwhelmingly European in origin, it was primarily made up of the oppressed national minorities from Eastern and Southern Europe, quote, foreigners, widely considered, quote, non white white settlers. The U.S. Empire's policy of relegating the work of, quote, supporting society, of carrying out the passive proletariat to oppressed workers of other nationalities, was thus continued in a more complex way in the 20th century. At the same time, the capitalists were raising the possibility of buying off political discontent by offering these proletarians Americanization into settler society. End section 1. Settlers, Chapter 6, Section 2 Industrial Unionism. As U.S. imperialism settles faster and faster into its permanent decline, once again we hear the theory expressed that some poverty and the resulting mass economic struggles will create revolutionary consciousness in Euro-American workers. The fact is that such social pressures are not new to white America. For three decades, from 1890 to 1920, the new white industrial proletariat increasingly organized itself into larger and larger struggles with the capitalists. The immigrant European proletarians wanted industrial unionism, and the most advanced among them wanted socialism. A mass movement was built for both. These were the most highly exploited, most proletarian, and most militant European workers America has ever produced. Yet, in the end, they were unable to go beyond desiring the main reform of imperialism. The mass industrial struggles of that period were important in that they represent the highest level of class consciousness any major stratum of European workers in the U.S. has yet reached. And yet, even in this exceptional period, a period of the most aggressive and openly anti-capitalist labor organizing, European workers were unable to produce adequate revolutionary leadership, unable to defeat the settler labor aristocracy, unable to oppose U.S. imperialism, and unable to unite with the anti-colonial movements of the oppressed nations. We can sum up the shortcomings by saying that they flirted with socialism, but in the end, preferred settlerism. The Industrial Workers of the World, by IWW, was the most important single organization of this period. From its founding in 1905, the year of the First Russian Revolution, until 1920, the IWW was the center of industrial unionism in the U.S. It was the form in which the modern and western white industrial proletariat first emerged into mass local consciousness. Unlike the restricted craft unions of the AFL, the IWW organized on a class basis. That is, it organized and tried to unite all sections of the white working class, car miners, auto workers, cowboys, hotel workers, farm laborers, and even the unemployed. 
It was based on the European proletarians and other stratum, usually migrants of quote newborn Europe American workers. The IWW sought solace not only winning their wages, but eventually overthrowing capitalism. It was a symbolist union, the quote one big union, meant to combine workers of all trades and nationalities. It was a symbolist union, the quote one big union, meant to combine workers of all trades and nationalities literally around the world. This was a period in development of the world proletariat, where these revolutionary simplest ideas had wide appeal. The immature belief that workers needed a revolutionary party or leadership, but merely had to gather into industrial unions and bring down capitalism by larger and larger strikes, was a passive phase. In 1900, these revolutionary simplest unions were popular in Spain, France, Italy, as well as briefly in the U.S. Empire. While the IWW was backward in many respects, in others it displayed great strengths. It was genuinely proletarian. As an effective mass labor organization, it showed fighting spirit long since vanished from white workers. We were referring to an open anti-Americanism. The IWW urged workers to reject any loyalty to the U.S. Unlike the majority of Euro-American quote socialists, the IWW linked quote American nationalism with the bourgeois culture of patriotism. Just as the IWW was the last white union movement to be socialist, it also represented the last strata of white workers to be in any way internationalist. Great boldness relative to usual settler trade unionism characterized the IWW. First, it promoted unity on a broad scale than attempted in the U.S., including not only the quote Dago and quote but also explicitly declaring that national unionism meant the inclusion of Hispanos, Asians, Africans, Indians, and all nationalities. Second, it undertook the most militant campaigns of union organization and struggle, expressing the desperate needs of the most exploited white workers. Third, the IWW was able to advance industrial unionism here by learning from the more advanced and experienced immigrants from old Europe. Because of this, the IWW was able to launch strikes and unionization drives on a scale never seen before in the U.S. In the years after 1905, the quote led an escalating explosion of union struggles. Hotel workers in Arizona, lumberjacks in Washington, textile workers in Massachusetts, seamen and boards from Chile to Canada, auto workers in Detroit, and so on. And there were many notable victories, many successful strikes. It must be emphasized that workers used to seeing only defeats. The IWW's ability to help them win strikes was no small matter. For example, in 1909, the IWW helped the immigrant workers at McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania plant, of the Press Steel Bar Company, subsidiary of the U.S. Steel Trust, win their strike. This was of national importance, since it was the first time that workers had won a strike against the Mammoth Steel Trust. That strike, which caused so much to be known here, was led by an underground, quote, unknown committee, representing both the IWW and the various European nationalities. The, quote, unknown committee had the knowledge of veterans of the 1905 Russian Revolution, the Italian labor resistance, the German Union, and the Swiss and Hungarian railway strikes. It is clear that through the IWW, the more experienced and politically educated European workers taught their backward American cousins how to look out after class interests. In 1914, the IWW's Agricultural Workers' Organization, AWO, pulled off an organizing feat unequal for 50 years. They established the, quote, world's longest picket line, running 800 miles from Kansas, South Rapid City, South Dakota. In distant railroad yards, IWW strong-off squads maintained a blockade in which non-union workers were kept out. Confronted with a critical labor shortage at harvest time, the growers had to give in. This was the biggest agricultural labor drive in the U.S. until the 1960s. The AWO itself grew to almost 70,000 members, becoming the largest single unit within the IWW. In fact, at the 1916 IWW convention, the AWO actually had a majority of the votes, 252 out of 305. But by 1920, the IWW declined sharply, not from failure in an organizational sense, but from both it and the strata they represented having reached limits of their political consciousness. The IWW was able to build industrial unions of the most exploited white workers and to win many strikes, but past that, it was unable to advance. Its local unions usually fell apart quickly, and many of its victories were soon reversed. The landmark 1909 steel industry victories at Keith Rocks and Hammond, Indiana were reversed within a year. The 1912 Lawrence, Massachusetts textile strike, the single most famous strike in U.S. trade union history, was also a great victory, and the IWW also crushed there by the next year. This was a general pattern. The external difficulties faced by the IWW were far greater than just a straightforward opposition of factory owners. The Euro American aristocracy of labor and its AFL unions viciously fought this officer from below. During the great 1912 Lawrence Massachusetts strike, the AFL's United Textile Workers Union scabbed throughout the strike. The AFL officially backed the mill owners. In the Keys Rocks, Pennsylvania, the steel workers of the AFL and the Maine Association of Iron Steel Workers used guns to break a second IWW strike. And the factories and lines were not isolated, but were part of Southern America, where the masses of petty bourgeois farmers, small merchants, and professionals joined the foreman, steel craftsmen, and supervisors in backing up the bosses. The European immigrants represented perhaps only one seventh of the white population and were greatly outnumbered. The IWW's weaknesses, however, primarily reflected its inner contradictions. The simplest outlook, while sincerely taken by many, was also a meaning to avoid dealing with the question of settlerism. Using the ultra-revolutionary-sounding simplest philosophy, the IWW could avoid any actual revolutionary work. In fact, despite its anti-capitalist enthusiasm, the IWW never made any plans to oppose the U.S. government, and never did. Similarly, its Marxist vision of all nations and peoples emerged into one-day union, covering up the globe, only covered up the fact that it had no intention of fighting colonialism and national oppression. If the IWW had fought colonialism and national oppression, they would have lost most of its white support. What it did instead, laying out a path that the CIO would follow in the 1930s, was convince some white workers that their immediate self-interest called for limited tackle cooperation with their colonial proletariats. Underneath all the fancy that, quote, any IWW color worker, man or woman, is on equal footing with every other worker, end quote, was the reality that the IWW was a white organization for whites. 
While this new integration industrial proletariat was thrown together from many different European nations, speaking different languages, and having different cultures and class backgrounds, they were united by two things their exploited state as foreign proletarians, and their desire to achieve a better life in America. The resolution of these pressures was a narrow Americanization, and then became finally integrated into the separate systems of the empire. In changing America, they themselves were decisively changed. Some one-third of the immigrant workers went back to Europe, with many of the most millions being deported or forced to flee. Looking back, this underlying trend can be seen in a lot of the IWW. While the IWW may see itself as a dangerous revolutionary organization, in reality it was nothing more nor less than the best industrial union that class conscious white workers could build to, quote, improve their condition. It was a public, fully legal union over the wall. It was, therefore, just as dependent upon bourgeois legality and government toleration as the AFL. The IWW could be very strong against local employers, or even against local government, but against the imperial state, it dared only to submit to an unhappy confusion. The national IWW leadership understood this unpleasant fact in an unscientific, pragmatic way. As the great powers were joined in World War I, the central issue in the European oppressor nation's socialist movements was the opposition to imperialist war. Not primarily because of the mass bloodshed, but because in a war for expanding empires, it was the absolute duty of all oppressed nation revolutionaries to oppose the aggression of their own empire, to work for the defeat of their own bourgeoisie, and for the liberation of the oppressed nations. This is the issue that created the international communist movement of the 20th century. On this most important struggle, the IWW was revealed as being immature and lacking as a revolutionary organization. It was simply unwilling to directly oppose U.S. imperialism. The IWW verbally criticized the war many times, but in the 1914 convention they said, quote, We, as members of the Industrial Army, will refuse to fight for any purpose except the realization of industrial freedom. End quote. But when U.S. imperialism entered the war, they grabbed more markets and colonies. The IWW became frantic to prove to the bourgeoisie that they wouldn't oppose them in any way. The surface problem was that, since the IWW was a totally legal and public union, they were still unable to withstand any major government oppression. Therefore, the leadership said, regardless of every class-conscious worker's opposition to the war, the IWW dare not fight. Walter Neff, head of the IWW Agricultural Workers' Organization, said, quote, We are against the war, but not organized, and can do nothing, end quote. They met a revolutionary organization that built for 12 years, with a membership of over 100,000, but was, quote, not organized to oppose its own bourgeoisie. The many requests from IWW members for guidance as to how to fight the imperialist war went unanswered. Even Big Bill Haywood, the angry militant IWW leader, had to back off, quote, I'm at a loss as to the steps to be taken against the war, end quote. Finally, the IWW decided to adopt the issue as much as possible. The word went out to white workers to stick to the local economic issues of higher wages, etc., and not oppose government. Quote, Organize now, for the post war struggle should be the watchword. End quote. This surface political retreat only revealed the growing separate sickness of the IWW, and sabotaged the most advanced and revolutionary minded white proletarians within their ranks. They never organized to oppose US imperialism, because that's not what even the interculturary masses wanted. They wanted to build in to reach some quote, social justice for themselves. During the July 1915 AFL strike, the United States the charge was made that the whole strike was blocked by German agents, with the strike secretly subsidized by the Kaiser's Treasury. In the lead editorial in its national journal, Solidarity, the IWW hurried to itself on record as not opposing the war effort. While admitting that they had no proof that the strike was a German conspiracy, the IWW urged the strikers to, quote, settle quickly. The editorial angle suggested that the strike leaders might move to Germany. And then they came to the main point, which was underlying the anti imperialist sentiment among the workers, and urging them to think only of getting more money for themselves. Beginning quote. The owners of these factories are making millions of the murder in Europe. Their slaves should likewise improve the opportunity to deal a little something for themselves. The point may be made here that we should all be interested in solving the production of war missions. Yes, of course, that's only a dream. So the only thing workers in these factories can do is to try to improve their condition. End quote. The line was very clear. Far from fighting US imperialism, the IWW was spreading defeatism among the workers, and urging them to concentrate only on getting a bribe out of the imperialist supervise. The IWW is often praised by the settler, quote, left, as very, quote, American, very, quote, grassroots. We can say that their single individualistic slant that workers can, quote, only get a little themselves out of the slaughter of millions does represent the essence of American settler degeneracy. In Russia, the Bolsheviks were telling Russian workers to, quote, turn the imperialist war into a revolutionary war and overthrow the imperialists, which they did. The IWW's pathetic efforts to avoid antagonizing bourgeoisie did them little good. The U.S. empire tired of these pests, viewing the multi-organization of immigrant labor as dangerous. Finally, cranking up its police machinery, the imperial state proceeded to smash the defense of the IWW, clear into virtual non-existence. It was very difficult, since throughout the West, vigilante mobs of settlers declared an open reign of terror against the IWW. In Arizona, some 1,300 miners suspected of IWW involvement were driven from the state at gunpoint. In July 1918, 101 IWW leaders, past and present, were convicted in Chicago federal court of sabotaging the imperialist war effort in a retrial that dwarfed the, quote, Chicago conspiracy trial of the Vietnam War era. The political verdict was certain, even though the prosecution was unable to prove the IWW had struck the war in any way. Only one defendant of the 101 had violated the draft registration laws. While the IWW unions alleged strikes that disrupted war production in Western Copper and Timber, the government was forced to admit that of the 521 disruptive strikes that had taken place since the U.S. Empire entered the war, only three were by the IWW, while 519 were by the government AFL unions. Federal raids on the IWW took place on coast to coast. Immigration agents held mass run-ups, which resulted in long jail stays while undergoing deportation hearings. In 1917, the federal agents arrested 34 IWW organizers in Kansas, who eventually got prison terms of up to nine years. In Omaha, Nebraska, the 64 IWW delegates at the Agricultural Workers Organization Convention were arrested and held 18 months without trial. 
In 21 states, quote, criminal syndicalism laws were passed, directed at the IWW. Hundreds of thousands were arrested. In California alone, between 1918 and some 500 IWW members were indicted, 128 of them ended up serving prison terms of 14 years. The IWW never recovered from these lows, and from 1917 on, quickly declined. Such an to fight U.S. imperialism could hardly come from those with anti-imperialist politics. The reason we have underlined this is that for obvious ends, the settler cool left has been emphasizing how the IWW was a mass example of anti-racist labor unity. This poison bait has been naively picked up by a number of third-world revolutionary organizations and used as one more small justification to move towards revisionist and racist ideology. There is no doubt that much of the IWW genuinely despises the open white supremacist persecution of the colonial peoples. Unlike the smug, privileged AFL aristocracy of labor, the IWW represents the voice of those white workers who had suffered deeply and thus sympathize with the persecuted. But their inability to confront the settlers' ambitions within themselves reduced these sparks of real class consciousness to vague sentiments and limited economic deals. A picture on the roll of Joe Hill, i.e. Joe Caption. Before the board patients, he said, quote, I don't want pardon or accommodation. I want a new trial or nothing. If my life will help some other working man to a fair trial, I am ready to give it. If I live my life, I can hate others to fairness deny me. I have not lived in vain. End quote. To the press, he wrote, quote, I'm going to have a new trial or die trying. I believe I artists and I should die like an artist. End quote. By Joseph Hilscher. End passion. The IWW never attempted to educate the most exploited white workers to unite with national liberation struggles. Instead, they argued that, quote, racial unity on jobs to raise wages was all that mattered. This is the approach used by the AFL-CIO today. Obviously, it's a way of building a union in which white supremacist workers tolerate colonial workers. This was a narrow economic self-interest pitch underneath all the simplest talk. The IWW warned white workers, quote, leaving the Negro outside your union makes him potential, if not an actual stab, dangerous to the organized workers. End quote. The words reveal that the IWW's goal was control colonial labor for the benefit of white workers, and that African was quote, dangerous, if not controlled. So that even in 1919, after two years of severe race rise in the North, on attacks by white workers on African exile communities, the IWW kept insisting there was, quote, no race problem, there was only a class problem. The economic interests of all workers, either white, black, brown, or yellow, are identical, and are all included in the IWW. It has one program for the entire working class, the abolition of the wage system. End quote. The IWW's firm position of not fighting the lynch of not opposing the colonial system, allowed them to unite with the racist element in the factories, and helped prepare the immigrant proletariat for among the loyal citizens of the empire. It must never be forgotten that the IWW contained genuine proletarian forces, some of whom could have been led forward towards revolution. We can see the supposed unity actually at work in the IWW's relationship to Japanese workers on the West Coast. In the western region of the empire, the southern masses were deeply infected with anti-Asian hatred. Much of this at that time was directed at the neutral of Japanese immigrant laborers, who were working mainly in agriculture, timber, and railroads. These Japanese laborers were subjected to the most vicious persecution and exploitation, with bourgeois politicians and press stirring up mob terror against them constantly. Both the Socialist Party of Union Dems and the AFL unions helped lead the anti-Asian campaign among the southern masses. In April 1903, 1,000 Japanese and Mekano workers struck near Osnard, California. They formed the Sugarbeat and Farm Workers Union and wrote the AFL asking for a union chart of affiliation. AFL President Samuel Gumpers, in his usual treacherous style, tried in his reply to slip the ranks of the oppressed. Quote, the union must guarantee that it will under no circumstances accept the membership of any Chinese or Japanese. End quote. The union's national secretary, the president was Japanese, answered Gumpers for his evil. End quote. In the past, we have counseled, fought, and lived on very short rations with our Japanese brothers and followed them in the fields, and they have been uniform and kind and considerate. We would be false to them and to ourselves and to the cause of unionism if we now accept privileges for ourselves which are not accorded to them. We are going to stand by men who stood by us in the long hard fight which ended in victory. We are going to stand by men who stood by us in the long hard fight which ended in victory over the enemy. End quote. Japanese workers were not only unable to find unity with the separate unions, but had to deal with them as part of the oppressive forces. There was a high-level organization among us, expressed usually in small local Japanese national minority associations of our own. The news, therefore, that the new IWW was accepting Asian workers as members was quite welcome to us. In 1907, two white IWW organizers went to the office of the North American Times, a Japanese language newspaper in Seattle. They asked the newspaper to publish an announcement of a forthcoming meeting. As the newspaper had informed its readers, quote, every worker, no matter whether he is Japanese or Chinese, is invited. This organization does not exclude you, as others do, but they hardly welcome you to join. Don't lose this chance. End quote. The IWW publicly criticized those, quote, socialists who were part of the anti-Asian campaign. In a special pamphlet, they appealed to white workers to see that Asians were good in the men who would be helpful in winning higher wages. Quote, they are as anxious as you, it is as much as possible. This is proven by the fact that they come to this country. End quote. But while scattered Chinese workers joined the IWW, in the main, we did not. The reason, quite simply, is that while the IWW wanted our cooperation, they did not want to hate Chinese workers inside the IWW. In order to keep equal relations with a mass of white supremacist settlers in the West, the IWW limited their relationship to us. Some Asians would be acceptable, but any conspicuous mass recruits are Japanese, who was too controversial. A sympathetic writer about the IWW at the time noted, being a long quote. Another convention, George Seed, a delegate from California, quite accurately expressed the sentiment of the organization in regard to the Japanese question. The whole fight against the Japanese, he said, is the fight of the middle class in California, in which they employ the labor paper to back it up. 
He added, however, that he considered it practically useless under present circumstances for the IBW to take any steps toward Nazi This decision was seen in action for the 1914 copier strike near Maryland, California, which was a well-publicized struggle that launched the IWW's farm worker organizing drive in that state. That year, the Durst Ranch, under 20 under minor workers, had below market wages, and forced them to foil and isolate near slavery. IWW organizers soon started a strike in which the Japanese, Mexicano, Greek, Syrian, Puerto Rican, and other nationalities were strongly united. The strike led to a national defense campaign when the sheriff, after shooting two striking workers, arrested the two main IWW organizers as the alleged murderers. Although the strike was victorious and led to fewer organized drives, the Japanese workers had disappeared. We were persuaded to withdraw while still honoring picket lines in order to help the IWW, since, quote, the feeling of working class against the Japanese was so general throughout the state that the association of the Japanese with the strikers would in all probability be detrimental to the latter, end quote. The IWW tried to justify everything by saying that move was on the initiative of the Japanese workers and then praising it as an act of, quote, solidarity. Notice that while the Japanese laborers lived and worked and went out on strike with the others, for the IWW statement separates, quote, the Japanese from, quote, the strikers. The IWW considered, quote, solidarity for oppressed Asian workers to be excluded from their own trouble so that the IWW could get together with the racists. It should be clear that while the IWW hoped to establish the, quote, unity of all workers as a principle, they were willing to sacrifice the interests of colonial and oppressed workers in order to gain their real goal, the unity of all white workers. While it was advantageous to the IWW to keep Asians at arm's length, in occupied New Africa, there was literally no way to build industrial unions without winning cooperation of African workers. In the South, the African proletariat was the bedrock of everything. The IWW experience there highlights the strategic limitations of the political line. In 1910, an independent union, the Brotherhood of Timber Workers, was formed in Louisiana and Mississippi. This was the main part of the IWW's East South organizing. These Southern South workers were on the very bottom of the South world. They were forced to labor for seven nine dollars per week, and that's mostly done cash, but in quote strip, these only at company stores. Their very exploited lives were comparable to that of the quote funky and quote Diego of the Northern Industrial Towns. In other words, they lived a whole level below the norm of separate society. For that reason, the separate timber workers were driven to build themselves a union. And because half of the workforce in the industry was African, they had to recruit Africans as well. Half of the 35,000 BTW members were African, organized into SAG lodges, and not admitted to separate union meetings, of course. It was not a case of radicalism or idealism. The settler worker was literally forced by practical necessity to gain cooperation with African workers. In a major pamphlet in which he calls on separate workers to join up with the IWW, the BTW secretary, J. Smith, reminds them that the controversial policy of integrating the union existed solely to keep Africans under control. Quote, as far as the Negro question goes, it means simply this, either the whites organized with Negroes or the bosses organized with Negroes against the whites. End quote. In 1912, the BTW joined the IWW after integrating its union meetings at the name of the Big Bill Haywood. The IWW now had a major labor drive going in the itself. But a few months later, the BTW was totally crushed in the Maryville, Louisiana strike of 1912. In a four-day reign of terror, the local sheriff and company thugs beat, kidnapped, and, quote, deported the strike activists. The BTW was dissolved by terror as hundreds of members had to flee the state, and many were more were whitelisted. The BTW was dissolved by terror as hundreds of members had to flee the state, and many more were whitelisted and could no longer find work in that industry. The IWW's refusal to recognize colonial oppression or the exact nature of the imperial dictatorship of the occupied South meant that it completely misled the strike. Industrial struggle in the South could not develop separate from the tense, continuous relationship between the settler garrison and the occupied nation. The IWW and the South swiftly fell apart. They were unable to cope with the violent terrorist situation. The IWW had used for oppressive workers, and it certainly didn't have campaigns of non terror against us. It publicly reminded white workers of the supposed rights of the colonial peoples. But, as a white workers' union, it had no political program, no practical answers for the problems of colonial proletariat. And insofar as it tried to convince everyone that there was a solution to the problems of colonial workers, separate from the liberation of their oppressed nations, it did a positive disservice. Footnote. It is interesting to note that even on the Philadelphia waterfront, where the African-led IWW Marine Transport Workers Union No. 8 was the most stable local in the entire IWW, the African workers eventually felt forced to leave the IWW due to, quote, slander, baseless charges, and racing. End quote. The IWW lived, rose, and fell, at the same time as the Great Mexican Revolution of 1910, just across the artificial, quote, border. For this endless organization to reach out and make common laws with the anti-colonial revolutions would have been quite easy. On November 27, 1911, the Zapatistas proclaimed the plan of Ayala, sent for the agrarian revolution. It was from the U.S. occupied territory of El Paso that Francisco Villa and seven others began the real struggle in Chihuahua on March 6, 1913. Hundreds of thousands of peasants joined the Zapatistas Liberated Army of the South and the Division of the North. Even the Beastas, less politically developed than their Southern Patriots, were social revolutionaries. Villa, himself a rebel who taught himself to read while well in prison, was openly anti-clerical at a time when Roman Catholicism was the official religion of Mexico. He called the church, quote, the greatest superstition the world has ever known. The Beastas government in Chihuahua founded 15 new schools and divided land up amongst the peasants. This other uprising spread serial rebellion across the artificial border into the U.S. occupied zone. When California historian writes, the dislocation caused by the Mexican Revolution of 1912 to 17 led to increasingly building political attitude in Los Angeles. This led to a Chicano movement to boycott the draft. Vincente Carillo led the drive to protest the draft and to use mass meetings to focus attention upon Mexican American problems. End quote. Again, it is easy to see that the IWW didn't have the far if they want the alliances against the U.S. Empire. 
Proposals were even made for the IWW and Mayfellow workers to join in armed uprisings in the Southwest. Ricardo Flores Magón, the revolutionary Sindicalist, who was the first major leader of Mayfellow workers, baptized the IWW during his long years of exile in the U.S. His organization, Partido Liberal Mayfellow, PLM, led thousands of Mayfellow miners in strikes on both sides of the artificial border. Magón was imprisoned four times by the U.S. Empire, finally being murdered by guards to prevent his scheduled release from Fort Leavenworth. His proposal for the IWW to join forces with Mexican proletariat and armed struggle fell on deaf ears. Although some Guadalupe's, such as Joe Hill, went to Mexico on an individual basis for a period of time, the IWW as a whole rejected such cooperation. Magón was angry with his brother from prison. Quote, the North Americanos are incapable of feeling enthusiasm or indignation. This is truly a country of pigs. If the North Americanos do not agitate against their own domestic miseries, how can we hope they will concern themselves with ours? End quote. In outlining these things, we are, of course, not just discussing IWW. Primarily, we are looking at a form consciousness and leadership of a new class, the white industrial proletariat. The same general weaknesses of this class can be seen outside the IWW, even more sharply, like revolutionary leadership, inability to withstand the sabotage of the labor aristocrats of the, quote, neighborn Euro-American workers, opposition to the anti-colonial struggles. The great industrial battles in seal at the end of this period shall not only these weaknesses, but emphasize the significance of what this meant. This was done in the 1990 seal strike, for example, in which for the first time, 15 AFL unions called an industry-wide strike. On September 22, 1918, some 365,000 steel workers walked out. But while the mass of non-unionized immigrant European laborers held firm, the unionized Euro-American steel workers were a weak element. Capitalist repression had an effect, most notably in Darien, Indiana, where a division of U.S. Army troops broke the strike. But the defeat was due to the incredibly bad leadership and betrayal that better paid settler workers. The disaster of the strike shows why even the inadequate politics of the IWW was so good to the proletarians of that day. Many of the sealed Euro-American workers never joined the strike at all in places like Pittsburgh. And many who had struck started trickling back to work, afraid of losing their good jobs. In early November, their union, the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, broke from the strike and started ordering its members to work. By late November, the mills had 75 80% of their workforce back. On January 2nd, 1920, the strike was officially declared over. Some of the most determined militants had to leave the industry or return to Europe. While the treachery of the labor aristocracy was very evident in its defeat, the most important events took place after the strike. During the strike, some 30,000 African workers from the South had been imported by the steel companies. There was a strong tendency on the white steel workers to, to blame the defeat of the strike on African quote, scabs or quote, strike breakers. And all the more so, because the 10% of the northern steel workforce that was African refused to join the strike. The bourgeoisie was guiding white workers in this. Company officials passed the word that, quote, niggers did it. In Pittsburgh, one mill boss announced, quote, the niggers saved the day for us. In fact, although this was widely accepted, it was clearly untrue. To begin with, 30,000 African workers fresh from the South could hardly have replaced 365,000 strikers. There also was, by all accounts, a tremendous turnover in desire to quit while those African workers, and within a few months, supposedly few, if any of them, remained. The reason is that most of them were not, quote, strike workers, but workers who had systematically deceived and brought to the mills by force. That's why they left as soon as they could. The testimony during a strike of 19 year old Eugene Seward of Baltimore illustrates this. He was recruited, along with 200 others, including whites, to work in Philadelphia for $4 per day. But once inside the railroad car, they found the doors locked and guarded by armed company police. They were taken without food or water to Pittsburgh, unloaded under guard behind barbed wire, and told that they were to work in mills. Seeing their strike was going on, many of them wanted to quit. The guards told them that any Africans attempting to leave would be shot down. Stewart did see an escaping, but was found and forcibly returned by the guards. It was only after a second attempt he managed to get free. It is obvious that the African quote strike workers were deliberate propaganda set by the capitalists and swallowed wholesale by white workers. In regards to the African steel workers already working north and who declined to join the strike, it should be remembered that this was a white strike. Many of the striking aliens did not admit Africans. Those that did so solely did Africans honor their strikes, usually got Africans in quote sad locals. The Euro American leadership of the strike had promised Africans nothing. And plainly matched to keep that promise. That is, they strike had a definite oppressor nation character to it, and fully white supremacists. Nor did the white seal strike develop separate from continuous struggle between oppressor and oppressed nations. During the two previous years, there had arisen a national movement of settler workers to bar Africans from northern industry by terrorist attacks. Between 1917 and 1919, there had been 20 major campaigns by settler mobs against African communities in the North. The July 1917 East St. Louis race riot was organized by that seal city's AFL Central Trade Council, which had called for violence to remove the quote, growing menace of the African exile community. In two days of attacks, some 39 Africans were killed and hundreds injured. The hand of the capitalists was evident when the Chicago Tribune had poorly praised the white matters. And told his readers that Africans were, quote, happiest when the white race asserts superiority, end quote. Again, we see organized Euro American workers as the social troops of one faction or another of the imperialists. As the steel campaign was gathering steam throughout 1919, the terrorist attacks on Africans increased as well. In Chicago, this was a climax of an infamous July 1919 race riot, just two months before the strike began. Sears Black Chicago pronounced, quote, Between 1917 and 1919, white, quote, black clubs assaulted Negroes on the streets and, quote, neighborhood improvement societies bombed Negro homes. During the summer of 1919, the ruler warfare in turn gave way to open armed conflict. The South Side Chicago became a battleground for racial war. The bombing of Negro homes and assaults on Negroes in streets and parks became almost everyday occurrences. End quote. On July 27, 1919, an African teenager was stoned to death on the 29th Street Beach, and after Africans had his murders, generalized fighting broke out. It lasted six days until the Illinois National Guard was called in. 
Twenty Avenues were killed and 342 wounded. Over a thousand homeless after arson attacks. White losses were 15 killed and 178 wounded. Africans were temporarily trapped in the quote, black belt, unable to go to work or obtain food. Assisted by police, Irish, Italian, and other white workers who would make night raids into the quote, black belt, homes were all attacked. When Africans gathered, police would begin firing into crowds. The authorities did not move to quote, restore order, incidentally, until after African World War I vets broke at the 8th Illinois Infantry Army and armed themselves with rifles to take care of white mobs. This was the biggest quote, warm up for the strike. It was not surprising the African exile communities were less than enthusiastic about supporting the strike of the same people who had spent the past few years attacking them. Given the history of the AFL, it was possible that an outright triumph of the AFL unions might have led to new efforts to drive African labor out of the mills altogether. It was typical Saturday evening to make Africans responsible for the failure of a white strike, which was never theirs in the first place. Both the strike leadership and bourgeoisie cleverly promoted this hatred, encouraging the European immigrants and quote neighborhood settler like to turn all their anger and bitterness onto the African nation. Perhaps the most interesting role was played by William Z. Foster, the chief leader of the strike. He was one of the leading socialist trade unionists of the period, and in 1920 would be the leader in the new Communist Party USA. From then on until his death, he would be a leading figure of settler quote communism. Even today, young recruits in the USA and other non-fault organizations are often told to, quote, study Foster's writings in order to learn about labor organizing. William Z. Foster had, as the same goes, pulled defeat out of the general's victory. Foster based the strike on the AFL unions, despite their proven record of treachery and hostility for the proletarian masses. That alone guaranteed defeat. He encouraged white supremacist feeling, and thus united the honest elements with the most reactionary. Despite the great popular support for a nationwide strike, and the angry sentiments of the most exploited steelworkers, Foster and the other AFL leaders so sabotaged the strike that went down to defeat. The one, quote, smart thing he did was to cover up his opportunistic policies by following the capitalists and using Africans as the scapegoats. In his 1920 history of the strike, Foster, the supposed communist, repeated the lie that African workers had, quote, lined up with the losses. In fact, Foster even said that it was all the difference between Euro-American and African labor, quote, the Negro has the more difficult part, since the African worker was a becoming, quote, a professional strikebreaker. And those white workers knew what they were supposed to do with a, quote, professional striker. Foster's lynch model of authority was only restrained by the formality expected of a white Euro-American, quote, communist leader. His white supremacist message was identical to a more polite clothe than the crude branch of Ku Klux Klan. He warned that the capitalists were doing Africans as, quote, as a race of strikebreakers who didn't hold white workers in check, on much the same principles as the czars used to Cossacks to keep the subjugation in balance of the Russian people. It's easy to see how Foster being such a popular leader among the settlers. No longer was it just a question of some Africans not following the orders of the white labor. Now, Foster was openly saying the entire African quote race was the enemy. Could the imperialists pass for more, and the heavily quote communist trading leader help them without the oppressive nation masses to repress the African nation? Because that's the hated and feared special military of the Russian Tsar, used in blood repressions against the people. Only the most twisted clan-like mentality would so explicitly compare the oppressed African nation to those in the oppressors. And was this message not an incitement to mob terror and genocide? But the poor immigrants from Eastern Europe, much of which was under the lash of Tsar's tyranny, to kill a Cossack was an act of justice of retribution. The threat was easy to read. In case Africans didn't get lost threat, which was also being in the streets, as we know, Foster made it even more plain. He said that if Africans failed to obey the decisions of settler labor, quote, it would make our industrial disputes become more and more character of race wars. Consternation would be highly injurious to white workers and eventually ruin the blacks. End quote. A picture. During the 1919 race riots, the white mob chases a Negro into his home and then stones him to death with bricks. He is dead by the time police arrive. The threat of the genocidal quote race war against Africans, unless they all the orders of settler labor, makes it very just what kind of quote unity Foster and his associates had in mind. We should say that once Foster started dealing with the problem on how to build the Euro-American quote left, he discovered that it was much more effective to pose as an anti-racist and use quote Foster in promoting anti-colonial mentality and oppress nationalities. Foster, the quote communist, declared himself expert on civil rights, poverty in Puerto Rico, African history, and so on. The tragic failure of the new white industrial proletariat to take out its revolutionary tasks, its inability to rise above the level of reform, is not just a negative. The failure was an aspect of a growing phenomenon, the Americanization of the quote, foreign proletariat from Eastern and Southern Europe. By the later part of World War I, it was possible to see that these immigrants were starting to climb upwards towards the coming settlers. Revolutionary fervor, as distinct from economic activity, declined sharply among them from this point on. This was not a smooth process. The sharp repression of 1917 in which not only government forces, but also the unleashed settler mob terror struck out across the US Empire, was a clean campaign directed at the European national minorities. Thousands were forced out or returned home. Many were imprisoned, killed, or terrorized. Historians talk of this campaign as a quote, red scare. But it was also the next final step in purifying these, quote, foreigners, so that America could adopt them. The chairman of the Iowa Council of Defense said, quote, We are going to love every foreigner who really becomes American, and all the others who are going to shoot back home, end quote. A leader of the native sons of the West said that immigrants, quote, must live for the United States and grow an American soul inside them, or get out of the country, end quote. The author was on the table. The, quote, punky, end quote, Diego, could become, quote, white, though barely, through Americanization, if they pledged their loyalty to the U.S. Empire. In the steel mills, World War One, and wholesale Americanization campaigns, quote, Hungarian Hollow, the immigrant slum in Granite City, Illinois, was renamed, quote, Lincoln Place, at the company of the steel companies, with festive ceremonies and speeches. By 1918, the Gary Indiana U.S. Steelworks had over 1,000 men enrolled in the evening citizenship classes. Liberty bomb drones and army enlistment offices in the plants were common. 
and were encouraged by their employers to join the U.S. Army and prove their loyalty to imperialism. Americanization was not just a medical process. To become a settler was meaningless unless it was based on the promise of privileges and the willingness to become parasitic. As old native born, Euro Americans continued to leave factories. The immigrant Europeans could now advance, and the importation of hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions, of Mexican, African, Puerto Rican, and other colonial workers into our industry gave the Americanized Europeans something to step up on in his line of settlerism. In the steel mills, Mexicans and Africans made up perhaps 25% of the workers in Indiana and Illinois by 1925. They were the bottom of the labor there, making up for the immigrant European who had moved up or left for better things. A steel labor historian notes, beginning long quote. Meanwhile, the Eastern Europeans were occupying lesser positions once held by the English-speaking workmen. As they rose, the numbers of slums in the mills shrank. At one time, 58% of the Jones and Lawton labor force, the immigrants, comprised only 31% in 1930. There were 30% fewer Eastern Europeans in Illinois steel mills in 1928 and in 1912. Now, largely needed bosses than Negroes and Mexicans, the immigrants disdained their inferiors, much as the natives who had once disliked them. The bad feeling generated by the Red Sea but the respectable solidity of the immigrant communities in time pushed to rest on reasoning fear. The children were passing through schools and into business and higher jobs in the mills. Each year, the number of increased, and business prospered, and the churches and society became more substantial. The immigrants were assuming a middle social and economic position in the steel mountains. End of long quote. The U.S. empire afforded gradually expanding the British Shada because it had emerged as a big winner in the First Imperial World War. Salonian pointed out how, in 1870, the U.S. was the fourth ranked capitalist economy. In 1922, the U.S. had launched to number one. Quote, more than equal to Wall Britain, Germany, France, Italy, Russia, Belgium, and Japan combined. End quote. Successful imperialist war was the key to Americanization. Throughout the empire, this movement of the immigrant proletarians into the settler ranks was evident. A history of Mexican labor importation notes, quote, in the B-fields of Colorado, as elsewhere in the West, other immigrant groups, such as Italians, Slavs, Russians, or Irish, found that they could move from worker or tenant to owner and employer through the use of Mexican migrants, end quote. This point marks a historic change. Never again would white labor be anti-American and anti-capitalist. Although the has itself millions strong in the unions and wage and economic campaigns, the white labor from that time on would be branded by servile patriotism to the U.S. empire. As confused as the IBW might have been about revolution, its contempt for the U.S. national chauvinism was genuine and healthy. It was only natural for an organization so strongly based on immigrant labor. Many of whose best organizers were not U.S. citizens, and often spoke little or no English, to feel no sympathy for the U.S. empire. It was a tragedy that this rank was overturned, that this social possibility faded with the reinforcement for separatism. And yet the competition between the reality of exploitation in the factories and the privileges of separatism still remained. The immigrant masses could not be both settler and proletarian. This was the historic challenge of the CIO and the New Deal. End of section and end of chapter 6. Settlers by Jason Chapter 7. The Breakthrough of the CIO. It is a revealing comparison that during the 1930s, the European imperialists could only resolve the social crisis in Italy, Germany, Spain, Poland, Finland, Romania, and so on by introducing fascism. While in the U.S., the imperialists resolved the social crisis with a new deal. In Germany, borders were deployed to Chicago, while in America, they had the CIO industrial unions. In that decade, the white industrial proletariat unified itself, pushed aside the dead end of the old AFL aristocracy, and in a crushing series of sit-down strikes, won tremendous increases in wages and working conditions. For the first time, the new white industrial proletariat forced the corporations to surrender their despite control over industrial life. The Eastern and Southern European international minorities won the quote, better life that Americanization promised them. They became full citizens of the U.S. Empire, and with the rest of the white industrial proletariat, won rights and privileges both inside and outside of factories. In return, as U.S. imperialism longed to drive for world hegemony, it depended upon the armies of solidly united settlers serving at home and on the battlefield. To ensure social stability, the new government-sponsored unions of the CIO absorbed the industrial struggle and helped discipline class relations. End of introduction. Settlers, Chapter 7, Section 1. Unification of the White Workers. The working class upsurge of the 1930s was not accumulated in This is a common but shallow view of mass outbreaks. What is true is that serial conditions, including relation to production, shape and reshape all classes and strata. These classes and strata then express characteristic local consciousness, characteristic roles in the class struggle. The unification of the white industrial workforce was a result of immense measures. Its long-range material basis was the mechanization and imperialist reorganization of production. In the late 19th century, it was still true that in many industries, the skilled craftsmen literally ran production. They, not the company, would decide how the work was done. Combining the functions of artisan, foreman, and personal office, these sales craftsmen would directly hire and boss their entire worker laborers, paying them out of set fee paid by the capitalist per ton of piece produced, the balance being their wage profit. The master roller in the sheet metal rolling mill, the puller in the iron mill, the beauty in the coal mine, the carriage builder in the early auto plant, all exemplified the stage of production. The same craft system applied to gun factories, carpet mills, stone quarries, etc., etc. It was these highly privileged set of craftsmen who were the base of the old AL unions. Their income reflected their lofty positions above the labor masses. In 1884, for example, master rollers in East St. Louis earned $42 per week of an American zero wage, over four times more than laborers they lost. This petty bourgeois income and role gradually crumbled as capitalists reorganized and seized ever tighter control over production. A survey by the U.S. Bureau of Labor found that the number of skilled steel workers earning 60 cents an hour fell by 20% between 1900 and 1910. Mechanization cut the ranks of craftsmen, and the employer remained. Their own powerful role in production had shrunk. 
the AFL, an amalgamated association of iron steelers, whose 24,000 members in 1891 accounted for two thirds of all craftsmen in the industry, had dwindled to only 65 members by 1914. Mechanization also wiped out whole sections of very bottom factory labors, replacing shovels with mechanical scoops, wheelbarrows with electric trolleys and cranes. Both top and bottom layers of the factory workforce were increasingly pulled into grown mill strata of semi-sealed production line assemblers and machine operators. In modern auto plants of the 1920s, some 70% were semi-sealed production workers, while only 10% were still craftsmen and 15% laborers. The political unification of white workers thus had its material roots in enforced unification of labor in modern factory. The 1949 depression was also a great equalizer, and a sharp blow to many settlers, knocking them off their conservative bias. During the 1930s, roughly 25% of the U.S. Empire was unemployed. Office clerks, craftsmen, and college students left shoulders of laborers and farmers in the relief lines. Many division broke down, as Midwestern and Southern rural whites migrated to industrial cities in search of jobs or relief. In 1929, it was estimated that in Detroit alone, there were some 75,000 young men, the quote, suitcase brigade, who would come to the countryside to find jobs in auto plants. The depression not only helped unite the settler workers, the social catastrophe pushed large sections of other settler classes towards more sympathy with social reform. Small farmers reinforced wholesale into bankruptcy, and were conducting militant struggles of their own. Professionals, intellectuals, and even many small businessmen felt victimized by corporate domination of the economy. Militancy and radicalism became temporarily respectable. When white labor started punching out, it would not only be stronger than before, but much of such society would be sympathetic to it. End of section one. Settlers, chapter seven, section two. Labor offensive from below. Citizenship in the empire had very real but still limited meaning, so long as many white workers remained industrial slaves of the corporations. The increasing centralization of monopoly capitalism repeated aspects of feudalism on a higher level. Both inside and outside of factory gates, the settler workers were subject to heightened regimentation. During the 1920s, it was not unusual for the persistent speed up by management to double the production of worker, even without taking mechanization into account. At Ford, perhaps the most extreme of the industrial despots, every tenth employee was also a company spy. Workers ordered to make resentful remarks would be beaten up right on the production line by the other guards. In the U.S. steel plants at Homestead, Pennsylvania, the constant sign gave rise to a common saying, quote, if you must talk to Homestead, you must talk to yourself, end quote. The depression and massive unemployment only drew more power in corporate hands. Not only were wages cut almost everywhere, but many companies laid off experienced workers and replaced them with newcomers a fraction of the old wages. Ford Motor Company, which advertised that it was the highest paying company in the U.S., allegedly paid production workers a minimum of $7 per day, with inflation less than a in 1914. On the contrary, some thousands of Euro American Ford employees in the 30s found their pay down as low as $1.40 per day. That was roughly what happened in the domestic center in Chicago. It takes some genius to see that settler workers would not passively accept being reduced to a colonial wage. Companies in Detroit, Pittsburgh, etc. advertised widely in the South for workers, wishing even larger pools of jobless to intimidate and discipline their employees. The AL unions were not only loyal to imperialism, but in their reading state, heavily dependent on joint continued favors of individual corporations by opposing any real struggle. It was for that reason that the old Malcolm Association had betrayed the 1919 steel strike. In that same year, AL President Gompers actually told the U.S. Senate that prohibition was a danger because alcohol was needed to get workers' lines off for them. In the new auto industry, the AL was receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in bronze from auto manufacturers, usually the U.S. advertisements in later newspapers or quote, donations to end the campaigns. But when the dam broke, the pent up anger of millions of Euro American industrial workers was a mighty force. New organizing drives and new strikes had never completely stopped, even during the repressive 1920s. Defeat was common. But in 1934, two CY general strikes in San Francisco and Minneapolis, and a new general strike in Toledo, some capitalist America. The victory of Longshoremen in San Francisco and Kingston in Minneapolis were important, but the Toledo auto worker strike, in which thousands of unemployed supporters of the auto workers drove the Ohio National Guard off the streets in direct battle, was a clear sign of things to come. The victory in the auto light car plant was immediately followed by union victories at all the other major factories in town. Toledo became in 1934 the first quote, union city in industrial America. The tidal wave of labor unrest touched all parts of the U.S. and all industries. The new sit-down strikes became a rage. It was a customary strategy for employers to break strikes by keeping the plants going with stands, while hired thugs and police repressed the strike organization. But in the sit-downs, the workers simply seized and occupied the plants, not only stopped production, but threatened the bosses with physical destruction of their factories if they tried any repression. After so much abuse and powerlessness, militant young workers discovered great pleasure in temporarily getting over. In some strikes, unlucky bands of foreman and company officials trapped in offices would become union prisoners for a few hours or days. While 1935 and saw sit-down strikes in rubber plants in Akron, Ohio, in auto plants in Detroit, Cleveland, and Atlanta, it was the December 1936 Flint machine sit-down strike against GM that became the pivotal later battle of the 1930s. Flint was a central fortress of GM production. Their special money town, where GM carefully kept both Africans and foreign-born immigrants to a minimum. Wages in the many Flint GM plants were relatively high for the times. Still, many enthusiastic Flint auto workers organized themselves around the new CIO, the United Auto Workers Union, and seized both Fisher Line No. 1 and Chevy No. 4 plants. Thousands of CIO militants from all over Michigan demonstrated in the streets as the sit-downers, armed with crowbars and bats, buried themselves into plants. Since the first plant was the only source of Buick, Olds, and Pontiac bodies, and the second plant was the only source of Chevrolet engines, the CIO sit-down shrank all GM car production. After 90 days of intense struggle around the seized plants, General Motors gave in. They recognized the UAW as a union representation in 17 plants. This was a key victory of the entire Euro American labor upsurge of the 1930s. It was obvious that if General Motors, the strongest corporation in the world, was unable to defeat the new industrial unions, then a new day had come. Practical advances in workers in auto, steel, rubber, electronics, maritime, meatpacking, trucking, and so on proved that this was so. 
A picture of workers with their faces covered. Hold signs. Four workers of the 1935 New Jersey Sky Convention. Masked to avoid recognition by Tommy Spies. The new union of which had begun in 1933, continued until World War II period and the immediate post-war years. The number of strikes in the U.S. jumped from 840 in 1932 to 1700 in 1933, 2,140 in 1937. The substantial increases in wages and improvements in hours and working conditions were, for many, secondary to this newfound power in industrial life. In the great 1937 Jones and Laughlin Steel Strike, now quote about Pennsylvania, a company town ruled by a near fascistic company dictatorship. One striker commented on using dues after victory. Quote, it's worth 12 hours a year to be able to walk down Main Street Valboa, talk to anyone you want, buy anything you like, and feel you are a citizen. End quote. White America reorganized them into the form we now know. The great 30s labor world was far more than just a series of factory disputes over wages. It was a historic social movement for democratic rights for the settler proletariat. Typically, these workers ended industrial serfdom. They won the right to maintain class organizations, to expect steady improvements in life, to express their grievances, to accumulate some small property, and to have a small voice in the local politics and their empire. In the industrial north, the CIO movement reformed local school boards, sought to monitor draft exemptions for privileged classes, and did police systems, replaced anti-union police officials, and in myriad ways worked to reorganize the U.S. empire so that the Euro-American proletariat would have a life they expected as settlers, that is, a freer and more prosperous life than any proletariat in history has ever had. End of section 2. Settlers, chapter 7, section 3, New Deal and class struggle. The major class contradictions, which had developed since industrialization, were finally resolved. The European immigrant proletariat wanted to fully become settlers, but at the same time was determined to unleash class struggle against employers. Settler workers as a whole, with the depression as a final push, were determined to overturn the past. This growing militancy made a major force of the settler workers. While they were increasingly united, quote, native-born, Euro-American, and immigrant alike, the capitalists were increasingly disunited. Most were trying to block away to need reform of the U.S. empire. The New Deal administration, according to Franklin Roosevelt, reunited all settlers, old and new. It gave the European, quote, ethnic, national minorities, real integration as Americans, by sharply raising their privileges. New Deal officials and legislation promoted economic struggle and class organization by the industrial proletariat, but only in the settler way, in government-related unions, local U.S. imperialism. President Roosevelt himself became the political leader of the settler proletariat, and used the direct power of their aroused millions to force through his reforms of the empire. Most fundamentally, it was only with the shakeup, these modernizing reforms, and the modernized unity of the settler masses, that U.S. imperialism could handle everything on solving problems through world domination. This was the desperate preparation for World War. The global economic crisis of 1929 was the result of another imperialist war, and the U.S. empire intended to be victor. This social reunification could be seen in President Roosevelt's unprecedented third-term victory in the 1940 elections. Holster, Sandy Lubo, analyzed the landslide election results of the Saturday Evening Post, beginning a quote. Roosevelt won by the vote later, unorganized as well organized, plus that of foreign-born and diverse and second-generation descendants, and the Negro. It was a class-conscious vote for the first time in American history, and the implications are pretentious. The New Deal appears to accomplish what the socialists, the IWW, and the communists never could approach. End quote. Lubell's investigation showed how, in a typical situation, the New Deal Democrats won 4 to 1 in Boston's Charlestown neighborhood. That was working class and small bourgeois quote, ethnic Irish community. Of the 3,000 in the war, almost every family had directly and personally benefited from their New Deal. Perhaps most importantly, the Democrats had very publicly quote, become the champion of the Irish line of the American ladder. While Irish had been cut off the Boston U.S. federal bench, Roosevelt promptly appointed two Irish lawyers as federal judges. Other Irish from that neighborhood got patrons as postmasters, U.S. marshals, collectors of customs, and over 400 other federal positions. A picture of FDR being some farm workers. Irish workers in the neighborhood got raises from the new federal minimum wage and hours law. Unemployment benefits went to those who were still jobless. 300 to 500 Irish youth earned small wages in the National Youth Administration, while thousands of adult jobless were given temporary Worst Progress Administration, WTA, jobs. 40% of the older Irish were on U.S. old age assistance. 600 families got EEC. Many received food stamps. Federal funds built new housing and paper park and beach improvements. The same process was taking place with Polish, Italian, Jewish, and other European national minority communities throughout the North. It was not just a crude bribery. The Depression was a shattering crisis for settlers, upsetting far beyond the turmoil in the 1960s and 70s. It is hard for us to fully grasp how upside down the settler world temporarily became. In the first week of his administration, for example, President Roosevelt posted a delegation of coal mine operators in the White House. They had come to beg the president to nationalize the coal industry and buy them all out. They argued that, quote, free enterprise had no hope of ever buying the coal industry or establishing communities dependent on it. Millions of settlers believed that only an end to traditional capitalism could make things run again. The new answer was to raise off the U.S. government as the coordinator and regulator of all major industries. To restabilize the banking system, Roosevelt now ensured consumer deposits and also sharply restricted many former speculative bank policies. In interstate trucking, in labor relations, in communications, in every area of economic life, new federal agencies and bureaus tried to rationalize the daily capitalism by limiting competition and stabilizing prices. The New Deal consciously tried to make the sweeping corporate state dictatorship of the Mussolini regime in Italy. 
The most significant sections of bourgeoisie, such as Thomas Watson of IBM and David Sarnoff of RCA, backed controversial media reforms. But for most, the reaction received it. The McCormick family, Chicago Tribune, editorially called for Roosevelt's assassination. Those capitalists who most stubbornly resisted changes were publicly denounced by New Dealers, who had set themselves up as the leaders of the anti-capitalist mass sentiment. The contradiction within the bourgeoisie became so great that a fascist could be against the New Deal. A group of major capitalists, headed by Ernie DuPont of DuPont Chemicals and the J.P. Morgan banking interests, set the conspiracy in motion in 1934. The DuPont family put up $3 to finance the fascist stormtrooper movement. We were running the firearms company to arm as many as 1 million fascists. General Douglas MacArthur was recruited to ensure the fascist support of the U.S. Army. The plan was to seize state power, with the captive President Roosevelt forced to officially turn over the reins of government to a handpicked fascist strongman. As there would be American terror, the capitalists selected General Snuddy Butler, twice winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor, and retired Commander Commander of the U.S. Army Corps. But after being approached by J.P. Morgan representatives, General Butler went Congress and closed the call. An ensuing congressional investigation confirmed General Butler's story. With the conspiracy shot down, and keeping in mind the high position of the United conspirators, the Roosevelt administration allowed matters to fade out of the headlines. During the 1936 election campaign, one observer recorded the New Deal's open class appeal at a Democratic Party rally in Pittsburgh's Ford Field. The fact crowd was whipped up by lesser politicians as they sat in the awake of the presidential motorcade. State Senator Warren Roberts recited the names of famous millionaires, pausing as the crowd thundered booze after each name. He ordered, quote, The President has decreed that your children shall enjoy equal opportunity with sons of the rich, end quote. Then Pennsylvania Governor Earl took a microphone to punch a Republican capitalist even more, beginning, end quote. They are the millions who have grown fabulously wealthy from the foil of the men of iron and steel, the men whose reign and brawn have made this great city. Grundy, whose special operators have been ashamed and disgraced in Pennsylvania for a generation. Pugh, who strives to build a political and empire with himself as dictator. The DuPonts, whose dollars were earned with blood of American soldiers. Morgan, financier of war. Thousands of boos followed each name. Then, with the crowd worked out against their hated soldiers, the President of the drove into the stadium to frenzy cheering. The observer rode Roosevelt Century. He entered in an open car. It might have been the chariot of a Roman emperor. And one quote. So it wasn't just those concessions that the government made. The deep allegiance of the American workers to this new leader and his new deal movement was born in the feeling that their class interests. This was no accident. Nations and classes in the long run get the leadership they deserve. In order to end the colony-town feudalism of their communities, the Seattle Unionists took their new strength into the bourgeois political arena. The mass voting base of the new unions was the bedrock of the new deal in the industrial states. The union activists themselves merged into and became part of the imperialist new deal. Bob Travis, the Communist Party militant, who was the organizer of the Flint System, proudly told the 1937 UAW Convention, quote, We have also not remained blind to utilizing the city's local situation to the union's advantage whenever possible. In this way, for five months after strike, we were able to consolidate a five-four pro-labor majority block in the state mission, yet pro-labor city manager appointed, and bring about the dismissal of a vicious police chief, and a strike breaker. End quote. By 1958, Robert Carter, the UAW Regional Director for Flint's Lansing, had resigned to become Flint's City Manager. Things had come full circle. Once outsiders challenging the local establishment, then angry reformers, the union was now part of the local bourgeois local structure. This was the universal pattern in industrial areas. In Anderson, Indiana, the all workers at GM Guideline took over the plant in 1937 sit-down. By 1942, strike leader Riley was a member of the local draft board. Another sit-down was the new sheriff. John Mullen, the steelworkers union leader at U.S. Steel Spring, Pennsylvania Works, went on to become the mayor, as did steelworkers local leader Elmer Malloy in Duquesne, Pennsylvania. Everywhere, the young Seattle activists integrated into the local Democratic Party as a force for patriotic reform. Nor was this limited to Euro Americans. Colin Young, mayor of Detroit, John Conyers, U.S. Congressman, and many other African politicians got their start as young CIO staff members. In Hawaii, the Japanese workers in the CIO International Longshoremen's and Warehouse Union became the active base of the Democratic Party's takeover of Hawaiian bourgeois politics after the war. The CIO Union became a central gear in the little reform machine of the Democratic Party. A significant factor in the success of the 1930 Union organizing drives was the U.S. government's refusal to use armed repression against it. No U.S. armed repression against the Euro American workers took place from January 1933, when Roosevelt took office, until the June 1941 North American Aviation Strike in California. The U.S. government understood that the masses of Euro American industrial workers were still loyal settlers committed to U.S. imperialism. To overreact to economic struggles would only further radicalize them. Besides, why should President Roosevelt have ordered the FBI for U.S. Army to break up the admiring supporters of his own Democratic Party? Attempts by reactionary wing of the bourgeoisie to return to the non-union past by wholesale repression were opposed by the New Deal. In the 1934 West Coast Longshore Strike, which in San Francisco became a general strike after the police killed two strikers, President Roosevelt refused to militarily intervene, despite the fact that the governors of Oregon and Washington requested that he do so. In seeking the shipping companies and business interests on the coast, working Governor Minor telegraphed Roosevelt that troops were needed because, quote, we are now in a state of armed hostilities. The situation is complicated by communist inference. It is now beyond the reach of state authorities. Insurrection, which is not checked, will develop into civil war. End quote. Roosevelt publicly sworn this demand. It is telling that at the most violent period of strike, a picture of Roosevelt hung in the Longshoreman's Union office in San Francisco. President Roosevelt privately said in 1934 that there was a conspiracy by, quote, the old conservative crowd to provoke general strikes as pretext for wholesale repression. 
The president's confidential secretary wrote at the time that both he and U.S. Labor Secretary Francis Perkins believe that, quote, the shipowners deliberately planned to force a general strike throughout the country, and in this way, they hope they crush the labor movement. I have no proof, but I think the shipowners were selected to replace the steel people who originally started out to do this job. End quote. The reactionary wing of the bourgeoisie were no doubt enraged at the New Deal's refusal to try and return the outward past at that point. Almost three years later, in the pivotal labor battle of the 1930s, the New Deal forced General Motors to reach a deal with striking Flint's Michigan employees. GM had attempted to end the Flint sit-down with force, using both the battalion of hired thugs and the local Flint police. Lengthy street battles with the police over Union food deliveries and sit-downs resulted in many strikers shot and beaten. Fourteen were shot in one day, but also in Union control over the streets. In the famous, quote, Battle of Bulls Run, the auto workers, fighting in clouds of tear gas, forced the cops to run their lives. The local repressive forces available to GM were unequal to task. From the second week of the strike, GM officially asked the government to send in the troops. But both the state and federal governments were in the hands of the New Deal. After five weeks of stalling, Michigan Governor Frank Murphy finally sent in 1,200 National Guardsmen to calm the street battles, but not to move against either the Union or the Sea Plains. Murphy used the leverage of the troops to pressure both sides to reach a compromise settlement. The governor reassured the CIO, quote, the military will never be used against you. The National Guard was ordered to use force, if necessary, to protect the sit-down from the local sheriff and any right-wing vigilantes. The administration had both the President's Secretary and the Secretary of Commerce called GM officials, urging settlement with the Union. Roosevelt even had the head of R.J. Reynolds' tobacco company, called his friend, the chairman of GM, to push for labor peace. The end of GM's crushing union strategy came on February 11, 1937, after President Roosevelt had made it clear he would not approve repression and told GM to settle with the Union. GM realized that the fight was over. The important effect of pro-CIO national strategy can be seen in the 30s to earlier periods. Whenever popular struggles against business grew too strong to be put down by local police, and the government would send the National Guard or the U.S. Army. Armed repression was a drastic but really decisive weapon used by the bourgeoisie. And the iron of the U.S. government not only inspired terror, but also promoted patriotism to split the settled ranks. The U.S. Army broke the Great 1877 and 1894 National Railway Strikes. The Coast to Coast repressive wave, led by the U.S. Department of Justice against the IWW during 1917 to 24, effectively destroyed that quote American movement, even without army troops. Yet no such attempt was made during the even more during the 1930s. President Roosevelt himself turned to CIO leaders in the words of the New York Times, quote, for advice on labor problems rather than to any old long AL leader. End quote. There was a heavy split in capitalist class, with many major corporations viewing the CIO as a red menace in the backyards, and desperately using lockouts, company unions, and police violence to stop them. Not all, however. Years before the CIO came into being, Gerald Swope of General Electric had told AL President William Green that the company would rather deal with one industrial union than 15 different craft unions. And when Communist Party-led United Electric Workers, CIO, organized at GE, they found that the company was allowed to make a deal. While some corporations, such as Republic Steel, tolerated unionization only after years of light conflict, others wise up very quickly. U.S. Steel tried to control its employees by promoting company unions. But in plant after plant, the company unions were taken over by CIO activists. It was no secret that the New Deal was pushing industrial unionization. In Alcoa, Pennsylvania, Jones and Lawson Steel, Colorado, that simply made union militants quote, disappear. One steel organizer was later found after having been secretly committed to a statement of hospital. New Deal government changed all that, even assigning state police bodyguards to protect CIO organizers. A picture of CIO bulletin. Caption. In Homestead, where no public labor union had been held since 1919, 2,000 steel workers and miners gathered in 1936 in a memorial to pioneer 1892 homestead strike against U.S. Steel. The memorial rally was protected by state police, and Lieutenant Governor Kennedy was one of the speakers. He told the workers that state police would help them if they went on strike against U.S. Steel. That passion. With all that, it is understandable that U.S. Steel decided to reach a settlement with the CIO. Two weeks after the Flint's down to feed GM, U.S. Steel suddenly proposed a contract to CIO. On March 2nd, 1937, the Steel Workers Union became the officially accepted bargaining agent at U.S. Steel plants. The corporation not only bowed to the inevitable, but by installing the CIO, it stayed off even more militant possibilities. The CIO bureaucracy was unpopular in the mills. Only 7% of U.S. Steel employees had signed union membership cards. In fact, Lee Pressman, the Communist Party lawyer of the Steel Workers Union, said afterwards that they just didn't have the support of the majority. Quote, There is no question that we would not have a petition to the National Labor Relations Board or any other kind of machinery asking for an election. We could not have won an election. End quote. At the U.S. Steel stockholders meeting the following year, Chairman Lyon Taylor explained to his investors why the New Deal's pro-CIO approach worked. Quote, the union has scrupulously followed the terms of this agreement, and, as so far as I know, has made no unfair effort to bring other employees into its ranks, while corporations of series during a very difficult period have been entirely free of labor servants of any kind. End quote. By pulling back the iron fist of repression, by encouraging CIO, the New Deal reform government cut down, quote, labor servants among the euro-American proletariat. It should be kept in mind that the New Deal was ready to use the most of repression when it felt was necessary. All during the 1930s, for example, they directed an ever-increasing offensive against the National Party of Puerto Rico. Unlike the settler workers, the liberation struggle of Puerto Rico was not seeking reform of the U.S. Empire, but its answer from their nation. The speed with which the national server was spreading through quarterly masses alarmed U.S. imperialism. So, the most liberal, most reform-minded U.S. government in history repressed the nationalists in the most naked and brutal way. By 1936, the tide of pro-independent sentiment was running high, and Don Alvis Mambos, president of the Nationalist Party, was without doubt the most respected political figure among both the intellectuals and the masses. 
School children were starting to tear down the U.S. flag from the school flagpoles and substitute for the flag. In the city of Ponce, the school principal defied police orders to take the order to ban it down. The New Deal response was to directly move to violently break up the nationalist center. In July 1936, eight nationalist leaders were successfully tried for conspiracy by the U.S. government. Since their first trial ended in a deadlocked jury, the government decided to totally rig the message of jury. Most of the jurors were Euro-Americans, for example. That done, the nationalist leaders were sentenced to four to ten years in federal prison. Meanwhile, general repression came down. The U.S. government worship followed a policy of denying all rights of free speech or assembly to the Pope and defense forces. Machine guns were placed in the streets of San Juan. On Palm Sunday, 1937, one month after that Roosevelt refused to use force against the Blitz strike, the Palm Massacre took place. A national parade, which was not permit, was met with U.S. police gunfire. The parade of 92 youth from the Cadets and Daughters of the Republic, nationalist youth groups, was watched by 150 U.S. police with rifles and machine guns. As soon as the armed teenagers started marching, the police began firing and catch firing. 19 Caribbean citizens were killed and over 100 wounded. Afterwards, President Roosevelt rejected all protests and said that government had his approval. The goal of paralyzing government forces through terrorism was obvious. Similar pressures, although different in form, were used by the New Deal against Mexicano workers in the West and Midwest. There, mass roundups in the Mexicano communities and the forced deportation of 500,000 Mexicanos, many of whom have U.S. residency or citizenship, were used to save relief funds for settlers and, most importantly, to break up the rising Mexicano labor and national agitation. In a celebrated case in 1936, minor Jesus Adais was arrested and deported for the deport crime of leading the 8,000-member Liga Obrera de Abla Española in New Mexico. The U.S. government used violent terror against the people and mass repression against Mexicano people during the 1930s. But it did nothing like that to stop the American workers, because it didn't have to. The settler class wasn't going anywhere. In the larger sense, they had little class politics of their own anymore. President Roosevelt easily became their guide and patient saint, just as Andrew Jackson had for the settler movement almost exactly one century earlier. The class consciousness of the European immigrant had done that, in fact, with the settler sickness. Instead of the defiantly sinless IWW, they now have the catalyst CIO. This reflected the desires of the vast majority of Euro-American workers. They wanted settler unionism, with a privileged relationship to the government and for their New Deal. Settler workers accepted each new labor law passed by the imperialist government to stabilize labor relations. But unions regulated, supervised, and reorganized by the imperialists are hardly the free working class organizations called by that name in the earlier periods of world capitalism. One reason that the CIO settled unionism was so valuable to the imperialists was that at a time of labor people, it cut down on uncontrolled militancy and even helped calm the production lines. Even the quote, left union militants were forced into this role. Bob Travis, the Communist Party leader of the 1937 sit-down, reported only months after investing in orders. Quote, Despite this terrifically rapid growth of membership, we've been able to conduct an intensive educational campaign against unauthorized strikes and for observation of our contract and the global elimination of wildcat actions during the past three months. End quote. Fortune, the prestigious business magazine, said in 1941, quote, Probably directed, the UAW can hold men together in an emergency. It can be made a great force for morale. It has regularized many phases of corruption. Its shop stewards, who take up grievances on the back and floor, can smooth things, as no company union could ever succeed in smoothing them. End quote. The Euro-American military during the 30s had broken out of industrial confinement, reaching for freedoms and a material style of life no modern proletariat had ever achieved. The immense battles that followed obscured the nature of victory. The victory they gained was the firm position of the Euro-American class in the settler ranks, re-establishing the rights of all Europeans here to share the privileges of this oppressed nation. This was the essence of the equality that they won. This bold move was, in the tradition, sharing the American pie with more European reinforcements, so that the empire could be strengthened. This formula had partially broken down during the transition from the America of the frontier to the industrial America. It was the brilliant accomplishment of the New Deal to mend this break. Beginning a long quotation from Gary Williams' watches and asked I watched the first shipment of quote, repatriated Mexicans leave Los Angeles in February 1931. The loading process began at 6 o'clock in the morning. The Pachiados arrived by truckload, men, women, and children, with dogs, cats, and goats, half open suitcases, rolled bedding, and lunch baskets. It cost the city of Los Angeles. It cost the county of Los Angeles $77,249.29 to repatriate one train load, but the savings and relief amounted to $347,468 for this one shipment. In 1932 alone, over 11,000 Mexicans were repatriated from Los Angeles. The strikes in California in the 30s, moreover, were duplicated wherever Mexicans were lowered in agriculture. Mexican workers struck in Arizona, in Idaho, in Washington, in Colorado, in Michigan, and in the lower Rio Grande Valley in Texas. When Mexican chief shares on a strike in West Texas in 1934, one of the chief men made a speech and she said, quote, We are a pretty poor bunch of white men if we are going to sit here and let a bunch of Mexicans tell us what to do. With scarcely an exception, every strike in which Mexicans participated in the borderlands in the 30s was broken by the use of violence and was followed by deportations. In most of these strikes, Mexican workers stood alone. That is, they were not supported by organized labor. For their organizations, for the most part, were affiliated neither with the CIO nor the AFL. And one passage from Karen Williams, north from Mexico. And section 3. Settlers, chapter 7, section 4. The CIO's integration and imperialist labor policy. The CIO played an important role for U.S. imperialism in disorganizing and placing under supervision the nationally oppressed. For the first time, masses of third world workers were allowed and even conscripted into the South trade unions. This was a result of a historic arrangement between the U.S. Empire and national oppressed workers in the industrial north. On one side, this limited quote, unity ensured that third world workers didn't oppose the new settler industrial unions and were safely absorbed as quote, minorities under tight settler control. 
on the other side, hungry third world proletarians gained significant income advances and hopes of job security and advancement. It was an arrangement struck out of need on both sides, but one which the Euro American aristocracy made only tactical concessions while strengthening their hegemony over the entire labor market. So while the old AFL craft unions had controlled third world labor by joining us out of the labor market, by excluding us from the craft unions or by confining us to small, quote, static locals, the new CIO could only control us by absorbing us into their separate unions. The imperialists had decided that they needed colonial labor in certain industries. The Euro American labor could not, therefore, draw the national oppressed away in the old manner. The colonial proletarians could only be controlled by disorganizing them, separating their home struggles from the national struggles of their peoples, separating them from other third world proletarians around the world, absorbing them as co brothers of Soviet unionism, and placing them under the leadership of the Euro American labor aristocracy. The new integration was the old segregation on a higher level, the unity of opposites in everyday life. We can see how this all worked by reviewing the CIO's relationship to African workers. Large African refugee communities had formed in the major modern industrial centers. Well over one million refugees had fled northwards in just the time between 1910 and 24, and 2000s came every month. They were in huge presence to the south north. Each refugee community was a foreign body in a white metropolis, like a grain of sand in Ulster. And just as the oyster eased its irritation by encasing the foreign element in a hard, smooth coating of pearl, South America and absolute African workers in the hard white layer of the CIO. Despite the quote race rights and the hostility of Euro Americans, the African refugees streamed to the north in the early years of the century. After all, even the trouble of the North seemed like lesser evils to those fleeing the various conditions of the occupied national territory. Many had little choice, escaping their Rockefeller's claim. Increasingly forced all land, barred from the new factories in the South, Africans were held down by the terrorist control of their daily lives. Each night on the Illinois Central Railroad, many its way northward through Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee, following the Mississippi River off to the quote, promised land of Gary or Chicago. Instead of sharecropping or seasonal farm labor for quote, Mr. John, African men during World War I might get hired for the elite Chicago jobs as laborers at Argo Cornstarch or International Harvester. Each week, the Chicago Defender in the 20s, the most widely read quote, race newspaper, even in the South, urged its readers to forsake Calvin City and come northward to quote, freedom. One man remembers the long Mississippi nights tossing and turning in bed, dreaming about fabled north. Quote, you could not rest in your bed at night for Chicago. End quote. The refugee communities were really small African communities, where the top rope of settled domination had been partially loosened. Sears Black Chicago says, quote, In the rural South, Negroes were dependent on white landowners in an almost feeble sense. Personal supervision and personal responsibility permeated almost every aspect of life. In the factories and yards of the North, on the other hand, the relationship with the boss was formal and impersonal, and supervision limited to working hours. End quote. While there was less individual restriction, African refugees were under control as a national group. The free bourgeois labor market of Euro Americans didn't really exist for Africans. Their employment was not individual, not private. They got work only when they consciously decided to use African labor as a group. So that African labor in the industrial north still existed under colonial conditions, driven in specific workplaces and specific jobs. Africans were understood by companies as dynamite, extremely useful, and potentially very dangerous. Their use in world industry was the start, though little understood at the time, of gradually bringing the New York immigrants off of proletarians to real settlers. Imperialism was gradually releasing the quote-unquote and quote dago from the very bottom of factories. Now, even more Euro Americans were being pushed upward in the ranks of skilled workers and supervisors. And if the African workers were paid more than their usual colonial wages in the South, they still earned less than quote, white man's wages. Even the newest European immigrant on the all-white production lines could love the African laborers and know his newfound privileges as a settler. The capitalists also knew that too many Africans might turn a useful and super profitable tool into a dangerous force. African labor was used only in a controlled way, with heavy restrictions placed on it. One Indian steel mill superintendent in the 1920s said, quote, When we got up to 10% black employees, I said, no more color without discussion. I got the color passers to send colored men when they guaranteed were not organized and were not ultra race. End quote. This was at a time when the bargain movement, the all-African labor unions, and the growth of pan-Africanist and revolutionary forces were taking place within the African nation. The number of factories placed strict quotas on the number of African workers, not because they were profitable enough. Not because the employers were prejudiced, as the liberals would have it, but because the imperialists believed that African labor could most safely be used when it was surrounded by a great mass of settler labor. In 1937, an official of the U.S. Steelworks in Gary admitted that for the previous 14 years, corporate policy had set a percentage of African workers at a mill to 15%. The Ford Motor Company had perhaps the most extensive system of using African labor under plantation-like control, with Henry Ford acting as a planter. A special department of Ford management was concerned with dominating not only the on-the-job life of African workers, but the refugee community as well. Ford hired only three African churches, with each church to be given money if its members stayed obedient to Ford. The company also subsidized African bourgeois organizations. His African employees and their families constituted about one-fourth of the entire Detroit African community. Both the NAACP and the League were seen for crisis and warning African workers not to have any of their unions. One report on the Ford system in the 1930s said, beginning quote, There is hardly a Negro church, fraternal body, or other organization in Ford. There is hardly a Negro church, fraternal body, or other organization in which Ford workers are not represented. Seriously, a Negro professional or businessman is completely independent of the number of Ford employees. When those seeking Ford jobs are added to this group, it is readily seen that Ford entourage was able to exercise dominating influence in the community. End quote. The African refugee communities, extensions on the rest nation, became themselves miniature colonies, with an African bourgeois island acting as a location of foreign imperialists. Ford's system was unusual only in that one capitalist very conspicuously took as his role that which is usually done quietly by a committee of capitalists through business foundations and their imperialist government. 
This colonial existence in the midst of industrial America gave rise to contradiction, to the segregation of the oppressed, creating its opposite, and increasingly important role of African labor in industrial production. Having been forced to concentrate in certain cities and certain industries and even certain plants, African labor in the 1920s was discovered to have a role in the industry, far out of proportion to its small numbers. In Cleveland, Africans comprised 50% of the metalworking industry. In Chicago, they were 40 to 50% of the meat plants. In Detroit, the African oil workers made 12% of the workforce aboard, 10% of rigs, 30% of the steel frame. A picture of some Africans traveling from the south, just arrived in Chicago. Overall, African workers employed in the industrial economy were concentrated in just five industries automotive, steel, meatpacking, coal, railroads. The first four were where settler labor and settler capitalists were about to file their differences in the 30s and early 40s. And African labor was right in the middle. In a number of industrial centers, then, the Seattle unions could not be secure without controlling African labor. And on their side, African workers urgently needed improvement in their economic condition. The 1929 study of the automobile industry comments, beginning quote, has one forward and one individual stated. Many of the Negroes are employed in the foundry and do work that nobody else will do. The writer noticed in one Charlotte plant that Negroes were engaged on various, roughest, and most disagreeable work, for example, in the making of vessels. At the Chrysler plant, they are used exclusively on paint jobs. And at the Chandler Cleveland plant, certain dangerous and real grinding jobs were given only to Negroes. End quote. In virtually all auto plants, Africans were not allowed to work on production lines, nor segregated in foundry work, painting as janitors, drivers, and other corporate service jobs. They earned 35 to 38 cents per hour, which was one half of the pay of the American production line workers. This was true at Packard, at GM, and many other companies. The CIA's policy then began to promote integration under separate leadership, where African labor was numerous and strong, such as foundries, the packing plants, etc., and to maintain segregation and control in situations where African labor was married lesser and weak. Integration and segregation were about two aspects of the same separate identity. Three other imperatives shaped CIA policy. One, to maintain separate privilege in the form of reserving the skilled class, more desirable production jobs, and the operation of the unions themselves to the Americans. Two, any capital concessions to African labor had to form to the CIA's need to maintain the unity of the Americans. Three, the CIA's policy on African labor had to be consistent with the overall colonial labor policy of the U.S. Empire. We should underline the fact that rather than challenge U.S. rules on the status and role of colonial labor, the CIA has separate unions loyally followed those rules. End of list. To use the automobile industry as a case, there was considerable integration within the liberal United Auto Workers, UAW CIO. That is, there was considerable recruiting of African labor to help the American workers advance their class interests. The first Detroit sit down was at Midland Steel Frame in 1936. The UAW not only recruited African workers to play an active role in the strike, but organized their families in the CIO support campaign. Midland Frame, which made Barbara Rings for Chrysler and Ford, was 30% African. <clears throat> there, the UAW had no reasonable chance of victory without many African forces, as well as its own. But at the many plans that were overwhelmingly settler, the CIO obviously treated African labor differently. In those majority of the situations, the new unions supported segregation. In Flint, Michigan, the general workers' plans were Jim Africans were employed only in the boundary or as janitors, at substandard wages. Many, of course, did other work, although still officially segregated and underpaid as, quote, janitors. Not only steel jobs, but even semi-steel production lines and work was reserved for settlers. While the UAW fought GM on wages, hours, similarities for settler workers, and so forth, they followed the general relationship to colonial labor that GM laid down. So the contradiction between settler labor and settler capitalists was limited, so to say, to their oppressor nation, and didn't change their common front towards the oppressed nations and their broader areas. At the time of the Flintstown victory in February 1937, the NAACP issued a statement raising the question of more jobs. Quote, Everywhere in Michigan, colored people are asking whether the new CIO union is going to make Negroes work up into some other good jobs, or whether it's just going to protect them in the small jobs they already have in general End quote. That was an enlightened question. Many UAW radicals have already answered yes. Wendell Mortimer, the Communist Party USA trade union leader, who was first vice president of the new UAW-CIO, left behind a series of automatical sketches. Wendell Mortimer, the Communist Party USA trade union leader, who was first vice president of the new UAW-CIO, left behind a series of autobiographical sketches of his union career when he died. Beaton Press, the publishing house of the liberal Unitarian Universalist Church, has printed this autobiography under the stern title Organize. In his own words, Mortimer left us an inside view of his secret negotiations with African workers in Flint. Mortimer had made an initial organizing trip to Flint in June 1936 to start setting up a new union. Anxious to get support from African workers for the coming big strike, Mortimer arranged for a secret meeting. Beginning of long quote. A short time later, I found a note under my hotel door. It was hard to read because so many grimy hands I handled it. It said, Denied at midnight, followed by a number on Dutch Avenue. <coughs> it was signed Henry. Promptly at midnight, I was at the number yet given. It was a small church and it was totally dark. I rapped on the door and waited. Soon the door was opened and I went inside. The place was lighted by a small candle, carefully shaded to prevent the light show. Inside there were 18 men, all of them Negroes, and all of them from the Blue Foundry. I told them why I was in Flint, what I hoped to do in the way of green conditions and raising their living standards. A question period followed. The questions were interesting, and that they dealt with the union's attitude for discrimination and what the union's policy was towards bettering the very bad conditions of New York people. One of them said, quote, You see, we have all around the words of white folks, and then we have one more, we are Negroes. End quote. I pointed out the old AL leadership was gone. The CIA had a new program, with a new leadership, that realized that none of us was free until unless we were all free. Part of our program was by Jim Crow. Our program would have a better chance of success if the Negro worker joined with us and had his voice and presence on the union floor. Another member was asked, quote, Will we have a local union of our own? I replied, We are not a Jim Crow union, nor do we have any set classes since our membership. The meeting ended with 18 application cards signed, and $18 in initiation fees collected. I cautioned them not to stick their necks out, but quietly to get their fellow workers to sign application cards and arrange other meetings. End of long quotation.
Warner's recollections are referred to over and over in your American quote left articles on the CIO as a supposed fact. In actual fact, there was little happening in support for the Flint sit-down. Only five Africans took part of the Flint sit-down strike, nor was that an exception. In the 1937 sit-down, Chrysler's Dodge Main in Detroit, only three African auto workers stayed with the strike. During the critical organizing years of the UAW, African auto workers were primarily sitting outside between the Saturday labor and separate corporations. It was not their nation, not their union, and not their fight. And the results of the UAW CIO victory proved their point of view. The Flint sit-down was viewed by your American workers there as their victory, and they absolutely intended to eat it themselves. So Flint's Chevrolet in the Ford factory, the first UAW and GM contract after the sit-down, contained a clause on quote, non-interchangeability, reaffirming that privilege. The new union now told the African workers that a contract made it illegal for them to move up beyond being generous or founder workers. That was the fruit of the Great Flint sit-down, a Jim Crow labor contract. The same story with the true deal, exposing how empty were the earlier promises to African workers. This was not limited to one plant or one city. A history of the UAW notes, quote, as the UAW officially conceded, in most cases the area's contracts froze the existing pattern of segregation and even discrimination, end quote. At the Atlanta GM plant, whose 1936 sit-down is still pointed to by the settler court left as an example of militant Southern labor history, only total white supremacy was good enough for the CIO workers. The victorious settler workers not only used their newfound union power to restrict African workers to being janitors, but do away altogether with even the pretense of having them as union members. For the next 10 years, the Atlanta UAW was all white. So, in answer to the question raised in 1937 by the NAACP, the true answer was no. The new CIO workers union was not going to give Africans more jobs, better jobs, and equal share of jobs, or any jobs. This was not a quote sellout by some bureaucrat, but the nature of the CIO. Was there a big struggle by union militants on this issue? No. Did at least the Euro American quote left, there being many members in Flint, for example, of the Communist Party USA, the Socialist Party, and the various Strasists, back up their African quote union brothers in principal way? No. It is interesting that in his 1937 UAW convention report on Flint victory, Communist Party USA militants Bob Travis covered off the white supremacist nature of the Flint CIO. In his report, which covers even such topics as union baseball leagues, there was not one word about the African workers and the situation they faced. And if that was the fact that most advanced settler rebels, we can well estimate the political level of the ordinary Euro American worker. Neither integration nor segregation was basic. Approximation domination was basic. If the UAW CIO practiced segregation on a broad scale, it was equally prepared to use integration. When it turned after cracking GM and Chrysler to confront Ford, the most strongly anti union of the three auto companies, the UAW had to make a convincing appeal to the 12,000 African workers there. So, special literature was issued. African church and civil rights leaders negotiated with, and most importantly, African organizers were hired by the CIO to directly win over their brothers at Ford. The colonial labor policy for the U.S. Empire was, as we previously discussed, fundamentally reformed in the 1830s. The growing danger of slave revolts and the swelling African majority in many key cities led to special restrictions on the use of African labor. Once the mainstay of manufacturing and mining, Africans were increasingly moved out of the European economy. When the factories spread in the 1860s, Africans were kept out in most cases. The general colonial labor policy of the U.S. Empire has been to strike balance between the need to exploit colonial labor and the safeguard of keeping the keys to modern industry and technology out of colonial hands. On an immediate level, African labor, as colonial subjects, were moved into or out of specific industries as the U.S. Empire's needs evolved. The contradiction between the decision to stabilize the empire by giving more privilege to settle workers, ultimately by deproletarianizing them, and the need to limit the role of African labor, which has emerged in the early 20th century. So, the CIO did not move to oppose open, rigid segregation in the northern factories until the U.S. government told them to during World War II. Until that time, the CIO supported existing segregation, while accepting those Africans as union members who were already in alliance. This was only to strengthen settler unionism's power on the shop floor. During its initial 1935 41 organizing period, the CIO maintained the existing cross nation cross nation job distribution. Settlers, not less and the mass of semi production line jobs. While colonial workers have fewer unsealed labor and broom pushing positions. For its first seven years, the CIO not only refused to help African workers fight Jim Crow, but even refused to intervene when they were being driven out of factories. Even as the U.S. edged into World War II, many corporations were intensifying the already tight restrictions on African labor. Now that employment was being out of the war room, it was felt not only that the Americans should have new jobs, but Africans were not yet to be trusted to the hardy imperialist war industry. Robert C. Weaver, the Roosevelt administration, ended, quote, When the defense program got underway, the Negro was only on the sidelines of American industry. He seems to be losing the ground daily, end quote. Chrysler had decreed that only Euro-Americans could work at a new Chrysler tank parcel in Detroit. Ford Motor Company was starting many new all set apartments while rejecting 99 out of 100 African men preferred Ford by the U.S. employment service. In Dublin Flint, the 240 African janitors at Chevrolet for land learned that GM was going to lay off in that way. During 1940 and early 1941, while set workers were being rehired for work in great numbers, African labor found itself under attack. Those African workers employed in the industry could not defend their immediate class interests through the CIO, but had to step out of the framework of settler unionism just to defend their existing jobs. In the summer of 1941, there were three African strikes at Dodge and Dodge Truck in Detroit. The African workers at Flint Chevrolet No. 4 saved protest rallies and eventually won their jobs. As late as April 1943, some 3,000 African workers at Ford went out on strike for three days to protest Ford's hiring policies. The point is that the CIO opposed African interests because it followed imperialist colonial labor policy, and when African workers needed to defend their class interests, they had to do so on their own, organizing themselves on the basis of nationality. It was not until mid-1942 that the CIO and corporations, moving together under imperialist coordination, started tapping African labor for the production lines. 
as much as others dislike the masses of Africans in the industry, there was little choice. The winning of the entire world was at stake in a quote, rule or ruin war. As the U.S. empire shrinks, put forth great armies, navies, and air fleets for war of continents. The supply of Euro-American labor had reached a bottom of a barrel. To U.S. imperialism, if a one and a half million African workers in war industry helped the empire conquer Asia and Europe, it would be well worth the price. The U.S. War Production Board said, quote, we cannot afford the luxury of thinking in terms of white men's work, end quote. So the number of African workers on the production lines tripled to 8.3% of all the African production workers. Now the CIA unions, however unhappily, joined the corporations in promoting Africans in new jobs, even as hundreds of thousands of settler workers were protesting in, quote, hate strikes. The reality was that settler workers had government-led imperialist unions, while colonial workers had no unions of their own at all. During World War II, the CIA completed integrating itself by picking up many hundred thousands of colonial workers. Many of these new members, we point out, were involuntary members. Historically, the overwhelming majority of Africans who belonged to CIA industrial unions in the past four years never joined voluntarily. Starting with the first Ford contract in 1941, the CIA rapidly shifted to, quote, union shop contracts. In these contracts, all new employees were required to join the union as a condition of employment. The modern imperialist factory in most industries quickly became highly unionized, whether any of us liked it or not. The U.S. government, depending on the CIO as a key element in labor discipline, encouraged the, quote, union shop. The U.S. World Labor Board urged corporations to thus force their employees to join the CIO. Quote, too often members of unions do not maintain membership because they resent discipline over responsible leadership. End quote. While this applied to all industrial workers, it applied most heavily to colonial labor. The government and the labor aristocracy were impatient to get colonial workers safely tied up. If they were to be let into industry in large numbers, they had to be split up and neutralized by settled unions, voluntarily or involuntarily. In the Flint Buick plant, where 588 of the 600 workers had been segregated into the boundary, despite early CIO promises, the union and GM expected to win them over by finally letting up work on the Russian lines. To their surprise, as late as mid 1942, the majority of the African workers still refused to join the CIO. The African civil rights organizations, the labor aristocracy, and the liberal New Deal all had to, quote, educate resisting workers like those to get in line with the unions. The integration of the CIO, therefore, had nothing to do with increasing job opportunities for Africans or building, quote, working class unity. It was a new instrument of oppressive nation control over the oppressed nation proletariats. End of chapter 7. Settlers by J. Sakai. Chapter 8. Imperialist War and the New American Order. Section 1. G.I. Joe Defense's Supermarket. A picture of the Arsenal War Bonds. Full cooperation of organized labor in efforts during World War II was enlisted by President Roosevelt. Roosevelt insisted that the labor be represented on the World Labor War as equals with business to help maintain both production and labor standards in the subsistence use. Labor's draft of sovereign and war bonds was symbolizing the closer representation to Roosevelt at the White House by then AFL President William Green and Secretary Treasury George Meany. Quote, the Saturday Evening Post ran a series by G.I.'s on what I am fighting for. One character's article began, quote, I am fighting for that big house with the red, green roof and the big front lawn. End quote. World War II was the answer to every settler's prayer, renewed conquest and renewed prosperity. The New Deal domestic reforms alone did not capitalism going again. And even though the CIO won large wage increases in basic industry, the peacetime economy was incapable of providing enough jobs and profits. As late as early 1940, the unemployment rate for Euro-American workers was still almost 18%. Expansion of the empire was a necessary basis of new prosperity. Although wars are made of mass tragedy and sacrifice, this most successful of all American wars was a happy time for most settlers. That's why they look back on it with so much nostalgia and fondness, even with a flashful TV comedy about, quote, fun and not CTO camp. We could say that this is their last big frontier. Historian James Stokesbury notes in his summation of the war, beginning long, quote. One of the great ironies of the American war was the way it was born disproportionately by relatively few people. Inside the huge numbers of men's service, second only for Russia among the Allies, only a limited number of them saw combat. But the vast majority of Americans, it was a good war if there can be such a thing. People were more mobile and prosperous than ever before. The demands of the war brought the United States out of the depression, created new cities, new industries, new fortunes, a new way of life. End quote. Isolated in its Western Hemisphere empire, far from the main theaters of fighting, U.S. imperialism suffered relatively little. As the great powers were inevitably pulled into a global war of desperation, each driven to solve its economic crisis by new conquests, America hung back. It hoped, just as in World War I, to weigh out much of the war and slip in near the end, save a lion's share of the The millions of civilians who died from bombing raids, disease, and famine in wartime Europe, Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East have never been fully counted. The full death toll is often put at an unmatchable 60 million lives. America was saved all this, and emerged triumphant at the war's end with citizenry, colonies, and industry completely intact. Even U.S. military forces are relatively lightly compared to the rest of the world. Military deaths of major combatants are revealing. Germany, 7 million. Russia, 6 million. Japan, 2 million. China, 2 million. Great Britain, 250,000. USA, 400,000. More Russian soldiers died in the Battle of Stalingrad alone than total U.S. military casualties of the whole war. The war boom takes depression out. Factories were roaring around the clock. The 16 million soldiers and sailors in armed forces had left places everywhere for the unemployed to fill. The general prosperity that characterized American society all the way up to the 1970s began right there in the war economy of World War II. The war years were such a prosperous upturn from the depression that the necessary propaganda about, quote, sacrificing for the war effort had a force of characters. Lucky Strike, the biggest song cigarette, caught the settlement perfectly when it changed its package color from green to white, and then announced nonsensically in big ads. Lucky Strike Green is going off war. Average family income went up by 50% compared to the depression years. In New York City, average family income rose from $2,760 to $4,444 between 1938 and 1942. Nor was it just paper game. A historian of wartime culture writes, quote, Production for civilian use, while diminishing, remained so high that Americans made no serious separations. At the peak of the war effort in 1944, the total all goods and services available to civilians was actually larger than it had been in 1940. 
end quote. The number of supermarkets more than tripled between 1939 and 1944. Publishers reported book sales up by 40% by 1943. The pair mutual gameplay racetracks sat up to 250% from 1940 to 1944. Just between 1941 and 1942, jewelry sales were up 20 to 100% by areas. By 1944, the cash in the bank accounts held by the U.S. population reached a record $140 billion. That same year, Macy's Department Store in New York City had a sale on Pearl Harbor Day, which produced their most profitable business day ever. Once again, the exceptional life of settler America was renewed by war and conquest. This is a mechanism within each American cycle of internal conflict and reform. The New Deal was Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well. Consumerist America was erected on top of the 60 million deaths of World War II. And the second one. Settlers, Chapter 8, Section 2. The Political Character of the War. Quote by George Jansen. In the U.S., World War II was the principal cause of total breakdown of working class movement and revolutionary consciousness. Resistance to the war would seem like simple common sense. If Stalin gave the order to support the U.S. war effort, he was a fool. In any case, the old vanguard support should have been the people's struggle inside the U.S. End quote. In its March 29, 1939 issue, the Pittsburgh Courier, one of the major African newspapers, ran an editorial on the coming world war that summed up what most lonely people in the world thought about. Beginning long quote. The democracies and the dictatorships are preparing to do battle in the near future. The referee is imperialism, who stands ready to award the decision to the victor. The state is the right to exploit the dark peoples of the world. The audience consists of the vast majority of those who happen to be non-whites. They have no favor because it makes no difference to them which party wins the fight. They are only interested in the taking place as soon as possible. The audience knows that destruction of white civilization means the emancipation of other people, and that explains why they eagerly wait to the opening dawn. The democracies which now control the dark world have never extended democracy to the dark world. Their meaning of democracy is a white people only, and just a few of them. The dictatorships frankly declare that they win, they will do as democracies have done in the past. The democracies, as frankly, declare that if they win, they will continue to do as they have been doing. End of quote. This remarkable editorial was accurate, however, unscientific way of putting it. As to the real world situation, the quote, war to save democracy was an obvious lie to those who had none, whose nation were enslaved by US imperialism. While there was no real support for either German or Japanese imperialism, there was considerable satisfaction among the oppressed at seeing every Europeans being frightened out of wits by supposed quote, racial inferiors. One South African voter historian recalls, quote, It seemed possible that the Japanese might capture Madagascar and that South Africa itself might be attacked. The Cape colored people were not at all alarmed at the prospect. Indeed, they viewed the Japanese victories as almost a jubilation. Their sympathies and hopes were with a little yellow-skinned men who were too smart for British and Americans. End quote. Nor was this just in Africa. In colonial India, the site of British, quote, master, suddenly begging his subjects to help save them from Japanese armies. Revealed to many of their oppressors was a, quote, paper tiger. The British generals who learned that their Indian colonial troops were more and more unwilling to fight the British Empire. The Communist Party USA was so alarmed at African disinterest in fighting nations that it issued a special pamphlet for them, renouncing the rise of the Japanese Empire against Ethiopia, urging Africans to honor, quote, the agents of the Negro people with the progressive section of the white population, end quote. The sociologist St. Clair Drake relates how even among the U.S. Empire forces in the Pacific, African GIs would loudly root for the Japanese zero fighters overhead in the area of dogfights against U.S. settler eaters. Robert Williams says that as a youth, he heard many African veterans returning from the Pacific expressing the for the Japanese soldiers, and even say that the Japanese tried not to fire Africans. And studying the U.S. propaganda posters of dark-skinned Japanese trying to rape blonde Euro-American women, Williams saw a connection to settler propaganda against Africans. None of this was any approval of Japanese imperialism, but an expression of association from your own oppressor. To the oppressed masses of the U.S., British, Dutch, French, German, and other Western empires, this war was not their war. It is important to deal with the nature of U.S. involvement in the war. Outside the shallow and obviously untrue quote, war for democracy propaganda, the two main arguments of the war were one, it was a war for European freedom to defeat the Nazis and save the Soviet Union, two, it was a just war of self-defense after the U.S. military was attacked by the Japanese Empire at Pearl Harbor, the main U.S. naval base in its Hawaiian colony. Both lines were often used together, particularly by the separate battles. Perhaps the U.S. Empire could have played a crusade in Europe to defeat Nazism, but it did. In true fact, German fascism was defeated by the Russian people. U.S. will strategy clearly called for stalling as long as possible by Hitler, in hopes that Germany and Soviet Russia would ruin and exhaust each other. As late as April 1943, Soviet forces were fighting 185 Nazi divisions, while the U.S. and British empires were together fighting six. The heart and muscle of the German army, almost 250 divisions, got destroyed on the eastern front against the Russian people. That's why Russian military lost six million troops fighting Germany, while the U.S. lost 160,000. The Soviet Union's burden in the alliance against German imperialism was so visibly disproportionate that some Western imperialists were concerned. South African General John Christian Smoots warned in 1943, quote, to the ordinary man, they must be aware that it's Russia going to war. If this impression continues, what will be our Finally, in the last six months of the war, the Allies landed two million soldiers in France in order to gain on the German surrender and control as much of Europe as possible. Those U.S. and British divisions faced a vastly inferior German opposition, only 40% as large as the Allied force, because the bulk of their forces were tied up in the main war front against Russia. During the war, the Allies kept paratroop divisions in England, ready to be airdropped into Berlin if Russia managed to the Nazis before Allied armies even came into Germany. The U.S. imperialism's main concern was not to, quote, liberate anyone, but to dominate as much of Europe as it could once the Russian people had, at such terrible cost, defeated Hitler. American war plans included being careful not to interfere with the Nazis' genocidal civilization of Europe. Indeed, Washington and London appreciated how convenient it was to let Hitler do very work for them, getting rid of millions of undesirable Jews, communists, socialists, trade unionists, and dissenters. This cleaned up Europe from the imperialist point of view, and Hitler took the weight. The Allies were notorious in blocking Jewish evacuation from the path of the Hong Kong Nazi conquest. Roosevelt refused to lift restrictions on Jewish immigration. As a war approached, on April 23, 1939, the U.S. State Department announced that quotas were so, quote, filled, that Jewish immigration was defaulted except for special cases. 
Desperate German Jews were told that they had to wait a minimum of six years until 1945. The New Deal's vicious attitude was displayed in their mocking statement that Jewish, quote, applicants of Polish origin, even though they spent most of their life in Germany, will have to wait at least 50 years, end quote, to obtain entry visas to the U.S. The same day, the Roosevelt administration announced that no tourist visas to America would be issued to German Jews. Only those Germans with, quote, Aryan passports could brief the Statue of Liberty. During the war, the U.S. rejected these from the underground, but they used bombers to knock out the rail lines to the camps, and even knock out the guns themselves. Yet, on September 13, 1944, the U.S. Station Air Force bombed the IG Park and complex right next to Auschwitz Death Camp. A few bombs fell in Auschwitz itself, killing 15 SS men and 40 other fascists. Although this proved the U.S. military's ability to strike the Nazi death camps, the U.S. imperialism still refused to interfere with the genocide. And this was when the Nazis were furiously slaughtering as many as possible at Auschwitz, as many as 24,000 per day. The U.S. imperialism opposed being anti fascist, but it was U.S. imperialism which had put Nazis in power. Henry Ford was an important early backer of Hitler, and by 1944 started pouring money into the tiny Nazi party. Ford's portrait on the wall of Hitler's party office. Every birthday until World War II, Ford had sent Hitler his personal greetings and gift of money. Even during the war, the Ford Motor Company delivered vital parts of the German army through neutral Switzerland. On October 20, 1942, the USMC in London complained to Washington that Ford was using the plans in Switzerland to repair 2,000 German army trucks. Ford was just one example of many. GM President William Hudson told the press conference on October 6, 1933, that Nazism was, quote, the miracle of the 20th century. GM Germany contributed 100% of all its employees' wages as a weekly mass donation to the Nazi party. While the Allied powers wanted to defeat Germany, it had nothing to do with being anti-fascist. Both President Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill favored Mussolini and fascist regime in Italy. Even after the European war broke out in 1939, Roosevelt privately urged Mussolini to be neutral and tried to mediate a British German detente. Churchill, for his part, wanted to preserve the Muslim fascist regime since, quote, the alternative to his rule might well have been a communist end quote. Churchill saw fascist Italy as a possible ally. He later wrote regretfully about Mussolini, quote, he might well have maintained Italy in a balanced position, courted and rewarded by both sides, and deriving unusual wealth and prosperity from the struggles of other countries. Even when the issue of war became certain, Mussolini would have been welcomed by the Allies. End quote. In Italy, Greece, and other nations, the, quote, liberating U.S. British forces put the local fascists back in power, while savagely repressing the anti-fascist guerrillas who fought them. In Greece, the British had a problem, since the German army pulled out in September 1944, harassed by guerrillas who had installed a new democratic Greek government. The Allies invaded all liberated Greece in order to crush the independent government. Greece was, quote, liberated from democracy and returned to the fascist neocolony of Britain and the U.S. The mercenary collaborators and the fascist, quote, security battalions, organized by the German occupation, were preserved by the British army, which used them to conduct campaign of terrorism against the Greek people. By 1945, the British were holding some 50,000 anti-fascist activists in prison. The Allies killed more Greek workers and peasants than the Germans had. The main focus of American military interest had nothing to do with democratic or humanitarian concerns, but with the empire at the expense of German and Japanese rivals. Not only was there a strong position over Europe aimed at, but in the Pacific, a showdown was sought with Japanese imperialism. In the 1930s, both U.S. and Japanese imperialism sought to become the dominant power over Asia. Japan's 1937 invasion of China, Korea was already a Japanese colony, had offset the Pacific status quo. Giant China had long been an imperialist Japan broke up the club by invading to take all of China for itself. The Roosevelt administration, the main backer of Chiang Kai-shek's corrupt and semi-colonial Kuomintang regime, was committed to a decisive war with Japan from that point on. Both the U.S. Empire and the Japanese Empire demanded in secret negotiations the partial disarmament of the other and a free hand in exploiting China. The Roosevelt administration and the British had secretly agreed in mid-1941 for a joint military offensive against Japan, the centerpiece of which was the new U.S. strategic bomb force to dominate the Pacific. We know that President Roosevelt's position was that all-out war in the Pacific was desirable for U.S. interests. His only problem was, quote, the question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot, end quote. Political necessities demanded that Roosevelt be able to picture the war as innocent, quote, self-defense. The New Deal started embargoing strategic war materials, notably scrap iron and petroleum, going to Japan. There was a coordinated Western campaign to deny Japanese imperialism the vital oil, water, and iron its war machine needed. With 21 divisions locked down trying to catch up with the in China, Japanese imperialism had to either capture these necessary resources in new wars or face the last. The move was obvious. To make sure that the job would work, Roosevelt asked U.S. Admiral Stark to prepare an intelligence assessment of the probable response. In his memo of July 22, 1941, over four months before Pearl Harbor, Admiral Stark reassured Roosevelt that Japan would be forced into a quote, fairly early attack to seize British Malayan water and Dutch Indonesian oil, and an attack on the U.S. Philippine colony was quote, certain. The New Deal wanted and expected not only all-out war the Pacific, but a, quote, surprise, Japanese attack as well. Their only disappointment on December 7, 1941, was that instead of concentrating on the Philippines, the Japanese military struck first at Hawaii. There was no question of, quote, self-defense there. The Pacific War was the mutual trial of imperialist competition and imperialist appetites. To President Roosevelt, the prize was worth the risks. China was his first goal, just as it was for Japanese imperialism. A friend of the President recalls, quote, at the White House, the making of Yara's China's policy was almost as great a secret as the Yara bomb, end quote. Roosevelt saw that the sun had set on the old European colonial rule in Asia, and the dynamic expansion of the small Japanese empire proved how weak and rotten European power was. In his mind, he saw that China were not only free, but under U.S. hegemony, via the Kuomintang regime, it could be the center for America to take over all Asia. Footnote. FDR was always appreciative of China's potential value because of his family's direct connection. Roosevelt often mentioned his family's long, quote, friendship with China. On his mother's side, the Delano family fortune was made for a leading role in the opium trade in 19th century China. End footnote. 
British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, after meeting Roosevelt in a staff, wrote a British general in some alarm, quote, I must enlighten you about the American view. China bulks as large in the minds of many of them as Great Britain, end quote. Some confusion about the nature of the Second Imperialist World War has arisen among comrades here because the war was also a patriotic war of national defense in some nations. Both China and the USSR, invaded and partially occupied by Axis powers, made alliance with competing imperialists of the Allied powers. There is unsurprising or incorrect about that. Taking advantage of this, the revisionists claimed that the democratic minded people in all nations, therefore, should support the Allied powers. But why should the anti colonial movement in our past nation that was invaded and occupied by the US, or France, or Great Britain, support its own aggressor? One might just argue that the Chinese people should support the Japanese occupation during World War II because Mexico was oppressed by US imperialism. In fact, the Japanese Empire advanced such lines of propaganda. Contrary to the revisionists, World War II was not a war of quote, democracy versus fascism, but a complex struggle between imperialist powers and between capitalism and socialism. The New Deal was prepared to do whatever necessary to modernize and stabilize US imperialism's home base, because it was like the biggest stakes in the world. In the Pittsburgh Courier's words, quote, the state is the right to exploit the darker peoples of the world. And section two. Settlers, chapter eight, section three. The war on the quote, home front. As Euro-American settlers gathered themselves to conquer Asia, Europe, Africa, and hold on to Latin America, they started their war effort by attacking the oppressed closest at hand, those already within the US Empire. In Puerto Rico, the colonial occupation tightened with already deadly hold on masses, so their very lives could be squeezed out to help pay for the US order. It is to the eternal honor of the Nationalist Party, already terribly wounded by repression, that it resisted this imperialist mobilization as best it could. The National Party denounced the military conscription of Puerto Rican youth, who were to be for the same U.S. Army that was oppressing their own nation. On the eve of civil service registration in 1940, the National Party declared, quote, If Puerto Ricans are the first line of defense of democracy in America, we claim our right to fight in the front line, and for that reason we demand that democracy be a reality in Puerto Rico, recognizing our national sovereignty, end quote. The newspapers on the island were afraid to national statements for fear of the U.S. prosecution, a fear that the U.S. government said was well-founded. Some members of the National Party began openly refusing to register for the draft. Juan Estrada Garcia told the jury when he was tried that his concern was for, quote, the masses who lived down in Valeria, bookworm, and tuberculosis for lack of food, end quote. This was just concern. Puerto Ricans had the highest death rate in the Western Hemisphere, thanks to the, quote, Yankee occupation Every year, 3,000 died from tuberculosis alone out of a population of 2 million. Over half were totally destitute, on relief. 80% of the population had a corn, and the life expectancy was only 46 years. Small wonder, when even those lucky ones who had jobs didn't earn enough to ensure survival. In 1941, the Gibaros, sugarcane workers, labored for an average of only 14 cents per hour. A picture of U.S. soldiers stationed in Puerto Rican streets. A picture of U.S. soldiers marching down Puerto Rican. A picture of U.S. soldiers marching down the street in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico's location in Caribbean made a key island in the region's offenses, but Puerto Ricans, the U.S. soldiers stationed there were not force. Loud, exploitative, violent, granted privileges denied to most Puerto Ricans. The war effort only passed by the misery. The relative prosperity that delighted their Americans of war was reversed in Puerto Rico. Starvation grew much worse. The New Deal WTA jobs program closed down in 1942. Unemployment more than doubled. With food shipments deliberately restricted, prices soared 53 percent in one year. A Presbyterian missionary wrote down Roosevelt, the U.S. president's wife, in despair from my ways. Quote, the children in this region are slowly starving. The U.S. government made it clear that the New Deal policy was not only to help subsidize the war effort out of the misery of Puerto Rican people, but to use starvation to beat them in political submission. In his 1939 report, Winship proudly announced that the colonial administration was already extracting millions of dollars from starving Puerto Rico for the common war. Ten million dollars worth of land had been given by public colonial legislature free to the U.S. Navy for a naval base. Puerto Ricans had paid for judging out San Juan Harbor so that it was deep enough for U.S. battleships. New U.S. Navy paradox in San Juan were also paid for involuntarily by Puerto Rican people. Further, local taxes had also paid for construction of new U.S. military airships on Guadalajara, Isla Grande, Mon Island, and elsewhere. In desperately poor Puerto Rico, the local taxes collected by imperialist occupation forces were used for their own military needs rather than employment for food. This policy was actually quite common for World War II. For example, both the Nazi and Japanese armies also forced local inhabitants in conquered areas to support military construction for them. The U.S. imperialists were in good company. While it may have seemed like bad propaganda, this so obviously increased misery among the Puerto Rican people. The New Deal believed otherwise. It was economic terrorism. U.S. military officials said that national resistance to the draft had been broken. They admitted that the reason the Republicans were submitting to the draft was that even army rations were, quote, pay and food exceeding for the final wages, end quote. It appeared to the military power that only one third of the eligible men could be used due to widespread physical debilitation from disease and malnutrition. Still, America's quote, war to save democracy was off to a good start. The war further accelerated the trend towards settler reunification. The stormy conflicts between settlers in the 1930s had a healing effect, like joining a swollen wound. The war completed the process. Fascist and, quote, communist, liberal and conservative alike all joined hands to follow their bourgeoisie in the battle. In one small Catalonia town, the press discovered that the first man in line to register for the draft was James Ramon Chiaretta, a veteran of Mussolini's fascist flashers, who proudly told everyone that he was now 100% American. The impact of America's entry into the war snapped the Italian and German communities right at the line. The Italian American petty bourgeoisie had been both loyally pro U.S. imperialism and pro fascist Italy. Up to Pearl Harbor, 80% of the Italian community newspapers had been pro fascist, with almost every Italian store in New York having a prominent picture of the Italian dictator Mussolini. Only the radical political exiles, most of the trade unionists who fled away just ahead of lashers, were only anti fascist. But once the U.S. Empire declared war on the Axis, every Italian newspaper became quote, anti fascist overnight. Every Italian was now quote, 100% American. In recognition, the Chinese citizens in the U.S. were removed from the quote, enemy alien category by President Roosevelt on Columbus Day, 1942. 
This was known to promote war, sharply increased attacks on the national press. This was one of the major social trends of the war period. While the tightened depression of the Puerto Rican masses was a policy of imperialists, these attacks came from all classes and sectors of society, from top to bottom. On the West Coast, the settler petty bourgeoisie, primarily farming interests and small merchants, used settler chauvinism and adaptation of Japanese as members of a rival imperialist power to plunder and completely remove the Japanese population. Just as the Chinese had robbed and driven out of mining, agriculture, and industry in the 19th century, so now Japanese were driven As everyone knows, some 110,000 of us were forcibly relocated into concentration camps by the U.S. government in 1942. Settler rule had restricted and handed Japanese labor into the national minority economy of socialized agriculture, wholesale and food distribution, and domestic labor. In 1940, these three categories accounted for 84% of all Japanese land. But even this little was too much for the settler petty bourgeoisie on the West Coast. But even this little was too much for the settler bourgeoisie on the West Coast. The Euro Americans not only wanted the Japanese removed as competitors, but they wanted to take over and quote, annex the agricultural business so painstakingly built up by the Japanese farmers. The typical Japanese farm was very small, averaging only 42 acres each, less than one fifth of the average size of the Euro American farms in California. But these intensely developed lands, which comprise only 3.9% of California's farmland, produced fully 42% of the state's fresh fruit and vegetables. The settler farm lobby wanted our business, which was too valuable to be left to be quote, jazz. Austin B. Hansen, representative of the Sugar Grower Association of Salinas, told the public, quote, We're charged with wanting to get rid of the jazz for selfish reasons. We might as well be honest, we do. End quote. Through their political influence, these interests got U.S. Senator Hiram Johnson to pull together the West Coast Congressional Delegation as a block and push through the concentration camp program. By military order, enforced by the U.S. Army, the whole Japanese population was forced to leave or sell and give away prices all we had houses, land, businesses, cars, refrigerators, tools, furniture, etc. The Federal Reserve Bank loosely estimated the direct property loss alone at $400,942,000. The real loss was in the many billions and in lives. It was no loss of settlers who ended up with much of it. West Coast settlers have fasted time, celebrating the start of their war, like really up at $400 million in quote, Jap property. It was a gigantic garage sale held at gunpoint. This was just an early installment in settler prosperity for World War. For Hawaii, a U.S. colony right in the middle of Asia, no such simple solution was possible. Early government discussions on removing and incarcerating Japanese population quickly floundered. Over under the working population average Japanese, and without their labor, the island's economy might break down. The U.S. Army said that, quote, the labor shortage made a matter of military necessity to keep the people of Japanese blood on the islands, end quote. Army and Navy officers proposed that the Japanese be kept at work there for the U.S. Empire, but treated, quote, as citizens of an occupied foreign country, end quote. Picture of a Burmese sign reading, quote, slap the Japanese iron strap. The patriotic American war spirit can shield itself into the usual racist forms. Chinese were encouraged to wear self protective blankets or reading, quote, I'm no Jap, to avoid being lynched. The Kulin dominated Chinese communities were lauded by settlers as now, quote, good Asians. Life ran an article on, quote, how to tell your friends from the Japs. The Chinese expression is likely to be more placid, kindly open, the Japanese more positive, dogmatic, errant. Chinese walk safely erect, Chinese more relaxed, sometimes shovel, end quote. Of course, these imaginary differences only express the settler code, where hostile or just victimized Asians were, quote, bad, whereas those they thought more submissive who, quote, shuffle, were temporarily, quote, good. Every effort was made to whip up settler and hatred, an easy task. The things that were in film, quote, My Japan, produced by the Defense Department, opens to an actor portraying a Japanese soldier bayoneting a baby, with a commentary that all Japanese, quote, like to kill babies. German fascist propaganda of the quote, racial crimes of the Jews was no more bizarre than American propaganda for its own war effort. The Euro American working class, now reinforced by unions and the New Deal, brought the war quote, home themselves in a massive wave of quote, hate strikes. These were strikes whose only demand was the blocking of African employment or promotion. They were a major feature of military industrial life in the war period, a reaction to increased wartime employment on Africans by US imperialism. In the auto industry, which was the heart of war production, the quote, hate strikes started in October 1941. There were 12 major such strikes in auto plants just in the first six months of 1943. Dodge, Hudson, Packard, Curtis Wright, Tinkin Axel, and many other plants witnessed these the UAW-CIO and the Detroit NAACP held a quote, brotherhood rally in Detroit's Cadillac Square to counteract the open segregationist movement. That rally drew 10,000 people. But shortly thereafter, 25,000 Packard workers went out on quote, H-Strike for five days. An even bigger strike, staged by UAW Local 190, brought 39,000 settler auto workers to stop the threatened promotion of four Africans. These quote, H-Strikes took place coast to coast in a wave that hit all industries. In Baltimore, Bethlehem Steel's Sarah's Point plant went out in July 1943. In that same area, a major Western electric plant was so solidly closed down by its December 1943 H-Strike that the US Army finally had to take it over. The same thing happened when Philadelphia Municipal Transit Workers closed down the city for six days in August 1944. The block of 5,000 U.S. Army troops were needed to get trains going again. The U.S. government calculated that just in the spring of 1943 alone, the U.S. government calculated that just in the three spring months of 1943 alone, some 2.5 million man-hours of industrial production were lost in hate strikes. Mob violence against the oppressed was another war phenomenon, particularly by Euro-American servicemen. They now constituted an important temporary shroud in settler life, drawn together by the millions and organized into large units and bases. Attacks by settler sailors, marines, and soldiers on Chicago Mexicanos, Africans, and Asians on the West Coast grew larger and larger in 1943. The climax came in the, quote, Zuzu riots in East Los Angeles on the night of June 2nd through 7th. They were so named because the Euro Americans were infuriated that the, quote, hip clothing styles of Chicago Mexican youth expressed disrespect for, quote, American culture. Groups of settler servicemen would beat up and cut off the clothing of Chicago Mexican men. 
The June 7th climax involved thousands of settler GIs, who, with the protection of the Los Angeles police and their military commanders, invaded the barrio, destroying restaurants and taking movie theater goers captive. Street cars were seized, and one African who was pulled off and both eyes cut out. Finally, the social chaos and the intensely angry way of anti-U.S. feeling in Mexico grew so large that the U.S. military ordered their troops to stop. Soon, incidents took place throughout the U.S. Sailors from the Naval Armory near Detroit's Nell Isle Park joined thousands of other settlers in attacking Africans, resulting in a citywide fighting of 1843 Detroit Race Riot. Only five Africans and nine settlers were killed, and many hundreds seriously wounded. The growing African resistance and community self there was also seen in the August 1st, 1943 Great, quote, Race Riot. Oppressed communities in the major areas had now grown so large that ordinary sudden mob attacks were less and less successful. The New Deal didn't need the northern industrial cities burning with insurrection, and so moved to, quote, cool things. Bourgeois historians in writing about various small class offenses on the home front invariably relate to the, quote, tension and uncertainty of the war. But these government attacks and repressions were not random explosions of, quote, tension. They had a clear direction. It is easy to see this by contrasting the above events to the treatment of the thousands of German POWs brought to the U.S. after their defeat in North Africa. These enemy soldiers met no mob lamps or other attacks from, quote, tense Euro-Americans. In fact, the German prisoners were widely treated with hostility and respect by Euro-Americans, and fed and housed by settlers. Many were let out on, quote, workplace to join the civilian U.S. economy, with some even going off on their own to live on small Midwestern family farms. While overseas, they were enemies. Here in America, they became honorary settlers, since they were fellow citizens. While overseas, they were enemies. Here in America, they became honorary settlers, since they were fellow citizens of European imperialist powers, in contrast to colonial subjects. Literally, captured Nazi officers were freer than Alcus Bedius Babos or the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. One African in the U.S. Army wrote about how his unit was sent in 1942 to open Smoky Hill on the airfield in Salinas, Kansas. They discovered, to no surprise, that they were barred from the town's movie theater, the hotels, restaurants, and grills, and so on. Their only real surprise came when they saw a restaurant serving 10 German prisoners with, quote, the distinctive high-peaked caps of Ronald's Armored Corps. No guard knew with them, end quote. The owner of the restaurant rushed over to remind them that no Africans were allowed inside. Nazi soldiers ran far above African GIs, as far as were concerned. The, quote, race riots were the war, just on the, quote, home front. This was not the only development in the relationship between the U.S. Empire and the National Empress. Underneath the violent surface, not separated from the violence, but drawing power from it, there grew a trend of neocolonialism within the U.S. Empire. End of chapter 8. Settlers by Jason Guy. Chapter 9. Neocolonial Pacification in the U.S. Section 1. Forcing, quote, democracy on Native Americans. We don't have to look across the world to confront neocolonialism, since some of the most sophisticated examples are right here. The New Deal reforms on Native American reservations during the 1930s are a classic case of neocolonial strategy. The U.S. Empire has always had such a problem with the Indian nations, and that their very ways of life were often communistic. As the U.S. Missionary of Asian Affairs said in 1838, quote, common property and civilization cannot coexist, end quote. The U.S. government enacted a genocidal campaign to erase Indian culture, including prison schools for Indian children, suppression of Indian institutions, economy, and religion. And still, the Indian nations and peoples survived, resisted, endured. And AIM Conrad has pointed out. Beginning of very long quote. The founding fathers of the United States equated capitalism with civilization. They had to, given their mentality. To them, civilization meant their society, which was a capitalist society. Therefore, from the earliest times, the wars against Indians were not only to take over the land, but also to squash the threatening example of Indian communism. Jefferson was not the only man at the time to advocate imposing a capitalistic and possessive society on Indians as a way to civilize them. The quote bad example was a real threat. The reason the East Indian nations are to New York State and the Atlantic to Ohio and Louisiana are today so richly mixed is because indentured servants, landless poor whites, escaped black slaves, chose our societies over white society that oppressed them. Beginning in the 1890s, we have been red-baited and branded as communists in Congress, see congressional record, and in the executive boards of churches. That was a very strong weapon in the 1920s and 30s. And in the Oklahoma area, any Indian, quote, traditional, who was an organizer, was called a communist or even a, quote, wally. So we have always defined our struggle, not only as a struggle for land, but also a struggle to retain our cultural values. Those values are communistic values. Our societies were and are communistic societies. The U.S. government has always understood that very well. It has not branded us all these years as communists because we tried to form labor unions or because we hung out with the IWW with the Communist Party, but because the U.S. government correctly identified our political system. It did not make that a public issue because that would have been dangerous, and because it would have been far more efficient to say that we are savages and primitive. End quote. Not only did the Indian nation resist, but this resistance included the determined refusal of many Indians to give out their collective land. This rejection of capitalism was a hindrance to the oil corporations, the mineral interests, and the ranchers. Characteristically, the New Deal decided, in the words of the U.S. Commissioner of the Affairs, that, quote, the Indian, if given the right opportunities, could do what the government failed to do. He could arrange a place for himself and his customs in this modern America. End quote. The New Deal pacification program for reservations was to give Indians capitalistic, quote, democracy and, quote, self-government. Under the direction of the U.S. government, bourgeois democratic, i.e. undemocratic, quote, tribal governments were set up, with settlerist, quote, tribal constitutions, paid elected officials, and new layers of Indian civil servants. In other words, Indians would be given their own capitalistic reservation governments to do from within, with the settler conquest had been completely unable to succeed at from the outside. This neocolonial strategy was led by a young liberal anthropologist, John Collier, who had been appointed U.S. Missionary of the Affairs in 1903 to reform the reservation system. Unlike the openly hostile and repressive pronouncements of his predecessors, Collier spoke sweetly of how much he respected Indian culture and how much Indians should be, quote, free to change themselves. Any words indeed, covering up for a new salt. Beginning quote. 
In the past, the government tried to encourage economic independence and initiative by the allotment system, giving each Indian a portion of land and the right to dispose of it. As a result, of the 138,000 acres which Indians possessed in 1887, they have lost all the 47,000 acres, and the lost area includes the land that was most valuable. Further, the government sought to give the Indian the schooling of whites, teaching him to despise his old customs and habits as barbaric. We have proposed, in opposition to such policy, to recognize and respect Indian as he is. We think he must be so accepted before he can be assisted to become something else. End quote. There's a smooth talk of the welfare administrator and the colonial official in those words. Notice that the old law gave Indians only one, quote, right, the right to sell their land to the settlers. Having worked that strategy to its limits, the U.S. Empire now needs to switch strategies in order to keep exploiting the rest of the reservation lands. Now Washington proposed as a protector of Indian culture in order to change Indians into, quote, something else. Officially, Indian culture would become another respected, quote, ethnic remnant, like St. Patrick's Day parades, that would add, quote, color to settler society. But instead of Indian sovereignty, culture, economy, and national development, quote, tribal government was local government according to the rules of capitalist culture. It was a partial reorganization of reservation life to capitalism. The 1934 Wheeler Power Act, repeal of the 1887 Allotment Act, authorized elections to pass new, quote, tribal constitutions to set up the new Indian colonial reservation governments, establish a 10 million dollar loan fund to support new governments, and officially gave Indians preference for employment within the U.S. Indian Service. The campaign to twist Indian arms to accept this new arrangement was very heavy. U.S. Commissioner Collier himself admitted that the while government had power to force the reservations to accept these bourgeois governments. For the strategy to work, at least some number of Indians had to be persuaded to voluntarily get in. Large numbers of Indians were hired to work in the Indian Service, their numbers reaching 40% of the total employees by 1935. 19,000 Indians were hired to work in various federal programs, while an additional 14,000 worked in the civilian conservation or relief camps. Close to 20% of all adult Indians were temporarily employed by the government. The distrust and resistance were considerable. The New York Times commented, quote, This difficulty has been recognized after the creation of the Indian Office of an organizational unit of field agents and special men who will cooperate with tribal councils, business committees, and special tribal missions in framing the constitutions now permitted. End quote. Still, some 54 reservations, with 85,000 Indians, voted against the new, quote, tribal governments. History has proved the main function of the new colonial reservation governments has been to lease away, usually at party prices, the mineral, grazing, and water rights to the settlers. Great amounts of natural resources are involved. A very conservative Euro American estimate said, quote, Indian lands are estimated to contain up to 13% of the nation's coal reserves, 3% of its oil and gas, and significant amounts of other minerals, including uranium and phosphate. End quote. Instead of the old practice of individual sale of small plots of land, which would be locked by Indian refusal to sell, the new capitalistic, quote, tribal governments signed wholesale mineral rights leases with major corporations. The Navajo, quote, tribal government, led by the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, signed leases as late as the 1960s that gave away Navajo coal for a mere 2% of its market value. So the impact of the 1930s, quote, self-government reforms was to set up the economic exploitation of Indian nations. At Pine Ridge, the Sioux families were encouraged to enter subsistence farming and move off their land and into government built housing projects, and then lease their, quote, useless land to the settler businessmen. Those Euro American ranchers pay an average of $3 per acre each year to possess Indian land, far cheaper than buying it. While the Sioux who insist on staying on their land are deliberately denied water, electricity, seed, and livestock, so it's pressure them to leave their land, the Euro American ranchers who use Indian land receive constant government aid and subsidies. Control the land and its resources still remain a steady preoccupation to the settler empire. Even most of the food production of Indian nations is taken by settlers. In 1968, the Bureau of Indian Affairs said that the reservations produced then $170 million annually in agriculture, hunting, and fishing. Of this total, the BIA estimated that Indians only consumed $20 million worth, while receiving another $16 million in rent. 75% of the total reservation food production was owned by settlers. U.S. imperialism literally created bourgeois Indian governments on reservations to give it what it wanted and to disrupt from within the national culture. These are governments led by Dick Wilson's and Pete McDonald's, of Ellens, whose capitalistic ideology and income was tied to collaboration with the larger capitalist world. It is also telling that those professional Indians whose well-being is dependent on foundation grants and government programs, such as Wayne Delorean Jr., author of the best-selling book, Custer Died for Your Sins, praise the Collier Organization of the 30s as the best thing that ever happened to them. When Native Americans overcome the new colonial rule and assert their sovereignty against U.S. imperialism, as AIM has, then the fixed ballot box is reinforced by assassination, frame-ups, and even massive military repression. The U.S. military moved in 1972 to prop up the new colonial Dick Wilson regime at Pine Just as in Zaire, the new colonial Mobutu regime had to be rescued in both 1977 and 1978 by airborne Settlers. Chapter 9. Section 2. The Rise of the African Nation. Quote. The white boss man said he was making a war on them and was going to take the government, but we was organizing for red. One of the Campbell, one of the Campbell, Alabama sharecropper defendants, 1931. End quote. The new African national struggle moved decisively into the modern period during the 1920s and 30s. It was a key indication of the development that thousands of African communists took up liberation struggle in those years. Years in which many African workers and intellectuals dedicated themselves to the goal of an independent and socialist African nation. The masses themselves intensified their political activities and grew increasingly nationalistic. In this period, nationalism started visibly shouldering aside all their political tendencies in the struggle for the elites of the oppressed African masses. Armed self-defense activities spread among masses. This was a critical time in the rise of the African nation, and a critical time, therefore, for U.S. imperialism. There is an incorrect tendency to confine the discussion of African nationalism in the 1920s and 30s to the well-known Garvey movement, as though it was the sole manifestation of national consciousness. The Garvey movement, whose specific impact we shall cover at a later point, was at the point of the emerging politics of the African nation, 
in labor, in national struggle, in struggle for land, in culture, in raising people of socialism, in all areas of political life, a great explosion of previously pent-up national consciousness took place among Africans in the 1920s and 30s. It was a time of major political offenses and of embryonic nation-building. This outbreak of militant African anti-colonialism did not go unnoticed by the U.S. Empire. Even outside the national territory itself, U.S. imperialism was increasingly concerned about this activity. One 1930s report on, quote, radicalism among the Negroes noted, beginning of long quote, the place of the Negro as a decisive minority in the political life in America received increased attention during the early post-war years. The Department of Justice issued a 27-page report on radicalism and sedition among Negroes as reflected in their publications. And the New York State Lust Committee, the investigation of seditious activities, published a complete chapter in its report entitled Radicalism Among Negroes. The general anti-labor, anti-radical offensive of government employers was also a level at trade union and radical activities of the Negro people. First time, censorship of Negro periodicals became so complete that even the mildly liberal magazine Crisis of the NFL, LACP, edited by W.E.D. Du Bois, was held up in the malls during May 1919. In August 1918, the editors of, quote, The Messenger, the African trade magazine of April Randolph, were jailed for three days, and second-class mailing privileges were denied to the magazine. End quote. A picture. Marcus Mosiah Black National Leader of the 1920s, is led to prison. The revisionists in general, and the Euro-American quote left, in particular, have falsely portrayed the African people within the U.S. Empire as having no independent revolutionary struggle at that time, but only a, quote, civil rights struggle. Falsely, they picture African labor and African socialism as only existing as, quote, minority parts of the Euro-American labor and social democratic movements. While the history of African politics lies far beyond the scope of this paper, it is necessary to briefly show why U.S. imperialism was threatened by African anti-colonialism in the 1920s and 30s. What is central to grasp is the revolutionary nationalist character of African political trends. In 1921, the African Blood Brotherhood, ABD, the first modern African communist organization in the U.S. Empire, was formed in New York City. Defining itself as a, quote, revolutionary secret order, the ABD raised the goal of liberating and bringing socialism to the African nation in the Black Belt South. The Brotherhood soon claimed 2,500 members and 56, quote, posts throughout the empire. Most of these were Belarians, as were the Guardian and activists, miners in Virginia, railroad workers in Chicago, government workers in New York, etc. These African communists focused heavily on education work and on, quote, immediate protection purposes, organizing armed self-defense units against the AKK rival of sweeping the empire. Soon, the police and press spotlighted the Brotherhood as the supposed secret organizers of African armed activity during the Tulsa, Oklahoma, quote, riots. The birth of modern African communism within the U.S. empire was the most clear-cut European evidence that the African nation started to rise. It was significant that this new organization of African communists, without hesitation, proclaimed the goal of socialism through national liberation and independence. The existence of a socialist-minded vanguard naturally implied that at the base of that peak, the masses of Africans were pushing upwards, awakening politically, creating new possibilities. Much of the present written accounts of African politics in this period centers around the events in the refugee communities of the North, the Quartarum Renaissance, tennis organizations fighting evictions in the Chicago Ghetto, African participation in union drives in Cleveland and Detroit, and so on. All these struggles and events were indeed important parts of developing political awareness. But they were not the whole of what was happening. The intensity and full scope of the African struggle can only be accurately seen when we also see the southern region of the U.S. Empire, and particularly the national territory itself. There, under the terroristic armed rule of the the African Revolution started to develop despite the most very difficult conditions. While Euro-American trade unionism has always tried to restrict African labor's political role, no propaganda could change the basic fact that in the South, African labor was a primary factor in labor struggles. Notice that we say that African labor was the primary factor, not minority, partners, not passive students, owing the lead of Euro-American trade unionism, and certainly not just supporters of white trade unionism. In the South, African labor was a leading force for class struggle. But that class struggle was part of the new African liberation struggle. Starting in the early 1920s, African labor in the South struck out in a remarkable series of union organizing struggles. This was part of the same explosion of African consciousness that also produced the Guardian movement, the great breakthroughs in African culture, and the African movement. These things were not completely separate, but limited expressions of the same historic political upheaval of the whole across African nation. When we think about the early organizing struggles of the United Mine Workers Union in the Southern Appalachian Gold Fields, we are left to picture in our minds, quote, four white, hillbilly miners walking picket lines with rifle in hand. This is just more settlers' propaganda. The fact is that modern unionism in the Southern Appalachian Gold Fields came from a, quote, black thing, manned, launched, and led by African workers in their 1920s political explosion. In both the initial 1908 strike and the 1920-21 strikes in the Alabama Gold Fields, the majority of strikers were African. In fact, in the main, 1920-1921 strikes, fully 76% of the striking miners were African. Those were African strikes. Much of the severe anti-unionism and violent repression strikes in the 1920s South was linked by imperialists to the need to stop the rising Africans. Even outside of Alabama, the coal miners' union often depended on African struggle. One African miner, who worked in the mines of Mercer County, West Virginia, for 43 years, recalled, quote, The white man was scared to join the union first around here. The black man took up the organizing jobs and set it up. We went into bushes and met in secret, and we had all the key offices. A few of the white miners would sit around and come to our meetings. After they found out that the company was going to run away, why they began to appear more often. And quite naturally, when they became the majority, they elected who they wanted for their presidents, vice presidents, and treasurers. They left a few jobs as secretaries for Negroes. But at the beginning, most of all the main offices in the locals were held by Negroes. End quote. The offensive was not merely about job issues, but was a political outbreak spread among African workers in general. In 1919, thousands of African workers in the South formed the National Brotherhood Workers, a common African workers' union centered on the dock, shipyard, and railroad workers in Norfolk and Newport News, Virginia. In 1923, African postal workers in Washington, D.C. formed their own union, the National Alliance of Postal Employees. This offensive of African labor advanced throughout the 1920s and 1930s. In the mines, in the Birmingham steel mills, on the docks, 
power in the South of Africa lay completely unchanged. So much information about these struggles, so much of the story has been obscured and put aside. The role of Akhalayer in changing the empire in those years was much larger than most believe. This is no accident, but the main sources for U.S. labor history have been the various works of the Euro-American folk left. These works all have common and a fascination chauvinism. In this regard, such supposedly conflicting, quote, left writings, as the CDUSA's labor's untold story by Boyer and Ray, the Weather Underground Organization's Prairie Fire, the simplest labor history book Strike by J. Brecker, or the Red Papers of the Revolutionary Union, now RCP, all commit the same distortions. The revisionists take apart in their mishistory what was one great tidal wave of anti-colonial rising by oppressed Africans. The pieces of history are then scattered, so it's the no visible sign of the giant stature of that African development. Some pieces are, quote, leached, stripped of their national character, and annexed by the Euro-American rivals as part of their own history. The history of African industrial workers in the north of the state. Some pieces, such as the militant share of struggle and the leading role of African coal miners in Appalachian South, have been buried. Matters as a whole are distorted to shrink the African story. To take one example, the struggle around the South Road boys, the African teenagers running for allegedly raping two girls, is always brought up. All the widespread excitement and unity in the 1930s over the defense cases of armed Africans who fought their separate oppressors is never mentioned. This is just part of the general distortion of the emphasizing the intense rising in the African South itself and its national character. Indeed, many of the most widely used black studies texts, such as the Gracie, Meyer, and Ludwig, Black Nationalism in America, or Huggins, Gilson, and Fox, key issues in the African experience, assure us that by 1930, Africans in the U.S. have lost interest in nationalism. Nationalism, they tell us, was just a passing phase back then. On the contrary, we must underline the fact that the struggle of African labor were and are part of the global history of the entire African nation, and can only be correctly understood in that context. Those African labor struggles were far more important than we've been told. In the major 1936 U.S. Seaman strike, for example, Africans sailors played the decisive role in reaching victory. That was a strike that finally won union rights on all East Coast U.S. shipping. Led by Ferdinand Smith, the Jamaican socialist who was vice president of the National Maritime Union, and MUCIO, the 20,000 African seamen, who were the majority of the workers in the shipping industry of the Southern and Gulf Coast ports, shut down the ports completely until the employer gave in. African labor was gathered in a mighty force in the South, on its own national territory. The colonial contradictions became most intensified when these people's struggles caught fire in the cotton fields, among the great oppressed mass of African tenants and sharecroppers. There, the raw nerve of the Euro American occupation was touched, since the struggle was fundamentally overland. Revisionism has tried in its history to picture these sharecropper struggles as minor conflicts in a backward sector of agriculture, allegedly marshaled the main arena of struggle with oil, steel, and the rest of northern heavy industry. The sharecropper and tenant struggles were central, however, because they involved the main laboring force of the African nation, and because they were fought over land. That's why these struggles were fought out at point. The African sharecroppers and tenant farm struggles did not and could not take the public mass dimensions of northern Union organization. Smoldering under the heavy-handed rule of separate occupation, the African plantation struggles would suddenly break the surface in an intense complication. While the issues were couched in forms of pay, rest hours, tenant rights, etc., the underlying issue of contention was the imperial slavery of colonial oppression. Unlike the industrial struggles in the coal mines or steel mills, the African struggle on the land immediately and directly from the very fabric of Euro-American society in the South. For that reason, they were met by unrestrained settler violence, backed up by the imperial state. In July 1931, the U.S. Empire was electrified by the news that a secret organization of African sharecroppers had been uncovered in Camp Hills, Alabama. Even worse, from the settler viewpoint, was the fact that these sharecroppers had engaged in a shootout with a local sheriff and his landed deputies. At a time when an African man of the South would take his life in his hands and just raise his voice to a local settler, this outbreak created a separate camp throughout the colony, especially when it came down to the sharecroppers that brought in African communist organizers. The Alabama Sharecroppers Union had begun secretly organizing in Tallapoosa County in May 1931. Within a month, they had gathered over 700 members. Under separate colonial rule, this center was, of course, conspiratorial. Members were not only pledged to secrecy, but sworn to execute any African who betrayed a struggle to the settlers. Nevertheless, it was felt necessary to risk security in order to rally sentiment behind the client strike. Weekly mass meetings were begun, as secretly as possible, at nights in a local church. But these sirens had alerted the police forces. At the Sharecroppers' second mass meeting on July 15, 1931, the gathering was discovered and attacked by armed settlers. Tallapoosa and County Sheriff Young and the forces of deputies broke into the right at the beginning, beating and cursing. Only the drawn gun held by the chairman of the meeting allowed people to escape. The next night, after a feverish day of gathering settler reinforcements, Sheriff and a large group of 200 armed settlers went on, quote, night riding to prevent the planned African meeting and to assassinate leaders. The settlers first targeted Ralph Gray, one of the most militant sharecroppers and one of the main organizers. Gray, who had been out on guard that night, was shot down without order by the settlers as soon as he let him Badly wounded, he told his compatriots that he had a shotgun at the enemy, but had become too weak to reload and continue fighting. The settlers now left, satisfied that Gray had been cut off. Hours later, hearing that a wounded sharecropper had been brought home by car, still alive, the settlers regathered and attacked his house. Gray was killed, and his white head was fractured by beating. But a defense guard of Africans in the nearby field sniped the invading settlers. Sheriff Young was, quote, critically wounded, and the deputy was also shot. This unexpected organized resistance by Africans pushed the settlers into a frenzy of counterinsurgency. Taff Holmes, one of the arrested sharecroppers, said after his release, quote, they blew up the car, they were brought home then. They arrested people wherever they found them, at home, in a store, on the road, anywhere. All the white bosses was a sheriff that day, and whenever they seen a colored man, they arrested him and beat him up. I was going to jail Friday evening. The boys were putting Friday morning was beat up bad to make up tell, but none of them pulled. End quote. Even those mass arrests, general terrorism, and killings failed to break the African struggle on land. We can understand why when we look at Ralph Gray himself. His role in the struggle grew out of his own oppression, of his own rejection of the all embracing colonial occupation suffocating him. 
Brain called on his brothers and sisters to refuse the plantation labor, which was then prevailing wages in Tallahassee County. Fifty cents per day for African men, forty cents per day for African women. He and his wife would work over the state line in Georgia, where plantation wages were slightly higher, leaving the oldest son home to take care of the chickens and pigs. In effect, Gray had started a strike of African plantation labor, urging everyone to withhold their labor until the settlers raised wages. So, Sheriff Young smoked Gray out. He told Gray that he and his family had come out and chopped cob on the sheriff's farm. Obviously, Gray submitted that the attempted strike would be undercut. Gray refused. Then, Gray had a fight with his landlord. While Gray's owned their own shack, they had to rent farmland from the local mail carrier, Miss Langley. Incidentally, this was very common. Not only the planters and middle classes, but even the quote, working class settlers in the African colony were bosses over the African colonial subjects. Many landless settlers themselves rented farmland from the banks and the planters, which they then had worked by African sharecroppers or day laborers. While African sharecroppers were, in theory, eligible for New Deal farm loans for seed and fertilizer, the common practice in the South was for settler landlords to just take the money. When Ralph Gray's check arrived, his landlord, who was also opposing him, had him sign it under pretext that he delivered it to the bank for Gray. Of course, the settler just had the money himself. Gray finally waited for Langley in the mailbox, and they got off his light. Gray was a marked man because he was standing up. The colonial oppression was so suffocating that despite any dangers, the Ralph Gray's of the African nation were moving towards revolution. That's when the battle sharecroppers secretly broke away to communists and asked for their help. Africans were picking up a gun. That should tell us something about the even the fence trial of individual African sharecroppers who had resorted to arms continued to draw attention throughout this period. The Odell Wallace case in 1942 created newspaper headlines and demonstrations throughout the U.S. Empire. The Richmond Times Dispatch said, quote, The most celebrated case in Virginia criminal annals, Odell Wallace case, is being watched with interest by groups of whites and Negroes in every state of the union. Wallace shot and killed the settler landlord, who had seized the Lower family's entire wheat crop for himself. It is interesting that the landlord, Oscar Davis, was not a landlord, but a poor white who had African sharecroppers were part of his representative for him. In the Wallace case, the New York Times editorial called for meeting his execution on tactical grounds. Quote, the fate of other people in our country is deeply involved in what happens to Odell Wallace. Our enemies would like to break down this faith. If Governor Darden grants desired communication, he will be holding his country's reputation on all dark-skinned and Western peoples. End quote. Waller was executed. In these defense cases, the connection to larger environmental issues was readily apparent. In the T. Davis defense case in Edison, Arkansas, right across the river from Memphis, Tennessee, in 1943, the African tenant farmer was sentenced to 10 years in prison for defending his family's house against settlers breaking in. Allegedly searching for stolen goods, the freshly deputized settlers were harassing African families. When Davis refused to open his door to an unidentified white man, a settler deputy started breaking it down. When he quote deputy kicked in the bottom of the door, T. Davis started shooting them. Shooting, when he quote deputy kicked in the bottom of the door, T. Davis started shooting through the door to scare them off. That harassment was not just something racism. But a campaign to drive Africans there off the land. That area in Crittenden County had been an African stronghold after the Civil War. Crittenden was the last county in Arkansas in the 19th century to have African sheriffs and county officials. That means itself was established as an all African town in that period, with the entire population, stores, real estate, and farmland being African. Finally, the planters managed to organize a major armed attack on the town. Many of the people were driven out, and the African leaders were deported from the state. Most of the African land and homes were stolen by the planters. Desiring only a limited number of Africans to work the occupied land as laborers, the local capitalists used terror to keep the population down and stop any Africans who tried to own land. It should be evident that behind these African sharecropper and tennis was the larger issue and the larger rising. Despite the savage counterattacks by the settler garrison, the African struggle refused to climb down. In Alabama, the 1931 mass arrests, terror, and assassinations failed to exterminate the sharecroppers' union. The next year, another shootout took place in Tallahassee County. On December 19, 1932, the plaintiff deputies killed four Africans in an attack on the organization. The pre-battle was so intense that the settler hackers were forced to withdraw after they ran low on ammunition. Four deputies were slightly wounded by African return fire. Five Africans were sentenced to 12 15 years in the state penitentiary for the shootout. As late as 1935, the Alabama sharecroppers' union was leading almost 3,000 cotton sharecroppers on a strike that had begun in bloody Lowndes County on August 19, 1935. Armed confrontations on a small scale were taking place throughout the South. There were, of course, many Euro-American sharecroppers and tenants as well in the South. Most of them were extremely poor, a poverty whose roots lay in the dipper on the feet of their border confederation. For them, the possible path of class conscious struggle was visible. A unique union, the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, was formed in Durant, Arkansas, in 1934, all this path. The SEFU was started by two Southern Euro-American social Democrats, H. L. Mitchell, who owned the Dry and Henry East, the gas operator. Their union involved many thousands of sharecroppers, tried several major strikes, and was notable in the upper rural South at that time for being heavily integrated. Briefly, the SEFU was even part of the National CIO, before splits between the Southern Radicals and Edward Houser. And had the same prominent role in official 1930 U.S. unionism that the Farm Workers Union, UFW, the SCFU failed politically because it could not resolve the relationship between oppressor and oppressed nations, could find no other basis for workers' unity other than reformism under oppressor nation domination. How Wendell really was on the land can be seen from incident in Oklahoma. SCFU leader H.L. Mitchell had gone during Oklahoma on organizing drive. Addressing a group of chocolate Indian farmers, Mitchell called on them to, quote, get organized by joining the SCFU. The child leader simply ended the discussion by saying, quote, Indian already organized. When white men and black men are ready to take back the land, we join them, end quote. The SCFU's integrationism was just an effort to harness and use the militancy of the African masses to fight battles over whites who not sustain themselves. The African tenants and sharecroppers were the hardcore strength of the SCFU, their steadfastness alone permitting enough organizations to hold together so that poor whites had something to point to. H.L. Mitchell, who always insisted on separate control of the union, himself had to admit that, quote, innovation moves were generally more successful against the whites than the Negroes. 
the latter have more sense of organization and value organization, a greater sense of solidarity. End quote. Even this social democratic union could not successfully absorb and tame the nationalist energy of the African members. The primary organizer for the SCFU in former years was the African vice president, the Reverend E.B. McKinney. McKinney related to the SCFU and his rival Euro-Americans only to the exact degree that he felt happened to their ideas as organization and global strength. This rural creature turned out to be both moderate-educated and most of the Saturday activists and an African nationalist. One historian remarks, quote, The women were wise, he was very conscious, having been influenced by Marcus Negro nationalism, and his people remained primarily the Negro Union members, end quote. Badly wounded by U.S. imperialism's terroristic counter blows, the African share power struggle in the late 1930s continued to search for new directions. As late as 1939, there was considerable agitation. That year, Reverend McKinney quit the SCFU in protest, saying that, quote, the Negro is the builder of the SCFU, end quote. All 13 African Union locals in Arkansas quit the SCFU and joined the rival CIO Union as a group. These African shareholders were trying to take advantage of Euro-American labor fashion and fighting, playing those factions off against each other, attempting to find a situation with the most resources and leverage for themselves. In January 1939, thousands of dispossessed landless African shareholders in southeast Missouri took to the highways in a major demonstration. They dramatized their demand for bread and land. The shareholders set up a, quote, tent city, lying the roadsides of the national highway. This protest, which lasted for months, caught empire-wide attention and was an early forerunner to the 1960s freedom marches and other such actions. It was a very visible sign of the struggle of Africans to resist leaving their lands, to resist imperialist dispossession. Practice showed the African share power and labor struggles not only had class character, but were part of a larger national struggle. They were anti-colonial struggles, having the goal of removing the of separation of African life and land. In this stirring, the African masses, rural as well as urban, share powers as well as steel were creating new forms of organization, trying mass struggles of various kinds, and taking steps for the revolution. Again, it is important to recognize the meaning of the reality that Africans were taking out the gun and raising the need for social liberation. This gradually developing struggle was against U.S. imperialism and had a revolutionary direction. In the 30s, African communism grew, taking root not only in the refugee ghettos of the North, but in the South as well. Primarily, this political activity to form within the Communist Party USA, which the ABD had joined. While we can recognize the CDUSA finally as a separatist party of revisionism, it is important to see that at the South at that time, the CDUSA was predominantly an underground organization of African revolutionaries. The CDUSA was accepted not only because of its labor and legal defense activities, but because in that period, the CDUSA was openly espousing independence to the African nation. Jose Hudson, an African steel worker who played a major role in the CDUSA in Alabama in the 1930s, points out that the party of his personal experience was in reality an African organization. Quote, Other than the years, in 1933 the party in Birmingham, Alabama, was dominated by Negroes. At one time, we estimated around Birmingham about six or seven hundred members. And the whole state of Alabama, it was considered about a thousand members. We have only a few whites, and only a few whites. End quote. So then the African nation, not just a small intellectual vanguard, not just a handful, but a significant number of Africans were illegally organizing for social revolution and national liberation. Hudson makes it plain that African communists to them have very explicit ideas about their eventually leading a free nation. Hudson makes it plain that African communists to them have very explicit ideas about their eventually leading a free and sovereign African nation in the South. Being a law quote. Our struggles around many outstanding issues in our party program in the whole South. One, full economic, political, and social equality of the Negro people, and the right of self-determination of the Negro people in the Black Belt. When we got together, we discussed and we read the Liberator. The party brought up the Liberator. It was always hearing something about the liberation of black people, something about Africa, something about the South, South Pro, etc., etc. We compare, we talk about the right of self We discuss the whole question of if we establish a government, what role we commonly play, about the relationship of white, of poor white, of farmers, etc. in this area. If you have a government in the South, they give you the right of self In the black belt, you've got whites there. What do you do with whites? We say whites will be recognized on the basis of their percentage, represented on all eyes and all committees, but the Negroes at all times will be a majority. End quote. It's revealing that at that time, when African communism had easily as much strength in numbers in the South as it did in the 1970s, they had a national program. The goal of national independence seriously made sense to grassroots. At that time, in the early 1930s, the overwhelming majority of African communists in the South were libertarians. As we go back to some of these of the new African story, we see even an incomplete outline that this struggle had even renewed itself and entered the modern period. The African proletariat has stood up, particularly in the South, and has spearheaded new national unionism campaigns, with or without the alliances of white workers. On the plantations, the masses were starting to organize. Spontaneous resistance to the settler colonial occupation was breaking out. The most political conscious of all these were non-communists, with African communists rapidly growing and taking on a vanguard role. Thousands of Africans stepped forward in those years to commit themselves to armed revolution, self-government through independence of the African nation and socialism. This was a program that won respect amongst African people, particularly in the South. The political rise of Africans had opened wide in those years. It is especially important to understand that masses of Africans view themselves as part of a world struggle, that their aims and concerns encompassed but went far beyond immediate economic issues. Nothing proved this more clearly than the spontaneous mass movement to support Ethiopia and its war against Italian imperialism. In October 1935, the Italian Empire invaded Ethiopia in a drive to expand its North African colonies, which at that time included Somalia, Eritrea, and Libya. The Italian imperialists were especially glad that had an invasion since they gave a chance to avenge a humiliating defeat at Odoa in 1896. Ethiopia was then, however, if you listed society, the only actually independent nation left in Africa. It had remained independent for the only possible reason, because it had repeatedly maintained its national integrity and had militarily repulsed European intrusions. The early Portuguese slavers had been off. Even when the Italian army, 40,000 soldiers armed with rifle and artillery, invaded Ethiopia in 1896, the Ethiopian nation defeated them. These Italian divisions were surrounded and wiped out at Odoa by a permanent 250,000 Ethiopian soldiers. 
the humble Italian Empire was forced after a to publicly recognize the Ethiopian borders and even to pay Ethiopian government heavy cash violations. So, in 1935, after some years of hard recorded order incidents, the Muslim invasion eagerly sent its anti-divisions and airplane squadrons slicing into Ethiopia. Africans within the U.S. Empire reacted instantly in a great uproar of anger and solidarity. Journalist Roy Oakley pointed out there had been, quote, no event in recent times that served the rank file of Negroes more than the Italo-Ethiopian War, end quote. It is important to grasp the whole exact significance of this political people. All over the African continent and in the, quote, new world, Africans were being oppressed by the European colonial powers. Why then did this one case call for such special attention on Africans in the U.S. Empire? Because in all the principle of national rights for Africans, the defense of African nationhood. Even the moderate political forces rallied around this most basic issue to the national interest. Even someone such as Walter White, the executive secretary of the NAACP, could angrily write, quote, Italy, brazenly, has set fire under the power tank of white arrogance and greed, which seems destined to become an act of suicide, the so-called white world, end quote. At his 1935 national mention, the NAACP assailed, quote, the imperialistic selfishness of all nations and their shameless aggression upon the sovereignty of our nations, end quote. The defense of African nationhood was primary in everyone's mind. Dr. L.K. Williams, president of the National Baptist Mission, told the mass rally, quote, we do not want to see the last black empire in Africa lose its independence and culture, end quote. The Fraternal Council of Negro Churches, representing the major African denominations, issued an official resolution saying, quote, Americans of African descent are deeply stirred in their attitudes and sympathies for Ethiopia, a Negro people, who represent almost the only remaining example of independent government by the black race on the continent of Africa, end quote. So concerns are broadly shared by the African nation as a whole, not just by some strata or some local sectors. The support movement took many forms. Clearly, the group of the National Association was the United Negro Improvement Association, UNIA. This was, we should recall, the same national organization that prominent Academic Historians now assure us was abandoned and unimportant at that time. Captain A.L. King, head of the UNIA in New York, was the chairman of the United African Support Committee. J.A. Rogers, the leading intellectual of the movement in the U.S., was the main propagandist and educator for the support movement. The African United Front Committee involved not only the UNIA and other national organizations, but the CUSA, church leaders, African college groupings, and so on. Within several months after the invasion, the Friends of Ethiopia had on six local branches both in North and South. There were mass church meetings, rallies, marches of thousands, and picket lines outside of government offices. The national character of the movement was underlined by the fact that virtually the last person Africans boycotted a well-funded and Euro-American run international relief efforts. The American Red Cross admitted that Africans refused to join the Ethiopian aid campaign. Africans insisted on their own, all African campaign, that's highly political. The political counterattack by U.S. imperialism struck at this point. Somehow, the rumor kept spreading that the Ethiopians thought themselves as, quote, Caucasian, and that they allegedly viewed Africans, most especially in the U.S. Empire, with contempt. There was a moralizing confusion from this rumor. To expose this lie, representatives of Ethiopia came to the U.S. At a packed parliament meeting of 3,000 at Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Jr.'s Baptist Church, Ethiopian envoy Tasse invoked the solidarity of oppressed African peoples. Quote, it is said that we despise Negroes. In the first place, you are not Negroes. Who told you you were Negroes? You are the sons and daughters of Africa, your motherland, which calls you now to aid or last surviving free black people. End quote. The volunteer movement arose spontaneously throughout the nation. Thousands upon thousands of Africans volunteered to go fight in Ethiopia. The Black Legion established a military training camp in rural New York, and its leaders urged Africans to prepare to renounce U.S. citizenship. While the quote, volunteer movement was blocked by U.S. imperialism, its popular nature shows how powerful were potential forces being expressed through the Ethiopian support issue. The two Africans from the U.S. Empire who did fight in Ethiopia, both fighter pilots, were heroes back home, whose adventures were widely followed by the African press. The conflict was fought in miniature on the streets of Jersey City, Brooklyn, and Harlem between Africans and rural fascist Italian immigrants. The night of August 11, 1935, over a thousand Africans and Italians fought the baseball bats and rocks on the streets of Jersey City. On October 4, 1935, the day after the main invasion began, thousands of Africans attacked Italian shops in Harlem and Brooklyn. On the streets, a massive ordinary Africans viewed their fight and the fight in Ethiopia as very close. It's indicated that in 1936, a late night street corner rally of the African Patriotic League called to protest Italian mass executions of Ethiopian patriots rapidly turned into an Italian police. Smashing Italian store windows, the crowd of 400 Africans marched down Lance Avenue in Harlem looking for a particular policeman who made a point of arresting nationalists. In the mass fighting with police that followed, the New York police started shooting after the determined crowd charged them to success. In the mass fighting with police followed, the New York police started shooting after the determined crowd charged them to successfully free one of their number who had been arrested. Ethiopia was closed home. The great outpouring of national sentiment accompanying the Ethiopian war was, we must emphasize, widespread throughout the U.S. Empire. One New Orleans resident wrote to Courier that the Ethiopian crisis proved that, quote, the time is here when the Europe began to look for higher things in life, a flag of his own, a government of his own, and complete liberty, end quote. This was the developing consciousness that so threatened U.S. imperialism. End of section 2. Settlers, chapter 9, section 3, to disrupt the nation. It was only against the rise of the African nation that we could see, in brilliant detail, how the U.S. empire will get at the net of counterinsurgency. We know the period that began around World War I and which continued through the 1930s, a period in which African nationalism militantly took hold of the masses, ended in the 1940s with the triumph of pro-imperialist integrationism as a dominant political philosophy in the African communities. The U.S. counterinsurgency was a hidden factor in this paradoxical outcome. In the Philippine War of 1898 to 1901, the U.S. Empire openly spoke of its counterinsurgency strategy. The same is true in Vietnam in the 1960s. But in the African colony of the 1930s, U.S. counterinsurgency was concealed. It was nonetheless real, nonetheless genocidal, or having been done without public announcements. It is when we view what happened in this life as components of a strategy of counterinsurgency, the political events suddenly come full focus. 
usually come from certain C and mostly principal components. 1. Violent suppression or extermination of revolutionary cadre and organizations. 2. Paralyzing mass struggle itself through genocide population recruitment. 3. Substituting pro imperialist bourgeois leadership and institutions for patriotic leadership and institutions within the colonial society. The terrorist expression of African militants in the South has been discussed, and in any case, should be well understood. What has been less discussed are other two parts. End of section. Settlers. Chapter 9. Session. Population recruitment. In Nazi Long's personality, the gorillas in the People's War are, quote, fish, while masses are the, quote, sea, that both sustains and conceals them. Population recruitment, in the CIA's terminology, strategy seeks to dry up that sea by literally uprooting the masses and destroying the whole social fabric of the oppressed nation. In Vietnam, the strategy resulted in widespread jungle poison of crops and forest land, the deepopulation of key areas, and the involuntary movement of one third of the total South Vietnamese population off their lands to, quote, protect the and refugee centers, i.e., CIA the CIA's reservations for Vietnamese. These blows only show how great an effort, what magnitude of resources, is expended on imperialist counterinsurgency. In response to growing political unrest, the U.S. Empire moved in extra to drive Africans off the land, out of industry, and force them into exile. The New Deal, President Franklin Roosevelt, the major banks and corporations, and the main American political and social organizations, unions, political parties, etc., worked together to destroy the economic base of the African nation, to separate Africans from their lands, and to thus destabilize and gradually depopulate the African communities in and adjacent to the national territory. One history of U.S. welfare programs notes, being a long quote. Many New Deal programs ran roughshod over the most destitute. Federal agricultural policy, for example, was designed to raise farm prices by taking land out of cultivation, and actually also to maintain farmers and sharecroppers out of the economy. The National Recovery Administration, seeking to locate organized employers and organized labor, permitted racial differentials in wages to be maintained. The Tennessee Valley Authority deferred to local prejudice by not hiring blacks. All this was done not unknowingly, but rather out of concern for building a broad base of new programs. It was left to FARA, Federal Emergency Relief Act, to support the casualties of the New Deal pragmatic policies. Since blacks got little from, or were actually armed by, most programs, 30% of the black population ended up on the direct relief rolls by January 1935. Just as 30% of South Vietnamese people were forced to make dependent on direct U.S. handouts in the 1960s in order just to eat, so 30% of the African people in the U.S. were similarly reduced by 1935. But not for long. That was only the first stage. In a second, relief was turned over to local planter governments, who proceeded to force Africans off their leaf rolls to drive them out of the region. That history of U.S. welfare continues. Being a quote. Under pressure from Southern Congressmen, any wording that might have been interpreted as ensuring the state's racial discrimination in welfare was deleted from the Social Security Act of 1935. The Southern states then proceeded to use the free hand they had been given to keep blacks off their rolls. End quote. It is important to see that Africans were not just victims of discrimination and blind economic circumstances, last hired, first fired, etc. Africans were the targets of imperialist media policy. We must remember that the archaic, parasitic Euro American capitalists were on the verge of final bankruptcy and literal dissolution in the early years of the depression. Further, despite the 1941 9 depression, there was in fact relatively little agricultural unemployment among Africans in the rich Mississippi River cottonland of Delta, the Kush, until the winter of 1933 34. Then these two facts were suddenly reversed. A picture. These agricultural workers paid $8 apiece to be driven by truck to a working at Bridge in New Jersey in 1942. The New Deal 1934 Agricultural Adjustment Act rescued the room planter capitalists, giving them cash subsidies so they could hold on to the land and continue serving as U.S. imperialism's overseers in the Africa South. But those U.S. imperialist subsidies literally gave the planters cash for each sharecropper and tenant family they forced off the plantation. The primary effect of them was forcibly destabilized and eventually depopulate the rural African communities. One 1935 valuation of the Chile program by the lawyer of the Southern Tenant Farmer Union pointed out, quote, before its passage, most of the plantations of the South were heavily mortgaged. It was really prophesied that the plantation system was breaking down under its own weight, and the great plantations would soon be broken up to small farms, owned by the people who cultivate them. But by federal aid, the plantation system of the South is more strongly entrenched than it had been for years. However, this is not the most significant effect of federal aid. By it, cotton acreage was reduced by about 40%, and something like 40% of the tenants were displaced. End quote. Footnote about the AAA. Interestingly enough, the 1934 AAA and the entire program was administered by FDR's Security of Agriculture, Henry Wallace. This name was later to become the darling of the CTUSA, and the 1948 presidential candidate of the CTUSA led, quote, Progressive Party. End footnote. This displacement was also taking place in factories, and even the coal field, where, as we noted in the previous session, African workers played a leading role in militant unionization. As the coal mines of the South gradually became unionized during the 1930s, African miners and their families were driven out by tens of thousands. The large coal companies and the United Mine Workers Union, UNWFCIO, while they had class differences, had a nation unity. The imperialists had decided to drive rebellious African labor out of the sun coal fields, and pro-imperialist CIO unions eagerly cooperated. Between 1930 and 1940, the percentage of African miners in the five southern Appalachian states, Alabama, Virginia, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Kentucky, was deliberately cut from 23% to 16%, and it would keep on being cut year after year, regardless of economic boom or bust. The drive by capital to strike down African labor, to force the colonial masses out of the main economy, intensified throughout the 1930s. Between 1930 to 1936, some 50% of all African steel workers were pushed out of their jobs. Careful observers at that time made the point that this was not caused by depression alone, but clearly reflected a strategy used by imperialism against the African nation as a whole. The W.E.B. Du Bois said in the main address of the 1933 Fisk University Medicine Ceremony, quote, We do not know that American Negroes will survive. There are sinister signs about us, and to seem to and unconnected with fear of depression. The organized mind of industry, north and south, is relegating the Negro to the edge of survival and using him as a labor reservoir on starvation wage. End quote. In the fields, tens of thousands of African farming during the 1930s were driven not only off land, but out of the south altogether. As we have seen, this was clearly not a result of, quote, blind economic circumstances. It was a genocide result of imperialist policy, as enacted by the most liberal settler administration in U.S. history. 
The social destruction and depopulation were no less significant for Africans than for other dispersed colonial peoples, such as Palestinians. The militant struggle on the land and the turn of African workers towards revolution was not only blunted by violent repression. Increasingly, the African masses were involuntarily dispersed, scattered into refugee camps of the northern ghettos, removed from established positions of industries and trades that were irreplaceable for the modern nation. It was not just a matter of dollars. Important as income is the oppressed, what was happening ravaged the national culture. The quote, sea of African society was stricken at a material base. End of section. Settlers, chapter 9, section 4. Neocolonialism and leadership. The U.S. Empire has a long and successful history of applying neocolonialism to hold down the oppressed. In Latin America and in New America during the 1800s, the U.S. Empire utilized neocolonialism prior to the advent of world imperialism. But in the 1920s and early 30s, U.S. imperialism's neocolonial instruments lost control over the African masses. In order to reestablish pro-imperialist leadership over African politics, U.S. imperialism had to forge new neocolonial instruments. These neocolonial instruments were not only traditional, but also radical and even socialistic in outward form, and had the social task of controlling the modern forces of African trade unionism and African socialism that have risen so widely. We should remember that the essence of neocolonialism is an outward form of national self-determination and popular democracy, and see one of submissive relationship with imperialism on the part of new bourgeois forces. As Amitabh Gabal pointed out almost 20 years ago concerning neocolonialism, beginning of quote, the objective of the imperialist countries was to prevent the enlargement of a socialist camp, to liberate the reactionary forces in our countries, which were being stifled by colonialism, and to enable these forces to ally themselves with the international bourgeoisie. The fundamental idea was to create a bourgeoisie where one did not exist, in order specifically to strengthen the imperialist and capitalist camp. End quote. The U.S. Empire had literally done exactly that in the 1870s. The neocolonial stage, known as Black Reconstruction, had qualitatively changed and enlarged the new African petty bourgeoisie. This class, even in defeat by the Euro-American planter capitalists, were to a degree held up and patronized by U.S. imperialism, and they retained their religion, their loyalty, and dependence on the federal government. Washington, D.C. was their mecca or Rome. Indeed, the federal government was for many years the prime employer of the African petty bourgeoisie. Many African politicians of the 19th century were consoled by federal patronage jobs for the lost glories of reconstruction. U.S. Senator Blanche Roos from Mississippi was the last African in ascent. When his term ended in 1881, Mississippi politics were back on planter control, and he was replaced. For his loyal example, the Empire awarded him the position in Washington of U.S. Register of the Treasury. For the next 32 years, that post would be reserved for loyal African leaders. Even Frederick Douglass was not immune to the ideological bent of his class. He was appointed U.S. Marshal for the District of Columbia, and later in his life was U.S. Consul to Haiti. Small wonder the former radical abolitionists spent years teaching how Africans should always remain loyal to the Republican Party, Northern Capital, and the federal government. By 1892, the federal offices in Washington employed some 1,500 Africans. While most of these jobs were asking women and low base clerks, a trickle of professional and official positions were reserved for hand-picked African petty leaders. Washington, D.C. was then the capital in exile of Africans, the center of, quote, Negro society. Some eight-year positions were status, but eventually were reserved for them. D.C. municipal judge, register of treasury, deputy register, assistant district attorney for D.C., auditor of the Navy Department, chief surgeon at D.C. Freedman's Hospital, collector of customs at Georgetown, and U.S. assistant attorney general. In 1913, a journalist later labeled these eight, quote, the Black Cabinet. But what began in jest was eagerly taken up by petty Africans in seriousness. The custom began regarding the, quote, Black Cabinet as the representatives to the U.S. government of the whole African population within the U.S. So, a petty bourgeois African national leadership had been created, which was, in fact, both employed by and solely picked by the imperialist government. At this time, the most prominent African in these circles, standing in reality even about the quote, black cabinet, was Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee Institute. Washington was viewed by imperialists as their chief African advisor, and served them as a leading propagandist and apologist for white supremacy and colonialism. In return, any African who saw position or funds from the imperialists had to be approved by him. During Theodore Roosevelt and Taft administrations, even the quote, black cabinet appointments were created first with him. Washington had great fame and, acting for the empire, some influence over African education, newspapers, community institutions, and so on. But of course, neither he nor the other imperialists like African leaders represented the world of masses. At the end of World War I, an anti-colonial movement of incredible vigor burst forth, seemingly almost overnight, that rejected both the U.S. Empire and bourgeois leadership that it had installed for Africans. This was a sort movement touched off and led by the Jamaican Marcus Harvey. Even as enemies conceded that the African masses were expressing their deep desires to disrupt this movement of African nationalism. The Carthy movement that was key in the early 1920s was a great outbreak of African political activity since the Civil War. It said that Africans could find their liberation in building a new modern African nation of their own back on the soil of the African continent. The proposed nation would eventually unite and protect Africans everywhere, in the U.S. Empire and the West Indies, as well as on the African continent itself. This new nation would expand to liberate all Africa from colonialism and unite into one continental African power. There, Africans would shape their own destinies in great industries, universities, agricultural cooperatives, and cultural institutions of their own. As a beginning for the day, Guardianism organized national institutions here in all spheres of life. However modest, these medical, religious, military, economic, and other organizations were designed to develop African self-reliance and national independence. If Guardianism suffered from practical shortcomings, nevertheless, its imposing sweep of vision expressed the burning national aspirations of the suppressed African peoples, and not only from the U.S., but worldwide. Picture of Booker T. Washington in his office at Tuskegee Institute, 1906. Guardianism's great contribution consisted of the fact that it raised eye for all to see a vision of African life that was completely self-reliant, built around their own national economy and culture, that waited on no European to accept them or quote, emancipate them. That was dependent solely on African energies and will. In this, Guardianism was expressing the strongest desires of the African masses. It is no accident that Guardianism and its successor, the Nation of Islam, were the two largest outbreaks of African activity and organization building within the continental empire of our century. Even such a self-admitted, quote, as Richard Wright, was profoundly moved by Guardianism in his youth. 
begin at long quote. The one who landed during those exploring days whose lives enthralled me was the Guardians, an organization of black men and women who were forlornly seeking to return to Africa. Theirs was a passionate projection of America, but they sensed with that of which only the simple are capable, that they had no chance to live a full human life in America. Their lives were not clear with ideas in which they could only half believe. They could not create illusions which made them think they were living when they were not. Their daily lives were too nearly harsh for a minute of camouflage. I understood their emotions, for I part shared them. The Guardians embraced a totally wishless outlook, which endowed them with a dignity that I had never seen before in Negroes. On the walls of their dingy flats were maps of Africa and India and Japan, pictures of Japanese generals and admirals, portraits of Mars Guardian and Bobby Regalia, the faces of other men and women from all parts of the world. I gave no credence to the ideology of Guardianism. It was, rather, the emotional dynamics of its appearance that evoked my admiration. Those Guardians I knew could never understand why I liked them, but would never follow them, and I pitied them too much to tell them they never achieved their goal. It was when the Guardians spoke fervently of building their own country, but someday living within the boundaries of culture and making, that I sensed a passionate hunger in their lives, that I caught a glimpse of the potential strength of the American Negro. End of quote. The Guardian movement's ambitious economic ventures, in particular the ill fated Black Star shipline, became centers of controversy. There is no doubt, however, that at the time they were often considered as very difficult but necessary steps for rapid progress. Even W.E.B. Du Bois of the NAACD, who was one of Guardian's favorite artists, or sworn as a quote, white man's leader, initially spoke out in favor of Guardian's program, but not personal leadership. Beginning of quote. The main lines of the Guardian plan are perfectly feasible. What he is trying to say and do is this American Negroes can, by accumulating and ministering their own battle, organize industry, join the black centers of the South Atlantic by commercial enterprise, and in this way ultimately redeem Africa as a fit and free home for black men. This is true, it is feasible. The plan is not original with Guardian, but he popularized it, made a living, global ideal, and swept thousands with him, with the intense belief in possible accomplishments of the ideal. End of quote. To the extent that Guardianism was naive about capitalism, which obviously it was, to the extent that Guardianism was naive about capitalism, which obviously it was, this was a state of development widely shared by its critics as well. Guardianism's weakness was that it saw in capitalism, the form of social organization of colonizer, the instruments that Africans would use to free themselves. So the essence of nation building was expressed in forms precisely parallel in those European society businesses, churches, black cross, etc. Guardians' predilection for Western titles of nobility, due to Nigeria, and full dress European court uniforms was less simple with this. While this made the concept of independent African nationhood instantly understandable, it also was a contradiction and a blind alley. Millions of Africans responded to call Guardians' United Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, read its new paper, The Negro World. Bought stock in its African business ventures, came out to meetings and rallies. In 1920, some 50,000 Africans marched in a mass UNIA rally in Harlem. Guardian claimed 4.5 million members of the UNIA. His critics charged that an examination of the UNIA's public financial reports revealed that Guardian had, quote, only 90,000 members, of whom, quote, only 20,000 were paid up at time and dues. The UNIA was so overwhelming that his critics tried to belittle it only by saying that it had, quote, only 90,000 members. The UNIA's international effect was very profound. Guardian reminds us that, quote, in the interior of West Africa, new legends arose of Africans who had lost America, but would return to save his people, end quote. On the Nigerian coast, Africans were like great bonfires, sleeping on beaches, waiting to guide in the ships of, quote, Moses Guardian. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam both said that Guardian had an important inspiration for them. Clemens Hadley, whose 250,000 member industrial and commercial workers' union, ICU, was the first African working class political organization in Azania, said that he had much influence on the UNIA. In Britannia, the separation of Kikuyu Christians brought in UNIA ministers from the US to train and ordain their first ministers. And it was from these congregations that much of the Kenya landed in Freedom Army, called the Nau by the British, would come a generation later. The Guardian movement, in Nkrumah's words, quote, raised the banner of African liberation on three continents. In Haiti, US finally put down the UNIA. In Costa Rica and Cuba, the United Fruit Company used police power to repress it. George Hadmore, a bitter opponent of Guardian, recounts that, quote, in certain places, the punishment for being seen with a Negro world was five years of hard labor, and in French Germany, it was like imprisonment. It was suppressed in such places as Trinidad, British Guiana, Barbados, etc., in the West Indies, all French, Portuguese, Belgian, and some of the British colonies of Africa. End quote. In the continental U.S., the Guardian movement was met with varying degrees of oppression. Malcolm X's we should call, was assassinated by the KKK because he was an organizer of the UNIA. Overall, U.S. imperialism moved against this surprising upsurge with some care. After several of Guardian's former lieutenants were suborned by the U.S. government, the imperialists had already arrested for alleged mail fraud. This act of opposing Guardian as a common criminal was conceived by another than J. Edgar Hoover, who at that time was a rising FBI official. In October 11, 1990 memorandum, Hoover noted that Guardian was, quote, agitating the Negro movement. Unfortunately, however, he has not as yet violated any federal law. It occurs to me, however, from the attached clipping, that there might be some proceeding against him for fraud in connection with his Black Star Line. End quote. Eventually, Guardian was committed, imprisoned in Atlanta Federal Prison, and later deported in 1927. The door, however, had been opened. What was most apparent was the old, conservative, imperialist-sponsored African leadership that had shoved aside and left behind by this outbreak. They could no longer even pretend to lead or control the African people. It is significant that even the liberal, civil rights integrationists had been overshadowed by the new militant nationalism. This was a time of rich ideological struggle and transformation in the African nation. That, however, is not the precise focus of our what we are looking at is the neocolonial relationship between the former Teddy Bushwasso rights leadership and U.S. imperialism. We are analyzing how, in a time of mass unrest and the beginnings of rebellion amongst Africans, U.S. imperialism helped promote a neocolonial African leadership that in outward form was imperialist, protest-oriented, radical, and even, quote, socialist. The political attack against the Guardian movement within the African nation was most aggressively spearheaded by a young African, quote, socialist and labor organizer, Asif Le Randolph, who only used his first initial A, 
since those years of the early 1920s, Randolph, even that one of the leading African radical intellectuals, would grow in stature and influence. A. Philip Randolph became the organizer, and then the president, of the Brotherhood of Steam Car Porters. He would become for decades the most important African union leader, eventually rising to be the only African member of the AFL-CIO Executive Council. As a leader of the historic 1941 Marshall Washington movement, he was credited with forcing the federal government to desegregate industry. To most today, Randolph is at best a dim name, somehow associated with dusty events in the past. In 1969, he had an 80th birthday dinner at the Waldorf Story Hotel in New York, where he was personally graduated, not only by the Red King and other African notables, but by Governor Nelson Rockefeller and AFL-CIO President George Meany. It's hard for activists today to view him as anything but another of faceless Uncle Don's. This greatly underestimates his historical role. The grounds how useful he was to the U.S. Empire. We have to see that the young A. Randolph was a rival star in the African community. He was an angry, provocative troublemaker with an image as bold as a James Foreman or a Cesar Chavez. Randolph published the first socialist African journal aimed at workers, promoting African unionism. The messenger carried the motto, quote, the only radical Negro magazine in America, and had 45,000 readers. He was arrested and briefly held by federal authorities proceeding against World War I. The New York State Legislature's investigative committee called him, quote, the most dangerous Negro in America. Randolph did his work inside the Afghan as a radical ass leader, not as a conservative party conciliator sitting in a fancy office somewhere. His long tenure as a lone recognized African leader on a quote, national level in the AFL-CIO was so striking that it led the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to query in an article why, quote, the absence of Negro trading leadership. 85% of Negroes are working people, some 2 million are in trading units, but in 50 years we have produced only one national leader, A.O. Randolph, end quote. This is a question whose answer will become apparent to us. At the beginning of Randolph's political career, this ambitious young intellectual was staying in and helped by the UNIA. Garvey appointed him as head of the UNIA delegation to the League of Nations Conference at the end of World War I. Randolph was denied a passport and was unable to go. When Randolph and his close associate Chamber Owen needed assistance for the messenger, the UNIA provided them with offices in Harlem building they owned. The UNIA attempted to be broadly encouraging African measures, even those of socialist nature, so long as they were African-run and oriented. Picture of A. Philip Randolph, 1889-1979, president of the general organizer of the Brotherhood of Senior Quarters. Another picture, W.E.B. Du Bois, seated in his office after the crisis. Randolph's integrationism and ambition led him to break with the UNIA. It is not which emphasized only political struggle within African banks alone. The U.S. press nation was also involved in dispute. While Randolph and his fellow integrationists, totally impressed with the might of the U.S. empire, never believed that national liberation could succeed. They feared that the growing mass agitation would anti-mass settlers. To these neo-colonialists, settler, quote, goodwill, and patronage was more important than almost anything. Further, Randolph's immediate career as a would-be labor leader was threatened by Garvey's hold on the African masses. Randolph and his associates were fanatically determined to destroy Garvey and the UNIA at any cost. They pursued this end using any and every means. In their magazine, The Messenger, Garvey was sneeringly referred to as, quote, monumental monkey, and, quote, supreme Negro Jamaican jackass. Randolph's near racist rhetoric reflected his assertion that Garvey was an, quote, alien, a West Indian, and not a true, quote, American Negro. National steam tours began to waste for a, quote, Garvey must go campaign failed. In a tone move, Randolph, the supposed, quote, socialist, and his integrationist allies, turned to the U.S. Empire for help. They only encouraged the repression of the UNIA. In early January 1923, the screening became alarmed when the chief government witness against Garvey in his mail fraud trial was killed. This traitor, Reverend J.W. Easton of New Orleans, had formerly been a leader of the UIA, but had announced for investment. The town Easton had allegedly identified his assailants as two workers, a longshoreman and a painter, who were UIA security cadre. The anti Garvey grouping was seized with fear that they themselves would be corrupted for their treason collaboration with the state. On January 15, 1923, constituting themselves as, quote, a committee of eight, they wrote to U.S. Army General Garvey, begging him to strike down the African nationalists without any delay. This historic letter is informative. Speaking of long quote. Dear Sir, one, as the chief law officer of the nation, we wish to call your attention to a tier four unconsidered menace to our harmonious race relations. There are in our midst certain Negro criminals and potential murderers, both foreign and American born, who are moved and actuated by intense hatred of white race. These undesirables continually proclaim that all white people are enemies of the Negro. They have become so fanatical that they have threatened and attempted the death of their opponents. Two, the movement known as the Universal Negro Improvement Association has done much to simulate the violent temper of this dangerous movement. Its president and moving spirit is one Marcus Garvey, an unscrupulous demagogue who has ceaselessly and assiduously sought to spread among Negroes distrust and hatred of all white people. Five, the UIA is chief composed of the most primitive and ignorant element of West Indian American Negroes. Continued. Twenty-five. For the reasons above, we advocate that the Attorney General use full influence completely to defend and extricate this vicious movement, and that he vigorously and speedily push the government's case against Marcus Garvey for using the mails to defraud. Its future meetings should be carefully watched by officers of the law, and the directions promptly and severely punished. End of quote. The eight who signed this legislative appeal, Randolph, who decided to profess and not about it, were Chamber Owen, co-editor of Messenger and Randolph's closest political associate, William Dickens, field secretary of the NAACD, Robert Bagnell, NAACD director branches, branches, Robert Abbott, publisher of the Chicago Defender, Julia Coleman, heir of the Cosmetics Company, John Nail, real estate broker, George W. Harris, New York City Councilman, editor of the newspaper New York News, Henry Case, a Sloan company. It is useful to examine this move. In practice, it turned out that Randolph's group of moderate, quote, socialists, supposedly dedicated to overthrowing capitalism, were blocked with a liberal, pro-capitalist, heavy bourgeois elements in the OECD, and with a marginal African business interest who fell off the degradation of colonial oppression. And that in practice, all these elements looked upon the U.S. empire as the ultimate protector against their own people. While it is obviously true that Randolph was an agent of U.S. imperialism, it wasn't true that he was just a simple tool following orders, such as the police of Warren Mikey. To understand neo-colonialism, we have to see that Randolph represented a certain class viewpoint. 
the viewpoint of Munoz Marin in Puerto Rico, or the young like Masoca in the Japanese American National Party. This is the viewpoint of the section of petty bourgeois that sees advancement and progress, not from leading the struggle, but from co op and using it as a bargaining tool and winning concessions from the empire in return for loyal submission. It is only a seeming paradox that these activist petty bourgeois elements encourage and need it, both democratic struggles and violent repression. They are the leaders that U.S. imperialism promotes to ensure that even third world protests and organization is ultimately loyal to it. A political career makes us recall Rawls' warning that, quote, imperialism is quite prepared to change both its landing tactics and its perpetuate itself. It will kill its own puppets when it no longer serves purposes. If need be, it will even create a kind of socialism, which people may soon start calling neo socialism. End quote. Randolph became a leading advocate of all African unionism and political organizations. He publicly argued against imperial civil rights organizations, such as the NAACP, on the grounds that only Africans should decide how the struggle was conducted. But his goal was only to weld Africans together as a block, so he. <coughs> but his goal was only to weld Africans together as a block, so he and his fellow pro imperialist leaders could demand a price from the US Empire in return for African submission. Randolph's integrationistic quote, socialism was used to fill the void, to ideologically portray a far off, glittering social vision to African workers that didn't relate to national liberation or bring away from the US Empire. Randolph had been indoctrinated in Euro American social democracy and settler unionism. That is, he shared the Euro American reformers' view on how social development for Africans should take place. Randolph argued that Africans would be protected by unionism and civil rights if they carefully convinced settlers of their non-violent submissiveness and their desire to be ruled by Euro Americans. While the messenger abused both communism and nationalism in French in the most vulgar and crude ways, towards AFL President Samuel Gompers, who was a segregationist and who had advocated white supremacy and a public spokesman of the doctrine of the quote, racial inferiority of Africans, Randolph was never less humble and praising. In 1924, when Gompers died, the messenger excused him as a diplomatically silent friend. Randolph feared and hated the argument, not because of its faults, but because of its virtues. A picture of a strike notice, the SCP strike notice, Detroit, June 7, 1928. All this is made abundantly clear by Randolph's relationship to Gompers' successor, AFL President William Green. Morehouse House Professor Brasford Brazil admitted in his law report in 1946 book on the Quarters Union, quote, Randolph, although socialist, had by this time convinced Green that polling quarters were anxious to demonstrate that the Negro would help to further the programs of American workers through conventional channels. Randolph had condemned the communists and their tactics in the message. Randolph had condemned the communists and their tactics in the message. All this must have reaffirmed Green's convictions that here remain an organization that could serve as an issue for rallying Negro workers under the hegemony of the Federation. End quote. By Racine, Randolph's senior disciple has said of him, quote, he realized that separatism, whether espoused by Marcus Harvey or Latter day nationalists, is grounded in fantasy and myth despite its emotional appeal to people. Black people, he realized, could never advance without good feelings and assistance of many whites. End quote. And now we can see the answer to the question that Dr. King raised. There was only one April Randolph because U.S. imperialism only wanted one. Randolph was pushed forward and made a leader by his European members. When we look at his magazine, The Messenger, during the years of fighting Darkism, we see an issue after issue large, quote, solidarity advertisements paid for by the European rivals who ran the International Ladies' Armored Workers Union and amalgamated clothing workers union. Social Democratic Settler Labor was seen to rightly subsidizing Randolph to attack nationalism from within the Afghan nation, to be their agent and do what they from the outside could not. His whole career was similarly aided and arranged. Imperialism needed someone to lend sound African leaders. April Randolph's actual record as president of the Brotherhood of the City Quarters is instructive. He and Chandler were approached by media reporters who were looking for an African intellectual who could help organize the union. The board's previous attempts had been clumsy. Several efforts had been smashed by pumping and a series of firings. Randolph took up the opportunity, and in 1925 the union was formed. The messenger became the official journal of the Brotherhood. In terms of the labor struggles, Randolph was a peculiar, quote, success. After years of difficult building, the new 7,000 member union had called for a coast to coast polling strike in 1928. On the move of tense expectations, among the reporters, knowing that the settler train crews would monitor strike and would try to anyway, large groups of African workers began arming themselves and preparing to take over the railyard in and on the East Coast. Randolph was upset, for he had never really intended he felt certain the federal mediation board set in and arranged a negotiated settlement, just as they did for the European Railroad Brotherhoods. As a caution, Randolph had even had a White House meeting with President Coolidge and told him of his secret hopes for a government-sponsored settlement. But as the strike deadline neared, the federal government refused to intervene. The imperialists were unwilling to publicly admit that an African Union could force a quote, national urgency. As a desperate hope, Randolph then invited AFL President William Green. In a last-minute meeting, he implored Green for AFL support of border strike, getting the Settler Railroad Brotherhoods closed down the trains. Green told him that quote, the public is ready to accept a strike by Negroes. He told Randolph to give up and call off a strike. Randolph sadly obeyed. On the eve of the first coast-to-coast strike of African Railroaders, the word went out to go back to work and offer no resistance to companies. Disillusioned and confused, the African quarters left the union by the thousands. Two-thirds of the union's 7,000 members quit in the next few months. Randolph's only plan was to wait and wait until Euro Americans decided to finally approve them. Many quarters were fired by trying to company, knowing that Randolph left them defenseless. Dues slowed to a trickle, and even the messenger stopped hearing. A little Randolph had once sent him to AFL leadership, but the workers who followed him paid a bill. And he had succeeded in confusing a potentially explosive struggle of African workers. Randolph's indication came with a new deal, with the entry and state power of liberal Democratic parties, politicians, who understood him and why he was so useful. In 1937, the National Labor Relations Board ordered the Pullman Party to recognize the Brotherhood and give in to its main demands. During the security, we should note, African nationalists and the North, who were trying to form unions independent from the European unionism, were subjected to both legal and police destruction. 
Under the imperialist order itself, Porter's wages went up by 30%, while working hours were cut. Randolph was promoted as a very successful leader of all African Union, who had gotten his numbers sizable rewards in wages and working conditions. His greatest hour of fame lay still ahead, the 1941 March on Washington movement, when for one month, Randolph was the most important African in the U.S. This was the event that ensured him a place as a national leader of Africans for the U.S. Empire. Instead of Booker T. Washington, an avowed, quote, socialist, labor leader, was now meeting and advising at the White House. So a new military nationalism and a new protest-oriented integrationism engaged in ideological struggle for leadership of the African masses. It was not, however, a central struggle, or an equal one, struggle really is. The insurgent nationalism had the far greater share of popular support, particularly from the laboring masses. It was also true that African revolutionaries at that time had not yet developed successful strategies for liberation. The civil rights integrationists, however, slim their own forces, had the powerful resources of the nation back in their play. The full range of forces, from the U.S. Department of Justice and police to foundations, the Social Democrats and Settler Trade Unions, all worked in their various ways to promote the hegemony of modernized neocolonial leadership allied to the U.S. Empire. A picture of the SCT strike cancellation by the order of April Randolph. End of section 4. Settlers, chapter 9, section 5. World War II and Americanization. World War II marks a definite point at which national movements, the oppressed within the U.S. Empire, were thrown back, and the growing hegemony of neocolonial politics firmly established. At home, this neocolonialism took a well-prepared form of, quote, Americanization, of offering forcing the colonial oppressed to assume supposed, quote, citizenship in the U.S. Empire in place of national liberation. Of course, while the, quote, Americanization of the European immigrants during the World War I period meant that they voluntarily became settlers and euro Americans, the, quote, Americanization of the colonial oppressed meant involuntary confinements as supposed, quote, minorities, came upon the edges of society. This was the ultimate in civil rights. The global war and the U.S. Empire expansion moved in a new stage in colonial relations. On the one hand, the liberal Roosevelt administration had gone out of its way to try to convince the liberal peoples that the New Deal was their, quote, friend and protector. This was done in a manner by now very familiar to us. New Deal Secretary of the Interior, New Deal Secretary of the Interior, Errol Picks, was an aggressive patron of civil rights. Picks was, in fact, the former president of the Chicago NAACP chapter. He and Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, the president's wife, arranged for African intellectuals and professionals to get federal appointments. The practices of the, quote, Lynch Belt South were synthetically deplored. In the urban north, welfare programs were open for Africans, and by 1934, some 52%, a majority, of the African refugee population in the north were on leave. This act was smoothly performed. Pulsar Samuel Bell described how it looked to many of the bourgeois Africans who support the New Deal. Begin quote. To younger Negroes, the WPA and relief mean not only material aid, but a guarantee that no longer must they work any salary given to them, that they are entitled. They have the last word to a living wage. Through the WPA, Harlem's Negroes have had opened to them white collar opportunities, which before had been shut, such as the music and art and writer's projects. Negroes, too, remember that Mrs. Roosevelt visited Harlem personally. The President Roosevelt has appointed more Negroes to administer positions than any president before him. Each time Roosevelt makes such an appointment, the Amsterdam News, Harlem's leading newspaper, headlines it in 72 point type. Every young Negro gets a vicarious thrill, thinking, quote, there may be a chance there for me. End quote. While the Liberal Roosevelt administration kept up a steady propaganda campaign throughout the 1930s and 40s, claimed to be, quote, the best friend Negroes ever had, the period was a time of savage attacks to destabilize the African nation. There was conspicuous deindustrialization of African employment, as they were pushed out of the main imperialist economy. A picture. Two vigorous ladies acted as FDR's deputies in Negro affairs, Mary McLaughlin, a fourth-right educator who served in the, quote, Black Cabinet, and Eleanor Roosevelt. For a while, it appeared on the surface as though Africans were simply victims of depression, suffering a high version of the economy's shared childlessness. But by 1940, the voices of the boys and others who pointed out the genocide pattern were proven right. In 1940 and 41, the depression finally broke. The war in Europe in 1939 had brought in new orders for steel, munitions, trucks, ships, and other industrial products. Factories were adding ships for the first time in years, and Euro American unemployment was going down rapidly throughout the last half of 1940 and 1941. Africans were barred from the new production, however. Their industrial employment was going down as more and more new jobs opened up. Corporation after corporation issued public statements that their new plans would be 100% Euro American. Led by coal firearms, consolidated aircraft, Chrysler Corporation, North American Aviation, and similar industrial grants. Court of America openly was saying that patriotism required keeping Africans out. Imperialism itself well recognized the boundary between oppressor and oppressed nations. After the war, the Indiana Company's Wire and Steel Division in New York ordered a bar on hiring laborers from enemy countries. Quote, no Italians, Germans, or Negroes. Colonial Africans were untrustworthy from the point of imperialism. The U.S. government itself reflected the genocide program once we go past the White House's propaganda campaign. Beginning October 1940 and April 1941, the African percentage of those placed in factory jobs by the U.S. employment service dropped by over half, from near 5.4% to 22.5%. The U.S. Navy instituted a new policy in the shipyards, wherein all, quote, Negro workers would have to wear an arm badge with a big letter N. The Navy rejected an NAACP protest that the N badges were just like labels used by Nazis designated Jews. In May 1941, Chairman Arthur Oldmeyer of the Social Security Board issued an official statement that the board would continue to support white supremacy. The liberal pro-imperialist African leadership were being pushed to the wall. They had urged Africans to remain loyal to the Southern Empire, and had increasingly little show for it. While they had taken swift advantage of both repression and the internal contradictions of the nationalist movement to gain political predominance over African communities, their composition was unsteady. Many signs indicated that the nationalist liberal current was strong on the streets, at the grassroots of the nation. In 1933, the, quote, Johnson Negroes movement spread from Chicago to Harlem. Surprising as it may sound today, many of the communities' jobs were held by Euro-Americans. 
footage. This is for segregation, while having facilitated shopping, dining off, etc. in our community. In retail stores, we try to see your own All the sales clerks, cashiers, managers, and secretaries were your own Americans. Even 75% of the large sellers in the hardcore sellers. Although all the customers were African and the stores were in the African community, even the most sympathetic white college job was reserved for your American only. Particularly under green conditions of depression, many in the community have angry pointed out this the national standings surround around the situation problem, led by a, quote, street corner agitator named Sufi Abdulhamd, a.k.a. Eugene Brown. This Sufi was a soft-hand after honest and teacher of Eastern philosophy. In retrospect, it may be unusual that such a lone political figure could play such an important role, but this only underscores the tremendous leadership vacuum that existed. Together with the core unemployed college students, the Sufi had recruited, he organized the hating and legal boycotts of our stores. The campaign continued for five years, with merchant after merchant having to colonize and hire Africans. During these years, the, quote, Yonfra Negro movement was illegal, subjected to court injunctions and arrests, as well as the opposition of the liberal civil rights leadership, NLACD, Urban League, Reverend Abbey, College Junior, etc., and to the CIO and CTUSA. For years, only the small, grassroots national groups fought for more jobs in a jobless community. While both the CDUSA and the Harlem churches started to quote jobs committees, these carefully obeyed the law and did nothing except try to divert support from the national struggle. In March 35, the smoldering anger over genocide pressures, squeezing American life, burst out in a spontaneous uprising. The early quote Harlem riots saw tens of thousands of Africans taking over the streets for three days, attacking police and liberating the contents of stores. The liberal pro imperialist leadership were helpless and ignored by the people. Indeed, afterwards, the Euro American capitalists and politicians did really castigate their African allies for having failed to control the masses. Everyone agreed that the popular response to the nationalist jobs for Negroes campaign was an important factor in the uprising. The New York Times narrow obituary on Sufi Abdul Hamd in 1938 gave hostile acknowledgement. Quote, the death of the Sufi ended a career that affected Harlem more deeply than of any other cult leader. Sufi put his followers on the picket line with placards saying, Bye, where you can work, in front of sores whose varieties he accused of refusing to hire Negro help. He reached a his power in the winter of 1934 and his picket lines were a sore trial of Harlem merchants. The tension that resulted from this, combined with other causes of friction, resulted in a fatal Harlem race riots of March 1936. End quote. Footnote. It's interesting that virtually all histories that mention the quote, Jobs movement credit its leadership solely to Reverend Alfred Al Jr., who, for its first five years, was a vocal opponent of his legal boycotts. The nationalist role is never mentioned. Contemporary account by Claude K is a notable exception. As late as 1941, the nationalists were still the cutting edge of show. Imperialism's response was to help their hand-picked African civil rights leaders take over the issue, with a big propaganda campaign picturing the liberal integrationists as the quote, militant leaders, who had supposedly won new jobs for jobless Africans. In 1938, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled quote, the jobs were passed finally legal. At this, a big name integrationist coalition took over the quote, jobs for Negroes struggle in Harlem. The YMCA, the Urban League, the major Protestant denominations, the CIO, the CDUSA, all joined to support the new leadership of the Reverend Alan Clay Powell Jr. over the campaign. Newspaper headlines and joy victory celebrations greeted the wave of unprecedented agreements between Powell's coalition and business. It appeared as a pro imperialist integrationism was the key to bringing economic improvement to Harlem. What was absolutely true was the one session were gained, Africans were being fronted off. An example was the quote, historic 1938 pact between the Coalition and the Uptown Chamber of Commerce, which was sailed in newspaper headlines. Quote, Harlem Comic gives Negroes their jobs and stores there. End quote. But in the fine print, there were no system of jobs promised. In return, Gregory and all protests and boycotts, the Coalition got promised that Africans would eventually be hired for only one third of clerical jobs, only in Harlem stores, and even then, only as replacements whenever your American employees quit. In a joint statement, Reverend Powell and Colonel Philip of the Chamber of Commerce said, quote, The settlement reached today is historic. It is the first agreement of its kind, and will help quiet unrest in Harlem because it is proof that white business leaders have a sympathetic interest in national problems of the race. End quote. Even more to the point, the New York Times said that the pact was reached because of, quote, years of racial uprisings. So, whatever jobs were gained were really won by African masses in final uprising, and by the grassroots nationalism, which alone spoke to their needs and interests. The team that carefully controlled, quote, jobs campaign was used to picture Reverend Alfred Powell Jr. and other pro-imperialist leaders as, quote, militants, as leaders who really fought the, quote, power structure, and won all kinds of things for Africans. In 1941, Powell won seat on the New York City Council. This campaign was supported by Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, the Republican Party, and the Radical American Labor Party. Powell was a prominent member of this Radical Center Party. In 1944, he became a U.S. congressman, where he achieved national fame for being a fight to desegregate congressional facilities. In the press, he was named, quote, Mr. Civil Rights. There were small concessions and cosmetic victories, but there was still no change in the basic situation. Africans were still being driven off the land, out of the industrial economy. Their nation was being destabilized. In 1938, the great spontaneous movement over the Allo-Egypt War swept to disperse African nation. National politics again revived in the African mainstream. Walter White, head of the NAACP, wrote of 1941, quote, This intent and were grown like wildfire on Negroes all over the country. End of quote, end of session. Settlers, chapter 9, session, The March on Washington Movement. In this situation, their backs against the wall, the integrationist leadership was forced to put pressures on imperialist masters. The A.F.L. Randolph and the Royal Wilkins definitely needed some real concessions to get back to their community. They also saw that there was a long range sense in imperialism's own interest to make concessions to ease up to give African colonial leadership a stronger hand against revolutionary sentence. It was out of this crisis that the March on Washington movement was born. 
Roosevelt just placed Lincoln on the altar. The process should report the forced exodus from the African South. Any allowed pro imperial propaganda to assert that the depopulation of the African nation was a quote benefit to Africans. This quote integration into the main industrial economy, however, dramatic effects only directly reached reach a minority of national oppressed. For the first time, however, some significant number of colonial workers could struggle for the quote American lifestyle, with houses, automobiles, appliances, consumer items, college education for children, and so on. Again, this was a semi European standard of living, a miniaturized version of that of Euro Americans, but materially well above that of other colonial peoples in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Imperialism fared little, and most of the national press here did not have those middle wage jobs, or the new petite bourgeois positions built up by total integration. What was important to imperialism was that these inviting possibilities for some created ideological confusion, pro imperialist tendencies, and social disunity. They also were a magnet to draw people to the northern industrial centers and out of the national territory. End of session. Settlers, chapter 9, session. The dislocation of imperialist war. American colonies were forced heavy, and often disproportionate share of the cost of World War II. This was no accident. The Roosevelt administration promoted this quote Americanization of the national press, pushing and pulling as many Puerto Ricans, Indians, Asians, Chicano Mexicanos, and Africans as possible to become involved in the U.S. war effort. Not only because they were needed as hand-fired and war industry labor, but because mass participation in the war disrupted our communities and encouraged pro imperialist loyalties. Close to a million Africans alone served in the U.S. military during the 1940s. When we think about what it would have meant to subtract a million soldiers, sailors, and airmen from the empire's global efforts, we can see how important colonial troops were. In many third world communities, the war burdens were very disproportionate. The Chinese Navy in New York, being so heavily unmarried due to immigration laws, saw 40% of its total population drafted into the military. In colonial Puerto Rico, the imperialist traps drained the island. Many did not return. One Puerto Rican writer calls it his small town. Quote, I saw many bodies of young Puerto Ricans in coffins covered with the American flag. They were brought in by military vehicles and placed in living rooms where they were mourned and viewed. The mourning's never ceased in South Suez. Almost every day I was awakened by the moans and wails of widows, parents, grandparents, and orphans whose loved ones had died quote, defending their country. End quote. The same was true in the Chicano Hispanic Southwest. Akuna notes that, quote, the percentage of Chicanos who served in the armed forces was disproportionate to the percentage of Chicanos in the general population. He further notes, quote, Chicanos, however, can readily remember how family proudly displayed banners with blue stars. Each blue star represents a family member in the armed forces. Many families had as many as eight stars, with fathers, sons, and uncles, all serving the U.S. war effort. Everyone recalls the past of men between the ages of 17 through 30 in the Barrios. As the war progressed, gold stars replaced blue, gold representing mental nation, and the Barrios the disappearance of a sea of death. End quote. Third world people were told, in effect, that if they held the U.S. empire in the greatest war, then at long last they too would get a share of the, quote, democracy as a reward. In every oppressed nation and national minority, many elements mobilized to push this deal. We should note that those global forces most opposed to this ideological, quote, Americanization were driven under or rendered ineffective by severe repression. Civil rights leaders all over themselves in urging their people to go kill and die for the U.S. empire. The rhetorical contortions were amazing. A. Phil Randolph, the supposed socialist, said that Africans should enlist in the admittedly unjust war in order to reform it. He admitted that, quote, This is not a war for freedom. It is a war between imperialism, fascism, and Nazism, and imperialism of monopoly capitalistic democracy, end quote. But he told African workers, by getting an integrated war effort, quote, the people can make a people's revolution, end quote. And about pacifists and advocates of total African violence in the U.S., Randolph nevertheless said that it was right for Africans to fight in Asia and Europe. Following the same two front war thesis, Reverend Adam Clayton Jr. enthusiastically agreed that the Africans had gone, quote, armed base at Pearl Harbor, forced Africans to fight, so long as the government was going to be done in integration. On December 7, 1941, America for the first time in its history entered upon two wars simultaneously. One was the World War and the other Civil War. One was the bloody fight for the preservation and extension of democracy on world basis. The other, a bloodless revolution within these shores against the master democracy. The sneak attack of the Japanese upon armed Pacific base was no more vicious than the open attacks that had been waged consistently for 400 years against the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. End quote. Taking part in the Imperialist War was praised as patriotic, not only to the U.S., but to, quote, the race. By agents or Chinese colonists or Africans serving the U.S. military, we were supposedly helping our people's, quote, earn full citizenship rights by, quote, proving our loyalty to America. So the war period saw strange contradictions. Perhaps the shortest irony of the quote Wing of Freedom game was that of Japanese Americans. We were drafted right out of the U.S. concentration camps and told our willingness to fight for U.S. imperialism, which showed whether or not our people were quote disloyal. The all Japanese military unit, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, was used by the U.S. Army as the disposable shock troops to be thrown into every place situation in Europe. The 442nd had over 9,000 Pearl Hearts awarded for a 3,000 soldier unit. Ordered to break through and rescue the quote lost battalion of Texas National Guard settlers caught and surrounded by the German Army of France, the 442nd took more casualties than the number of settlers the United States. One Nisei sergeant remembers how Kate Company, the 442nd, quote, went in with 187 men, and when we got to Texas, there were 17 of us left. I was in command because all the officers were gone. But the company was, but my company was down to eight men. End quote. The political effects of the war were not simple. It definitely marked the end of one period and the start of another. The depression had been replaced by the fruits of military victory, high employment fueled by new world markets and U.S. international supremacy. The massive dislocation of the war, coming after the harsh repression of the 1930s and the war period itself, and the jet propelled rise of neocolonial quote citizenship, had definitely sidetracked many people. I could not write the Chicano movement, beginning of the long quote. Much of the momentum of the movement of the 1930s was lost. Many Chicano leaders entered the armed forces. Many were killed. 
Others, when they returned, were firmly tired of crusades. Understandably, during the war and when they returned, many Chano veterans were proud of their records. They believed they were entitled to all the benefits and rights of U.S. citizenship. A sort of euphoria settled on many Chanos, with only a few realizing that the community had to reorganize. Many Chanos believed the propaganda emanating from World War II allowed broadcasting democracy in the United States. They thought that they had won their rights as U.S. citizens. For a time, the DIY Bill of Rights pulled many Chanos into complacency, with many taking advantage of education and house benefits. Many Chanos, because of their involvement in the armed forces, realized that they would never return to Mexico. Many also became super patriots who did not want to be identified with the community. In the urban barrio, many parents, remembering their own relations, taught their children only English. Middle class organizations, and for that matter, civic organizations, became increasingly integrationist in the face of the rebellion of the 1950s. End quote. The new colonial pacification that came out of World War II years was not a calm, but the stillness that came after devastation. We must remember how, once again, in the deep south, returning African GIs were singled out for assassination by the KKK. In the Chicago and the Southwest, the American conducted a genocidal mass deportation drive of unequal severity. Even the savage invasion raids and deportations of the New Deal were outdone by the new imperialist offensive after World War II. Believing that the wartime labor shortage had permitted quote, too many Chicano Mexicanos to live inside the occupied territories, the Empire started a changing military campaign to partially depopulate and terrorize the Southwest. Under cover of the 1952 Aaron Walter Immigration and Nationality Act, a rain of armed terror descended upon the Chicano Mexicano communities. This was the CIA population group strategy in textbook form. The main campaign was held by INS Commissioner Lieutenant General Joseph Swing, an open racist and a veteran of General U.S. Pershing's U.S. expedition to Mexico in 1916. Swing organized a series of barrio sweeps, with pedestrians stopped and homes broken into, often without hearing or any bourgeois legal formalities. The selected Mexicanos would be taken at gunpoint to trains and deported. Homes were broken up and communities terrorized. Some with valid residency papers and U.S. Court citizenship were deported. Others, suspected of being revolutionaries, were arrested for quote, immigration offenses. Virtually all the moment Chicano Mexicano labor activists were victims of this campaign. The overall numbers are staggering. In 1953, Swing's paramilitary units deported 875,000 Mexicanos. In 1954, the number seized and deported was 1,035,282, more than reported throughout the 1930s. Even in 1955 and 36, after the main job was done, 256,000 and 90,000 Mexican Mexicanos reported. How massive this was can be seen from the fact that in 1941, an estimated 2.7 million Chicano Mexicanos lived in the U.S. occupied territories, while the 1953-56 population movement drive uprooted and deported 2.2 million Chicano Mexicanos. This was the fruit of the quote, war for democracy. The Chinese community, which had been largely spared during World War II, was the target of the new progressive campaign. The U.S. Empire had discovered that the imperialist contradictions of World War had helped communism and national liberation advance. Long sought after China that stood up and brushed off the clutching hands of U.S. imperialism. In 1945, over 50,000 U.S. Marines landed in China to take over Peking, the Kalen coal mines, and the North China Railroad lines. By 1946, there were over 120,000 GIs in China, backing up the reactionary Kuomintang armies. The railroad and the Chinese people swept these forces away. During the war years, the Empire had a fast friendship towards the Chinese community, since China itself was an allied nation in war against Japan. Now the situation reversed itself. Japan was the new U.S. quote junior partner in Asia, while communist China was hated and feared by imperialism. The FBI and the INS moved against the Chinese community, breaking up patriotic and class organizations. The main patriotic mass organization of the 1930s and 1940s, the Chinese Hanwha Association, was destroyed. The popular Chinese youth which had fought gambling, drugs, and sexism by increasing modern community life, was forcibly dissolved as a quote, communist front. China Daily News, which had been the leading patriotic newspaper, lost most of its advertising and readers. In a frame-up, the newspaper's manager was imprisoned under the federal quote, training with the Act, because the newspaper had accepted and advised from the Bank of China. This supposedly quote, silenced Chinese community, and actually then trumpled the activity for national liberation and socialism, and was silenced. End of session. Severs, Chapter 9, Section, Imperial Civil Rights. It is also true that the genocidal campaign illustrated how well neocolonial quote, Americanization served imperialism. Once in the early years of the century, oppressed Mexicano and Japanese workers shared the hardships of the fields, and eventually shared labor organizing drives. In the award of 1915 Texas Uprising, who established a Chicano Mexicano nation, Chinese were recognized as allies, but as citizens of the two-liberated nation. But by the 1950s, this had changed. Civil rights had replaced the unity of the oppressed. The Japanese-American national minority had been politically broken by the repression of World War II. Rooted and reminded into the concentration camps, we faced an intense physical and psychological terrorism. The resistance and defiance, even while in the hands of the enemy, was considerable. Many of the campaigns refused to sign U.S. loyalty oaths. Demonstrations took place on barbed wire. Some 10% were under the harsh incarceration at a two-lake camp for dissidents and resistors. But this popular current resistance had no strategic direction to advance along. The main dissenting little views had been crushed. Some Japanese rejected the U.S. Quote, citizenship, and the President had imprisoned them, but sought their identity by looking backwards toward the Japanese Empire. Clandestine pro-imperial groups and propaganda flourished. Claims of U.S. military advances were denied, and the day of Japanese imperial victory eagerly looked forward to. The unconditional Japanese surrender in 1945, plus the news of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, made a vain hope of this perspective. The other major sending view was communism. A number of young Japanese college students and activists had joined the CDUSA during the 1930s. Japanese American communists had been very active in CIA organizing drives and British canaries, and opposing the imperial invasion of China, and in around people's fight anti Asian oppression. All this had been smashed on December 7, 1941, when Pearl Harbor happened. In a to assure their fellow Euro Americans that the CDUSA was loyally, quote, American. This readiness already came out in full support of the government's concentration program for Chinese Americans. 
Even further, the CUSA ordered the Japanese American members to rally immunity for its own imprisonment, and then publicly expelled all its Japanese American members to show white America that even the quote, communists were against the quote, Jets. Communism was completely discredited for an entire generation inside Japanese American community. Leadership of the community was left completely in the hands of the pro imperialist Japanese American Citizens League, JACL, which for four years had been the main civil rights organization. The JACL, <coughs> in the name of those who suffered in the concentration camps, publicly called for and lobbied for the passage of 1952 Karen Walter Immigration and Nationality Act. This was the best tradition of quote, Americanization, and for that matter, of civil rights. In 1982, A. Philip Randolph was saying that civil rights meant that Africans should go to Rio and help U.S. imperialists and provided by the Empire gave equal wages. In the same way, in 1952, the JACL was saying that so only Japanese Americans have some benefits from it. White supremacists' depopulation of the Chinese economic communities was fine. This is the sewer philosophy of, quote, I've got mine. Having mutilated themselves to fit into Babylon, the JACL is even quite proud of what they did. U.S. Senator Pat McCarran, Democrat in Nevada, was a white supremacist and a known Mexican hater. He devised his immigration law to genocidally cut down third world population in general and Chinese economies in specific. He warned white America that unless they restricted third world population, quote, we will, in the course of a generation or so, change the ethnic and cultural composition of this nation, end quote. In his crusade for settler he joined forces with Congressman Francis Walter, the chairman of the Rabbit House on American Activities Committee, HUAC. Congressman Walter was, of course, a fanatical anti-communist. Led by Mike Asoka, the JACL developed a close relationship to Congressman Walter. In any case, JACL leader Bill Osokawa called Walter, quote, a strong friend of the JACL. The JACL eventually gave Walter a special award. Walter and McCarran had clauses in their repressive legislation, giving some concessions to Asians, primarily ending the 1924 Oriental Exclusion Act, which made it possible for non-citizen Japanese to become citizens. With this, the JACL was the last to help sponsor this vicious legislation and give cover to the reactionary wing of U.S. imperialism. Osokawa, who had been a senior editor for the Denver Post, writes that the final passage of his repressive law was, quote, a supreme triumph of the JACL. Two million Mexican women, men, children, victims of the Negro terror race, saw very well whose, quote, triumph that was. That's why the shallow lyrics that says people automatically, quote, united racism is dangerously untrue. Pro-imperialist civil rights is a pawn in the crime of the empire against the rash nations. The example of the JACL was just the opening wedge of a strategic process in which the empire was promoting Asians as a, quote, buffer between settlers and the oppressed nations. We can see this in daily life by the numbers of Asian professionals and small retailers entering the inner city. This process began, however, with Japanese Americans in the years right after World War II. End of section. Settlers, chapter 9, section. A pause and a beginning. It may have appeared to some in those years that the U.S. Empire consolidated its fortress America, that it had won, quote, a spring triumph. But the streams of national consciousness ran deep within the colonial masses. If the unblatant powers and the royal movements occupied the public mainstream of African politics, we can see that nationalism was only forced down outside. It still lived in grassroots and continued to develop. This pause was historically necessary, since the anti-colonial struggles and leaders of the 1920s and 30s had many strengths, but did not yet have programs for liberation to successfully meet the masses. Now we can see that this was Asian development and opening up new doors. And so we can also see nearly everywhere we choose to look the, quote, seeds beneath the snow. An African GI in Robert Williams went home to Asia to Monroe, North Carolina, and learned something about self-defense and world politics. In Los Angeles in the early 40s, Chicago teenagers formed Pachuco youth subculture, wanting the Zeusis, and only rejected Euro-American culture. Chicago economic historians now see the defined Pachuco movement as, quote, the first large current within the Chicano movement towards separatism. An African ex-convict and draft resistor was building the, quote, nation of the lost mound. The revolutionary solutions of the 1960s had their seeds in countless waves in the submerged but not lost gains and developments of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. End of section and chapter 9. Settlers by J.C. Kai. Chapter 10. 1950s Repression and Decline of Communist Party USA. Section 1. The End of the Euro-American Left. The post-World War II collapse of the Communist Party USA, the main organization of the Euro-American quote, left, was an important indicator of disappearing working class consciousness in the Western nation. It is not true that the Euro-American left was destroyed by the Marcarty Repression of the 1950s. What was true was that the anti-communist repression effortlessly shattered the decaying hollow shell of the 30s quote, old left, hollow because white workers who once needed to be solidified by had left. The class struggle within the Western nation had once again effectively ended. Mass unity in service of the U.S. Empire was tightened. Looking back, we can see the Communist Party USA in that period as a mass party for reformism that penetrated every sector of Euro-American life. At its numerical peak in 1944-45, the CPUSA had close to 100,000 members. Approximately one quarter of the entire CIO Union membership was within those industrial unions that directly led. Thousands of Communist Party trade activists and officials were present throughout the Union movement, from Strasbourg up to the CIO Executive Council. The party's influence on the political intelligentsia in the 30s was just as large. Nathan Witt, chief executive officer of the Federal National Labor Relations Board during 1937-1940, was a CUSA member. Tens of thousands of administrators, school teachers, scientists, social workers, writers, and officials belonged to the CUSA. That was a period in which writers of prominent Frank Fenway, artists such as Robert Kent and Ben Chan contributed to CUSA publications. Prominent modern dancers gave benefit performances in Greenwich Village for the Daily Worker. Max and Lieber, one of the most exclusive Mass Avenue literary agents, with clients like John Cheater, Carson Bowlers, John O'Hara, and Langston Hughes, was not only a CUSA member, but was using his business as a cover to send clandestine communications between New York and Eastern Europe. The CUSA then was a common presence in Euro-American life, from the textile mills to Hollywood. This seems successful only concealed the growing alienation from the CUSA by white workers who had started. In the early 1920s, the infant Communist Party was overwhelmed by European immigrant proletarian. In its first year, half its members spoke no English. For that matter, two thirds of the Liberal Party, then, were Finnish immigrants who had left the social democracy and IWW to embrace socialism. Virtually all the rest were Russian, Polish, Jewish, Latvian, and other Eastern European immigrants. 
The CTUSA was once a white proletarian party, not just in words, but in material fact. The rapid expansion of the party influence and size in the early 30s and World War II years was an illusion. Euro-Americans not fight for revolution, but for settlers' reforms. And those years, the CTUSA was just a rabble wing of President Roosevelt's New Deal. As soon as Euro-American Dutch workers had won the settler quality and better life they sought, they had no more use for the CTUSA. The facts about the changing class base of the CTUSA are very clear. Between 1939-42, the number of CTUSA members in the steel mills fell from 2,852. The number of CTUSA miners fell from 1,300 to 289. Similar losses took place on the ranks in construction, garments, auto, and textile. And while more workers drifted away from the Euro-American court left, the CTUSA was swollen up with a junk food diet of rabid from petty bourgeoisie. Middle class numbers composed only 5% of the party in 1932, but an astonishing 41% in 1938, while portions by World War II, 50% of CTUSA membership was in New York, and a typical member of New York State Professional or Minor Trading Official. Joseph Farben, CTUSA leader, later admitted, PM, quote, In retrospect, the war had been for thousands of communists a great turning point. Many from the cities came for the first time to grasp America's magnitude. He meant political states even the later democratic progressive milieu in which the left had sheltered, and a real level of consciousness of millions who were recruited to fight the flag and country. A good part of the party's country never returned to its life and orders. The war was a shooter, a break. Many migrated to other parts of the country. Many began to build families and change their lives. Communism became a warm memory for some, for others, it was a mistake. End quote. So we can be certain there was no pressure involved in ending the radical current of the masses of Euro-American workers. Long before the party was spawned, during the very years of the 1930s, when the CTUSA reached its raised organizational power, Euro-American workers started voluntarily walking out. By 1945, it was evident. Nor did they leave for other parties or more revolutionary activity. This is one of the reasons why crudely revisionist policies of CTUSA leaders like Earl Robert and Lindsay Foster were never effectively opposed. The working class workers of the party lost interest in reformism and were leaving to by themselves in the fruits of settlerism. End of section. Settlers, chapter 10, section 2. McCarthyism and repression. The false view of CTUSA and the rest of the Euro-American quote left were crushed by quote McCarthy repression. Not only serves to conceal the mass shift away from class consciousness on the part of the masses, but also helped U.S. imperialism conceal the violent colonial struggles of that period. The post-war years of the golden age of the U.S. empire, when it tried to enforce its quote Pax Americana on a desolate world. We are really discussing three related but different phenomena. One, Cold War liberal repression and the pro-Russian cities among liberal and radical New Deal Euro-Americans. Two, the market purges of the U.S. government itself in an intra-interior policy struggle. Three, the violent terroristic counterinsurgency campaigns across revolutionary struggles throughout the expanded U.S. empire. Points. There's a particular trait of Euro-American court left revisionism to blur these three phenomena together while picturing itself as the main victim of U.S. imperialism. This is an outrageous lie. When we actually analyze the repression of the USA, it's striking how mild it was, more like a warning from the great white father than a repression. In contrast, the Euro-American quote left pictures its role as one of steadfast and heroic sacrifice against the unleashed imperialist juggernaut. Len Deco, a former CTUSA activist who was publicly director of the National CIO, recalls himself in graduation. Quote, the United States was now officially launched on a bipartisan Cold War course with the appearance of a popular mandate. Everybody against it was a protest, a promise of resistance. Without this effort, few American progressives could have held their heads. Like those Germans who resisted the advent of Hitlerism, the Americans who opposed Cold War imperialism were overwhelmed, almost obliterated. Perhaps they were not, quote, smart to throw their weak bodies, their strong minds, their critical spirits against the shrinking of reaction, but they did. End quote. This is easy to check out. Deco says that he and his CTUSA patriots were, quote, almost obliterated, just, quote, like those Germans who resisted the advent of Just to throw some comparison, we should note that the casualty rate of the German communist underground against Nazism was almost 100%. Hundreds of thousands of German communists and communists from other European nations died in actual battle against the Nazis and the Nazi death camps. In Italy alone, the communists lost 60,000 comrades in the 1943 45 armed partisan struggle against fascism. Were Deco and the CDUSA patriots almost obliterated like other communists who fought imperialism? In 1947, Deco was forced out of his comfortable job as publicity director of the CIO and editor of the Union newspaper, CIO News. For many years thereafter, he worked as a paid journalist for the CDUSA in California. He was unbeaten or tortured, never faced assassination from the death squads, never had to out with the police, never had to spend long years of his life in prison, never in hunger and misery, never saw his family destroyed, never was prevented from exercising his rights as a settler. Throughout, he went to public demonstrations and worked in bourgeois elections. Deco was arrested and had faced trial. He won on appeal while on bail. Had to give up his receipt of job and salary, and was threatened by the U.S. government to disapproval. Truly, we would say that the average family in, quote, dead soy faces more repression than Deco went through. The U.S. government repression that, quote, almost obliterated the CUSA, in Deco's words, was a series of warnings of mild cuffs that pushed Euro-Americans back into line with materials policy against the U.S.R. There were no death squads, no shootouts, no long prison sentences. The CUSA wasn't an outlaw, and published its newspaper and held activities throughout the period. The CUSA at the time usually called this repression a, quote, witch hunt, because it was a government campaign to promote mass local conformity by sealing out, quote, communists or public abuse and storm. It was a repression of the usual type, in which the empire tries to wipe out, to eliminate through legal and actual legal force, an entire revolutionary movement. In 1949, some 160 CDUSAers were arrested and tried under the Smith Act for advocating, quote, the overthrow of the U.S. government through force and violence. Of these, 114 were convicted, with 29 CDUSA leaders serving federal prison sentences up to five years. Two obscure CDUSA members, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, were executed amidst worldwide publicity in an, quote, atomic espionage hysteria. Some 400 non-citizen radicals, most of them third world members or allies of CDUSA, were arrested for deportation under the McCarran Volk Immigration Act of 1952. Many of these radicals later won in court. This warning harassed by Washington totally broke the back of a supposedly, quote, communist party that counted 7,000 members in the ranks in 1947. In contrast, the American Indian movement adjusted on the ridge to sustained casualties between 1972 and 76 that were quantitatively greater than that of the CDUSA coast to coast during the entire 1950s. 
The time range alone, AIM has lost over 90 members' scale and over 200 imprisoned. The National Party of Puerto Rico in 1950 57 alone suffered many, many times the losses in dead, injured, and imprisoned than those worn by the CUSA during the entire Marquette period. For that matter, both SNCC and the BDP alone also sustained far greater casualties from struggle in the 1960s than the whole CUSA did during the 1950s. What was so great, so large, so historic about the slap the CUSA suffered was the loud panic they caused among the pampered Euro American quote left. Quote, and Euro makes the loudest noise. A picture. Benjamin J. Davis Jr. elected three times to represent Arnold on the New York City Council until he was sent to prison under effect. This mild repression knocked the CUSA clear off its tracks. In a panic, their leadership concocted the delusional quote, one minute midnight perspective, which held that world nuclear war and total fascism were about to happen. Peggy Dennis, wife of party leader Jean Dennis, recalls the shambles of their focus on survivalism. Beginning long quote. The FBI knew, the news media knew, the remnants of people's movements knew. Our party had taken a severe beating under the assaults of McCarthyism, the Smith arrests and prisons, the continuing anti-communist hysteria. But it was really on defensive. The almost fatal blow was self-inflicted when the party leadership took a whole organization underground, placing control of daily operative financial and political decision making in the hands of the subterranean structure. Thousands of militants in the labor movement, former anti-fascists, new dealers, progressive party activists, former communist members, went into personal quote, underground, dropping out of all activity, rebuilding lives and enclaves of suburban and urban security. End quote. What was most telling is that for four years the CUSA structure went underground, not to wage renewed and tight struggle, but to passively hide until full bourgeois democracy returned. Their whole movement surrendered and fell apart under the first pressure from Washington. They never even faced any real repression. When Russian Prime Minister Khrushchev made his disillusioning revelations about Stalin's rule at the 1956 Party Congress of CSU, it was just, quote, the icing on the cake. Once a white workers' vanguard and later a math party to reform within the nation, the CUSA finally reduced fire imperialism to a thoroughly house broken and frightened remnant. From 70,000 members in 1947, the CUSA evaporated down to 7,000 in 1957. Working class radicalism had effectively ceased within the settler society, and former main organization had politically collapsed. The capitalist newspaper headlines that day paid little attention to that phenomenon, the media of the late 1940s and early 1950s was preoccupied with the larger aspects of the same imperialist campaign to whip up the Euro-American society with a global confrontation with communism. The bourgeoisie demanded only the most rigid reactionary and monolithic outlook from the settlers. All had fallen in line. This McCarthyism was aimed not so much at the bottom of the settler society, but at the middle, at Persian ranks of generals, educators, congressmen, diplomats, and so on. All government employees had a new loyalty oath. We must remember that the infamous U.S. Empire never harassed revolutionaries. His targets were all U.S. government employees and officials, from army officers to clerks. In a final statement, the well-known liberal journalist George Sellis wrote at the time, quote, There's here in Washington, not only among employees, but among the few remaining liberals and Democrats who hope to salvage something in the deal. There's here in Hollywood. There's here in writers, scientists, school teachers, among all who are not part of the reactionary movement. End quote. So the McCarthyism a power struggle within the imperialist ranks between liberal and conservative forces, as well as being part of the general movement of the empire to up and prepare for a world domination. In no sense was this 1950s repressive campaign directed at crushing some non-existent revolutionary outsurge within settled society. At the same time, on fronts about outside Euro-American society, U.S. imperialism was conducting the most bloody counterinsurgency campaigns against colonial peoples. This had little to do with the CDUSA and the rest of the repressive quote, left. End of section two. Settlers, chapter 10, section three. The case of Puerto Rico, clearing the ground for neo-colonialism. It is generally known that the U.S. imperialism chose neo-colonialism as the main form for its expanding empire in the media post-war two years. In 1946, the U.S. Philippine colony was converted with much fanfare to dispose of the independent, quote, Republic of the Philippines, to this day occupied by major U.S. military bases. In 1951, the Puerto Rican colony was converted into a, quote, commonwealth, with limited bourgeois self-government under strict U.S. rule. What is less discussed is that neo-colonialism is no less terroristic than colonialism itself. Neo-colonialism, after all, still requires military suppression and elimination of the revolutionary national democratic forces. Without this political sterilization, after World War II, imperialism's local agents would not have been able to do their job. This is true when they found a child southwest in the Philippines and other occupied territories. The 1950 U.S. counterinsurgency it also gives us a comparison to further eliminate the CTUSA by. By 1950, U.S. imperialism had decided that its hold over Puerto Rico would not be safe until the Nationalist Party was finally wiped out. That year, U.S. Secretary of War Louis Johnson spent three days in Puerto Rico playing a counterinsurgency campaign. The public governor, Munoz Marin, was told to arrest or kill the Nationalist leaders. Police pressure on the revolutionaries increased. Nationalist Party leader Don Alvizu Campos was openly threatened. U.S. Congressman Vito Marcantonio complained on October 19, 1949. Quote, the home of Pedro Alvizu Campos is surrounded by police patrols, police cars, and jeeps with machine guns. When Dr. Alvizu Campos walks the street to someone, he is closely followed by four or five plainclothes police on foot and a load of fully armed police in a car a few days behind. Every shot he enters, every person he talks is subsequently visited by representatives of the police department. A rain of terror on all the citizens of Puerto Rico, who spent a few minutes talking to Dr. Alvizu Campos. End quote. By late October that year, the colonial police had begun a series of, quote, incidents of ever more serious arrests and raids against nationalist party activists on various charges. Finally, in one raid, police and nationalists engaged in a fight. Faced with certain annihilation piecemeal by mounting police tanks, the nationalists took to arms in the Rico de Aguilla. On October 30th, 1950, nationalist forces captured the police station and liberated the town of Aguilla. They immediately proclaimed the Second Republic of Puerto Rico as more uprisings broke out all beyond. The defeat of the Second Republic required not only police, but the full efforts of the colonial national guard. It was an uprising drowned in blood. The seriousness of combat can be seen from the Associated Press dispatch. Quote, National Guard troops snatched today at mildly anti-United States national rebels and drove them out of their strongholds with planes and tanks. Beginning quote. 
Striking at dawn, troops armed with machine guns, bazookas, and tanks recaptured Yaguya, 15 miles southwest of San Juan, in the neighboring town of Uduado. Fire planes destroyed the rebels. They had seized control of the two towns last night after bombing police stations, killing some policemen, and setting many fires. Yaguya looked as if an earthquake had struck it, with several blocks destroyed, and most of the other buildings in the town of 1500 charred by fire. Another guard seared was racing towards our seaboat, crushed the uprising mayor. End quote. Even in defeat, the heroic national struggle had great effect. In the 1951 referendum for quote, Commonwealth status, Governor Marin could only muster enough votes for passage by falsely promising people there was only a temporary stage leading to national independence. The revolution had exposed the lie that colonialism was accepted by the Puerto Rican people. Throughout Latin America, mass solidarity with Puerto Rican struggle blossomed. In Cuba, the cause of Puerto Rican independence had won such sympathy that even the pro-U.S. president, Carlos Rios Ocasio, sent off a public message interceding for the safety of Donald Trump's campos and the other nationalists. The Cuban House of Representatives sent a resolution to President Truman asking that the lives of Donald Trump's campos and other captured leaders be guaranteed. In Mexico, in Central America, throughout Latin America, the 1950 Rio de Janeiro stirred up anti-imperialist sentiment. The defeat of the Cuban was followed by intense terror over all of Puerto Rico. In addition to the many martyrs who fell on the battle. Some 3,000 Puerto were arrested by U.S. imperialism. Many were sent prison under the infamous, quote, Little Smith Act, the 1948 Law 53, which made a crime out of a revolution against the colonial administration. Many were charged with murder, arson, and other crimes. One woman, for example, was sentenced to life imprisonment for having cooked some food for her husband and sons before they went to the uprising. The neocolonial, quote, Commonwealth scheme was only possible because of the terroristic violence used by U.S. imperialism to pass by the patriarch movement and the Puerto masses. It is difficult to see if the level of imperialist oppression inflicted on the Puerto nationalists was qualitatively far greater than that used on the CDUSA. It is somewhat seen to even compare the two. It is not to say that U.S. imperialism had to use tanks, air attacks, machine guns, mass imprisonment, and terror to crush the Puerto nationalists, but they were genuine revolutionaries. What did the CUSA and the U.S. procrastination, quote, left do in solidarity with other supposed allies in Puerto Rico? Absolutely nothing and less than nothing. The CUSA's main response was concerned itself only with saving its own skin. The single Euro-American imprisoned with nationalists after the the anti-war activist Ruth Reynolds, did more in solidarity with the anti-colonial struggle than did the entire CUSA with its thousands of members. For years during the 1930s, the CUSA had won support from Puerto Ricans in the barrios of the continental U.S. by posing as opponents of Puerto Rican independence. In order to win over Puerto Ricans to the CUSA, they pretended to be allies of the National Party. One Euro-American CUSA organizer in New York City, Charlotte, recalls, quote, the main issues were unemployment and Puerto Rican independence. Viva Puerto Rico Libre was a popular slogan. The nationalist movement in Puerto Rico, headed by Pedro Campos, dominated the politics of El Barrio. End quote. In 1948, CUSA leader William C. Foster made a well-publicized trip to Puerto Rico, which he met with Donald Campos. Afterwards, Foster wrote a mass campaign on poverty in Puerto Rico, the crime of El Campito, to show CUSA solidarity with nationalists. But when U.S. imperialism unleashed its foreign insurgency, when the revolution joined battle with the mighty U.S. Empire, where was the CUSA? On its knees, proclaiming its loyalty to the U.S. Empire, begging in the most powerful fashion to be saved by its masters. On November 1st, 1950, the second day of fighting, two Puerto Rican patriots, Grisela Torresola and Oscar Colasso, attacked Blair House in Washington, D.C., temporary residence of President Truman. This bold, sacrificial action against the U.S. tyranny occupied the health headlines in newspapers around the world. During the rest of the U.S. media, the CDUSA's daily worker also made a road attack on Paul Blair House, his main front-page story. This issue is completely revealing. Tucked away on his inside pages as a separate story, the CDUSA's daily worker routinely reported revolution in Puerto Rico and gave very routine, lukewarm warm words of sympathy. But on its front page, it carried an official party statement on the Blair House attack. That statement was signed by CDUSA leaders Lindsey Foster and Dal Sol. It was not only under a major headline, but the full text was printed in extra large heavy type. And what is the meaning of this obviously very important statement? A cowardly and shameful slander on Puerto Rico's Torres Vedras and a cowardly assurance the CDUSA joined ranks with the rest of the U.S. nation in support of President Truman. The treacherous statement read: "Beginning statement, CDUSA terrorist attack in Washington." Like all our fellow Americans, we communists were profoundly shocked by this afternoon's report of an attempt to enter the House with the apparent purpose of taking President Truman's life. As is well known, the Communist Party condemns and rejects assassination and all acts of violence and terror. This can only be the act of terrorists, deranged men, or agents. End of statement. With war raging in Puerto Rico, was the shock of the struggle we brought to the front door of imperialism? What kind of quote communists reject quote all acts of violence? What kind of quote anti imperialists who join imperialists in saying that the martyr Crusader who so willingly gave his life for the oppressed was either deranged or an agent? This disgusting statement was transparently begging U.S. imperialists to spare the CDUSA. Far from being made victims of the 1950s oppression, as they so falsely claim, the Euro American quote left were still hostile palaces to the crimes of U.S. imperialism. They were the U.S. Empire's loyal opposition. End of section and at chapter 10. Settlers by JCI. Chapter 11. This great humanity has cried enough. Parasitism is still the principal characteristic of the Euro American society. Only now, the true parasitism of the early settler complex society has grown into and merged with its blood, the greater parasitism of the world imperialism. The imperialist oppressed nations of North America, Western Europe, and Japan have, in the post World War II years, reached a mass standard of living unparalleled in human history. These nations of the imperialist metropolis are choked in orgy of the dragons, of fascistic or consumerism, of industrial production without end. Even now, in the living shadows of imperialism's twilight, in the confusion of the U.S. empire's decline, the settler masses still can hardly believe that their rebels are drawing to an end. It must be emphasized that Euro American society is not self supporting. The imperialist mythology is that factories simply multiply themselves, that trains get airlines and mines get computers. In other words, that the enormous material wealth of the imperialist metropolis is supposedly self-generated and supposedly comes from birth clean of blood. The unprecedented rise in the wealth of the oppressed nations is directly and solely based on the increased immigration of the oppressed nations on a global scale. 
believing and filling up our colonialism continue in a more sophisticated and rationalized system of neocolonialism. But continue they do. It was Karl Marx, a century and a half ago, who first defined the accumulation of world capital as rising of accumulation of world colonialization, oppression, and misery. Begin quote. The greater the social wealth, the function of capital, the extent and energy of its growth, and therefore also the absolute mass of proletariat and the reluctance of its labor, the greater is the industrial reserve army. The more extensive, finally, the Lazarus layers of working class and the industrial reserve army, the greater is the official capitalism. This is the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation. It establishes accumulation of misery corresponding with the accumulation of capital. End quote. Zania, for example, is the richest mineral producing nation in the entire world. Its great mines were shattering even such nations as Zania and Canada. The Belgian, French, British, and Euro American imperialists have taken literally billions of dollars in copper, diamonds, cobalt, and other minerals out of Zaire since the anti colonial government was destroyed in 1960-61. This frenzy of has so affected the neo-colonial Mobutu regime that the Belgians laughed to call their allies a quote, kleptocracy. In a typical little amusement during the winter of 1982, Zaire's president Mobutu and his entourage of wives, concubines, servants, and bodyguards spent $2 million within the business world. His Nigerian government was perpetually bankrupt, unable to pay US home bills, permanently indebted for Western banks. And the after masses, have they related to this great wealth? Real wages in Zaire have declined by 80% between 1960-78. This is the source of wealth. In Zaire, as in Ghana, Philippines, Mexico, and elsewhere in the neo-colonial world, the bottom half lived worse than it did 20 years ago, for that matter, worse than it did five centuries ago. The majority of the world's population, the proletarian and peasant masses of the neo-colonial third world, exist under conditions of increasing hunger and mindlessness, of increasing terror and dislocation. Millions have died that Euro-Americans may walk on the moon. People die of disease that Euro-Americans may overeat. This is the legacy secret at the roots of imperialist psychological prosperity. Just as unequal trees arrived at through invasion and unequal diplomacy, or common mechanisms of global capital transfer from the 19th century, so today unequal trade and imperialist world art effectively strips and plunders the neo-colonial world. This is well known, and we only discuss it in a brief general way. The amazing post-war war Japan recovery of imperialist powers was not solely a process of creation, but also a process of extraction and transfer. Western Europe was refertilized and rebuilt in large part with new capital extracted from the world, extracted under a process of involuntarily tightening trade terms. In the 1960s, Seko Tura Gini pointed out, quote, In the course of the last 10 years alone, the prices of industrial goods and international trade have increased by 4 percent while prices of raw materials have fallen by 5 percent. In other words, the underdeveloped countries exported raw materials were, towards the end of the 50s, purchasing one-third less industrial goods for a determined quantity of raw materials as compared with 10 years ago. End quote. Tura related this to the fact that the average per capita income in the U.S., which in 1945 was 10 times greater than the average income in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, had by 1960s no less than 70 times as much as the average federal income. This extractive process has, since 1960, only set out its tempo, driven to new levels by imperialism's crisis of profitability. The New York Times recently said, quote, Commodity prices have, in fact, reached their lowest levels in 30 years. For Central America's agricultural economies, the term of trade, the relative prices of exports and imports, have deteriorated 40% since 1977. The gap between the richest and poorest nations has widened. Moreover, many rural societies are no longer able to feed themselves. In Africa, for example, there's less food per capita today than there was 20 years ago, with sub-Saharan Africa frequently rent by starvation. End quote. Behind the neo-colonial facade of international airports, of tourist hotels, of Mercedes-Benz society and capital cities, is a world of oppressed nations increasingly war-torn, looted, and socially disorganized. No less than a Wall Street Journal clinically describes this in the example of the Dominican Republic. Beginning long quote. Sugar had been like oil to the Dominican Republic, allowing the country to import needs without learning to develop them locally. Quote, over the past few years, we have created the illusion of being a developed country. We have ways computers, automobiles, appliances, says the leader But we aren't developed at all. End quote. Stripped of its imported goods, the Dominican Republic is essentially where it was 100 years ago. A plantation society with thousands of acres of sugar cane, some dams and cocoa, and several gold and silver mines. Today, in the plantation society, about 6% of the population owns 40% of wealth. Most of the people are peasants, living in areas where unemployment is 50%, illiteracy is 80%, and many of the adults and children are malnourished. The impoverished population still is over in the urban barrios, and in the city streets, children beg. In the sugar fields, wages average $3.50 a day, at least during the six month fun season when work is available. Much of the cutting is done by Haitians. Some half a million of them roam the Dominican countryside, often working in conditions approaching slavery. End of quote from the Wall Street Journal. In 1965, when a rolling government was attempted by a faction of the military, the U.S. proudly invaded with 23,000 troops to restore the old order. The neo-colonial societies are not, of themselves, stable or liable. To maintain them, imperialism subjects the world to an ever-ending series of search and destroy missions. There is both the, quote, white death, by starvation and disease, and the literal millions of third world families from endless war. John Seward of the Pacific News Service has written the end of the quote. According to War and Peace, a new book published in London, about 35 million people have died in 130 military conflicts in more than 100 countries, all but a handful in the third world, since the end of World War II. In the vast majority of these conflicts, the four original powers of the UN Security Council, Britain, France, the United States, and the Soviet Union, have played common, direct, or indirect roles. One thing especially of Korea, which claims 2.5 million lives and involves all the great powers. Of Indochina, which involves all the great powers of Britain. Of France's bloody colonial wars in Africa, which claims several million. The argument that these third world wars, which taken together, really represent a third world war, are mostly for the products of nation-building among backward and bloodthirsty societies simply does wash. At least it doesn't explain why four great powers have engaged in as many as 71 direct military interventions outside their own borders in the post-war period, all the four of which have been in the third world. End quote. Thus, there is nothing, quote, benign about imperialistic parasitism. 
This so-called world market is not a neutral trading ground, but a system of rigged transactions and economic crimes at There is a direct one-to-one relationship between world hunger, mass unemployment, and proletarian quote, conditions of Russian slavery, to use the words of the Wall Street Journal, on the one hand, and a fortified Babylon filled with consumer decadence and arms factories on the other hand. For generations, the increasing proletarian masses of Africa, Asia, and Latin America have labored, and yet live in misery. No society would freely enter into such self-destructive relationships. A world of colonies and neo-colonies create the only conditions for the imperialist quote, free art. In addition to his own armies, imperialism maintains an every nation that dominates other military and public resources, mounting worldwide to millions of armed men, in order to extend capitalistic oppression into the smallest and remotest village. The Third World War is already going on. In his 1982 Nobel Prize lecture in Stockholm, Colombian novelist Fabio Garcia reminded the world how in previous 11 years Latin America has suffered from imperialist violence. Begin the long quote. There have been five wars and 17 military coups. There emerged a high-level dictator who is staring out in God's name, the first Latin American ethnocide of our time. In the meantime, 20 million Latin American children died before the age of one, more than had born in Europe since 1970. Those missing because of oppression numbered nearly 120,000, which is as if no one would count for all the inhabitants of Oksala. Numerous women arrested while pregnant have been burned in Argentine prisons, yet nobody knows the whereabouts and identity of their children. Because they try to change the same things, nearly 200,000 men and women have died throughout the continent, and over 100,000 have lost their lives in three small and ill-fated countries of Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. If this had happened in the United States, the corresponding figure would be that 1.6 million violent deaths in four years. One million people have fled Chile, a country with a traditional hospitality, that is, 10% of its population. Uruguay, a tiny nation of 2.5 million inhabitants, which considered itself the most civilized country, has lost to exile 135 systems. The country that would be formed of all the exiles and forced immigrants in Latin America would have a population larger than that of Norway. End quote. A picture of U.S. and Chinese military bases in Okinawa. End of chapter 11. Settlers by J. Sakai. Chapter 12. The Global Plantation. Section 1. The Promotion of Proletariat and Replacement by Third World Labor. The short era of, quote, Pax Americana after World War II was one of completing profound changes for Euro-American society. Those extensions years of 1945-65, when U.S. military and economic power lorded over the entire socialist world, saw the final promotion of white proletariat. This was an on promotion so profound that it eliminated not only class consciousness, but class itself. Just in the 19th century, the Euro-American bourgeoisie both watered down class contradictions and reinforced its separate garrison over the continental empire by absorbing other European nationalities fully into the U.S. Western nation. This 20th century cycle had begun the anti-communist, quote, Americanization campaign of the World War I period. It reached its decisive point in the accommodation between the imperial state and the dependent settler state unions of the 1930s. The process was sealed by the post-World War II imperialist feast, finally laying to rest the last contradictions of the period of industrial unionism. While the deep proletarianization of the white masses was a historic pacification, it led to an increase in dependence and barriers that has today reached a notable point. This mass promotion rewarded settlers for the U.S. Empire's supreme triumph as the world's number one imperialist superpowered life of the Euro-American masses was made possible by two factors: U.S. domination of world markets and the Empire's giant reserve armies of colonial proletarians, who took over a greater and greater burden of central production from white workers. We must remember that World War II had physically devastated and bankrupted all the major imperialist nations save one. In the late 1940s, U.S. steel mills supplied 50% of world steel, and now supply only 15%. U.S. aircraft plants manufacture almost 100% of world's commercial airplanes. As late as 1949, the flow of U.S. trucks, diesel engines, pharmaceuticals, industrial tools, wheat, etc., accounted for roughly 25% of all world trade. Of course, the largest single market in the entire world, the continental U.S. empire, was quote, owned by U.S. corporations. This produced the economic surpluses that started the American society onto long retreat from essential production. In these years, the Euro-American workers moved outwards, increasing mechanical workplaces and basic production to colonial workers. Broom and Glenn sunrise in the 1960s, quote, between 1940 and 1960, the total number of employed white workers increased by nearly 12 million, or 81%, while the total employed labor force increased by nearly 37%. Hundreds of thousands of white workers have moved up in high-level jobs, leaving vacancies at intermediate levels that can be filled by Negroes. Negroes are now well represented in semi-skilled work and in industrial unions. End quote. Once driven step by step during the 19th century, how the U.S. industry they had created, Africans were recruited anew into factories. They, along with Chicano, Mexicano, and Puerto Rican labor, would keep production growing while most Euro-American workers laid down their tools one by one. By the early 1950s, armors named Chicago Meat Packing Plant was 66% African. Of the 75 workers there, almost all younger men and women were African. The younger Euro-Americans hired by armor went into white-collar jobs in nearby 4,000-person army office, which was all white. 136 Swiss Meat Packing Plant in Chicago was also 55% African by 1950. The desperate Swiss personnel department fruitlessly by young Euro-Americans worked their plant, with one white woman complaining, quote, we have so many other people during the war and now we can't get rid of them, end quote. This had more than local significance, since at that time, some 75% of all packing house workers in the U.S. were employed in Illinois and Wisconsin. In Houston, Texas as well, Africans and Chicano Mexicanos made up 60% of packing house workers by 1949. By the 1960s, the transformation of labor was very visible. In the great Chicago Gary Steel Mill District, over 50% of the workers were third world, primarily Chicano Mexicano and African. In the Detroit area price plants at that time, the clear majority of production workers were African, while the steel trains, supervisors, and office staffs were Euro-American. In some plants, such as Dodge Main, the percentage of workers was 80 to 90%. Chrysler Tank Arsenal, the main producer of U.S. Army Heavy Tanks, was overwhelmingly African. When it first opened in 1942, Chrysler Tank Arsenal was overwhelmingly African. The UAW officially estimated in 1970 that 25% of all auto workers were African. The League of Revolutionary Black Workers disagreed, saying instead that African workers were then close to 45% of the primary auto production force. 
She currently had an unimportant labor played growing industrial roles as well, particularly in the southwest and on the east coast. For example, in the 1920s and 30s, the garment industry was primarily composed of East European Jewish and Italian workers. By the 1950s, young girl Americans were no longer enjoying medieval trades. The children of European immigrants owned machine operators, and fathers, were going off college, become white-collar workers, or going into business. The AFL-CIO garment unions, while still Jewish and Italian in their bureaucracy, retirees and older membership, increasingly tried to control industrial workforce that was Chicano, Puerto Rican, Chinese, Dominican, African, etc. on the shop floor. In the urban infrastructure, we saw these changes as well. In 1940, only whites of jobs as transit bus drivers, mechanics, or motorman in New York, Washington, D.C., etc. By the 1960s, Africans, Puerto Ricans, and Chicano Mexicanos made up a majority or a near majority of the municipal transit workers in Chicago, Washington, New York, and other urban centers. The same for postal workers. Young girl Americans didn't want these jobs, which were difficult, and I forced them into physical contact with Yano. This tendency did not reach the theoretical totality of having no settlers at all, of course. Any more than capitalist tendency for concentration capital could reach the theoretical totality of only one capitalist who would employ the rest of humanity. The growing dependence on colonial labor has been masked not only by industry and regional variations, but by the fact that at all times, the numerical majority of manufacturing corporation employees within the continental U.S. are Euro Americans. All of this represents only a small minority of their society. This seeming productive vigor was only outward. U.S. imperialism was moving the weight of Euro American society away from oil and into a subsidized decadence. Essential production and socially useful work occupy a gradually diminishing place in the domestic activity of U.S. corporations in the work of the citizens in the imperial culture. Decadence is taking over in an even deeper way, in which non-essential and parasitic things become the most profitable, while workplace activities are always not the most important. Always present within imperialism, this decadence now becomes dominant within the oppressed nation. We can see this in the dramatic increase of the non-productive layers in economic life. While this phenomenon is centered in the rule of finance capital, its manifestation appear in all imperialist institutions. Advertising, marketing, package design, finance, corporate planning, etc. Mushroom with each corporation. Management on all levels grows as the numbers of production workers shrink. When one includes the large army of white collar workers needed to maintain management of their work, the proportions become visibly lopsided. At Weyerhaeuser, the large Timberland and Natural Resources Corporation, top executives and professionals alone, not including supervisors, foremen, and better workers, account for one out of every six employees. At the Southern Pacific Railroad, one out of every ten employees is in management. There has been a historic trend as an expression of decadence for the growth of managers. The New York Times recently noted, quote, By December 1982, there were nearly 9% of all managers and administrators in the American economy, and in January 1980, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is in sharp contrast to the nearly 1% decline in overall employment, and the 12% drop in blue collar jobs. In manufacturing, businesses that are thriving, such as office and tuning companies, and pharmaceutical concerns, administrators and managers account for 11% of total employment. End quote. This is an aspect of an overall change in which technology plays its part, but is secondary to performance, the affordable self-indulgence of the rest of the nation. Peter Drucker, the management, quote, guru, right on capitalism's, quote, major bulge, beginning at long quote. Instead of disappearing or even shrinking, middle management has been slowing in the last few decades. In many companies, the middle between the first line supervisor and the corporate top has been grown three or four times faster than sales. The growth has been confined to big business. Middle management and small and medium sized companies may have grown even faster. And it hasn't been confined to business. Managerial growth has been even greater in government, the military, and a host of non-profit institutions. A liberal arts college I know had in 1950, a president, a dean, and an assistant dean of students who also handled commissions, and a sheet clerk who kept the books. Enrollment has doubled from 500 to 1,000, but administrative staff has increased sixfold, with three vice presidents, four deans, and 17 assistant deans and assistant vice presidents. Five secretaries did the same work now being done by seven or eight deans, assistant deans, and assistant vice presidents, and did it very well. End quote. The historic trend has been to sharply dilute the role of productive workers, even in vital industries. In food products, for example, the percentage of total employment today is non-production, managerial, supervisory, technical, and clerical, rose from 13% in 1933 to 32% in 1970. A similar development took place in the industry, where non-production employees rose from 16% of all employees in 1933 to 37% in 1970. In manufacturing industries as a whole, the percentage of non-production employees went up from 18% to 30% in 1950 to 1980. When we look at the overall distribution of employee Euro-Americans, we see that in 1980, white-collar workers, professionals, and managers were 54%, a majority, and service employees an additional 12%. Only 13.5% were ordinary production and transportation workers. That is only 13 out of every 100 employee Euro-Americans. By 1982, there were thought to be more third world domestic servants in California alone than Euro American workers in the entire US steel industry. End of section 1. Settlers, Chapter 12, Section 2, New Babylon. The obligation was made by the Black Liberation Movement during the 1960s, but modern America was just, quote, slavery days, on a higher level, in which US imperialism as slave master made the entire third world its plantation, and America itself its, quote, big house. The re of the US empire is not continental, but global in structural dimensions. The US nation itself has increasingly specialized into a headquarters society, heavily dependent on the super profits of the entire third world. This is more than just a matter of dollar transactions. Born out of the slave trade and the conquest of Indian lands, raised up to power through colonial labor. The U.S. oppressed nation has again developed one-sided dependence, even for daily necessities, on the labor and resources of the oppressed nations. The Wall Street Journal said recently, quote, By last year, the U.S. sales of third-world countries has swelled 39% of exports from 29% in 1970. End quote. This even understates the relationship. Africa, for example, accounts for 10% of all U.S. export earnings by official statistics. These figures in seal remain real, not including, for example, the profits in our directly and indirectly by the European subsidiaries of U.S. multinationals, not the sale of third-party commodities, such as Saudi oil, by U.S. multinationals. Nor do such figures express the profits gained through unequal trade terms. 
the U.S. Southern Imperialists purchased from Africa at bargain-based prices, often only fraction of what it was years ago. Cocoa, coffee beans, iron ore, chromium, coal, nickel, nickel, cobalt, copper, manganese, and so on. The basic raw materials of industrial life are taken by U.S. imperialism so cheaply that they are the next thing for free. This economic dependency in the rest of the world was recently admitted by former U.S. Vice President Mondale. Quote, unless our exports grow, we cannot hope to recover from a recession. More than 20% of American industrial output is exported. One of every six manufacturing jobs is linked to exports. Four out of every five created in 1977 and 1980 were export-related. Almost one-third of all corporate profits derived from foreign investment and trade. Two-fifths of our farmland produces for export. End quote. Footnote. Many of the largest corporations, such as Ford, GM, Exxon, Citibank, Coca-Cola, obtained over 50% of their profits overseas. End footnote. The most significant trend to us, however, has been the export capital and form of production. This is the latest step in the work of essential production out of the oppressed nation. In the 1945 to 65 period, the loyal Euro American workers received a mass promotion away from the proletariat, raising the majority of them out of the factories and fields and into the white-collar professional office and sales world. Even in their origins, this was only possible by replacing them with colonial labor, African, Puerto Rican, and Chicano Hitano. That early stage in which the African proletariat took such a heavy role in industrial production is now over. In the second stage, the empires continued to move productive work out of the oppressed nation. This is accelerating on a global basis now, with factories moving across the Pacific and southward below Rio Grande. Even within the continental empire, new millions of colonial proletarians are being brought in from Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean to both provide even cheaper industrial and service labor and to permit the dispossession of Africans. Along with the rising anti-colonial movement of the 1960s, the empire has been replacing African workers as rapidly as possible. Images of the past persist. We recall how African proletarians, after going to rebellion, were systematically dispersed out of the Europe and South of the 1830s, and later, throughout the 19th century, driven out of the industry and skilled trades they had created. We recall how the early settlers in New England kept Indian women and children as slaves, but disposed of all Indian men as too dangerous. The New York Times, in reporting new studies on African unemployment, said, quote, In addition to the men counting in the statistics who have no jobs, about 15 to 20 percent of black men aged 20 to 40 could not be found by the Census Bureau and are presumed to have no jobs nor from the residences. More than half of black old males do not have jobs. End quote. The jobless rate for new African men in the U.S. is adjusting for the usual world level. The 45 to 50 percent seen in Mexico City or Kinshasa. Thus, the growing integration of the entire world in the U.S. economy is increasing national dislocation and misery. End of section two. Settlers, chapter twelve, section three: the export of production. The unoccupied zone of Mexico, just south of the artificial border, provides a clear example. There, in 1982, some 120,000 Macondo women labored in Maquilas, the factories set up by U.S. corporations to assemble parts from the U.S. into finished products, which are then shipped back north across the artificial border. The average wage is less than a dollar an hour, with a 48-hour work week. RCA, Caterpillar Tractor, Ford, Chrysler, American Motors, and many other major corporations have Maquilas. GM has 10 such plants in the unoccupied zone. Foster Green sunglasses, Samsung luggage, metal toys, and many other familiar products come in part out of Maquilas. The rate of profit is enormous. In 1978, the Macondo women assemblers and machine operators in Maquilas added a total of $12.7 billion in value to the products they made for U.S. corporations. At the same time, total wages paid to the then 90,000 workers were less than $336 million, roughly one-thirty-sixth of the value they created. These products of billions of dollars each year never even passed through New York Mexico, of course. The U.S. Russian nation receives a flow of inexpensively produced consumer industrial goods. U.S. finance capital and local nationals are aided in showing up their rate of profits, while a shrinking number of American workers are still unable to receive their necessary high wages. While everyone understands instantly the unemployment problem caused by corporations moving their factories abroad, there's much less light shed on how some American workers benefit from it. To be sure, every trade union favors full factory employment with $20,000 per year wages. Average U.S. wages for manufacturing production workers are slightly above $16,000 per year. Those days are gone forever. The monetary fruits of quote boom economy and novel markets. Now, for at least some American workers retain those high wage jobs, and the losses still probably use U.S. factories with considerable capital invested in them. Labor costs have to be averaged down by blending in super exploited colonial labor. American voters, for example, says this explicitly. An AMC spokesman said, quote, We established a strategy to continue to operate U.S. plants, but to expand to Mexico and average our costs downward. End quote. Fisher Price has five toy factories in the U.S., but its Mexican plant, the smallest, produced a toy paperboard that was a number one profit maker in 1982. Reason? Dollar an hour wages. Or take GM's to compete with imports. Recently, General Motors announced a $200 million plan to frankly imitate, quote, Toyota City, Toyota's primary highly integrated complex in Japan. GM hopes that reorganization and robotizing its main dealer plants into a Buick City in Flint, Michigan, will let it reduce costs by $1,500 per car. Of course, today's 8,600 dealer workers in Flint will be slashed by 3,600, 40%, by 1986. GM, which even now employs one skilled technician for every 5.6 production workers, hopes that the ratio to be 1 to 1 by the robotized future of the year 2000. Many auto workers will lose their jobs, but a large minority will still have their high-wage positions. Whereas GM did $200 million in modernized dealer production, the same competitive, and, in style staff, still employ high-wage American workers. While GM might say, quote, retaining earnings or, quote, raising capital on the bond market. We note that the labor costs saved by GM in reducing all parts for the U.S. in its 10 Mexican plants instead of Detroit is over $200 million per year. That is not their profits, but their super profits, above and beyond small profits, gotten from a dollar an hour labor. GM can have new factories, and a number of European auto workers can still keep their high wage jobs. 
So while the liberals have high goals, see high wage U.S. production and low wage colonial production as opposed to each other, it is true that there is a relationship and even a dependency. The flash production of robots and automation, of nation technicians and workers, drawing advanced wages, draws sustenance from the ordinary physical labor and sales of the mass proletariat. Quote, nations become almost as classes. End quote. The Maquillas do not constitute any economic development for Mexico. They are just labor intensive intrusions of U.S. manufacturing. It isn't just the profits that go to the U.S. manufacturing. The U.S. receives both the super profits and the consumer products themselves, while retaining all the white collar, managerial, professional, clerical, technical, and distributed jobs made possible by production. Even in the form of getting Mexican women employment at wages five times the usual rate in rural areas, the imperialist looting of the structure of the fabric. The border Maquillas gather women from all over the occupied zone, while helping force jobless men north across the artificial border. So this export production is often the horse of the third world. Even worse is the parasitic trend of looting the third world for foodstuffs, shifting agricultural production for U.S. consumption in part to the oppressed nations. The entire imperialist lot is joining on this. In 1980, the Far East Economic Review noted that in four Asian nations, quote, the new export-oriented luxury food agribusiness is undoubtedly the fastest growing agriculture sector. Fruit, vegetables, seafood, and poultry are filling European, American, and above all, Japanese supermarket shelves. End quote. In Mexico, this has reached grotesque proportions. Within the occupied zone, the area of Western Sinaloa alone supplies some 50% of all winter vegetables consumed in the U.S. Thousands of peasants have been displaced, driven off traditional lands to make way for the large plantations, and their gunmen, that are neo-colonial agents of the U.S. supermarket chains. The land is Mexican, the labor is Mexicano. Only profits and consumption are Euro-American. There's nothing to sell about this. White America is parasitic on the nation, taking food from the starving to help fill up the fabled American supermarket. A report of Mexico in the New York Times tells the price paid by that procrastination for involuntarily maintaining the, quote, American way of life. Beginning a long quote. Reliable statistics on nutrition levels do not exist, although the 1970 census concluded that 30% of the population, then over 60 million, were undernourished, another 30% suffered malnutrition, and at least 20% were obese because of poorly balanced diets. Quote, the first indicator is when we see infant mortality rising again, said Dr. Michael Chavez, head of nutrition in the National Nutrition Institute. Quote, in some really depressed rural communities, each children born since 1974 has survived. We have what we call generational holes, but infant mortality is also growing in some areas like cities. More than 100,000 children die here each year because of the relationship between malnutrition and transmittable diseases, he said. Quote, continued. And of 2 million or so born each year, at least 1.5 million will not adequately develop their mental, physical, and social functions. End of quote. Longer quote continued. As in many developing countries, agricultural priorities are, first, food for export, second, food for industrial processing, and only third, food for the population at large. While winter vegetables, strawberries, tomatoes, and coffee are being produced for export, for example, the government must import corn and beans. Similarly, according to official figures, more basic grains are consumed for animal forage than by 20 million peasants. End quote. We should not hear the peculiar chemical mechanism of agriculture. It's itself highly specialized, primarily oriented around subsidized mass production of feed grains. Two-thirds of all U.S. agricultural exports are feed grains, used in animal livestock. Most of these exports are to the industrial powers, Europe, Japan, and the U.S.R. While much of the $16 billion in foodstuffs, the U.S. imports each year is from the third world. In Mexico, the neocolonial economy imports grain from the U.S. to raise meat for the upper and middle classes, while exporting significant amounts of its own food productivity. So all over the third world, the U.S. not only supply U.S. imperialism with raw materials, but increasingly labor in both factories and, quote, the factories in the fields, to send the U.S. a growing stream of consumer and industrial products and even foodstuffs. The world plantation is still very real in the age of computer. We say the first makes the second possible. End of section 3. Settlers, chapter 12, section 4. High tech in the third world. This trend now accelerates. As early as 1970, the U.S. electrical industry had one third of its total workforce outside U.S. borders. Ford Motor Company, which already takes over 50% of the products overseas, has announced plans to sharply increase foreign production. Already investing $1 billion each year in foreign plants, Ford's spokesman emphasized, quote, we plan to spend at a higher rate. Even Hugh Packard, the computer giant that is one of the largest California, quote, high-tech employers, is building its newest major plants in Mexico and the U.K. Hugh Packard has said that its future production growth will be outside the U.S. Paradoxically, the uproar over the Atari Corporation's decision to close down U.S. production itself verifies this trend. While radicals denounced this move, quote, to shift manufacturing of video games and home computers from the U.S. to Hong Kong and Taiwan, end quote, Atari production has always been in the third world. Its game purchases are made in Puerto Rico, its Asian plants were established years ago, and its U.S. production employees primarily China, Mexicano, and Asian immigrant women. It was only a question for Atari of which there were workers to lay off. That is revealed in new and unexpected ways. Everyone has heard that, quote, high tech is the industrial future. These are the new industries based on sophisticated products that keep rapidly changing, keeping on the, quote, cutting edge of technology, rather than just standing out standard products year after year. In other words, instead of steel bars and diesel engines, computer chips or biogenetics or robots. These, quote, high tech industries today, by their very nature, employ one engineer for every 3.6 production workers in the U.S. And there is today a relative shortage of engineers from key specialties. The U.S. Empire's answer has been to drain engineers from the rest of the world, in particular the third world, India, Taiwan, Mexico, Palestine, etc. A recent study funded by the Foundation reported that, quote, many graduate engineering programs, even as of the most prestigious institutions, draw 70% or more of their students from abroad. Several engineering games, the report says, suggest that without foreign students, they would have to close down their graduate program in the short run and their whole operation immediately. Since graduate students are essential labor in university laboratories, much research vital to national interests would, quote, grind to a halt without foreign students, the report warns. End quote. 
It turns out that many of the engineering school faculty as well, as some universities close to the majority, are from the third world. In 1982, for the first time, a majority of the U.S. doctorates awarded in engineering went to foreign students. In testimony before House of Representatives and Immigration Subcommittee, John Calvin of the Intel Corporation, Advanced Electronics, said, quote, We in the industry have forced to hire immigrants in order to grow, end quote. He said that just in graduates from U.S. universities, 50% of the master's degrees engineers and 66% of PhD engineers hired by Intel were foreign immigrants. The U.S. Empire's absorption of third world scientists and engineers, the, quote, brain drain. This is so significant that last year the U.N. General Assembly passed a resolution urging halt to the, quote, reverse transfer of technology out of the third world. The U.S. Empire powers vote against it. Even when it comes to high technology, it turns out that part of the U.S. Empire's superiority comes from leaving the third world. Just as interesting is the question of why are there not zero American engineers? Answer, engineering doesn't pay well enough for settlers. In 1981, a survey found that the average engineering income, according to the Institute of Electro and Electronics Engineers, of $36,867. This isn't good enough for them. Engineering requires years of study, taking difficult courses in college, and then constant re-education to keep up with new advances. The overwhelming majority of U.S. engineers leave the field, primarily for management and entrepreneurial careers. A 1970 survey of 878 MIT engineering graduates found that 726 had left engineering. For your Americans, in other words, engineering is primarily a good foundation to become a business executive. While U.S. universities are producing 67,000 engineers per year, the American Electronics Association says that through 1985, there will be an annual shortfall of 20,000 engineers just in its sector. The shortfall only exists because as many as 50,000 U.S. engineers per year leave the profession. Technical education becomes only a step to swallow the numbers of Euro-American businessmen, while third world is draining of educated men and women to do such a part of the actual technological work for the U.S. empire. Decadence manifests itself even in the most advanced aspects of the Western nation. Battle on computers is still Babylon. End of section. Settlers. Chapter 12. Section 5. Undocumented colonial labor. The growing dependence on undocumented workers just transfers new third world production inside the borders of the continental empire. Numbering a minimum of 6 million at this time, these workers are primarily McConnell, but include Dominicans, Chinese, Haitians, and others from all over the world. Their role in production is by now essential and irreplaceable to the U.S. assassination. Undocumented workers play both specific and general role. In specific, they are the proletariat in U.S. agriculture and government industries. In general, they are a mobile, continental labor army, constituting a low-wage proletarian base in many enterprises, upon which a superstructure of skilled, white-collar, and management jobs for your Americans is elected. Douglas S. Massey of Princeton University Office of Population Research has noted that, quote, illegal aliens typically work in low-menial, low-paying positions shunned by citizens, who often work in supervisory and administrative positions in the same firms. End quote. Undocumented colonial labor pervades the imperialist economy. Undocumented workers haul in mats on shrimp boats off Texas, repair railroad tracks near Houston, assemble furniture in California factories, unload trucks at Chicago food processing plant, trim tree branches away from suburban Illinois electric power lines, clean rooms in Connecticut hotels, sell fast food in Manhattan, mop floors in corporate offices, and operate candy machines in Florida factories. The undocumented worker drives trucks, puts together electrical goods, slaughters beef, harvests crops, and in general does those necessary jobs at wages too low to sustain, quote, the white lifestyle. In supplying the society with cheap food and clothing, undocumented workers supply two of the three basic necessities of life, literally feeding and clothing Euro Americans. Even within the continental US, it is well known that effectively all agricultural labor is the world. The tractor dealers and mechanics, fertilizer salesmen and the agricultural agents, the farm owners and managers, may all be Euro-American. But the agricultural laborers in the fields are African, Puerto Rican, or Dominican, and most of all, Chicano and Cano, as is much workforce in food processing. It is hard for a Euro-American family to have a day's meals without eating products of the third world labor. This applies more so to clothing. The clothes Euro-Americans wear are appropriated from third world labor. Los Angeles has become a major government manufacturing center, with an estimated 100,000 workers. Even by AFL-CIO some 80% of these workers are Chicano and Cano, an absolute majority are undocumented workers. This is a special industry, with conditions that Euro-Americans left behind them over a generation ago. A 1979 investigation by California Division of Labor showed that 1,083 garment manufacturers, some 999, 92%, were paying less than minimum wage. Some 376 of these manufacturers, 34%, did not have workers' compensation insurance. Many used illegal child labor. These Chicago and workers joined the other third world workers furnishing America with clothes. In New York, over a quarter of all garment workers, some 50,000, were in supposedly illegal sweatshops. Not only Chinese women, the traditional sweatshop workers in New York, but also Koreans, Haitians, Dominicans, Chicago etc. Undocumented workers now are growing and perhaps majority part of New York garment workers. It is certainly indicative that over 30% of all international ladies' garment workers union, IMGW, AFL-CIO, Members there are undocumented. New York's Department of Labor admits that, quote, in most cases, these workers earn under the minimum wage, union or not, and their agency found such shops with a third world women average $1.50 an hour and pay for 50 hour work weeks. Even that is more than common workers earn in Asia and Latin America. Imports account for 41% clothing sales in the U.S. in 1981. Charles D. Keeley, immigration policy analyst for the Population Council in New York City, told the Washington Post, quote, could the economy continue to function if all the illegal aliens were deported? Are they really affordable? He asked. Some industries, such as agriculture, food services, and government action, are virtually dependent on legal labor. End quote. The, quote, big house needs a plantation. As Lynn pointed out, quote, the class of those who own nothing, but do not labor either, is incapable of overthrowing these players. Only the proletarian class, which maintains the whole of society, has the power to bring about a successful social revolution. End quote. The meaning of this for us is obvious. End of chapter 12.
Setters by Jason Kai. Chapter 13. Class, Culture, and Community. Note. This chapter addresses income figures in 1979 for $78. Converts to six figures current dollars using this site. Portal Fly Biography 3.2. Begin a quote. A UE international officer said, in November 1968, to a group of stewards and local union officers, quote, For the past few years, as you know, we've been having widespread discussion in our union on general feeling of rebellion, cynicism, and disgust among young workers. Let's examine now why these young workers coming into shops today feel and act as they do. When this young guy starts getting his weekly paycheck, he looks pretty good, but not for long. Soon he buys a house with a 30 year mortgage. He puts some furniture in the house. He buys a car, a refrigerator, washer, and dryer. A TV, like a color TV. On top of all that, his young wife is pregnant again. As the monthly bills are piling up, his pay on the world looks ridiculous. He sees no reason at all why America, the richest country in the world, can't pay a job that provides him with all the necessities and some of the luxuries of life. And what's wrong with that? He is frustrated. He is mad. He's ready to fight the establishment that fails to give him what he needs. End quote. Five miles of pavements, then us. Begin another long quote. I'd like to tell you why we are troubled. First, we are tired of being liquid and then legally extorted. Second, we are seeing tired of institutions, both public and private, not being responsive. Third, we feel powerless in our dealings with these monoliths. Fourth, we do not like being blamed for all the problems of black America. Fifth, and perhaps key, we anguish at all the class prejudice that is forced upon us. End quote. The speaker is Barbara Mikulski, a third-generation Polish American from Baltimore, and there's a question as she sees her millions of the inhabitants of what Peter Binlin calls White Town USA. People forget that in much smaller areas, twice as many white as non-white families live in, quote, official poverty. <clears throat> of course, many white towners don't qualify for that governmental distinction. They are poor, but not poor enough. The white town husband and father works as a truck driver, or turret lathe operator, or policeman, or longshoreman, or white-collar clerk. Perhaps I have more than one of these jobs, denying hold on to his 14-foot white house and new color television set. Quote, the only place we feel any sense of identity, community, or control is that little home we prize, says Nikolsky. But there again, we feel threatened by black people. End of quote. From the Carnegie Quarterly, Fall 1970. Euro American workers are absorbed, as are lower economic workers in Zania, into super-class settler communities, where the petty bourgeoisie is leadership, and the labor aristocracy is the largest and most characteristic element. There is a distinct and exceptional Euro American way of life that materially and ideologically fuses together to settle masses, shopkeeper, trade unionists, and school teacher alike. The general command of bourgeois ideology over these settler communities is reinforced by the mobilization of tens of millions of Euro Americans into social reactionary organizations. Those Euro Americans who are miserated or heavily exploited are not only still commanded by loyalty to quote, their empire, but are submerged and disconnected amongst a far larger, heavily privileged mass of their fellow citizens. These quote, white poor are truly the lost, the abandoned remnants of the old class struggle existing without direction inside Babylon. While there are numbers of Euro American workers, they no longer combine into a separate proletarian class. The old white industrial proletarian of the 1930s has been dissolved by promotion and privilege, and its place taken by the colonial proletarians. The abnormal and historically brief contradiction of proletarian class conflict within the settler has been ended. Just in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, the U.S. Western nation is again a non-proletarian society that is purely capitalistic in character. The level of decadence and general privilege can be measured by examining the class structure. Revisionist analyses of the U.S. class structure are, of course, deliberately misleading. Most typically, revisionists love together the U.S. nation with the various third world class nations and national minorities as one society. Their scheme is to try and hide Babylon behind the masses of colonial workers. They typically say, quote, America has a working class majority. This implies about separate society, but it is not true. A more subtle distortion is focused on Euro Americans, but to determine, quote, class by sorting each individual man and woman into different occupational groupings, roughly according to a private relationship to mean production and distribution. This approach lets revisionists claim that the majority of white Americans are working class. This approach denies the, quote, sensuous reality of human society. Classes are huge, self-defined, living social formations, with general aspects and aspects unique to their own history, time, and nation. Angles in this regard notes, quote, the working classes have always, according to different states of development of society, live in different circumstances and have different relations to the only and classes, end quote. It is our task to discover and explore the tangible class formations that have their own existence in material life, completely intended to our investigation. The revisionist distortion, on the contrary, seeks arbitrarily class statistical categories, fill them up, on paper anyway, with abstract individuals and call this classes. This is just bourgeois sociology with, quote, left rhetoric. The U.S. presentation is a patriarchal society of some complexity. In general, Euro Americans exist in family units, with the class identity of a family primarily dependent on husband or father. We should say we neither advocate the situation nor see it as paternal. It is the failing reality of its time, in this century, and it is our task to understand it. The revisionist mythology comes up with conclusions like, quote, all secretaries are in the clerical sector of the working class. That sounds reasonable to many. Factually, however, it isn't true. For example, if a young Euro American woman works as a secretary, came from a petty bourgeois family background, is married to a professional, lives in an exclusive white residential suburb or, quote, already urban community, shares in a family income of $30,000 per year, is she working class? Could she working class or husband and children are petty bourgeois? Obviously, such a person would, in the actual social world exists, be solidly flourishing within the petty bourgeoisie. This is not a far-fetched example. Fully 25% of Euro American women employed as clerical salespersonnel are married to men who are managers or professionals. 17% of the wages employed wives on male managers, including small retail businesses, are blue-collar workers. Due to the patriarchal nature of Euro American society, most women from the middle classes are forced, when seeking employment, to accept non-professional clerical and retail sales jobs. This does not necessarily change their class identity. One study shows that roughly one third of all secretaries under their years of age are graduates from colleges or junior colleges. This is not based knowledge. 
We have this class that exists, not defined as on top two categories of what we're making. We can gain a better idea of the feature of whole society's class structure by looking at the old American male occupation alone. While this is nowhere near as accurate as conducting social investigation, actually going out and studying a mass in all aspects of their lives, it should help us see general outlines of a class situation. Footnote. Mao Zedong, for example, in his social investigation of China's countryside, found significant influence not just in non rules, but in content social changes. Quote, as the authority of the husband, it has always been comparatively weak among poor peasants, because the poor peasant women, for financial reasons, compelled to engage more in manual work than women in the wealthier classes, have obtained greater rights to seek and more power to make decisions in family affairs. They also enjoy considerable sexual freedom. Among the poor peasants, triangular and multilateral relationships are most universal. End footnote. This outline is not a full class analysis, we must caution. For our purposes here, we do not need to separately delineate the big bourgeoisie, regional, and local bourgeoisie, and the very middle classes, small business providers, salary managers, landowning farmers, professionals, etc. All these are placed in one bourgeois petty bourgeois grouping, which contains what are set classes. This is based on the 1970 census. Bourgeois and middle classes, 37%. Managers, 12 of this. Managers, 12%. Professionals, 15%. Sales and agents and brokers, 5%. Farmers and managers, 3%. Clerical administrative, 1.15%. Another topic. Correlator of society, 24%. In that, craftsmen, 22%. Protector of security, such as police, fire, etc., 2%. Another top level, workers, includes much of labor aristocracy, 39%. Of this, factory and transportation operators, 18%. Laborers, 7%. Clerical, 6%. Retail sales clerks, 2%. General service, 5%. Footnote. The actual U.S. bourgeoisie is abnormally large. The wealthiest 1% of the U.S.'s empire's population, one out of every 100 adults of all nationalities, primarily Euro-American, own an average of 1.32 million dollars each. This is the zone where the upper petty bourgeois and local bourgeoisie meet. Earlier studies indicate that the actual big bourgeoisie, Dubon's, Rockefeller's, Morgan's, is only a fraction of this number, perhaps as few as 15,000 individuals. End of footnote. This breakdown of Euro-American male occupations has a very clear meaning, verifying everything about white America that daily life has told us. The bourgeois, the middle classes, and the labor aristocracy are the absolute majority, over 60%. The labor aristocracy is full in size. Almost two out of every 100 million Euro-Americans are policemen, firemen, or other security workers. Highly paid construction tradesmen, machinists, mechanics, and other skilled craftsmen outnumber ordinary production and transportation workers. Even this greatly understates the extent of settlement aristocracy. Many rural American factory workers, technicians, clerical workers, and even general laborers, such as municipal park department quote, laborers in the major cities, receive extra culturing wages, sometimes in light labor and usually no toil at all. The settlement aristocracy is considerably larger than its hardcore, perhaps comprising as much as 50% of all male rural Americans. End of instruction. Settlers, Chapter 13, Section 1. The Philistine Mode of Life. Most importantly, rural Americans share an exceptional way of life. What is so exceptional about it is that almost all get to live in a bourgeois way, quote, quite Philistine in the mode of life, in the size of their earnings, and in their entire outlook, end quote. Thus, the mass of the lower middle classes, the huge labor aristocracy, and most workers are fused together by a common national way of life and a common national ideology as oppressors. The masses share a way of life that aids the bourgeoisie, dominated by a preoccupation with private consumption. Consuming things and owning things, no matter how shoddy or trivial, is the mass religion. The real world of desperate toil, the world of proletarians who own nothing but their labor power, is looked down upon with contempt and fear by Euro Americans. Euro Americans know how privileged they have it on a world scale, how exceptional they are. Interviews by Mother Order in an Iowa industrial city found, quote, the prevailing attitude expressed here was absolute in this comment from Don Shopsburg, the 46 year old foreman of a concrete pipe plant. The end quote. If you had a chance to make your country, where else would you go? We're also working out on his own house and two cars and take a vacation every year. I'd say I'm happy, man. Not a bit unhappy with my lifestyle. End quote. Like Mr. Shopper and many other Americans elsewhere, workers here often seem to equate success with ownership of homes, cars, campers, boats, and the like. I work a lot of hours, said James Dirks, Teamster Union shop steward at Sidler, but I've got a car, a truck, a boat, and a camper to show for it. And Lavon Feldhouch, her 86 year old wife and mother who works as a clerk for deer, where her husband is also employed, said, quote, I feel my life is in an upward curve. She noted that she and her husband have accumulated three houses and added, we're not going to stop there. They also own two cars, a truck, a boat, and a motorcycle, and take two vacation trips a year, one with their children and one without. And long quote. All statistics show the amount of consumption in Euro-American society is staggering. Enough so it establishes for the mass of certain culture. In the settler today's Euro-American culture is one of homeowning, with 68.4% of all settler households in 1979 owning their own home, up 50% from 1940. These households share a cornucopia of private electric appliances. 89.8% of all U.S. homes in 1979 had LEDs, watching an average over six hours per day. 55% had air conditioning, 77.3% had washing machines, and 61% had clothes dryers, 43% had dishwashers, 52% had blenders and food processors, and so on. Much of the world's products are ported in the U.S., with, for example, one out of every three pairs of prescription eyeglasses in the world sold here. In terms of the, quote, basis, the most characteristic for Euro-Americans is the automobile. In 1980, there were a total of 104.6 million cars on the road. 84.1% of all U.S. households had cars, with 36.6% having two or more. Everyone says that owning automobiles is a, quote, necessity, without which transportation work, 83% drive to work, shopping and shopping cannot be done. A Bureau of Labor Statistics study shows how the, quote, average wage owner in Boston of 1875 has to spend 94% of family income on necessities, food, clothing, and housing. A, quote, century of progress in the good life later, 
The study found that the average wage earner in 1972 to 1973 in Boston spent only 62% on these necessities, meaning they, quote, could afford to spend 38% on non-essentials, end quote. We should note that few Euro-Americans would agree with this element of definition, since in their society, such things as automobiles, sleeping pills, college education, dry cleaning, telephones, etc., are viewed as, quote, necessities. These by no means exhaust the list of Euro-American possessions. Stocks. One of every seven Euro-Americans owns at least some corporate stocks. Vacation homes, land, hair dryers, motorcycles, exercise equipment, guns, boats, annual changes of clothing styles, and the on. We have brought up these boring, almost mind-numbing lists of possessions to drive on the point that consuming is a disease on settlers, and infection that is dominant in that culture. Euro-American life is no longer centered around corruption, but around consumption. This is a near final stage of decadence. All this is only made possible by the generalized high income that characterizes Euro-American mass life. The mean Euro-American family income in 1981 was $23,517. This is not equally distributed, quite obviously, but the extent to which many Euro-Americans in all classes, an absolute majority, share this generalized high income is striking. Between 1960 and 1979, the percentage of settler families earning over $25,000 per year in concept $1979 doubled, making up 40% of the settler population. When we examine Euro-American families earning over $25,000 per year in terms of their occupations, this income seems is very conspicuous. A chart of family income by percent occupation. On the left side is percent occupation, on the right side is percent earning over $20,000 in 1978 dollars. Manager, 75%. Professional, 67%. Clerical sales, 69%. Skilled worker, 49%. Unskilled worker, 35%. This generalized high income has come to characterize even industrial production workers, who in previous historical periods were highly exploited and lived in abject misery. An upper stratum of unionized production workers in heavy industry earned on a process level with a petty bourgeoisie. At the end of 1982, general motors were paying with blue collar workers an average base wage of $11.53 per hour. Plus an additional 99 cents per hour in shift and overtime premiums, and an additional 7 cents per hour in average benefits, such as health insurance, FTD, holiday, and vacation day, etc. This is a total package of some $40,000 per year. Steelworkers' average 1981 total wage package was $19.42 an hour. This compares to craft incomes in the most fortunate high wage areas. In San Jose, California, the latest pact raises union electricians' total wage to $24.40 an hour. Most year-long workers no longer employ in industries, however. Much more typical and more exploited would be Maureen McKim, recently written about as one of the 9,000 mobile workers in Phoenix, Arizona. A 41 year old divorcee, Miss Kim earns $7.02 per hour for 36 hour a week. As a production worker making semiconductors, Living on a restricted budget, she saw only one movie last year in order to pay for her son's work and her daughter's college. When we go down even lower, we find the notoriously low-wage North Carolina textile mills, which in a low-wage industry have four paid workers of those in any state. Virtual symbols of backward, quote, poor white exploitation. They paid an average professional wage in 1982 of $5.24 per hour, or $10,000, $10,900 per year. This low-wage North Carolina textile mill workers is much higher than world standards. This is roughly 30 times the wage that Belmont's division of the R.J. Reynolds Corporation pays women workers who work 10 to 12 hours each day on their vast building plantations. It is 11.5 times the wage that Belmont Company pays the Haitian workers who stitch together all the major league baseballs. It is five times the wage that Shell Motors pays the average workers in Zinga. The most exploited Euro American workers who hold levels above the standard of the world proletariat. Since they may be on the bottom, they are on the bottom of privileged nation oppressors. Nation is a dominant factor modifying class relations. No matter where we look, the mass extra proletarian privileges of Euro Americans. No matter where we look, the mass extra proletarian privileges of Euro Americans have structurally insulated them within their exceptional way of life. Quote, problems like high mortgage rates for homes are problems of a particular way of life. The full extent of what Euro American masses get from this special relationship serving imperialism cannot be measured in dollars alone. Everyone in the empire understands the same. Quote, if you're white, you're all right. To the settler garrison goes the first hit of whatever is available homes, jobs, schools, food, health care, government services, and so on. Whatever security is available under imperialism is theirs as well. This is taken for granted. A 1977 survey by the Center for Policy Research among Vietnam veterans in the Northeast showed that while African Vietnam veterans surveyed had an unemployment rate of 28%, corresponding Euro American veterans had an unemployment rate of 1-3%. Further, the employed Euro American veterans earned an average of $4,212 more per year than even those African veterans who were working. Even the women's movement became a real factor in preserving their exceptional way of life. While the women's movement both expressed anger at sexism and greatly improved Euro American women's lives, it was largely co-opted as a political movement by imperialism at its birth. The imperialist sponsored quote, liberation of settler women has been a major prop to reinforce and modernize the patriarchal family structure. For that matter, to transfuse the whole of society. Just as the Empire called out white women from the kitchen during World War II to be, quote, Rose the Ritter in the war entry. So in the 1970s, white women were again free by imperialism to enter the labor force into new areas and in unprecedented numbers. First, by the time the Empire had decided that Africans were again too rebellious to be employed in any great numbers in key industrial, commercial, and professional institutions, Euro-American women were recruited to stand by their men in filling out their jobs. Quote, equal opportunity in medical schools, law schools, business, etc. meant a large influx of Euro-American women and few Africans. This is noticeable even in blue-collar trades, which have long been male sectors of employment. During 1970 80, the percentage of women in these restricted crafts rose at a rate three times that for third world workers. This was like a new way of European and it was a, quote, rather fresh air, modernizing settler society. Now, for instance, even the New York Times has a very literary, quote, women's consciousness column, called hers, where feminist leaders and writers can reach a mass audience. The fractures of the cities are being read in style and reunited among settlers. Nautilus D.L. Sheedy wrote in this column, quote, 
behind just about every successful woman I know, Republican as well as private life, there's another one. The dirty little serious. All the one of the female leaders interviewed here has household help. End quote. She herself tried Filipino and Argentinian domestics unsuccessfully to, quote, hostile, before going back to try and true African-American domestic. While women's liberation is an essential part of the world revolutionary future, the struggle of women in various societies have their own national characteristics. In the U.S. Nation, the politics of women's liberation formed a small current within the much larger overall women's movement. This larger movement is pro-imperialist and is concerned only with the equality of privilege among male and female settlers. It is opposed to any liberation in general. The revolutionary ideas of women's liberation rested lightly upon the surface of women's movement, and some individual women did come up. Real wages in the U.S. began to stagnate in 1967, when imperialism ran ground on the Vietnamese Revolution. For the first time since World War II, rather than inflation was eating the upward spiral of Euro American income. In this new crisis, the new income of Euro American women saved the separate family from, quote, loss of buying power, a phrase of the oppressed economy that carries the most traumatic weight. The new income of employed women contributed to the 22% increase in real per capita income in the U.S. between 1970 and 80. The Euro American family continued its way of life by becoming a two wage earner family, at a time when African proletarian families, for example, were increasingly become the reverse. By 1978, some 75% of the U.S. families with incomes over $25,000 per year had two wage earners. The New York Times reported, quote, across the nation, women have swarmed into the workforce by millions, swelling the numbers of multi income families. That trend can mask the effects of inflation, since a substantial number of families are living better than they did. End quote. We are not describing simple social bribery, as in the bourgeoisie vacation of European workers in Germany, France, England, etc. In Europe, the bribe workers came from a long history of class war, in societies with centuries of sharply defined and rigid class divisions. Their classes, however bribed and effective, still exist as formations in the actual social world, occupying traditional communities, continuing a definite class culture. Politically, the European working class still swell the large, nominally quote, socialist, voluntary industrial unions, which do not exist in the U.S. present nation, and are electorally represented by traditional working class parties, the German Social Democratic Party, the Chinese Party, etc. Of course, along range trends of world globalization and internationalization mean that all of nation societies have become more alike and will become even more so. In America, this bribery, this bourgeois education, took place in the context of a separate society, which has its own history, culture, and traditions, based not on a class struggle, but on a material world as a privileged garrison of a continental empire. The immigrant European proletarians were bribed by being absorbed, i.e., integrated, if you will, into this specific society. So be sure of military roles in East Los Angeles, strike voices from some quarters of larger. So in America, ancient oppressor class distinctions have always been muted on the mass level by the fact that the main distinction was whether you were a settler or a subject, whether you were in slave patrols or enslaved in the fields, whether you were in frontier garrison unity or in prison in a reservation. This was the all-important identity to which everything else was important. Only someone with no contact with reality can fail to see this. And the section one. Settlers, chapter 13, section 2, the garrison community. The Euro American community is not just a combination of sores and residences. It is a physical structure for settler life, in which the common culture of the entire garrison still lives on. These garrison communities are enforcers of the oppressive nation way of life among its citizens, demanding social conformity and ideological regimentation. They have certain specific characteristics, the most learning which is that colonial subjects are generally barred out. Why should the settler garrison not be, quote, Indians live inside the walls of the fort? There is an arrogance, but at the same time, an underlying feeling of being threatened or besieged by, quote, those people, which occasionally breaks out in collective hysteria, during which guns are flourished and the laggards rush by with gunshots. The confining, boring, and filthy way of life of these communities is one reason Euro American youth, quote, dropped out of them in such numbers during the 1960s. There are, of course, different types of communities, distinguished by a number of things, including by class. The community of multimillionaires in Paul Springs or Aspen is very different from the communities of Narsi or Soki or Charlestown, as are the, quote, Kipwazi communities of Berkeley or Greenwich Village. On the mass level, however, a certain type of superclass Euro American community has been characteristic for over a century. It is a small homeowning, small property community. In it, the lower middle class, the labor aristocracy, and other workers share the type of generally comfortable life of the settled garrison. This is where community life is supported by insidious concentration of state services, parks, garbage collection, swimming pools, better schools, medical facilities, and so on. In contrast to reservation or ghetto, the settled community is full of the resources of modern industrial life. Increasingly, such communities are suburbs, or quote, exurbs, filled with the Euro-Americans who are regrouping away from the old central cities. Today, the suburban population is 103 million, roughly half the U.S. population. These suburbs are fundamentally, quote, all white, averaging around 90% Euro-American. Those numbers are misleading, since most third-world people in the suburbs are either tightly segregated into ghettoized small towns and residential pockets, or are Asian. The social character of a typical suburb is relentlessly, monolithically, quote, white. We can see in such garrison communities, urban, quote, ethnic enclave, as well as suburb, how the shared exceptional way of life materially and ideologically fuses together the masses. There, on the same blood and street, the families of electricians and small retailers, truck drivers and school teachers, policemen and grill owners, bookkeepers and telephone repairmen, white collar supervisors and factory workers, computer programmers and legal secretaries grow up together, go to the same schools together, and intermarry. Nominal class distinctions on the common level pay off the superclass unification as a settled mass, most characterized by the labor aristocracy. Here also is the home of a state labor force. Policemen and environment are quite common, and in some communities almost everyone is related to friends or neighbors with the police. Literally thousands of, quote, all white, voluntary organizations crisscross separate communities. Tens of millions of settlers are organized into sexual reactionary groupings of most diverse kinds. Some, such as the KKK or the moral majority, are overt. 
far more acceptable and wide-reaching are reaction organizations such as the Abel Craftians, ethnic organizations like the Sons of Italy, the all-white Roman Catholic parishes, the quote, white-white groupings, the Mormon Church, the NRA, the Bethlehem, other Zionist fascist groups, sports leagues, thousands of neighborhood quote, improvement associations, ranchers associations, military reserve units, and on and on. The list of special quote, all-white organizations with reaction politics is endless. A picture of a Bethlehem camp tour poster, promising a camp tour in Israel. The National Rifle Association in the state of Pennsylvania alone has ties to over 1,000 local gun clubs with 200,000 members. One report shows how Jim Price, a part-time farmer and factory worker, is also a, quote, power worker, as president of state federation sportsman's clubs. This grouping was credited for electing Republican Richard Sucker to the U.S. Senate when the Democratic incumbents spoke out for gun controls. The report goes on, quote, Mr. Price's forebears were original settlers here, so when he talks about the dictatorship through gun controls, his sense of history sounds personal. My people were chased off twice by the Indians before they good, he said. Everyone who has any contact with the NRA now government knows exactly how they expect to use their weapons. This network alone mobilizes millions of armed Euro Americans. Such special reaction organizations are far from all demanding, even within the community, but their strength is considerable. What is most important is to realize that white America is not a political, quote, blank. The Euro American, quote, left sometimes discusses things as if this were true, discussing, quote, organizing white workers, as though they were further in place. Settlers are not waiting passively for, quote, the movement to come to organize them. The point is they already have many movements, causes, and organizations of their own. That's the problem. End of section two. Settlers, chapter 13, section three. The poor and exploited. The U.S. assassination does have some casualties. It is broken remnants of the industrial past. These constitute an insufficient base for revolution and change, however. Approximately 10% of the Euro American population has been living in poverty by government statistics. This minority is not cohesive for the parent child, but a miscellaneous fringe of the unlucky and the outcast. Older workers trapped by fading industries, retired poor, physically and emotionally disabled, and some families supported by a single woman. The whole culture silently reminds them that if they are poor and white, the fault must be theirs. The rate of alcoholism in this layer is considerable. They are scattered and socially diffused. Some entire industrial communities do exist as outmoded but surviving pockets of the old white life. It's interesting to see how imperialism controls them. The Appalachian coal mining communities are the shortest example, having their own economic, cultural, and union tradition going back to the 19th century. What a great contrast between these old, torn up mountain mining communities and the new Euro-American white suburbs. Yes, there is an inner relationship, even in the exceptions of the trends. Precisely because of this stark, deeply ingrained tradition, the Appalachian mining communities and the special targets of radical organizing efforts. The Congress Party USA has had organizers in the mountains for some 60 years. It was there during the 1920s, the most famous of CPUSA's Red Unions, the National Miners Union, led the coal miners into bitter, violent Harlem County strike. Even during the reaction in the 1950s, the Southern Conference Education Fund maintained a radical presence. In the 1960s, we find numerous Appalachian organizing projects, including those of the Press Labor Party, SES, and the Southern Student Organizing Committee. By the 1970s, many radical groupings were helping promote distant movements, such as for community reforms, or miners for democracy, MFT, that eventually won control of the United Mine Workers Union. In the 1970s, the Revolutionary Communist Party had its own rank-and-file miners' organizations, just as the CUSA had over four years before, which for a time had some following. Despite the 60 years of repeated rival organizing drives, there has been, in fact, zero revolutionary progress among the mining communities. Despite the history of bloody union battles, class consciousness has never moved beyond an embryonic form at best. There is no indigenous revolutionary activity, none, or traditions. Loyalty to U.S. imperialism and hatred of colonial peoples is very intense. We can see that the relevant connection between civil and class consciousness. To see why we can look at Kentucky, this has long been one of the worst counties in the U.S. There are no highways, no sewer system, no garbage collection, no hospitals or movie theaters, and one radio station and one fast food franchise restaurant for 14,000 citizens. The community is ripped off, exploited to an extreme degree. Even the government, while sending close to $20 million a year in Martin County for school programs, job retraining, etc., takes out twice that much, $40 million a year, in taxes. One corporation dominates the economy. In fact, owns it. The Norfolk and Western Railroad has narrow rights to some 129,000 acres, over half of the total land area of the county. The second largest landowner is Harvard University. 13 million tons of coal taken out every year, not only bring large profits to the mine operators, Oxygen Petroleum, Fluor Corporation, Ashland Oil, and Natro, but gives NW coal royalties and freight free, but gives NW coal royalties and freight fees over $30 million annually. This is an annual rate of return on investment of 101%. Over the 50-year life of Goldfield, NW's total return will be something like $1.5 billion, or 6,000% on their investment. As everyone knows, the range of strip mining is rapidly destroying the area's civil road system, choking the strings of corrosive oil refuse, fouling the underground water supply, and generally causing more physical and ecological destruction than repeated bombings. Harry Condell, author of When It Comes to Cumberland, says, quote, They treat the region as it were calling. When they finish taking away one of it, they'll just let it go to hell. End quote. Why do the workers in Switch Off Old Colony organize, seeing a revolutionary change, a way to keep the wealth of community of their children's generation? In fact, to really have a community, why do they resist? The answer is that the majority of them welcome such exploitation, whatever the future price. Their community may have nothing, may be sliding back into an eventual future of undeveloped desolation. But right now, those who have jobs are making, quote, good bucks. The 5,000 coal miners have earned around $30,000 per year, while the county's per capita annual income is up to $7,000 per year. The employed miners who are getting those, quote, good bucks are unconcerned about poverty right at their side. The disabled miners and the elderly live in poverty. Children are uneducated, while what income exists in the community is eagerly thrown away on individual consumerism. This one's not the fact that what is poverty-stricken about sellers is their culture. 
The Ural American coal miners are just concentrating on quote, getting theirs while it lasts. In the Saturday tradition, it's quote, every man for himself. They have no class goals or even community goals, just private goals involving private income and private consumerism. Meanwhile, the local NWA manager says that they do have future lands for Appalachia. Quote, we don't intend to walk off and leave this land to Indians. End quote. How bad would be certain? The most significant fact about the real consciousness of the Ural American masses is how anti-communal and private it is. Settlers recognize no common bond with the rest of humanity. That is why everything they do is perverted. Why settler trading are anti-proletarian and settler quote women's liberation is happy to exploit the women of other nations. It means nothing to the Ural Americans that the winter fruit they eat was really paid for by the lives of Mexican or Chilean or Filipino children. For them, the flavor is so sweet. Ural Americans don't even really care too much about each other. Lower taxes are more important than food for their own elderly. This is a disease culture with a mass of local consciousness that is centered around parasitism. The mere recognition that there are rich and poor, or even that corporations exploit people, any idiot can see this, cannot constitute class consciousness. The long, long history of unionism in the whole country shows this. Class consciousness implies participation in class war. While such consciousness certainly can be fighting for better wages, it cannot be limited to or even centered on this. The Euro American quote left has completely misapplied the question of class consciousness. They see an every labor strike in the slightest twitch of reform examples of libertarianism. Some quote social scholars, a self awarded title to be sure, conduct almost anthropological expeditions into the settled masses, seeing in every remembered folk song or cultural nuance some profound hidden nuggets of working class consciousness. Others who have spent years as working class quote experts find proletarian vision and reach out on the bosses told during coffee breaks. This is not politics, whatever else it may be. There is nothing mystical, elusive, or hidden about real working class consciousness. It is a little awareness that the exploiting class and its state must be fought, that the laboring masses of the world have unity in a need for socialism. The Red Army is class consciousness. An action for higher wages or better working conditions need not embody any real class consciousness whatsoever. Narrow self-interest is not the same as consciousness class interests. Quote, more for me is not the same slogan as, quote, liberating Mary. Lenin wrote on this, quote, Only when the individual worker realizes that he is a member of the entire working class, only when he recognizes the fact that his petty day-to-day struggle against individual employers and individual government officials is a struggle against the entire bourgeoisie and the entire government does his struggle become the class struggle. End quote. This famous and passage set forth a clear threshold by which the miners or any other significant groupings of real American workers do not, in a scientific sense, have any real working class consciousness. Much more than this, however, is the reality that practice is the proof, and that the actual struggle reveals more than any theoretical criteria. Lenin pointed this out at the Second Congress of Communist International. Quote, we cannot, nor can anybody else, calculate exactly what portion of the proletariat is following and what will follow the social chauvinists and opportunists. This will only be revealed by struggle. It will be definitely decided only by social revolution. End quote. We have lived through two decades of the most tumultuous little struggle on a global scale. The African masses broke through the colonial repression and massive urban uprising since the early 1960s. The child and colonial land struggle revived in the Southwest. Armed self-defense became a popular concept. Wounded knee led a signal fire for the Indian nations. Social ideas and international solidarity took root in the new insurgencies. The Burbank Revolution brought armed struggle once again to the front door of the empire. The answer to their actual consciousness to what class awareness the American workers had can be found in what side they supported in the wars to overthrow, quote, their U.S. empire. The picture, the August 29, 1970, Chalamar Forum, anti-war attended by 20,000 people. End of section 3. Settlers, chapter 13, section 4. U.S. Settlerism and Zionism. The connection between Euro-American settlerism and Zionist settlerism, to insert imperialism, is shown in all the recent reactionary political developments within the U.S. Jewish communities. Repeated propaganda of the Holocaust is used as fascistic indoctrination to whip out the religious mentality that both justifies Euro-Americans as victims, quote, no more guilt-trips about racism, and powers new terrorist attacks on colonial peoples. The same ultra orthodox Zionist elements are killing African youth in Brooklyn and shooting Palestinian youth on the West Bank. Now, even the anti Semitic bigots of the moral majority recognize Zionists as their, quote, kith and kin. This Zionist example has served many of Russian Jewry and brought some 175,000 of them here to become settlers in the, quote, new world. Again, we can see how the division of the world into oppressed nations pervades all relations and events. The Russian Jewish immigration is not like the Puerto Rican immigration, for example, which is the forced dislocation of colonial people in search of employment. In contrast, the Russian Jewry come, from, come as more reinforcements for the U.S. oppressed nation, come not for survival or bread, but for rich, privileged lifestyle of settlerism. Beneath the propaganda, this is all evident. A recent New York Times report from Russian Russia's Jewish, quote, human rights underground is revealing. About 30 Moscow Jews and a few Westerners gathered in a private apartment recently to mark Purim with poetry and amateur theatricals. The players should easily from Russian Hebrew, and some members of the hopelessly cramped audience joined in the songs. Even the children readily recognized Queen Esther and the other characters in the ancient legend of how Persian Jews tried over a devious lot to massacre them by the way to Han, done up for the evening as a Palestinian guerrilla. The Six Day War in 1967 is generally recognized as a turning point in the self-esteem of Russian Jews and in their identification with Israel. Quote, there is a sense of colossal national rehabilitation, recalled down by mom, a 72 year old physicist and human rights activist. End quote. We see the same pattern of the conquering and killing of Arabs, Africans, etc., dispelled by Zionist settlers and therapeutic rehabilitation, this is the same virile restoration through mass murder that was so sadly praised by Yalkovar. Jews who face an entrenched anti-Semitism, which in Russia definitely makes them, quote, second-class citizens, restricts advancement into proper management and limits religious and cultural expression, such as the, quote, human rights, yet to be better described. About 30% of Russian Jewish immigrants here are university graduates. One such family, by Resnikovs, interviewed in four cities in New York. Quote, Russia was a beautiful country, but not for us, said Mrs. Resnikov, a brief sorrow in her huge dark eyes. 
She was a technician in an electronics lab, and her husband, a Swahili man of 42, was a construction engineer. Hire, I couldn't go in Russia. How do you for them is an enemy, he said. Now, after four years here, Mr. Rushnikov is impatient with working like a worker. In his six thousand pieces, I have a job as a roofer, but I sound nothing better. Quote, we live nice, he said, but we live bad in Kiev or Haifa. I would like to have my own American business. End quote. Some two thirds of all Russian Jewish immigrants have come to the U.S. rather than Israel. A survey of the Council of Jewish Federations found that in 1981, the median family income of these new settlers was $9,632. Other surveys have found that less than 1%, most of the elderly, have the same welfare. Coming from thousands of miles away, often speaking no English, their new citizenship in the U.S. nation gives them an instant lifestyle above the colonial world. End of chapter 13. Settlers by J.C.I. Chapter 14. Tactical and Strategic. The settler nature of the Euro American Western is the decisive factor in the political struggles. It is the decisive factor in relation between third world struggs and the Euro American masses. This is true in 1776 and true in 1976. True for Ku Klux Klan and true for the Communist Party USA. Not these two organizations have the same politics, but that their settler national character is the decisive factor in both. It is only in addressing this that the question of broader unity can be directly answered. This is a particular problem for Asian Americans, who, as relatively small national minorities within the continental empire, have a high organic need for political coalitions and alliances. It is difficult to evaluate the forms of unity just from our own experiences alone. Asian national minorities here have a limited history of political unity with each other, much less with Euro Americans or the nations. Separate radicalism has thought us that two types of unity are important proletarian internationalism, strategic unity of communist members of all nations, and immediate trade union unity, tactical unity of all workers and unions and other organizations. Since historically most Asian workers here have been nationally segregated, there has been little opportunity to test out this trade union unity. The offset example is that of Filipino and Chinese plantation workers in the Hawaiian ILWU, a radical led longshoremen's union on the West Coast, who by the 1970s were the highest paid agricultural workers in the world. Footnote. They were the first and last such, as the Hawaiian plantations are closing down and shipping production further into the third world. End footnote. This is cited as proof that by uniting inside the unions, we will be able to not only get immediate economic benefits, but will be laying the foundations for eventual strategic unity with, quote, our brother and sister, the American workers. In that viewpoint, money based tactical unity with settlers will eventually produce heartfelt strategic unity, wherein Euro American workers will join us as true comrades in making a revolution against their empire. What our analysis has proved is that this view is worse than simple minded. To better examine the question of strategic and tactical relations, we need to turn to the broader history of, quote, black white workers' unity, which has been used in the US empire as a classic example of the supposed superiority of radical integrationism. We need to begin with the theoretical framework constructed by Message of the Black Liberation Movement. Message performed a mentally liberating deed by taking the question of unity out of the thought of, quote, racial or, quote, interracial sentiment, posing it instead in terms of national interests and class interests. The end quote. Black white workers' solidarity cannot be at any cost, but at a particular cost. We do not agree with white black revisionists that black and white workers share the same interests because they are workers. While this may be true on a tactical level, such as struggles on certain issues, it is not true on a strategic level. Strategically speaking, long range, the black workers' ultimate goal is the same as the black masses of blacks, which is toward national self-determination as a people. Both the establishment of a black revolutionary nation based on social relations and overthrowing the capitalist system and establishment of a predominantly white worker state are complementary struggles. And as such, there will be tactical unity around issues that affect both black and white workers. End quote. While this view was important to advance, it also contains certain contradictions. It assumed, despite separatism, that the American masses and the African masses had nationally separate but parallel struggles, both moving in the same direction. Because of this quote complementary relationship, there would naturally quote be tactical unity between quote black and white workers. First of all, tactical unity should be understood as temporary, short-run unity around a specific issue by forces that can even be fundamentally antagonistic. The Chinese Revolution in the U.S. Empire had for a few years a tactical unity against the Japanese Empire. The unity between proletarians of different nations struggling for socialism is not tactical but strategic. There is no temporary or tactical about the deep bond, for example, between the Vietnamese Revolution and the rulers of El Salvador. We ourselves have deep feelings of unity more strategic than any national boundary, or our common in Vietnam. If quote black and white workers were indeed for socialists in respective nations, then the unity would be more tactical. In reality, this is not a situation. Message becomes confused when it tries to deal with the fact that media issues, higher wages in a factory, tenants' rights, legislation, etc., call for some tactical relationship between quote, black and white workers. This is a relationship in the larger framework of national antagonism. It is necessary to this to see more fully what is tactical and what is strategic in the late struggles of Euro-American and third world workers, particularly in seeing that revolutionaries are not the only ones with tactics and strategies. What is the relationship of tactical unity and genocide? The classic and most cited example of quote, black white workers' unity has always been the United Mine Workers. From its founding in 1890, the UNW constitution admitted all coal miners, regardless of quote, race, free, or nationality. As early as 1900, the UNW had some 20,000 members, while even in the early years, an African miner, Richard Davis, was a leader. Davis was elected to the UNW National Executive Board in 1896-97. Davis himself said, after many white miners voted for him on the board, that the, quote, question of color in our miners' organization will soon be a thing of the past. By 1939, the UNW had as many as 100,000 African members, and Horace Hayden and George Mitchell wrote that year in Black Workers and the Union of Unions, that the UNW was, quote, from the point of view of participation of Negroes, the most important in the country, end quote. One of the earliest modern industrial unions in the U.S., the UNW was the only major union with significant African membership. The most integrated union in the AFL, the UNW under John L. Lewis, led the breakaway from the old AFL to form the Northern CIO. To this very day, the Mineworkers Unions has African local and district officers, and the original constitution provisions still making discrimination by any member around certain The historic place assigned to the UNW as an example of, quote, working class unity and integration is unique. The Negro Almanac says, for instance, quote, 
It has been said that no other CIOE better understood the importance of qualitarian racial policies for successful unionism than John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers. In this union, the common economic occupational hardships endured by all minimized, although they did not eliminate racial differences among members, even in the South. CIO policy ultimately prompted Thurgood Marshall to declare that, quote, the program of this organization has become a bill of rights for Negro labor in America. End of one quote. In the UNW, we can examine tactical unity over a 90-year period in a major industry. The fundamental reality was that African miners and Euro-American miners had tactical unity, but different strategic interests. African miners attempted to pursue their tactical interests while united within separate unionism, helping to organize all miners and thus building a strong union to significantly increase wages and improve working conditions. This tactical unity was very practical and easily understood, but the strategic contradictions were now equally clear while still brought to light. While African workers had a strategic goal of liberating the nation from the U.S. Empire, the settlers had a strategic goal of preserving the U.S. Empire's exploitation of rest nations. The mythology they had, quote, common class interests, proved factually untrue. Since African miners were perhaps 20% all coal miners and the majority in the mines, it was impractical for settler miners to build a union that excluded them. As early as 1899, UNW President John Mitchell told an astonishing congressional investigation that even in Alabama, quote, there were cases where colored men would be officer of local union with both African and Euro American members. One quote continued. I will say there is no difference as far as our organization is concerned. They recognize, as a matter of necessity, they were forced to recognize the identity of interest. I suppose among miners, the same as other white men in the South, there is the same class differences. But they didn't force them to never raise the colored up or they go down, and they constantly have missed together in an organization. End quote. Both Euro American and African miners wanted tactical unity. However, since they had different strategic interests, their tactical unity meant different things to be true. The Euro American miners wanted tactical unity in order to advance their American interests and take away African jobs. In the early 1920s, the UNW in practice be divided into two regions. The unionized North, where most UNW locals in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania use their separate organization to keep African miners out. And the unorganized Appalachian South, where the UNW needed African miners to build this separate union. While the UNW welcomed African workers as unpaid organizers and militants, one white community in the North became organized, very often the African quote, union brothers were told to get out. The 1921 UNW Pittsburgh District Commission experienced African delegates recalling how he and hundreds of other African miners had taken out rifles to join the union's quote, armed marches in West Virginia, complaining bitterly. The end quote. Those other men in the state of West Virginia put their shoulders and shoulders of white brothers, and our newspapers tell us that they have sacrificed their lives for this very moment. I think it looks very embarrassing when a man sacrifices life in this movement, and after the victory is won, then his brother would say, We need you no longer. A livelihood belongs to every man, and when you deprive him of it, you have almost been murdered to the whole entire race. End quote. Richard L. Davis, whom we mentioned as the first African to be elected to the UNW board, spent 16 years as an unpaid labor organizer, not only in Ohio, but in Alabama and West Virginia as well. Finally, he was white-listed, unable to get work from line operators, and unable, despite his legal role, to get either financial aid or paid organized position within the UNW. Living in great want, unable to provide for his children, ill, he finally died of lung fever at the age of 35. He was used and discarded. This is why your own historians write him the best possible example for third world workers to follow. The union actually depended on fighting base of African miners to get established itself. As we discussed earlier, in both 1908 and 1921 Alabama strikes, the majority of strikers were Africans. 76% of the 1920-21 UNW strikers were African. An African miner who worked in Mercer County, West Virginia, for 40 years, recalled, began, quote, The white man was scared to join the union at first around here. The black man took the organizing jobs and set it up. We went into the bushes and we met in secret, and we held all the offices. A few of the white miners were slipped around and held more meetings. After they found out that the company was going to run away, why did they begin to more often? And quite naturally, when they became a majority, they elected who they wanted for their presidents, vice presidents, and treasurers. They left a few jobs as secretaries for the Negroes, but at the beginning, most of all main offices in the locals were held by Negroes. End quote. The UNW's triumph in the mid-1930s meant that at last the Euro-American miners held enough power to defend their separate class interests. Much higher wages, per ton of production royalties for union pension and metal plants, seniority and safety relations, and other benefits all result from this triumph. Today, while underground mining is still very hard and dangerous work, the union mines are highly mechanized and workers regularly earn $20,000 to $30,000 per year. Footnote. In 1980, the President's Coalition said that 233,400 coal miners in the U.S. earned an average wage of $20,000 per year, with average weekly gross earnings of $434. Of these, 50% owned their own homes and had 24% owned mobile homes. 87% owned their own cars and 24% owned two cars. While imperialism is literally destroying much of Appalachia through physical and social environmental dislocation, it is paying high wages in the union mines in order to maintain mass acceptance of policies. End footnote. These are very desirable grounds by standards of the imperialist labor market. Even the weakened position of the UNW since the 1960s has not completely wiped out the gains made. Now that the fruits of successful union struggle have been placed into view, we can evaluate in practice the gains that African miners won by sacrificing to build with the settler UNW and steadfastly united with Euro-American quote union brothers. The gains, objectively speaking, are non-existent. There are no gains because African coal miners have been virtually wiped out by the alliance of settler capitalists as settler miners. Driven out of the industry of tens of thousands, African miners found their share of jobs taken over by their Euro-American quote union brothers. In 1930, African coal miners comprised 22 of the industry in southern Appalachia, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia. By 1960, their share of coal mining jobs in Southern Alaska had been cut to 26%. Even during the boom years of the 40s and early 50s, when tens of thousands of new Euro-American miners were being hired, thousands of African miners were being fired and not replaced. In doing this, the imperialists were really turning out in general policy on colonial labor, restricting its role in strategic industries, and reserving the best jobs for Euro-Americans in order to ensure the loyalty of society. When most coal mining jobs were brutal handling of the coal while working two feet high tunnels, there were many jobs for African labor. But 
was unionization and mechanization raised the wages and improved the work. It became, quote, too good for Africans. And the companies and the UMW started pushing Africans out. Denied jobs operating new machinery. African laborers with 10 years seniority found themselves permanently laid off and were retired. At the same time, as the company would be hiring European teenagers for high-wage jobs on the equipment. The other favorite tactic was to transfer large numbers of African miners into the oldest mines, working them to exhaustion without investing even a penny in modernization, and then closing the work down mine and firing the African men. At the same time, the same company would be opening new mines elsewhere with all white workforce. The United Mine Workers actively conspired with all the mine companies in this campaign against African labor. They would not have otherwise. Today, service mining accounts for over 60% of all coal production, doubled the percentage just 10 years ago. The growing sector of the industry is also the best aid, safest, cleanest, and most humanized. It should be no surprise these jobs are reserved for Euro Americans. Alabama is traditionally the most heavily African area in the coal industry. Yet in 1974, the UNW's District 20 in Alabama had only 10 African members among 1,500 service miners. All Africans are 26% of the area's population. The, quote, blackout of African workers in the coal industry has reached a point where the 1980 report on the American coal miner by the President's Coal Commission, chaired by John D. Rockwell IV, has an entire chapter on the number of miners who produce 3% of coal, but not even one page on African miners. In a few paragraphs, the study praises the UNW as an example of integration and notes that past coal discrimination is being corrupted by corporate civil rights programs. It ends these few words by noting that the coal companies who supposedly like to hire more Africans for these well-paying jobs, but can't find any job seekers. Quote, coal companies intend that a major problem in finding black miners is that many black families have migrated to the larger centers and that few live in the coal fields. End quote. We can see then that the tactical unity of settler and African miners cannot be understood without examining the strategy of both groups. The Euro-American would use that tactical unity to get African workers to carry out the strategy of preserving the settler empire. Some African miners receive tactical gains from this unity in the form of higher wages and better working conditions. But in return, African miners disorganize themselves, giving themselves up to the hegemony of settler unionism. Without disarmed and disorganized, they soon discovered the result of the tactical unity was to take their jobs and drive them out. There are no tactics without a large strategy. And in the U.S. Empire, that strategy has a national and class character. As that African miner so corrupted went down in 1921, quote, the livelihood belongs to every man, and when you deprive me of it, you almost emerge a whole entire race, end quote. Without that economic base, the African communities in West Virginia lost 25% of their total population during 1960 and 70, as families were forced out of coal areas. This, then, is the bitter fruit of, quote, black white workers' unity over 90 years in the coal industry. While such integration was shocking to many settlers, we can now understand why Richard L. Davis was elected to the UNW National War in 1896. He was a chosen, quote, juice goat, selected to help lure African miners into following settler unionism. The UNW Journal reminded white miners at the same time that with his new position, quote, he will in a special way be able to appear before our colored miners and preach the gospel of trade unions, end quote. When African miners in Ohio complained that the UNW was, quote, a white man's organization, they were saying to them, quote, now my dear people, I, as a colored man, would ask you to sell all such ideas, as they are not only false, but foolish and unwise. You have the same interest at stake as your white brother, end quote. While Davis proved his sincerity by literally giving his life to build industrial unionism, it is very hard to see that he was elevated to a high union office by white miners because that actually represented their own narrow interests. He was the misleader, although idealistic and honest, they helped create for African miners. Even today, after the decisive blows have fallen, we find misleaders telling African coal miners that better unity with settler workers and reforming the settler unions are the answers to their problems. The damage in this case is limited solely by the fact that no one can be killed twice. Bill Worthington, past president of the Black Women Association, of miners disabled from bringing gold dust, is a prominent retired African miner. He often speaks at national labor rallies, community and settler quote-blood events, and he shouts out with shameless disregard for the truth of old tired line of settler state lies. Quote, the operators trying to divide black and white, his master ran to keep confusion on the workers. He poor fighting one another. End quote. This is the classic line invented by settler quote-blood to explain away national oppression. In point of fact, African and Euro-American coal miners are not actually fighting each other in the coal fields. Black cooperating with the imperialists, Euro-American miners have forced out most Africans, and now have whatever remains of jobs. African miners have been forced out and are in a difficult position to fight. Imperialists have the gold mines, the settlers have the jobs, and are going to try to hold on them. And the unemployed African workers taking inspiring propaganda about, quote, black white workers' unity. This history proves concretely that the strategy of settlers' assimilation and the tactics that flow from it were incorrect for African miners, and that their true strategic interests lay not only in national liberation, but in developing their own fighting organizations, which alone could defend their true class interests. It was only from that foundation that correct tactical relations could have been made with Euro-American workers. Correct alliances must be based on correct strategy. We also see how the Euro-American aristocracy uses tactical unity and the surface appearance of advancing common good, but only really to protect the privilege and maintain settler hegemony over labor. It is always important to go beneath the surface appearances of such tactical unity, no matter how good it works. In the summer of 1974, United Mine Workers and the Euro-American quote left announced that a wonderful breakthrough had just happened. The union was leading thousands of settler miners to make common cause of the African liberation struggle in South Africa. This was an event so improbable as to surpass anything but the propaganda of the settler quote left. In its June 5, 1974 issue, the radical Weekly Guardian ran a large headline: "Miners halt work to protest South African coal." In the article underneath, they proclaimed that serious action had quote United Workers movement to the liberation struggle. The article details how, quote, nearly 8,000 miners were on one day walkout throughout Alabama, May 22nd. On the same day, 1,500 people, also mainly miners, staged a little rally in common cause of black workers in South Africa. During the day, signs were read, stop imperialism in South Africa, and racism and slavery, and stop the Southern Company. The workers blasted the plans of U.S. energy companies to import coal from the of South Africa. End quote. 
The quote military rally was organized by the Birmingham-based coalition to stop South African coal and endorsed by UNW District 20. The next week, the Guardian ran follow-up material in its June 12, 1974 issue, including a large photograph of a young American man and an African kneeling together wearing minor comments, holding a sign urging, do not buy South African coal. Another photograph showed a young American miner holding a sign saying, oppose racism in Africa and at home. The Guardian further said, quote, times are changing for the U.S. labor movement. When a major union recognizes the unity between struggles of U.S. workers and workers abroad, it is a sharp departure from the usual campaign of the American by American, which has to distinguish the common interests of workers throughout the world. It is even more significant when the U.S. workers are on the South and workers abroad are African. End quote. This was truly unbelievable. How could the UNW have massed other American members who have proven record of white supremacist attacks on African workers literally overnight without a struggle, even converted to pro-carrying internationalism? Yes, the Euro-American quote left was responsible for that violence. Some of the organizations involved in the United UNW were the Revolutionary Union, now the Revolutionary Communist Party, the October League, now CEUSA, and the Black Workers' Congress, some elements from the Southern Conference Education Fund, and the Atlanta African Liberation Support Committee. On the basis of significant quote solidarity with African liberation, the UNW District 20 officers approached the African dock workers in Mobile, Alabama, where the South African coal was to be unloaded, and asked them to join the campaign and not unload the coal. The African dock workers in Mobile refused. At that point, the whole structure seen by the UNW and the rebels blew apart at the seams. It turned out that the UNW District 20 leadership was, of course, totally reactionary and white supremacist. They were, in fact, the labor arm in the area of the Reverend George Wallace, quote, American Independence Party movement. Their settled union had also endorsed the then Attorney General Bill Nexley, who was appealing to Euro-American voters by personally trying to get a death penalty the Admiral Holman brothers. Inside lines, they openly promoted the most vicious race hating. Knowing all this, the African dock workers refused to have anything to do with them. The genesis of that strange charade began with the UNW's decision to fight importation of all foreign coal. The decision by the Southern Power Company to import $50 million worth of low sulfur South African coal was singled out. At that point, the District 20 reactionaries were quietly approached by some Euro-American rivals, who convinced them that by falsely adopting, quote, anti-imperialist slogans, they could trick the African dock workers in fighting to save Euro-American jobs, stolen from Africans, of course. That's all that treasure was about, quote, tactical unity based on settlers' interests. That's why we saw the unreal of racist Italian settlers marching around the sun saying, support African liberation. Frustrated, the claim like unionists turned on the settler rattles and denounced them. Soon, the Guardian and the other settler left organizations had to admit that the UNW leaders were not as they originally pictured them. Even after the UNW admitted they didn't care about any African liberation, but only wanted to boycott all foreign coal to save settler jobs, the Euro-American rattles had to support them. Finally, the UNW miners had to tell the rattles to leave the boycott lines or get tossed out. An article in the September 11, 1974 Guardian said that even though the Alabama UNW was now cooperating with the FBI and the Alabama State Police, the rattle coalition to stop South African coal still wanted to unite with them and still supported their settler boycott. The entire example of the tactical unity shows how strongly the across the nation character of both the settler unions and the settler quote left determines their actions. The settler quote left tried to reach an opportunity to deal with reactionary labor leaders, hoping that African workers could be used to pay the price of their lines. While the settler rivals professed a heartfelt concern with helping liberation struggle in South Africa, we noticed that they were totally unconcerned with the long-standing genocidal attack of the UNW against the economic base Africans in the occupied South. Further, they covered up their settler fellow citizens as much as possible. What is evident is that despite the tactical division between rabid George Wallace's settlers and the rival settlers, their common nationalization as oppressors gave them a strategic unity in opposing the interests of the oppressed. What is evident is that despite the tactical division between the rabbit, George Wallace-loving settlers and the rabble settlers, their common nationalization as oppressors gave them a strategic unity and opposing the interests of the oppressed. After an emotional meeting in their local union hall with representatives from Zimbabwe, the African longshoremen temporarily held off the orders of their local union president and sold for a day in unloading the South African coal. They desired to show support for the liberation struggle of their brothers and sisters in Southern Africa. However, incomplete and still undeveloped, that desire for solidarity was real. But in regards to the attempted UNW boycott, the African longshoremen were firm and their refusal to have anything to do with it. That attempted maneuver was crude and obvious, no matter how lonely the settler rivals wrapped up in camouflage of quote anti-imperialist slogans and postures. The African longshoremen saw right through it, right to strip off reactionary essence. How come all the assorted third world comrades involved in those radical, quote, multinational organizations come to it? They thought they were, quote, communists, but in practice, their political framework of settler supervisionism left them politically civil-minded, unable to prevent themselves from being pawns in the most vulgar white supremacist maneuvers. Exposed and defeated, this fiasco was dug out of its grave four years later, this time by a new crew, the Chinese-American-led Workers' Union Organization, now called Communist Workers' Party. In their campaign for Africans, this group had organized an, quote, African Liberation Support Committee under the leadership of the Stage of African Liberation Day, 1978 rally in Washington, D.C. Footnote, we placed, quote, African Liberation Support they dug up and reprinted the old staged UNW photograph of Euro-American and African miners kneeling together. Even going so far as to say that the 1974 white supremacist UNW boycott gives, quote, lessons for future struggles by its, quote, examples of international solidarity between all working people by supporting African miners, end quote. That old lie four years earlier was revived as evidence to justify another round of integrationism. This organization certainly shows that even an entire group of Chinese, this organization certainly shows that even an entire group of radical Chinese Americans can be indoctrinated into separate ideology. While the ideology has a clear relationship with the oppressed, it is not transmitted genetically. So we see that tactical unity is not just on neutral momentary lines of convenience. Tactical unity flows of strategy as well as media nor is that full unity with Euro-American workers simply the non-antagonistic working together of, quote, complementary, but different movements. Even the simplest rank-of-file reform coalition inside a separate union is linked to strategic conflict of oppressor and oppressed nations.
The alliances formed around five lead revolutionary black workers in Detroit illustrate all this. The rise of the revolutionary union movements in 1967. First, at the old Chrysler Dodge main plant. At Warren, the United Auto Workers, they were aristocracy. The lead represented militant, anti capitalist, and anti settler union sentiment of young African workers in Detroit plants. At least at Chrysler's down main and Elden Avenue, Gear and Axle at LRBW, a monetary majority, support of young African workers against the UAW. The UAW leadership responded with numerous acts of different kinds, from verbal to violence. Emil Mazie, UAW Secretary Treasurer, and the most common figure in the liberal grouping of Southern Trade Unionists against the Vietnam War, denounced the LRBW as, quote, black fascists. He called on your American workers to respond to this new, quote, black peril. His words, quote, we can no longer tolerate the tactics of these young militants, end quote. And when the UAW used direct police intimidation to defeat the LRBW's Ron Marchand for union trustee at Dodge Main, the liberal Southern Union didn't look too much different from George Wallace. But the UAW was different. One of the key ways they reacted to the main lead was to promote alternative, non revolutionary African Unionists. The international UAW had always intervened everywhere in the local unions to keep Southerners in charge. This became particularly important to the gradual rise of African membership. The UAW officially placed Africans then at 25% of the UAW membership. But the breakout of revolutionary leadership in the form of the LRBW had outflanked the European labor bosses. The UAW leadership selectively stopped organizing against those non revolutionary African Unionists who didn't see without offices in Detroit locals. After the LRBW broke out, moderate Africans were elected as the UAW local presidents at Fort Wayne, local 900, Chrysler Forge, local 47, Plymouth, local 51, Chrysler, Mopar, local 1248, etc., etc. So, in addition to cooperating with companies to fire LRBW contrary, using police information, etc., the Southern Union bureaucracy tried to undercut the lead, that is, undercut revolutionary African leadership, which rejected Southern Germany, by advancing alternative, moderate leaders for African auto workers. Footnote. By our Grusine, Arch Lucky, AFLCIO, and Zionism, crowed about this in his article, The Failure of Black Separatism. Quote, Some of the most interesting election papers were won at Chrysler, Golden Gear, and Axel Little 961, and Dow Number 3 in where the separationist Southern Revolutionary Union movement, Elrum, and the Revolutionary Union movement, Drum, have been active. At both locals, Drum and Elrum candidates were handily defeated by Black Trade Unionists who campaigned on a platform of militant immigrant integrationism. And footnote. Now, the League itself had made alliances with Euro-American radicals in the heartlands. Most importantly, they had responded positively to suggestions from the United National Office for a Cooperative Relationship against the UAE leadership. The United National Office was, and still is, the more or less official opposition coalition to UAE leadership, with members from reform caucuses and locals throughout the UAE. It had grown out of the, quote, Dollar Nor Now caucus, a caucus of Euro-American civil press, who were fresh from the media Dollar Nor raised themselves alone. The UNC was organized by Euro-American radicals and had an African he was Jordan Sims, an experienced activist and a reformer at Chrysler's Helen Avenue Gear and Axel, and LRBW Center Strength. Sims, while the revolutionary, had defended the lead in his attempts to win the local presidency. After several election and being fired, Sims finally became a local president in 1973. So this broad, black-white workers' unity had some constructive possibilities. But the world of the automobile alliance is, however important, not the entire world. In April 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. Detroit blew up and set up Detroit Cornwall. In the Detroit white suburbs, gun sales soared as settlers prepared to keep Africans out of their communities. Euro-American housewives were signed up in special handgun classes. A publication associated with the lead reprinted a newspaper photograph of suburban Euro-American women practicing with their new guns and referring to the settlement in unfriendly words. The problem was that one of the settlement photographed was the wife of a leading member of the United National Caucus. Incensed, the sealed Euro American auto demanded that their caucus either break off ties with the black nationalists or force the lead to print an apology. The settlers sealed tradesmen were reaching out that their women had been insulted by Africans. Naturally, the LRBW was unlikely to apologize for pointing out a true fact about Euro American behavior. The relationship between the UNC and the LRBW was off, a casualty of a sudden bold truth that flashed across America after King's assassination. Privately, the leader of the Euro American sealed tradesmen admitted that his people were wrong, that their attitude towards the LRBW was racist. But to principle at that moment, he said, would be to, quote, throw away his years of work founding the United National Caucus and organizing set of auto in doing it. As a Euro-American radical, he was unwilling to see his, quote, rank of file, separate organization, torn apart over their racism. The science continued to be over the principle would be meaningless, since, quote, the league is through. With a smile, he revealed the UNC had been secretly dealing with key African supporters of the league. As an example, he said that at a plan of the forward revolution the UNC had been a league activist, that he split the league and took some of the space of support with him, that together with the UNC's Euro-American voting bloc, they would have enough votes to make him the next local union president. The UNC leader felt certain that with such tactical bribes, they would be able to gradually win over enough African workers to undermine the league. The UNC leader felt certain that with such tactical bribes, they would be able to gradually win over enough African workers to undermine the league. Footnote. The complex reasons for the league's demise and the outcome of the various counterinsurgency tactics against it is far beyond the scope of this paper. This case study does not answer these questions. End footnote. It is interesting that the supporters of the radical, quote, rank and file workers' caucus were busy arming themselves against Africans. At the same time, tactical unity for union reform was being proposed. The most interesting fact that emerges, however, is that this radical led set of caucus, organized to fight the established UAW bureaucracy, was using the exact same tactic against African revolutionaries as was the UAW bureaucracy. Both were working to divide the ranks of African law workers, both promoting moderate African leaders who accepted Saudi Germany, in order to undercut the friendly leadership of African revolutionaries. So, where was the real unity? In earlier chapters, we primarily focused on the larger picture of Euro-American workers in relation to the expansion of the U.S. empire and the development within that of settlerism. Here we examined the politics of settler unions in the workplace and its tactical relations with third world workers. 
What is important about these case histories is that they should push us to think, to question, to closely examine many of the neocolonial remnants in our minds. Both working class unity, of oppressor and oppressed, is both theoretically good and is immediately practical, we are told. It supposedly pays off in higher wages, stronger unions, and more organization. But did it? Some African coal miners did indeed get higher wages, better working conditions, and so on from this unity. But to pay for that, most got driven other jobs. Many African families who once wanted coal now live in exile and on welfare in the north. A part of the economic foundation of New Africa was taken over and occupied by settler workers, acting as social troops of the U.S. empire. It was a national setback. In all this, the UNW, the Union Organization, was guarding only the strategic interests of U.S. imperialism. African miners proved to be without organization, merely prisoners within the organization of their oppressors. Was this just an isolated, untypical example? No. African workers were gradually herded into the oldest, least mechanized mines. Their exploitation helped provide capital for modernization and economic investment elsewhere. And then they were laid off and industries gradually de Sounds like Detroit, doesn't it? What happened to the many thousands of African workers who were once the majority force in the now closed Chicago packing industry? The actual history disproves the thesis that in South America, quote, common working class interests override imperialist contradictions of oppressor and oppressed nations when it comes to practical unity around economic issues. The same applies to the thesis that supposedly ideological unity with the Euro American, quote, left also overrides imperialist contradictions. And hence, even with their admitted shortcomings, they are supposed to allies the oppressed against the US imperialism. Could it be the other way around that despite their practical contradictions with the bourgeoisie, that Euro American workers and indigenous rivals have strategic unity with US imperialism? Most importantly, how has imperialism been so successful in using this tactical unity against the oppressed? The thesis we advance about the settleristic and non-proletarian nature of the U.S. Western nation is a historic truth, and thereby a key to leading the concrete struggles of the day. Self-reliance and building mass institutions and movements of a specific national character under the leadership of the Communist Party are absolute necessities to the oppressed. Without these, there can be no national liberation. This thesis is not, quote, anti-white or, quote, racialist or, quote, narrow nationalism. Rather, it is the advocates of oppressing nation hegemony over all struggles of masses that are building the narrowest of nationalisms, that of the U.S. nation. When we say the principal characteristic of materialism is parasitism, we are also saying that the principal characteristic of settler unionism is parasitism, and the principal characteristic of is parasitism. Every nation and people has its own contribution to make to the world revolution. This is true for all of us, and obviously for Euro Americans as well. But this is another discussion, one that only really takes place in the context of breaking up the US Empire and ending the US assassination. Beginning with long quote. By Pancho Villa. When the new republic is established, there will never be any more army in Mexico. Armies are the greatest support of tyranny. There can be no dictator without an army. We will put the army to work. In all parts of the republic, we will establish military colonies composed of the veterans of the revolution. The state will give them grants for agricultural lands and establish big industrial enterprises to give them work. Three days a week, they will work and work hard, because honest work is more important than fighting, and only honest work makes good citizens. And the other days, they will receive instruction and go out and teach all people how to fight. Then, when the country has invaded, we will just have to telephone the palace of Mexico City, and in half a day, all Mexican people will rise from their fields and factories, fully armed, equipped, and organized to defend their children and their homes. My ambition is to live my life in one of those military colonies, among the Calpineros whom I love, and who have suffered so long and so deeply with me. Francisco Pancho Villa. End of chapter 14, Men of Cyrus. When race burns class, settlers revisit and interview with J. Sakai. In this EC is New African Americans who will and J.S. is J. Sakai. Easy. Settlers, mythology of white proletariat, is a book which had a major impact on many North American anti imperialists. How did this book come about, and what was so new about its way of looking at things? J.S. Settlers completely came about by accident, not design. And what was so new about it was that it wasn't, quote, inspiring propaganda, but took up the experience of colonial workers to question how class really worked. It wasn't about race, but about class. All the people still have a hard time getting used to that. It isn't race or sex as a matter of subject in this culture, but class. Like any radicals who struggle as organizers, I have wondered why our very logical, quote, class unity theories always seem to be snatched out around the ends of the race. At a time, I put my very isolated job on a night shift as a mechanic on the railroad, and was running my car on a parts plant. The young guys in my department were pretty good. In fact, rebellious and culture jokes smoking, smoking all this. After months of hanging and talking, one night one of them came up to me and said that all the guys around me could have a beer together to spend the weekend in the party. They were inviting me and Asian as a way of my joining the crew. Only he said, quote, you gotta stop talking about blacks, you gotta choose white or black, end quote. Every lunch hour I dropped in on a single loading dock, where a dozen brothers sandwiches and had ongoing discussion. About everything from the latest sex scandal to whether it was good or not for a nations to be getting bombs. Some said it was good and the white not wearing their weapons, while others said not the rise of Asian our asses. Plus, I have to believe black revolutionary workers in our area have agreed to help out, since he was facing heavy going from older, more established black local tendencies, various nationalists, the CDUSA, who had great veterans, who shot for militants, etc. And why would I go along with some apartheid agenda anyway? Needless to say, the white young guys hung down for that, but they later came out as a shop steward, which shows you how much BS they thought the was. That kind of stuff, familiar to us all, kept piling up my mind, got me started trying to figure out how to come out in the US working class. So for years after this, I read later history and asked older trade rebels questions about our good. Finally, an artist veteran of all workers who sort of sent strike told me the strike in Jim Bro, and one of the unpublicized demands had been to keep black workers down as only janitors, or out of the plants altogether. This blew my mind. That's when it hit me that the wonderful working class history of the movement had us was a lie. So I decided to write an article, famous writer's solution, on how this white supremacy started in the US working class. I didn't know, maybe it was the 1920s, I thought. So settlers was researched backwards. I knew what the conclusion was from the 1970s, that white supremacy ruled the white working class, except in the self-delusion of the left. Quote, no politician can ever be two races to be popular in white America. It's amazing that true saying. 
Centers of research by going back in time, trying to find out events. At that point, can work with by whites, that is all in racial supremacy. 1930s, 1920s, pre World War I, Black Reconstruction, Civil War, 1700s, 1600s. I kept going back and back, trying water, trying to touch non-white supremacists around. Only there wasn't any. By then, it was years later in our lives, and I had been recruited into the National Liberation Movement's work, and was reading Black nationalist writings. One day, I got a speech in which US whites were referred to as settlers, meaning invaders or interlopers, as in South Africa and Rodesia. Of course, white history always talks about settlers with non political foundations, or pioneers, or explorers, who were the first people to live in the area. Native people, same kind of people, fear of capitalism. They were part of flora and fauna. This was a moment of proverbial light bulb turning on my mind. First chance I got, I asked the UN representative of the African movement if he thought US whites as a society, including workers, were settler oppressors in the same way as Rhodesians, Boers, or Zionists in Israel. He just said, of course. Upset, I demanded to know why he didn't tell more this. He only smiled ironically at me, and I won't even tell you what certain Indian said. So settlers didn't involve any genius on my part, just finally listening to the oppressed from what the actual historical experience about class, finally. From there, it was hard research work, but no conceptual leap at all to see that in general, in US history, the colonized people have been proletariat, while the working class has been the aristocracy. This is in camouflage and capitalist history by retroactively assigning white racial membership to various European immigrant peoples who weren't, quote, white at the time. For instance, when the US capitalists started the, quote, interracial council to promote the drag nationalist integration during World War I, the, quote, races they wanted to bring together were the Irish race, the Welsh race, the Polish race, the Lithuanian race, the Hungarian race, the Sicilian race, the Romanian race, and other Europeans that we now think of as only nationalities within the white race. Shows you how race is not a capitalist manufactured product. So groups who we think of as, quote, white today were considered definitely not white in the past. Like in the West, seal mills, just before World War I, when native born American lost men were all foreign and workers, what was called, quote, white man's work, while well, labor and gangs were made up of, quote, monkeys, Eastern Europeans. Like American workers, who weren't citizens, didn't speak English, weren't considered white, but, quote, Mongolian, who were oppressed like draft animals in small town mines and mills in the northern Midwest, and made us like 60% of the total membership of the early Communist Party. They weren't armed revolution by then, just like against the Tsar, and most of them were actually imprisoned or deported, wiped out as an oppressed class and a national group. It's a long distance in real class, from those oppressed revolutionary women and men, to the middle class peasants and would be commissars of today's left. Settlers go through this real class history. E.C. How is settlers different from racism? J.C.I. This is a useful question, because people are confused about it too. Some people think that, quote, settler, is just a fancy way of saying, quote, white people, and that's all just about racism anyway. Racism, as we know it, and settlerism, both have their origins in capitalist colonialism, and are related but quite distinct. Settler colonial societies started as invasion and occupation forces for Western capitalism, social terrorism, usually in the third world, as Western capitalism expanded out of Europe, into the Americas, Africa, and Asia. Racism, as we experience it today, didn't exist before capitalism, which is not why many revolutionaries see one as requiring bringing out the other. To Europeans, before modern capitalism, the most important races were what we would call nations. Indeed, until well into the 20th century, it is widely assumed by Europeans that even different European nationalities were biologically different and had different mental abilities and tendencies. Slavs were taught to be biologically different from and Jews were taught to be race all by themselves. Pre capitalist and early capitalist Europe was a lot different from our racial stereotypes. It wasn't that Russian invasion didn't exist. Obviously, for example, there was a long tradition of anti Semitic and anti Roman persecution in quote, Christendom. But the cold context of race was unlike what we usually think of. I was astonished to learn that in early 18th century Germany, a leading philosopher, Anton Wilhelm Hommel, who lectured at the University of Halle and the University of Vienna, was a black German, born in Africa. In Africa. He also signed his name in Latin as Amo Gian Africanus or Amo Gian Or that Russia's greatest poet, the 19th century aristocratic Pushkin, was black by American standards, and nobody cared. And in the time of Marx and the major leader of early German black Unionism was also very visibly black, and his part of African heritage accepted. Well, what we've been saying all along is that, quote, race in modern capitalism was originally changed from an undefined difference into a disguise for, quote, class. Capitalism, after all, always preferred to restructure class differences and drag some kind, all the better for relations. Like Northern Ireland, where there is supposedly a, quote, religious or, quote, ethnic bloody conflict between Catholic Irish Republicans and Protestant loyalists. Actually, this is an upfront class conflict between British capitalism's historic settler population, the Pros, and the historic subjects, the Catholics. Both sides European, both, quote, white. The Northern Ireland Protestant settler class has always had a lot of privilege, including best jobs. Sound familiar? Belfast's traditional blue-collar quote big employer, the Harlem and Wolf Shipyard, that wasn't so dominated by Protestant settler workers, but the Shipyard Union called pro-imperialist political strike in the 1970s, closing down the yards to oppose granting any democratic rights at all to Irish black Catholics. Now, of course, the Oslo Shipyard is going out of business, and globalized British imperialism has much less need for their loyal unionist servants. The quote, orange and settlers in Northern Ireland have hated the Irish with just as much crazy viciousness as white U.S. workers hate oppressed. Irish revolutionary Brenda Devlin McCallisey picked up on the same comparison in real class when visiting the U.S. in the 1970s. See, she said afterwards, beginning one quote, it was not very long there until Whitewater, I found my own level. My people, the people who knew about oppression, discrimination, prejudice, poverty, and frustration and despair they produced were not Irish Americans. They were black, were regions, Chicanos. And those who were supposed to be, quote, my people, the Irish Americans who knew about English rule and the famine and supported the civil rights movement at home and knew that partition in England would cause a problem, look and send it to me like orange. They said exactly the same things about blacks that the loyalists said about us at home. In New York, I was given a key to the city by the mayor, and I'm not teasing that. I gave it to black Panthers. End quote. So, settler colonialism usually has taken racial form, but it doesn't have to. In fact, one of the most examples, the Chinese Catholic Empire's constant occupation of death, is all Asian. What we should never lose sight of is that these may be socially constructed differences, but they are real. There's a certain trend of fashionable white thought that claims that race or nation is nothing more than a trick, an imaginary construct that folks are fooled into believing. So, we can find some middle class white men claiming that they've, quote, given up being white. 
I can hear my grandmother saying, more white foolishness with this missing head shake. Needless to say, they have you on anything. Race as a form of class is very tangible, solid, material, as real as a tank division of minority. Tank divisions after all are also socially instructed. About another form of the same white racist game, white New England decided to play as quote, becoming Indian. Women, all red nations, activists, Andy Smith used to really suggest that if they really want to quote, become Indian, they should live on a res, the U.S. colony, without running water or jobs, without keeping the winner or education of their children, with real poverty, alcoholism, and violent oppression. So both racism as we know it and settlerism each had their origins in capitalist colonialism and are related, but are also quite distinct. Settler colonial societies have specialized history because they started as a nation of occupation force for Western capitalism, usually as social garrisons in the third world, as Western capitalism expanded out Europe and the Americas and Africa and Asia. Easy. Some critics have argued that your book suggests that racial issues should take precedence over class issues. Chase Kai. This liberal intellectual polarity that quote race issues and class issues are opposites are completely separate from each other, and that one or the, or the other must be the main thing is utterly useless. We have to really get it that race issues aren't the opposite of class issues. That race is always so electrically charged, so filled with vast power, precisely because of the power of class. That's why revolutionaries and demagogues can both potentially have so much power using it or be earned. You can't see yourself in real politics, not in America, and not in this global imperialism without understanding race. Quote class without race in North America is an abstraction, and vice versa. Those who do not get this are always led around by the nose, but manipulated without a clue. And it is true that they don't want any more from life than this. But why is it race only means seeing all the class issues that find race and charge it with meaning? Why should it be so hard to understand that capitalism, which practically wants to bark over assholes, has always found convenient to color code its classes? When I started high school way back in the days, it was up north, and in theory there was no segregation. But our city school system had five intellectual levels, or quote tracks, from the highest college track to the lowest remedial vocational ed track. In high school, there was 85% black. The top college track never had more than one or two new math rooms. In fact, those classes were literally closed for Jewish holidays. When we started high school, all of us non-white types were automatically assigned to the bottom two tracks, which we only rise out of by quote achievement. Those two quote colored tracks, although there were a few billboards in too, were non-academic, which meant that after four years of attendance, you quote graduated high school. But instead of diploma, you only got a paper quote certificate of satisfactory attendance. This was real good for your slave job as order from a garden factory, my first summer job, the summer school team. But in fact, you could qualify college with it, even if you had somehow managed to get literate. So college education in the last three years just quote accidentally happened to be legally forbidden to most of the Americans in our city. Everyone knew this who wanted to. It was just a fact of life. So much so that when I started working for the neighborhood gang council, some small gangs, but mostly what grew into the local sub gangs of the big vice lords and cobras and tees, as a nerdy ten-year-old, the leader said that they wanted me to go on to graduate from high school, since none of the rest of them would. Obviously, even then, Asians were designated to finish school. Of course, now neo-colonial capitalism has had to be much slicker and share salute, creating neo-colonial bougie classes. Starting a new movement, a new radicalism, we need a better map of class, which means we need to see what's really happening with race just starters. Settlers did that in the U.S. history, particularly for the black Indian white main structure of colonial capitalism here, but that's only beginning. An outline is not a full map. An outline, not a full map. It might be good to tell me this from a different angle, but it's not a let me use an obscure example from my own life, in which race and anti-racism play out a different kind of subtle class politics. A number of years ago, I was trying to help a group of young Chinese-American activists on an anti-racist campaign. This was an interesting case of how I hear, quote, race issue only fronted for class politics. Now these folks were, quote, paper mouse, and every worst way you can think of. And all my friends know that some of them have more feelings to the old chairman. Not only did what they have what now one called, quote, invisible ignorance, but were also arrogantly full of hot nationalism. They did have physical courage, at least. Their project was to the source racism in the famous industrial town of Peking, Illinois, which was originally named in the 19th century for Beijing, and whose high school sports teams were colorfully named, quote, the Chinks. Capitalism, quote, entire amazing civilization. What's next? Auschwitz, the perfume? Every week, the carloads of young Asian protesters who would arrive in Peking to pick a high school in City Hall, hold television news conferences, and keep the issue simmering in the news. You see, the small flaw in the campaign was that all the protesters had been imported from New York and Chicago. There were only eight Chinese families in town, and all were refusing to have anything to do with the anti quote Chinks campaign, not wanting to lose their livelihoods, homes, and be driven downtown by controversy. By accent, not in a global way, I have actually met two vaguely liberal young white guys there. One was a teacher in Madrid High School. The second was the UAW, United Auditors Union, Shaw at the nearby giant Caterpillar Tractor Assembly Plant, which was the main industry. So I thought maybe they'd be persuaded to get some local people to take a moderate wishy-washy public stand. Anything to get the Chinese families some local community power they want to seek out. There was zero local support of any kind, including all unions and churches, of course. When I suggested it to this mouse group, there was a moment of startled stony silence. Then the leader barked, quote, we do not work with white people. Discussion over. So is this a good example of that era of, quote, racial issues being present over class issues? I know some radicals might think that, but they just didn't fake out. First off, to those activists telling it, quote, race was not what was central to their thinking. After all, if those Asian American dudes had really been into either, quote, race or anti-racism, they might have started by organizing and working with the local Asian families. They might have tried to help find some survival strategy for these families, who couldn't just drive off into the sunset after each press conference. Being an isolated Asian family and heavy white racist scene is no joke, obviously. This is just a normal problem in anti-racist work, which folks had to deal with all the time in small towns in the for instance. It also looked true that those Chinese American artists didn't work with white people. They didn't have the time when they wanted, and these saw nationalists even argue for the quote, revolutionary nature of the white working class. What I came to realize was in that situation, they didn't want any broad community support for the Chinese families there, or to let others into quote, their issue. Because they had a really different agenda, which was to get sold public credit for this and other anti-racist issues, so that their little mouse or party could fall into political dominance over the Chinese American communities. 
Later, when they thought it necessary, they even used physical violence and death threats to drive other Asian groups away. They intended to destroy the people of power. In effect, like replacing the palms. These quote paper mouse had a pure class and adult Only it was a bourgeois agenda. Although they themselves might honestly believe what they did was quote revolutionary. They had anti-working class politics, didn't buy quote anti-racism, and left people of color talk. And this house group really did their Andy Warhol like 15 minutes of fame. The only large part because the more dishonest and destructive their quote anti-racist maneuvers became, the more support they got from white middle class liberals and quote progressives constantly. I mean, from many white social democrats, those white anti-Russian quote experts, academic leftists, etc. Those types of suggest those endless joining lectures about quote the working class, which they aren't in and don't get, of course. As a sage comrade of mine always says, quote, like is not alike, even if their appearances are different. This is a more difficult, easy to slip and fall on, even dangerous way of seeing things than radicals here are used to. But I learned it well or lost in a post modern civilization. That dead left way of thinking about quote race and quote class, not only is it radical, it's corrupt and anti working class. Why the giant United Allers Union local down there near Pekin never saw anything wrong with Asian children being forced to school and wise pronounced surrounded by constant references to quote the chinks, was just business as usual for the labor aristocracy in America. In the 1960s and 70s, all those government related American unions fought the elementary civil rights to the nail, including the most liberal, including those run by white quote socialists like the East Coast government workers and West Coast Longshoremen. Many dissenting black Longshoremen in the 1960s and 70s were literally barred from the industry for life by the dictatorship of the settler quote socialist labor bosses, the IWLWU. As outrageous as it may be, those quote socialists, even dictators, who just issued orders that this new Ravin or that Chicano was not to be allowed to work on the docks ever again. Oh, they love Martin Oregon marching non-violently far off in Washington, but they fought civil rights inside industries and unions every bit of the way. It's also true that places in Detroit, Kansas, Flint, New York City, there were small handfuls of matter white socialists and anarchists who cited with black and Latino workers even against their own white left. The funny thing is that for all the constant quote Marxist blah blah about government unions as quote main roads of the class struggle, in our lifetime the ALCI unions have been on the wrong side of about every major mass movement. That's why they've been backsliding with Pat Buchanan and helping legitimize white racism in the current anti-WTO campaign. I guess that's because that's their job. Many people conveniently forget that these business unions were rebuilt to conform to tight capitalist laws and are constantly U.S. government regulated and monitored, have involuntary quote membership, and are about as democratic as the USSR, which had elections, reforms, and repairs too before they broke down under the sanction of primitive capitalist empire. Once workers, quote, unions or free associations were wild or outside bourgeois law and part of the culture of the oppressed. But these genetically modified creations only use the same name. BC. Speaking of white workers, another criticism I have heard is that you are denying that there is a white working class in the United States. Would you say this is an accurate reading of your work, or are people missing the point? Jason I. Now, there obviously is a white working class in the US, a large one, of many millions. From offshore oil to construction trades to auto plants. But it is not a proletariat. It is the most exploited class from which capitalism derives its super profits. Far from front. As a shorthand, I call it the white area. These are insights unique to settlers by means. Unfortunately, whenever Western radicals hear words like, quote, unions and working class, a rosy low glazes over their vision, and the international seems to play in the background. Even many anarchists seem to follow days and magically transport themselves back to seeing the militant socialist workers of our day. <coughs> Forgetting there are the many different kinds of classes in history. Forgetting that Fred Engels himself criticized the English industrial working class of the late 19th century as a, quote, bourgeois proletariat and aristocracy of labor. He pointed out how he taught the non-proletarian bourgeois strata of the English work class. They were the sectors that were dominated by adult men, not women or children. Engels also wrote that the bourgeois sectors were those that were unionized. Sounds like a reading ultra leftist, doesn't he? Which he sure wasn't. So that this is a strategic and not a tactical problem, that it has a material basis in imperialized class privilege, has long been understood when it's willing to see reality. The fact that we have here that take it to not see reality is a much larger crisis than any one issue. EC. Don't some of the benefits of living in an imperialist metropole trickle down even to some of the internal colonies, causing some of the sort of effects of to be replicated within, for instance, the non-white working classes in the United States? JCI. Yes, absolutely. Rebel workers themselves have often understood this, although the official quote Marxist left has always worked to silence them. Way back in the 1970s, two Detroit auto workers wrote a short pamphlet about politics addressed to, quote, fellow workers who began to wonder whether they are going to spend the rest of their lives just asking for more money, end quote. What was so striking about this was that the others, James Bonds and James Parker, who between them had over 50 years' experience in the plants. Strikes, military factory caucuses, revolutionary organizations, black nationalism, mass scale rebellions, they had taken part in it all. One of them, James Bonds, had been a close comrade and co-author of the pan-African revolutionary historian C.L. James. Bonds was one of the leading working class theoreticians in the 1960 Black Revolution. The role of the white racist construction trade unions back then, who were used by the U.S. government as their unofficial goons to be up anti-Vietnam war protesters, was infamous. But Bonds and Parker don't have their fellow factory workers responsibility either. They remind them, and the rest of us, that all the FLCI unions, even the liberal ones, completely backed U.S. military aggression in Asia, the Caribbean, and Latin America. Nor did it stop there, since Bonds and Parker saw the relationship between the opportunism of all the unions and the opportunism of the right U.S. working class. What was so refreshing was that Bonds and Parker expressly rejected the time-worn and worn-out quote, radical argument that U.S. workers are free from all sin, sort of like the ultimate tone of that since supposedly, quote, it is only a sellout by the union bureaucracy, which is half orders in check. Long quote continued. Workers coming to the audience today receive economic benefits undreamed of by their predecessors. These benefits high workers of the company, particularly the high seniority workers. It also creates them a vested interest in a system, which is their growing influence on how they view social reality around them. More and more, they think only about their own interests. They worry only about how to get mine or invest the ours. End quote. The two pointed out how all workers in Detroit refuse to fight for their mass transit, because although they know how much more people need this, being a long quote continued. 
They also think that public transportation might mean fewer jobs for them. This opportunism is clearly demonstrated in dealing with the most important issues of our time, such as the war in Indochina and the inflation caused by the war. The war in Indochina totalized thousands of youths in this country, many of them sons of working class families. But it was the workers and organizations who demonstrated enthusiastic support for the clearly illegal war portrayed by the United States government. Even when other groups in society, especially students, were shown by their actions increasing distaste for the war. Many workers, when challenged individually, would deny that they the war. But at the same time, they refused to take any actions to exhibit opposition to the war, and clearly were hostile to the students who opposed the war. The attitude of most workers was, the president knows best. And in any case, what mattered was their jobs, even if their job were making bombs or making bombs to burn up the enemies. End quote. These guys were seriously pissed off their own class, their brothers and sisters, and not ready to lay it all out. But saying that U.S. industrial workers are not as a whole revolutionary or class conscious, and shout out to Boggs and Hawker, who worked in the Detroit auto factories that were black majority, are definitely not just exposing white area alone, but black workers as well, is the end of the road. I'm not saying that we should forget our working class organizing. What I'm suggesting is that radical working class politics here needs different strategies than the traditional labs understood. Everything that we just discussed clears away all the middle class left underbrush, so people can see the actual path before us and get down to work. Settlers didn't directly deal with all this, naturally, since it's a historical analysis of the oppressive class structure and history. Easy. Would you say that we're within the present day working class is hopeless? J. Sky. We need to talk about how people unthinkingly objectify working classes. It never occurs to anyone to believe that the metropolitan middle classes are going to overthrow a system that privileges them. No one says, quote, the white doctors and professors and managers are the revolutionary class, end quote. Yet, without any class posturing, middle class radicals just organize those classes by anywhere they can, all around themselves. Students just form issue groups, even the most elite universities. Teachers try to open minds to social justice, while even some doctors volunteer to serve in refugee camps or argue the majority of their criminal profession about being healers, not brawlers, or stock market addicts. For better or worse, success or defeat. No big political deal, it's just living the life the meal is set before us. But when it comes to the classes, whoa, then it's all this ideological caca. To believe what we're told, no one should want to organize or educate workers unless they be sure the entire class is bound for glory as the main force of revolution, which you won't see here in this lifetime, trust me. So the white workers as a whole are the revolutionary answer, which they aren't unless your cause is snowmobiles and contractors, or they're like ignorant some you wouldn't waste your time on. Small wonder rebellious poor whites almost always seek out the right rather than the left. There's an underlying assumption that revolutionary movements worldwide share, that's always there for us, that we are part of the working classes. If we live our lives in these communities, hold those jobs, try and live productive lives, not just do capitalist bullshit, struggle in these class situations. We're talking a wide arc here, maybe, but to a point, to how we need to build movements that learn still of the recognition of reality, that understand revolutionary politics as more than national ideology, in more than an academic or reform movement way. If radicalism can build small countercurrent celebration in the overwhelmingly corrupt middle classes, why should similar work be what I'm fighting is a slick quote Marxist or quote anarchist opportunism, which sees aligning with the white side of majority and reform politics as the absolute necessity. Malcolm X, women's liberation, act up and wounded knee too, and Vietnam war, draft card burning, and rapid ecology were all shocking to the majority of North Americans. Radical threats to quote the American way of life, and loudly condemned not only by the majority, but more specifically by white working class. These political offensives by few turned everything upside down. Because in the troublous, radical and democratic change can only come against the wishes of the right majority. That may be tough to swallow for white folks, but reality is just reality. This obsession with being a social majority has nothing to do with being quote practical. What it has to do with is bourgeois and video thinking. This is like the left thinking that could not build up any practical anti-fascist movement in the Republic of Germany during the 1920s, 30s, although millions hated Nazism and wanted to do something, because that German left was too preoccupied with fantasies like seizing or getting elected in state power for itself. That left was too lost in illusions of success, almost within their hands, delusions of maneuvering together in majority, to bother really understanding fascism coming up fast in the rearview mirror. The urgent need was to organize working minority counter fascism in a much more radical way, not by trying to defend liberal bourgeois rule. All the real things that have been done by savage Germany and fascists later after the Nazis were in power, such as to survive politically, to significantly sabotage the war effort, to rescue Jews and Romania and gays, to build underground against the madness of the All these things were adapted greatly, but largely successful, because they had to be done too late from scratch. This is a much larger subject, too much to dive into right now, but it is on the horizon, like the smoke of a distant forest fire. EC. Are the savage societies of North America different from the racist and imperialist countries in Europe, and any kind of fundamental way we should be important to anti-fascists? JCI. Which gets us in some of the ground. I'm not knowledgeable enough on European politics, or on Canada, so that I can do a list of point-by-point comparisons. What I want to do instead is to talk about US society, and readers themselves and see if comparisons make any sense. And yes, I run the fascists of the quote stormtrooper variety, with their grades and I've often assessed uniforms, open venation of Hitler, open talk of quote moderates, etc. I still think of fascist here as a very influence by its birth within a set society, instead of just being some lame copy of the German experience. Just as Israeli separate fascism has a very different look and language than other Nazi tutors, taking a religious one form. The most insidious difference between Europe and America was class and outward form of race. In the century before World War II, the overwhelming mass of the European populations were poor and in misery. They were proletarian classes, the laborers, poor peasants, and oppressed industrial workers. But in the separate colonies and nations, the lowest classes were proletarians, were natives, the conquered, were the imported colonial laborers. While white settlers were automatically, from birth, no matter how poor, a whole level up. As W.E.B. Du Bois remarked about poor white workers in a post-Civil War South, thanks to imperialism, which is why mass of French loans in Algeria solidly supported imperialism against the Algerian people. Why millions of working class and poor whites in segregation in the South were more than willing to help police to kill and terrorize black people. 
And even today, a century and more later, if we left it, left it up to white majority, the U.S. would secede from NAFTA and the WTO all right. And even today, a century and more later, if we left it up to white majority, the U.S. would secede from NAFTA and the WTO all right. And fly the Confederate flag. In many separate societies, historically, the white population not only supported the police, in part they were the police. Unlike in old Europe, where in general the masses of people were kept disarmed and landless, in separate colonies, often the entire Euro male culture revolved around common and cheap access to land and rifles and the bodies of the oppressed. Posses or militias, or committees of correspondence, or lynch mobs armed men enforced the local separate dictatorships, who were Indians, Latinos, Africans, Asians, North Africans, women, etc. And white men of all classes joined in to earn their membership in the most important court class of all. Settlers filled the space of fascism, normal occupants. So in the 1920s and 30s, large fascist movements arose in old Europe of the middle class deadlock and war societies. But in the US then, while there were small fascist groups, and certainly the alternative sympathizers, enough to fill the last story of on one occasion, there were no mass movements of for fascist seizure power itself. Nor was the ruling class close to implementing fascism. The Southern Clare Ops elected fascist coups by ruling class elements against the reformist Roosevelt, New Deal, Colonel Orange Chicago Tribune newspaper, calling the assassination of the president, or to plot the border seizure of Washington using suborned US Marines, were easily shrugged off. There was major US imperial support for Italian, Spanish, and German fascism before and during World War II, as opposed to support for fascism at home. Fascism is distinct from racism or white supremacy, which were only, quote, as American as apple pie. Neither the ruling class nor white masses had any real need for fascism, but for there was no class deadlock paralyzing society. There already was a long-standing, thinly disguised separate dictatorship over the colonial area in North America. In the U.S., settlerism made fascism unnecessary. However good or bad the economic situation was, white settlers were given the best of what was available, which was why both the white left and the white far right alike back then in the 1930s were patriotic and pro-American. Now only white left is. The white left here is behind in understanding fascism. When they're not using the word loosely and rhetorically to mean any repression at all, like the free assertion of fighting welfare is or fascism, and give us a break. You're still deciding the favorite formula that fascists are only quote the pawns of the ruling class. No, that was Nazism in Germany, maybe. Though even there, that's not a useful way of looking at it. But definitely not here, not in that old way. The main problem has been fascism in the old sense. It's in neocolonialism and bourgeois democracy. The bourgeoisie didn't need any fascism at all to put Leonard Peltier away in maximum security for life or Mumia on death row. They put down the Black Panthers and the American Indian movement like it was dear to them, while white America went shopping at all, all without any fascism. And to say you are all the patriarchal violence against women, of rapes and tortures and killings and very effective terrorism on a mass scale, should remind us that the multitude of reactionary men have, quote, equal opportunity under, quote, democracy, too. They don't need fascism, yet. Right now, under neocolonial, quote, democracy, the system of controlling and defining the Black Nation is a fever pitch. Every young narcotic is being shoved and shoveled under the trees of the nation's white wisdom and fetty of parade time. Coke, heroin, all the liquor, bud, crack, the huge 2 million MAD US prison system contains the largest single black community of all. One out of every four black men in Washington, D.C. is in jail, prison, on parole, or probation, or waiting for a direct trial. Or waiting trial, i.e., under direct supervision by a law enforcement system. Even Wilma K. Noble, the new Secretary General designated Interpol, has written that he regularly gets stopped, questioned, and sometimes even searched by U.S. police. In Europe, too, of course. And if the top law enforcement official in the capitalist world gets routinely stopped as a black man for U.S. racial police tricks, yes, what happens to unemployed, to young working class black men? The old black industrial working class has largely been wiped out, and warlord armies and gangs give an informal state permission to rule over much of the inner city by government. A few years ago, I went home with a comrade. When we got off the bus, all the passengers started walking home down the middle of the street. My friend explained that all the sidewalks were, quote, owned by one or another joke gang or dealer, reserved for their crew and customers. You walk to the street, read up, take down by 9mm. While the new black middle class takes us out of the game, flees the old communities, and disperses itself in suburbs. Why would capitalists need fascism? Quote, democracy is doing a job for them, fold the force. And let's not forget that North America has at the same time become a conscience of the world, lecturing everyone else on human rights. How sweet it is. Yes, Leonard Peltier must be president of China. But I'm not saying that the situation is static, or the past history is being raised and rebuilt. All variants of capitalist natural societies are becoming slowly but surely more like Quebec and Raleigh, Tokyo and Frankfurt, as capital develops, expands, and merges. While Western European farmers complain about McDonald's and agro business, they willingly accept the most significant, quote, American decision, the replacement of Western European labor with Algerians, Turks, Albanians, etc. Throughout Europe, the proletariat has been pushed outside of national boundaries socially, just as Euro settlers once did in the third world, and is being redefined as Arab, Filipino, Algerian, Turkish, Albanian, African, and so on. And as Argyria Emmanuel has noted, imperialism is gradually abandoning its own kit and can, its separate societies. We first saw this in Kenya in 1960, where the British settled colony was unceremoniously dumped after the Malmar Rebellion in favor of an African colonial regime. Then in Algeria, where French imperialism gave up on what had been their laws in an actual province of France, and left a million French Algerian settlers to lose their farms and homes and possessions to flee in a friendly mass evacuation. Capitalism has no loyalties after all, only interests, to paraphrase Francis Sisson. It was only then that the Colognes and their military sympathizers sought end to French bourgeois democracy to start a new fascist interlude. Even in North America, settlers are being pulled by imperialism to move over and make room for new immigrants from Asia, Latin America, Middle East, and Africa to pay the bill as the state gives back some land and operations and tax concessions to new nations. And they certainly hate it. So there's a certain convergence of settler and non settler nationalism societies seeming more alike. In the US, the increasingly global ruling class has no need of domestic fascism so far. But white mass politics is not confined to taking phone calls from the ruling class, far from it. Easy. How do you view the rise of far right, specifically the American far right? Chase Sky. We can see that neo-fascism is a growing factor in U.S. politics. It's still harder to argue more significant than, say, white Marxism. 
The far right is Luke Shronov, represents so much mass sentiment, but his military electoral champion, Pat Buchanan, as the only hero of some trade unions, and the closest ally of white socialist anarchists in the anti-WTO campaign. For more details on the right wing the left in the anti-globalization movement, see My Enemy's Enemy, published by Anti-Fascist Forum. And again, to understand this dynamic, we have to lay aside 1930s political formulas and take the social reality in a fresh way. We're taking the bay and his comments, quote, tools of the ruling class, when they dusted the federal building in Oklahoma City. This fine style and the big bourgeoisie pulled the strings behind the militia movement, as it spreads doctrines, tax resistance, seizing federal land, and targeting the imperial state as white man's main enemy. You'd have to be neither there to believe that. The old, quote, pawns of the ruling class, 1930s analysis of European fascism, do not apply right here in the old way. This is too big a subject for me to go into fully here, but the broad outline is obvious. The far right is known steadily, moving on the offensive, as white settler society itself is fragmenting and being forced to gradually give up old national form under immense pressures from the new global imperialism. In this fragmentation, some sectors and classes of the old settler society are now more open to neo-fascism in their desperate search for a new civilization for themselves, in which they will still be masters of the land. While in Europe, the much larger fascist current has manifested itself by violent attacks on immigrant labor and on demanding a concept of the old nations. In the U.S., the new right is primarily concerned with attacking the U.S. state itself, using both armed struggle and mass political organizing, and founding new self-governing cults and societies. That is to say, it is an emerging revolutionary movement, albeit a small one. The left has little data contact with fascists because they are in different classes, live in different geographic areas, and are in diverging societies. In the best of real fashion, this new right is bypassing major cities with their mass federal populations, corporate economies, and large state machinery. Rather, their focus is on winning de facto power inside marginalized white male populations. Romeoville, Illinois, rather than Chicago, prisons rather than Ivy colleges. There's the restatement of the early settler vision of setting up independent outposts of racially cleansed culture on repioneered white land, with heavily armed bands of once again masculine white men who chance the mercenary U.S. authorities. For a period of time, we can see both the white fascist right and the white left working in geographically separate cultures on the vast continent grow without impinging on or really clashing with each other. But mostly, white quote free movement campaigns in old major cities and the quiet ouster of other agents from Western lands. The old right 1920s land, or the 1960s white citizen councils, or Minutemen, or Jewish Defense League, were patriotic and pro U.S. groups. They saw themselves as quote saving the traditional America and often cooperated closely with and were led by business, police, the FBI, and government officials. In a major reversal, the new far right is radically anti American. It sees their white male settlers' empire of quote America, sea, shining sea, as really lost. It sees taken over by subhuman millions of the quote mud races, its economy drained by the quote two banks, and the alien corporate economy, its culture polluted by hostile genetic containments, its most proud citizens increasingly without rights, and dictated to by the shell of the former quote U.S. government, which is now the quote Zionist occupation government. And while the masses in Serbia are not fascist, neither are they anti fascist. And the hardcore of the far right is very fascist, since neo fascism represents the basic ideology that the aspiring white London bourgeoisie need to restart and reorganize as part of the society as their own private fiefdom. The U.S. Constitution doesn't work for them. Just as Trujillo and Losich, who were once U.S. patriots and quote socialists, when that met their class interests, turned to neo fascism and genocidal ethnic nationalism to be quote born again as a local quote London bourgeoisie under global imperialism. Take the David Duke phenomenon. As we all know, in 1990, Louisiana State Representative David Duke ran for the U.S. Senate. In losing, Duke still won a large majority of the statewide white vote, some 57 percent. This highest percentage of votes came from white workers with incomes under fifteen thousand dollars a year. This is the fact that Duke was and is notorious not merely as a racist, but as someone who has spent his entire adult life as a very public neo-Nazi organizer, propagandist, and leader. He was always out with Republican and Democratic parties, and the church's civic and business organizations. The entire media machine kept exposing and criticizing him, repeatedly running old photos of him in his American Nazi party uniform. Yet, if it wasn't for the black voters, David Duke, native fascist and general, would have emerged as one of the most powerful politicians and in the U.S. Senate. You can see why granting black people vote was so important to U.S. imperialism, and why white masses were carefully never given a chance to directly vote on it. For sure, the growth of fascism here has many class contradictions of its own, and their area future is far from certain. But it is significant that while masses of Euro Americans are not fascists, being neo-fascists is quietly acceptable to many of them. Today, the radical future is divided into those who, whatever strategies and ideologies, recognize that fact, and those who so wish to avoid facing it. End of article.